This is Audible. Podium Publishing presents The Cycle of Oron, The Complete Trilogy Written by Edward W. Robertson Read by Tim Gerard Reynolds The White Tree, The Cycle of Oron, Book One Chapter One It was the dog's fault Dante was about to die. The ruins of the chapel hunched behind him, hiding the man who'd soon kill him. Because of the dog, he was thirty miles from Bressel, ten from the nearest farm, and a world away from help. Despite his isolation, he didn't doubt his body would be found. Corpses had gravity, as if the vapors released by death were starkly visible to the mind's eye. If the man who'd attacked him didn't find his body lying in the cold grass and colder wind, a farmer or a pilgrim would. But they wouldn't know who he was. He'd be a body, a nothing another lump on the surface of a world too large to understand. He sat up in the grass, pain rushing down his side and thigh. The chapel was supposed to be abandoned. Instead, he'd found a guard waiting inside its walls. The man had cut him, badly. He'd been lucky to escape into the fields with his life. Blood gleamed dull black beneath the overcast sky. Dante's stomach cramped. He fell back into the grass, panting, tears sliding down his temples into his hair. He caught his breath and shrugged off his cloak. It tore easily, too easily, would never have made it through the upcoming winter. He bound his wounds, tying them tight, grimacing against the dizziness and nausea. Wind hissed through the grass and pines. He tested his leg and found that he could stand. It would be stupid to go back inside. Dumb like a severed arm is dumb. But the man lurking in the temple wasn't a looter or a squatter. He was a guard. Guards, by definition, guarded. The man wasn't there to protect the chapel itself. That had been torched during the third scar. The following century of weather and vandals had ruined the rest— Stonework rubbled the field, cracked rocks fuzzy with moss. Holes spotted the pitched roof, darker than the clouds. The Temple of Aron was four generations and a hard day's walk removed from the last time and place anyone had cared about its god. It was a cold night, and the sporadic rain was colder still. And yet there was a guard. Dante was onto something. He drew his knife and crept toward the chapel, smelling the tall, wet grass as it soaked against his legs. Nothing moved except the wind-stirred trees. He touched the damp stone of the wall. He felt his way forward, fingers trailing the wall. After a few steps, they fell into empty space. He froze, breath catching in his chest. That moment of cowardice saved his life. A man coughed from so close Dante could smell his breath. The guard emerged from the hole in the wall into the cloud-occluded starlight. His sword hung from his hip. 
He gazed into the bobbing pines, most likely imagining the boy he'd cut up not five minutes before, curled beneath the cold boughs, heat and blood slowly ebbing from his body. The man wandered into the grass. Dante pressed his back against the wall. He waited for the guard to take another step, then lunged forward and slashed at his hamstrings. The man screamed and fell. He rocked in the grass, clutching the backs of his legs. Dante danced back and wondered what the hell to do next. Get back, the man yelled. Dante found himself. He pressed his boot against the man's ribs. Where is the book? What book? I'll cut your throat, Dante said. His voice caught. He swallowed. You'll be a body in the woods, eaten by badgers. I don't know of any book. The guard poured a bloody hand at Dante's britches. If there was anything here, they took it back north long ago. Then why are you here? Your health? The man started to speak, then took a long, shuddery breath, squinting at Dante's face. How old are you? Would you ask death his age? Dante said, and felt immediately foolish. I'd say he looks about fourteen. I'm sixteen. My name is Dante Galland, and if you don't tell me where you keep the book, I'm the last man you'll ever see. I'm telling you, it's gone. Return to Narashtovic, where men don't want to burn it. Dante knelt and dug his knife into the guard's smooth-worn leather shirt. The iron tip clicked against the man's breastbone. The guard sucked air between his teeth, eyes white and watery. Dante gulped down a wretch, withdrew the knife, and hovered it over the man's heart. I hope its secrets are worth your life. Stop! The man wriggled his shoulders, pushing himself into the sodden grass. It's in the basement, downstairs. I didn't see any stairs. Third row of the graveyard, fourth stone. There's a ladder underneath it. I haven't seen anything down there but candles and prayer books. I drank all the wine. But if there's a book, it's down there. They stared at each other in the damp autumn air. Dante couldn't leave the man here. It would be like cleaning a deer. Focus on the knife's edge. Keep your fingers out of the way. Work fast. Concentrate on the cut. Wash up when you're done. But dear didn't talk back. They couldn't call you a murderer. Dante steeled himself and poked the blade between the man's ribs. You promised, he gasped. And you tried to kill me. Dante drove down hard on the hilt. The guard bucked, legs thrashing, knocking Dante off balance. He grabbed the knife's handle again and leaned on it with all his weight. The man went as slack as a summer pond. Dante's stomach spasmed. He felt a thousand feet tall. He wanted to die. He was frozen, stunned, waiting to be smited by the man's god. The wind whispered to him through the needles of the pines. All this for a dog. He'd seen it. Just that summer, its body lay on the bank of the creek miles upstream from his village. Short, skinny trees grew so thick around the stream that you could barely see the sky. One of the dog's paws dangled in the water. Its fur was clumped with blood, its eyes shut, legs rigid.
flies whirled around its nose and lips, a noose trailed from its neck. Its death was a stain on the face of innocence. Dante shrank behind a birch, gripping its smooth, papery bark. This was his place. There was nothing between it and the village but marshes and ponds. A few hills with grass on their crowns and trees in their folds. A couple of shacks, too, but their roofs were staved in, homes to no one. You could hunt it, perhaps. It was common ground. But it was otherwise useless land. Unless, like Dante, you had a thing for exploring. He spent whole days following the creek, turning stones over in its quiet pools, throwing pebbles at water striders, poking at snails to watch them suck into their shells. He was too old for such things. He knew that. He just didn't know where else to go. Leaves crackled thirty yards upstream from the dog. A man in a bright male shirt stepped out from the trees and knelt beside the water. He cupped his hand, drank, and flopped back on the bank to pluck burrs from his black cloak. A silver icon clasped it around his throat. The emblem rayed like a tree or a star. Finished, the man stood, stretched, and started downstream toward Dante. The man's hand whipped for a sword. Dante breathed through his mouth, rooted in place. The man stalked forward and stopped over the dog. He hunkered down and prodded its throat. The stream splashed along beneath the clouds. The man drew a knife, put it to the dog's throat, and sawed briskly. Dante tasted bile. The man pulled the now-severed noose from the animal's neck and tossed it into the creek. He then touched his knife to his left hand. Blood winked from his palm. The air blurred around his hands. Small, dark things flocked to his fingers, moths or horseflies or bad ideas, black motes that clung to the blood sliding down his wrist. They congealed into something round and semi-translucent. The man lowered his hands to the dog's ribs. The ball of shadows flowed into the motionless body. He fell back, smirking and pressed his bleeding palm to his mouth. The dog kicked its legs. The man in the mail shirt got to his feet. After a faltering, stiff-limbed try, so did the dog. The man scratched its ears. It whined. The man laughed. Still whining, the dog backed up the bank and limped into the trees. The man belted his knife, glanced down creek, and followed it into the woods. Through all of it, Dante could sense what was happening the way he could smell cold or feel a shadow on his skin. When the dog shivered up to its feet, that was the world showing him just how big it really was, and that if he wanted, if he wanted to wield what the man in the bright mail had drawn from the air, he would have to come find it. Half-dazed, Dante ran back to the village. No one there had seen the man come through. When Dante turned and gazed at the creek winding its way out of town, the woods and fields looked pale and common. The snails and water striders were just bugs. Dante went to bed and couldn't sleep. 
When he was a child, his dad had made lights dance in his hands, told stories of playing bodyguards for dukes, of hiring on with ships and using his talents as a soldier doctor. That route was technically illegal. Only royals and the church could employ the ether users, but it wasn't the law that had taken his father away. Nine years ago, the man had sailed west. He'd stayed there. Perhaps he'd died along the way. In the morning, Dante worked up his nerve and asked the monk who cared for him about living shadows and a silver star or tree. The monk's face grew distant. After a moment, he explained that before anyone now alive in Malon had been born, shadow-wielding men carried the Book of the White Tree and worshipped the old god Aron. But they'd been burnt out of the land, the men and their books, during the Third Scar. The monk had once read a fragment of the book. The rest was lost to the ruin of the past. The monk retreated into the monastery in search of his notes on the fragment. Two weeks later, Dante went to Bressel in search of the book itself. There he spent his pennies buying beer for the capital's archivists and churchmen. One mug at a time, Dante learned the book wasn't a sort of recipe of spells, but the holy text of the Aronites, quite comparable to the Calavar of Gashen or the Silver Thief of Carvajal. The scholars and priests agreed that all known copies had been burnt, but that, if any remained, they could be identified by a cover bearing a white tree. That had been it. Dante ran out of money, ran out of ideas. Empty-handed and out of options, he tracked down one of the temples and headed into the woods. The wind surged through the trees. A strange chain connected him from the dog to this place. Because of it, a man lay dead at his feet. He wiped his knife and hands in the grass and headed around the back of the chapel. Gravestones dotted the swaying grass. The fourth stone of the third row was flinty and black and flat. Dante nudged it with his toe, then dug his fingers under its lip. He strained against the stone and pivoted it into the weeds. It revealed a hole hardly wide enough for a man to pass his shoulders. Dante squinted into the gloom. The trapped air smelled musty, faint with the human odor of sweat and skin, the scent of another man's house. He shrank back, fighting a sudden terror for what lay in the darkness below. It wasn't anything as certain as eels, or as vague as monsters that slunk through the outlands of his imagination, but something in between. Pale things with tentacles of squid, the intelligence of men, and the cruelty of the stars. He leaned over and spat, counting two before it splattered. So, it had a bottom. The rungs of a time-smoothed ladder descended from the starlight into the blackness. Dante dropped his legs over the edge and scrabbled for a rung. The ladder creaked. Hand over hand, he descended, armpits slimy with sweat, until he stood in a circle of faintest light at its bottom. Dante owned two things worth stealing. The first was his boots— 
The second was the only thing his father had left him before sailing into death or waters too warm to leave. He took it from his pocket. A torch stone. A small white marble. He held it in his palm and blew. It warmed and glowed. In the soft light, dust caked the slanted shelves along the walls. Dante poured through moldy cloth, water-spotted braziers, foul-smelling candles. A patina of age coated everything, greasy and yellow-gray. There were two shelves of books. Dante's heart leapt, but they were all copies of a common prayer manual he'd seen in the library of Bressel, and the vendors in the binding district. He stuffed the least mildewed in his pack anyway. He swept through the basement, wall to wall. He turned in a circle, hunting for anything he'd missed, then went through it again, piling up the junky relics in the middle of the room and prodding the shelves and drawers for hidden compartments. What he'd taken as a stool turned out to be a scuffed-up chest. He smashed its rusty lock with a brick and was rewarded with three sludgy bottles. With waning patience and waxing despair, he searched the small basement a third time, moving as slowly and carefully as he could make himself go. At the end, he wandered to the circle of starlight and gazed up the ladder. It would be dawn soon. At some point, the guard's relief would find the body cooling in the yard. Maybe not for days, but for all Dante knew, a second guard had arrived already and was already scouring the grass for the killer of his friend. Dante was wearing down, too. The scabs of his cuts dribbled blood with every too quick gesture. He was tired and thirsty and sore. The sphere of light shrank back toward the torch stone. In thickening shadow, Dante sat down on a desk. It was too big to have been lowered down the hole as it was. They must have brought it down in pieces and nailed it together in the cellar. His hope contracted with the light. The first frost would come any day. He'd used up half his cloak for bandages and didn't have a cent to replace it. If he went back to Bressel, he'd starve and freeze. If he returned to the village, he'd regret it all his life. The stone flickered, throwing the room into deep shadow, revealing a crease in the shelves near the ceiling. Before Dante could be certain it was there, the light blinked off for good. He shuffled across the blackened room, candlesticks clattering away from his feet, and bumped into the wooden shelves. He climbed to them until he could press his palm against the cobwebbed ceiling. He'd seen the crease just below the top shelf. He scrabbled his fingernails against the coarse wood. They slid into a crack. Splinters drove under his nails. Bit by bit, he pried the false top away from the shelf. With a high-pitched groan, it fell away and whapped against the floor. He smelled dry paper and earthy leather. Dante reached blind into the crevice, heart beating hard. There couldn't possibly be anything lurking inside. There was no chance he'd feel a sharp tug and pull back one less knuckle than he'd started the day with. His fingers brushed over a flat, pebbled surface. It was the first thing he'd touched down here that wasn't dusty or greasy with neglect.
he lifted the object loose. The shelf he stood on snapped in half. He hit the ground hard. His hip and shoulder roared with hammer blows of pain. He waited for the egg to fade to a dizzy tingle before he tested them for breaks. His limbs moved freely and without fresh hurts. By right, the four should have left him broken-legged or paralyzed, trapped in the ground beneath the graves. He shouldn't have even made it this far. Except for dumb luck, he should have died two hours ago, struck down by the guard. His body splayed outside the chapel, wounds long done bleeding, body held down by the wind and the clouds, until it merged with the dirt. But his bones weren't broken. The guard hadn't killed him. He was bruised and weak and leaking blood from his side, but the thing in his hands was a book. He'd held onto it as he fell. After he hit the ground, now he stashed it in his pack and climbed back up the ladder. Up top, he got it out once more, turning it to face the charcoal-clouded starlight. On its cover, a pale tree spread its branches into the darkness. The white tree. Barden, the monk had called it. Supposedly, it was as real as the hills and stood in the twilight valley at the north end of the earth. According to the monk, even when they talked, Dante had been skeptical. Wasn't it convenient that it existed so far away? It had sprouted from a god's own knuckle. Instead of bark and leaves and wood, it had grown of bone and bone alone. Its knotty trunk hewn from thighs and spines, its long limbs, the arcs of ribs, and the knobbly curls of fleshless fingers. Instead of flowers, it budded teeth. Book in hand, Dante laughed slowly, spooking himself. Why not just paint a bunch of flames around it, too? Or bind it in skin and ink it in blood? That would be no less ridiculous than the gleaming bones on its cover. Yet there was something to it. He could feel its weight, its age. When he closed his eyes, he thought he could feel the power the man in the mail shirt had used to raise the dog from the creek. Goosebumps stood out on Dante's neck and arms. He packed away the book and hauled the heavy gravestone back over the pit into the cellar. Ragged black mountains hung to the west. To the east, Bressel was a full day's walk for a well-rested man. Dante slunk into the woods shuffling along the rutted path hidden beneath the grass. As the sun rose, his legs faltered. He balled himself under a squat tree, shading himself from the itchy light of morning. Before he slept, he gave himself one last look at the book. Exposed by the daylight, the tree looked less absurd, less melodramatically morbid, and more like something that could be waiting in the wilds, if only the world were a slightly weirder place. He'd wind up standing beneath it within half a year. Chapter Two The funny thing about robbery, Dante thought as he crouched in the filth of an unlit alley, is how little the concept of property meant to him once he'd started going to bed hungry. So the watch could hang him if they caught him. 
That didn't mean he was wrong to do it. That just meant he shouldn't, under any circumstances, get caught. What kind of rule was so weak it had to be backed up by death threats? Who cares about being hanged when the alternative's starving? And if they really didn't want robbers in the city, why did they build their alleys exactly like the fish pens that funnel careless salmon into waiting nets? He heard footsteps at the other end of the alley and shrank down further. The moment the man passed, Dante clubbed him above the ear with the polished horn of his nice hilt. The man dropped, voiceless. As Dante stripped the body of its purse and the pair of rings on its right hand, he noted the man was still breathing. Good for him. The penalty for Dante, if caught, would be the same whether the victim lived or died. He didn't understand that either. A man of lesser principles would be tempted to kill the man he robbed so he couldn't be identified to the watch. Dante opened the man's jacket in search of a second purse and saw the taut-laced buckskin badge of the Tanner's Guild. He frowned. He didn't want trouble with Gilsman. They were too close to running the city these days. He hurried to cover the unconscious body with some shredded rags he'd found among the other garbage, then left the alley in something less than a jog. The walk from the chapel had taken three days. He'd managed about ten stiff-legged miles the first day, then no more than two on the second, before he collapsed at a waterway so small it was more puddle than lake. He lay down on its cool banks, moaning and burning, and whenever he closed his eyes, the crystal-clear faces of men and women he'd never seen swam in his mind's vision. When the fever broke early next morning, he shuffled over the roots and rocks toward the city in the east, stopping frequently for rest and water. But he reached Bressel before sunrise, and immediately spent the last of his silver on a room for a week. He haunted the corners of its common room those first couple days, snaking from the safety of the wall to nab meat and bread when their owners' heads hit the table, or when they swayed off to find the privy. That had worked until the boy who worked the mornings threatened to throw him out if he caught him again. Dante nodded, face stony as he suffered the threats of a kid who couldn't be more than fourteen then retreated to his room to pass the day throwing his knife at the rats that skittered across the floor. It was a pointless task, though. He knew he'd never work up the courage to spit them and set them over the common room fire. Robbing from there, and after what he'd done at the chapel, came easily. His nerves had threatened to give out on him on his initial try, but when he left his first mark in the forceful slumber in the shit-caked gutter of an alley, he wondered that it took so little effort to turn things they owned into things he owned. An average purse could feed him for a week, and this was just the money people carried around for luxuries and whims. What did they need it all for? He limited his own expenses to food, room, and candles to read by, but he knew he could have more if his interests had been in things instead of the book. Whatever authority had given these men their wealth was no more substantial than the power of a rabbit's foot. It felt good to carry, but when things went bad, it turned out all you were carrying to protect you 
was a lump of meat too nasty to eat, and the knowledge that somewhere a bunny had left the warren and never come home. He walked on. Bootsteps rasped from behind him in the alley, and he started. He fingered the knife beneath his doublet, but let it be. Men who showed blades without a landed title or writ of the Guild of Arms were taught the things a whip could do better than a sword. Dante turned onto an arterial road and huddled in a doorway until the man passed without a glance. He knew he'd been jumpy lately, but how else should he act after a killing, the possession of a banned book, and multiple acts of armed robbery? It sounded terrible when you said it all at once. Most of the time he carried it lightly, knowing any deed done out of necessity couldn't be wrong— but other times he was struck by an emotion so powerful he wanted to cease existing altogether. At those times he muttered to himself, walking through the streets as if in a dream, drowning in the memory of the short shouts of those he'd robbed, the slackening face of the dead man at the temple, the snore-like expulsion of his last breath. It was clear he couldn't go on like this. It wasn't how he'd meant to live when he'd left the village for Bressel, but it was what circumstances had forced him to do. His only hope was with the book. If it could somehow teach him what the man in the mail shirt had known, he'd no longer have to look over his shoulder at every footstep or risk his life in the alleys just to keep from starving. His thoughts on how that power would help him were vague. He could hire himself out at the courts, he supposed. But he knew that once he had it— the opportunities of great men would find him on their own. The book was dense. Not just in the literal sense of its thick-as-a-brick eight hundred pages, but dense with dozens of unfamiliar places and names, with warlords and sorcerers and tales he dimly remembered hearing as a child, clotted with huge but bizarrely precise numbers like 432,000, stuffed with scores of words from a language he didn't recognize. Even its title was gibberish. Dante found some references to the book's people and places in the other book he'd taken, the prayer manual, but three or four hours of careful reading and cross-checking would let him read no more than ten or twenty pages of the book itself. Yet, when he tried to read it straight through, he found he'd absorbed nothing more than an occasional phrase or, more often, an illustration. He went to bed angry, handling the words in his head for an hour before he could fall asleep. After three days of sluggish and haphazard reading, he understood he didn't know a damn thing, and set to copying all the foreign words and names out of the forty-odd pages of the book's first section. He bought a ream of paper and a bottle of ink with a week's price of food, and spent a full seven days in the library at Bressel, the onion-domed, marble-faced structure meant to gather the wisdom of the world. It was well-stocked, he found, for works composed in the fifty years since its founding, and he filled his blank pages with the histories and places in the book of the White Tree's beginning. The foreign words remained obscure, similar to the dialects they spoke up in Gask, he thought, maybe an archaic form, but far enough apart to render the study of Gaskin useless. Many of the book's stories reminded him of Menok, the mopey old god of grief and blackbirds. Dante had always thought its followers were a joke, the kind of guys who groaned through the streets, 
whipping their own backs with supple reeds to remind themselves of the agony of the physical world. They just had to shove it in your face. He thought they could learn a thing from the supplicants of Urt, the more fanatical of whom spent twenty-three hours a day sleeping and meditating in dark rooms with planks hammered over the windows. Its saints had been known to seal themselves in barrels for months at a time. Most faiths, he thought, could stand to learn the virtue of keeping their devotion to themselves. He bought the collected cycle of Menuk from a run-down storefront in the book district, and then a clean, simple doublet and trousers, so he wouldn't be thrown out of the monastery's open archives before his second foot hit the threshold. Then the money was gone, and rather than scavenging at the inn, he robbed again, splurging that night on roasted beef. He woke mortified at his opulence, vowed to skimp through the rest on bread and cheese, and spent the day rereading that first section. At its conclusion, he felt closer to his desire, as if this time he could see the shadow of what the wise man was supposed to glean from its contents, and here and there he even felt elevated by a glimpse of a world much wider than the one he'd known. Still... He felt helpless with idiocy, like understanding the book was like trying to move a mountain with a bent fork and two broken arms. And he slammed the cover, after marking his place, and pounded to the common room, where four cups of ale floored him. He woke, flushed and sweaty, sicker than the day after he'd been at the crumbling chapel, and wasted the day sipping water from the comfort of his bed, amazed that men could spend a life at the drink. After that, when he saw men drooping over the smoky tables, shambling outside to vomit on the street stones, he curled his lip, hating whatever weakness caused them to poison themselves that way. It took another week of eye strain and the glares of white-haired monks to find a match for the words he'd never heard. Narashtovic, an old language, a dead language, indeed from the north, from the kingdom of Gask's earlier age, seen now in little more than the Frostlander's convoluted laws and nonsensical meal rites. No dictionary, of course. They didn't even have such a thing for the local language of Malish, other than a few vanity projects by wealthy men with no other diversions. But Dante found enough matching words to know he'd found their source. And there, the law stopped. Nobody had books on all that old junk, or if they did, they were clapped away in the private libraries of nobles and the obsessive collectors of the Scribes' Guild. For now, Dante set his search on hiatus and returned to the cribbed script of his stolen book, a book he now knew was named The Cycle of Aron. The mere act of finding its name shed fresh light on the first section that had so far given him such trouble. That night he read with mounting excitement, beginning to understand that Aron was a god of death who didn't in any way seek it, a notion that ran heretical to those who'd won the third scour and denounced Aron as a bloodthirsty monster ever since, but was nevertheless the undeniable interpretation of the text. This time, when he finished those first forty pages, 
A chill of something close to ecstasy ran up the base of his neck. He had proof that at least one thing the other sect said was dead wrong. What else had he been taught on the basis of a mistake? How many lies had Dante taken on a faith that would prove unfounded? Did anyone know anything at all? Or finding times when the truth didn't suit them, had they all been repeating falsehoods and nonsense for so long they no longer remembered what was fact and what was invention? In his enthusiasm, he nearly brought it up with a monk of Menoch he'd become friendly with, thinking his learning would be greatly hastened by a man who'd spent his life studying such things. But Dante had the sense to ask questions about Iran would be to invite a slew aimed back at him, and it wouldn't be long after that he'd be locked in the stocks, and the only thing aimed his way then would be airborne cabbage and the stroke of the lash. He already had enough attention. Since the night in the alley when he thought he'd been followed, he often saw a face in the morning when he ducked into the library, and the same face waiting for him when he returned to the street in the afternoon. They'd pretend not to notice him, but when he passed to haggle over pennies on a loaf, there they'd be again, gliding up to a stall like one of the flat-bottomed boats taking port in the river. Even in his new clothes, Dante couldn't be mistaken for rich. He looks like an apprentice at best, possibly a young scholar out on an errand. He might be easy enough to rob, but he hardly looked worth the effort. Nor did he know a single soul in town, wasn't old or important enough to have earned any enemies, excepting the guard at the ruined chapel, and he was too busy rotting to hold a grudge. But for however little sense it made— People were following him, and every day he spent in the stacks, he sweated buckets into his formerly clean clothes, certain his knife would slip from his waist as he bent for a book, and out him to the monks who hovered over their written treasures like robed dragonflies. Yet he didn't dare leave his room without it. The attack came the night after he translated the title. The blow should have killed him, but he saw the flash of steel and moved with a quickness he hadn't known he possessed to raise the Book of Menach like a shield. It, too, was thick, bloated with footnotes and appendices and interpretorial digressions, and the attacker's dagger buried itself in the cover and stuck fast. Dante met the attacker's eyes and saw he wasn't a man, but a kneeling, the sharp face and elongated muzzle meant for cleaving the waters of the marshes and tide flats, the bumpy, translucent, toad-like skin, the thick glaze of a third eyelid over its wide and watery eyes. Web-footed things from the western archipelagos, they made good sailors and decent wharf-rats, and though their light bones put the biggest of them in Dante's weight range— when the merchants of Bressel's bursting docks could hire three for every one real man, there were times on the wharfs when those froggish faces outnumbered their captains and mates ten to one. No one asked questions when they ended up dead, either, something that happened more and more the more they crowded the city and found themselves enmeshed in the crimes of the hated and despised. The thing gave a panicked grunt when it saw what had blocked its blade. Dante had two inches and ten pounds on the kneeling, and when he twisted his book, the dagger popped from his hands without a fight. He lashed its knee with his boot and put a thumb to its throat as it fell, knife held high in his other hand. 
Wrong book, Dante said. It bared its pokey teeth at him, watching his knife. How did you know? Its hairless brows pinched together, and Dante felt a pure instinct to cut its throat. They told me to follow you. How did they know it was me? Dante Galland, it said. His mind hung. Probably this creature had no idea who they were, but they had Dante's name, and they knew his rounds through the city. The kneeling's half-sphere eyes bulged in the hatchet of its face, and a base anger kinked in Dante's guts. He brought his blade across the kneeling's throat, and a hot fan of blood spat over his hand, and he jumped back and squealed. He wiped his hand on the thing's jacket, then wiped his blade, and by the time both were clean, it was dead. Steam curled from the gash in its neck, from the pool spreading beneath them on the grimy cobbles. He picked up his book and stashed the creature's dagger under his shirt. It was late and the streets were empty. He stuck to the broadest ones, the ones with oil lamps dangling on the corners. What few men he passed ignored him. By the time he reached the inn, he understood. The error hadn't been telling the chapel guard his name. It was in not making sure the man had stopped breathing before Dante left to find the book. The common room was stifling, full of braying laughter and clanking earthware. Dante paused at the bar, staring at the casks and cups. You're poison, said the keeper. Keep it, Dante said, starting. He trumped up the steps and locked his room and braced a chair against the door, for whatever good that would do. He sat down on his straw pallet, shaking from his shoulders to his toes, and set the two blades out beside him. Twenty minutes later, he'd reread five pages of the cycle of Aron and couldn't remember a word. He spit on his fingers and snuffed his candle and opened his shutters to the street. Men stumbled down the thoroughfare, concentrating hard on keeping themselves upright. None of them raised their eyes to the shadow of his face in the dark window. By morning, the men of the chapel would know their agent had failed. Dante woke with a jolt. The light through the open window was gray, fuzzy. He was freezing. There was something he was supposed to do. He pulled the coarse blanket over his face, then opened his eyes wide, heart galloping. That was it. He was supposed to run away. He gathered his minor library, shoved the books and bread and dagger into his pack. He took his candles, his coin purse, and his spare set of clothes, dressing himself in his new ones. Already they were dirt-streaked, sour with old sweat, but at least they had no holes or patches. He wrote an obscenity on a piece of paper and put it on his pallet. Then, worried the innkeep might find it before the men of the chapel came here, snatched it up and crumpled it into his pocket. Dante liked the keep, didn't like the thought of the man's jowls drawing up at the kid who'd left his room a mess and insults as his only goodbye. 
He left the inn and made a loose spiral around the old quarter, giving himself time to sort out his thoughts and watch for pursuit. The cool air and light morning breeze off the river kept the stink of the city to a tolerable horror. Already men plied ox carts toward the docks, or scurried between districts with wax-stamped letters in their hands like the blades of angels, or dragged themselves home to begin sleeping it off. Dante didn't see anyone trailing him, but he knew he couldn't stay in his room. Nor could he leave the city without losing the resources he needed to understand the book. Where else could he go? The village? They were morons. He could count the ones who could read on two hands. The woods would be safer, but the men there lived like animals, preying on foot traffic like wolves, rotting like dogs, and dying when their short wicks burnt out like rats. So he'd stay in the city, try to lose himself in a place where he couldn't carry a proper blade without being arrested within the day. Not that he'd know how to use a sword, even where he licensed— he was more likely to cut off his own fingers than fend off the swords of whoever the chapel men sent next. And there would be others, bought with heavier coin than the kneeling pawn, men who knew more about fighting than how to run and how to lay in wait. He paused at the corner of a broad avenue that led all the way to the docks. If all it took was money, why not hire an armsman of his own? Someone who could wear a blade without the watch hounding him for his papers. Bressel was huge, bulging with trade, and with it, foreign merchants with more money than friends. The Guild of Arms was growing faster than all but the shippers. If these people wanted their book back so bad, let them try to take it from the kind of security only silver could buy. The sun hauled itself above the mists of the horizon, stuck behind buildings that sprung from two and three stories to four and five, as Dante made his way toward the docks. At the end of the arrow-straight street, the thin pikes of riverboat masts bobbed in the swells. The roads clogged up with people on foot and single riders and the clop of teamed carriages. By the time he reached the vast markets that crowded the shores all the way down to the mud banks, the roofs of the warehouses reared to eighty feet above his head. Dante hunched his shoulders, gazing at them as if he could hold the looming walls upright by force of will alone. He turned a corner, and the babble of commerce clobbered his ears like thunder after the flash. Men clustered in loose knots, shaking pages in each other's faces like the paper were no more valuable than leaves scraped from the gutter. Courtiers banged in and out of the doors of shops and warehouses that stood without a foot's room between their undecorated eaves. Mounted retinues jounced through the throngs, and the throngs parted without looking up from their business. Dante noted, with no small embarrassment, he appeared to be the only one phased by the yammering crowds. He wandered around the square, not knowing where he was going, but with both eyes out for the crossed swords of the houses of the Guild of Arms. He found the first with little trouble. 
Men lounged at the walls of its mostly clear court, oiling their swords, occasionally shoving themselves upright to tangle blades for the benefit of the traders, who were easily distinguished by their dress, a bizarre confusion of flower-bright colors and the plain practicality of travel wear. Dante threw back his head as he approached, trying to mask his face with the same professional detachment he saw in the eyes of the merchants. One armsman stood out at once, a well-built man somewhere around thirty, though to Dante's eyes everyone over twenty looked the same. His face and arms scar-crossed but intact, a couple shades duskier than most of the olive-toned Bressel locals, like he'd come up from the Golden Coast. After a moment's indifference, he glanced Dante's way, and Dante nodded. "'What's your fee?' Dante said, folding his arms. The man raised a brow, and Dante knew he'd made a mistake. Two chucks a day,' the man said, referring to the silver of the late Charles III that had displaced most of the old coinage. "'And bored.' Why don't I just buy a horse and an armada while I'm at it? Dante reeled. He shot a glance at the waist purses of the nearest traders. Well, you'll need something to get you around once the nails fall out of those boots. The armsman spat between his teeth. Maybe you could saddle up a dog. Go to hell, Dante blurted. He turned his back on the laughter that followed eyes stinging. At the next yard, a smaller, louder, and more crowded affair, he hung on the edges, watching the exchange of money before he asked any questions. He thought he'd robbed his way to a respectable sum, but the traders tossed purses so bloated they could crush a cat. For a while, he just wandered, browsing past a half-dozen houses of prohibitive expense. The sun climbed. He began to sweat. Hollow-stomached, he came at last to the freelancers, the few too feeble to represent the name of the Guild of Arms. Dante'd seen plenty of healthy, battle-hardened men this morning, but if he'd never seen a soldier at all, he'd still know at a glance why these men were on their own. They ranged from the doddering old to the beardless young, Sixty-year-old men with grey in their hair and weakness in their arms, mingling with needle-thin boys who looked like nine-year-old girls. The handful of fit age would have been put down if they were horses. Patches over scooped-out eyes, pinned-up sleeves, bouncing limps where their tendons had snapped in a battle and never mended. Where the men of the guild proper had spoken through the clash of their swords— these rejects called to him in phlegmy voices like common marketeers. A young enough man peeled from their ranks and swiped a few left-handed cuts in the air in front of Dante's face. His right arm stopped just below the elbow. When he gestured, the smooth ball of his stump swung as dumbly as the blunt head of a turtle. What's your price? Dante said, skipping the formalities he'd seen the merchants make. Decorum ended the moment you considered hiring an armsman who only had one. Two chucks, the man said, and Dante rolled his eyes. Per week, plus board. Is that so? He sighed through his nose. He could actually afford that, so long as he kept up his late-night rounds rolling drunks. 
but he had the notion he'd be getting exactly what he paid for. He glanced around the freelancers, searching for a stone in the rough, not a diamond, but maybe he could find a decent quartz, a smooth piece of glass. In some way, the presence of a bodyguard was more important than his skill at guarding. If nothing else, it would give Dante a few seconds to run while his man was being stabbed to death. Still, they were so damned old, so damaged, and the couple who were young and whole didn't look like they'd be any better in a fight than he was, and that wasn't much at all. Risking his life in the alleys for their pay seemed counterproductive if the help he hired were entirely decorative. What's crushing your junk? That's a bargain by any measure. Dante turned to the voice and met a pale boy whose face was apple-smooth. How old are you? he said, making no effort to conceal his frown. Fifteen and a half, the boy said. Dante burst out laughing. And a half? What are you, five? Plus ten and a half? A real veteran, Dante said. You don't look like you'd know the sharp end of a sword if it were stuffed up your ass. Yeah, well, your mother's still got teeth marks on her tit, and not all of them are yours. With nothing else going on in their overlooked yard, the other ungilded men chuckled, gazing on Dante with bloodshot eyes. He flushed and gave the boy another look. He had an inch and several pounds on Dante, despite being a year younger, though that still left him smaller than most boys his age. But he had a broadness of shoulder that might someday make him a decent soldier, if he could grow past his ludicrous wiriness. He had close-cropped blonde hair, and obviously didn't need to shave. His clothes were time-torn, worse than Dante's old set, thick with the black stitches of mending and too short at his wrists and ankles. With a decent diet, and another two, three years, he might be in the yard of a real house. But Dante wasn't a horse broker making investments, he was a kid with a price on his head. If he hired this bodyguard and waited three years for the boy to grow into himself, Dante had the sense he'd spend two years and 364 days of that wait in the grave. What's your name? Dante said, readying himself for something to seize on. An odd gleam entered the blue of the boy's eyes. Blaze Buckler, he said. What? I said it's Blaze Buckler. Blaze Buckler, Dante said. He'd meant to win the crowd with a big laugh, but found a real one instead. He chortled stupidly. Did your dad read a lot of romances, then? When your mom heard that name, how did she not murder him, just strangle him with your birth cord? The kid's hand settled on his hilt. My dad earned his name with his shield. I'll live up to mine. With your belt, maybe. But for that, you'll want to head a little farther down the docks. Blazer's face went red from brow to chin, and he pressed his lips together so hard they disappeared. The whisper of steel cut the men's laughter short. Dante stared at the boy's drawn blade, far too late to call for the watch. They might be out for him anyway. Blaze raised his arm and threw the sword behind him, and before Dante had time to look past the hand he'd lifted to protect his face, as if it would help against killing steel, Blaze sprung, tackling him to the ground. 
They rolled in the dust, grappling too closely for their punches to dole out any real hurt. Blaze landed a sharp sting to Dante's nose, and his mind blanked with rage. He got a grip on Blaze's waist, meaning to drive him to the ground. But the boy dropped to his knees and turned his hips and flung Dante onto his back. The boy's knees pinned his shoulders to the ground. He wriggled back and forth, kicking his legs and bucking his shoulders, but he couldn't free his weight. Could only slap weakly at Blaze with arms he couldn't move above the elbows. Instead, he fell limp, breathing hard. Blaze jerked his head at Dante's face, as if he meant to batter Dante's brains in with his own skull, then caught himself and leaned back. He got to his feet, brushing dust from his knees and back. Do you even realize how stupid it is to try to beat up your clients? Dante said from the ground. Blaze bent to pick up his sword and laughed through his nose. Wasn't much trying involved. You took me by surprise. So take another shot. Two weeks, Dante said despite his anger, speaking from an instinct he didn't understand and would have overruled in another moment of thought. Longer, if you execute your service well. I'd hate to disappoint your lordship, Blaze said. He scratched his ear and gazed down on Dante as if he were considering whether they were actually bargaining for his dignity, then offered Dante a hand and hauled him to his feet. He followed Blaze inside their cramped office and signed a paper, had it stamped, and parted with half his cash. A week's food and lodging in a single room on the edge of the dock slums wiped out the rest. But he had his guard, someone to watch his back while he studied and roamed. And he bent back to his book, alive for a while yet. He moved from the book's first section to its second, allowing himself one new page of the cycle for every chapter of the background and supplemental works he ploughed through so the men and places of the book might make sense. He deciphered a foreign word that cropped up on more pages than it was absent from. Nether. His spelling could be off, and Lords knew he had no idea how to pronounce it in the original, but it was the antonym of ether, at least— the words the priests used when they yacked on about the celestial firmament while everyone else twirled their fingers beside their ears. Now that he had this word, certain passages that had been hopelessly obscure were now just uselessly mystical. The ether stretches to the nail of the sky and meets itself in the dim caverns below the earth. In the time before time, it was the substance of all things, the water that suspended the stars, the air that made the breath of the gods, the same in all the four corners of the world. Men lived without hunger or death, but the ground grew heavy with their teeming number, and when the mill of the heavens cracked from their weight, the waters broke forth and dashed them upon the peaks. Oron took up the mill once more and set it upon the pole in the north, but when he tried to patch the cracks, he tore his fingers on the shattered stone. He reset its course, but when he made it grind, he found it would grind only nether. When he mingled this dust with the dust of men, 
They rose with murder in their hearts, remembering how they doomed the sky. On the surface, that was just a crazy pile of words, no less arbitrary than any of the other explanations he'd heard through the years for why things were the way they were. Bad, usually, but as he read and reread, patient and disciplined in a way he'd never been, taking his time, not because some daft instructor insisted he should, but because he knew he'd always been a sloppy reader, and this was the only way to penetrate the book's hoary legends and lessons. Dante had the unflagging sense he was moving toward a higher understanding, though he didn't yet know what shape it would take, or even exactly how he was getting there. He was taking more from the book than a base memorization of its tangled narrative, that was for certain. It was like the very act of confronting the confusion the book was stirring in his mind was making the view of the world he'd held before he started reading it seem laughably small. However naked it might leave him, he felt ready to leave it behind, throw it away like a pair of pants that had grown too small. Dante looked up from its pages and into the mildewed timbers of their room, giving his eyes a moment to rest before he turned back to the beginning and started over again. Blaze worked something loose from his throat, spat it from the window, and leaned out to see if he'd hit anyone. Boredom doesn't bleed, you know, the boy said. Dante went on staring at the ceiling, lost in whether the book meant the ether and nether as real things, or if they were more a metaphor of some sort, and if so, of what? Take the names. Was nether more important because it encompassed ether, or was it less important because it depended on it? Or were they meant more as antonyms or compliments? Already he'd read them so often they'd begun to lose all meaning. He glanced at Blaze, realizing he'd said something a minute ago. Is that what you needed a bodyguard for? To protect you from dying of boredom? Boredom doesn't have a heart. Well, other than church. But I can't stab boredom's heart, I mean. So if it was all this boredom you were afraid of... Blaze went on in the leisurely manner of someone used to long days of sitting around killing time while he waited to be hired. I don't think I can help you. I'm not afraid of anything, Dante said, squinting at him. And it's not boredom I'm concerned about. Maybe you hired me to fight that chair that sunk its teeth into your ass. I'm in danger, Dante dropping his eyes back to the page. Of bed sores, maybe. Blaze leaned back in the window frame he used as a recovery nest from the late-night sentry duty he pulled in the common room, keeping close eye on the beer. He let out a long breath. Four days cooped in this room and whispering in libraries. I haven't seen a thing. I think my sword's rusted to its scabbard. He planted his hands on its grip and mimed being unable to pull it free. Gods, no! You're being paid for it, aren't you? Is someone chasing you? That it? From whatever village you ran off from? No. Probably a priest's son. Blaze said, tugging at his lower lip. Nobody cares that much about scripture, unless he needs to prove Dad wrong. He's probably trying to drag you back to the chapel and bring you upright. I'm not a priest, son, Dante said, 
going back to the beginning of the paragraph he hadn't been able to read through Blazer's prattle. You're right, a priest would come with lawmen, not daggers in the dark. He squirmed on the sill, staring at Dante through the dusky room. You stole something. Bread, maybe, Dante said, bringing a hand halfway to his chest. He kept his eyes on the text. Oh, more precious than bread. No baker's got the time and money to be chasing after some kid. Not that he wouldn't hang you if you had the chance. I'm trying to read. Blaze made a thinking noise. It's just money, isn't it? You've been rolling drunks in the alleys. Everyone's got to eat, I guess. But if you've got the watch after you, I think I've got a right to know. Dante looked up. Blazer's face was blanked by the lights shining behind him through the window. Why do you think that? Dante said. You are! You're stealing. That's rich. No pun. How did you know? I guessed, Blaze said, prodding the sill with a small knife he kept around for apparently no more than paring his nails. Dante laid a finger in the book to mark his place and swiveled in his chair. No, you didn't. You're right. I followed you. You followed me? The chair banged against the boards of the floor as he stood. Blaze regarded him a second, then turned back to his nails. The money had to come from somewhere. It's not like you do any work. You followed me? Isn't that what I said? Blaze stood up and met Dante's eyes. Gashing, swinging balls. You spend all day in here reading, then the one time I can be of any use, you're out sneaking around by yourself. What am I protecting you from? Paper cuts? What am I doing here? Dante frowned, his self-righteousness draining away. He hadn't thought about what Blaze would think about their arrangement, but he sounded awfully proud for a fifteen-and-a-half-year-old beanpole, who Dante knew he could probably beat up in a fair fight. It's not just stealing, Dante said instead. What else? Robbing? Maybe some larceny? You talk a lot for hired help, you know that. You're not paid by the word. Blaze rolled his eyes and sat back down in the window. Whatever. It's your money. You see this book, Dante said, not caring he was shouting. He leaned over the windowsill and shoved the image of the white tree in Blaze's face. No, why don't you bring it a little closer? I took this from one of the old temples of Oran. They want it back. Looks spooky enough, doesn't it? Blaze flicked the cover with his nail. Who's after you? A bunch of ghosts? That would explain why I've never seen them. Dante glared at him. A dark speck swam over his right eye, and he blinked until it went away. He no longer knew what he was trying to prove. Conversation had always felt like a strange art, and in the weeks since he left the village, he'd spoken no more than was necessary to buy things. That and the threats he'd made about the book to the guard. You're being stupid, he said. You're the one talking about getting murdered over a book. Just be quiet, Dante said. He righted the chair and sat down and opened the book. He stared blankly at its first page, massaging his temples with one hand.
So what's so special they'd want to kill you for it? Blaze said at half the volume of their last exchange. He dropped from the sill and craned over Dante's shoulder. Get off me. I'm not on you. Well, don't breathe so hard. Stop breathing. Have fun dragging my corpse out of here, then. Dante smirked into the clean white pages. If the book had been there since the third scour, it had to be a century old or more. Other than a bit of residual dust, it showed no signs of age. It wouldn't be the first. Oh, sure, Blaze said, pulling upright. He wandered back to the window. And I'm the Queen of Gask. I killed two people before I hired you, Dante said. He realized he'd meant it as a boast. His hands curled into fists. Well, one. One of them must not have died when I stabbed him, and the other was a kneeling. You killed a kneeling and stabbed some guy? Why haven't you been knighted? Dante half heard him through a memory of the pain-clenched face of the man he'd left for dead in the grass beneath the clouds. Blaze saw his expression and gave him a sharp look. What was it like, then? He said, voice lined with irony, in case Dante was kidding. I don't know. Come on, tough guy. They both tried to kill me first. That's not what I asked. At the end, Dante said, rubbing his finger along the pebbled leather of the book's cover. There's a kind of gurgle, a bubble of their final breath, and you wonder how they lived so long at all. Sick, Blaze said. He drew his sword and swooshed it through the air. Why do people have to die at all, he said. But he kept swinging his sword, slashing the space between himself and Dante, air whistling over his steel, like the wind in the pines. The sun had dropped into the jaws of the western mountains before the monks kicked them out of their cloisters a few nights later, suggesting if Dante had such interest in their order, he should speak with them rather than poring over old manuscripts that really didn't reflect the modern understanding of Menoch. Dante thanked them and made vague noises about doing so. Crazy old idiots. How could the gods change when they were already perfect? The door to the room at the inn creaked open while Dante was still trying to insert the key. His breath caught. Blaze shouldered him out of the way, side sword ringing as he wrenched it free. He edged into the room, leading the way with the point of his blade. The only room Dante could afford was little bigger than one of the monk's cells, and even before he lit a candle, it was obvious there was no one else inside. Their few possessions were scattered on the floor, the table tipped on its side, books thrown from the shelf, lying face down with their pages spread like the bodies of birds. The pallets had been gutted, scattered from corner to corner. Funny, Blaze said, stirring the spilled straw with his sword. I don't remember wrecking up the place. They were here, Dante said. The kid shuttered the window and turned to face him. For the book. Do you have anything else worth a pair of pennies? Could have been thieves, Blaze said, eyeing him. I hear you can't walk down an alley in this town without bumping into one. Grab your stuff. 
Okay, he said, and stood there. Done. Dante ignored him and started scooping up his gear. He smoothed the pages of the tossed-off books and piled them in his pack. You're serious, Blay said. Very. What, some hired thug comes poking around and you light out like a rabbit? If that's what rabbits do, then rabbits are smarter than you are. Dante bundled up his dwindling supply of candles. Senselessly, some appear to have been struck in half. It really could have been vagabonds. It wasn't vagabonds. Well, if you're so sure it's some shadowy cabal, doesn't running away mean they win? In what sense, Dante said, raking up the last of his notes, can I be said to win if I'm beheaded in my sleep? Now I don't understand that at all. Blaze glanced at the open door, then shut and bolted it. What about standing your ground, sword in hand? I don't have a sword. Symbolistically. That's for idiots, idiots who don't know anything. Dante stood and looked around for anything he'd missed, dismayed at the sight of his old clothes shredded and mixed up in the straw. He liked wearing them when he could get away with looking like he'd been run over by a herd of pigs. Let's go. I know plenty, Blay said, setting his mouth. He put his sword away, but kept it loose in its sheath. They bustled down the stairs. My dad knew how to read. Do you? What's your point? They exited the inn, and Dante led them up the larger of the roads that crossed outside. The evening had grown brisk, and their breath billowed from their mouths in a visible fog. A team of horses rattled past, forcing them into the gutter. The heat of the animals' bodies rushed past them, followed by a flickering wind that grew steady a moment later, like the team was dragging a stormhead behind it. We're being followed, Blaze murmured a few minutes later. Don't look back. Do you believe me now? Anyone who didn't would be some kind of moron. After a quarter of an hour of brisk walking, Dante began to get winded. Blaze seemed fine, and Dante tried to keep his breathing quiet. His brain wasn't working well enough to take advantage of the fact that they were relatively safe for the moment. The arterials carried decent traffic yet, and would for a few hours more. He stepped over a reeking puddle, and was glad for the minimal lighting of corner torches and the half-moon. He had to think. They couldn't just walk forever. We can't just walk forever, Blaze said. Yeah, I'd figure that out. They'd follow us wherever we go. They've got to sleep, too. Even if we somehow gave them the slip tonight, do you really think that's going to stop them? Blaze glanced briefly over his shoulder. They found you twice now. Dante touched the knife in his belt. Bressel's big enough to get ourselves lost in. Oh, that's worked so well so far. Well, what do you suggest? He spat, then looked around to see if anyone had heard. The street was quiet. A few brisk footsteps and the occasional clatter of a team or the reeling song of a drunk. Stand and fight, Blaze said, resting his hand on the pommel of his sword. Once we don't have anyone right on our ass, we'll have plenty of time to figure out our next step. That's crazy. Is it? 
You've killed people before, haven't you? Why run this time? Dante shook his head, feeling pale. You're just a kid, and the only thing I know about fighting is it helps to stab them in the back. We'd be slaughtered. Then let's do that. Getting slaughtered is not a plan. Stab them in the back, stupid. Dante frowned. I suppose you think we just hide in an alley, then jump out and say boo. It beats waiting for them to catch us. Blaze glanced behind them again, brows knitting. At least we take them on our own terms. How many are there? Dante pressed a palm against his right eye. The black speck was back. Two? Three. There's another trailing a block behind the first two. Those are not the world's greatest odds. Well, make a decision. If we just keep walking, eventually we're going to turn down the wrong street and that'll be it. Dante shook his head. He never should have stayed in Bressel. For all his reading, he still couldn't do anything. For all the times the book's authority had made him feel holy, it wasn't like learning about history and creation stories that contradicted what he'd been taught would help him stand against armed men. There weren't any instructions in it. Nothing about the proper way to sacrifice a calf to gain a godly blessing. No words of power, no maps for a pilgrimage to sacred lands and artifacts. The male-shirted man had been real, but Dante's hopes were faint as smoke. There were men after Dante now, men who knew how to kill, and he was nothing more than another kid from the middle of nowhere. Shit, he said. God's damn son of a bitch. That about sums it up. I can't keep doing this, Dante said. My luck's going to run out. Once we get rid of them, I'm running as fast and as far as I can. Blaze crooked up half his mouth. I've got strong legs. Dante shook his head again. Money runs out in a few days. I don't think that will stop them from sticking cinders under my toenails and chucking me in the river when I can't tell them where you've gone. Gross, Dante said then shut his mouth. If Blaze wanted to throw in his lot with Dante for a while longer, that was his business. So what's your big plan? You strip down and run at them naked while I circle around behind them. Shut up. When we get to this corner, Blaze grinned, we make like we just saw them. You know, get all scared and shouty. Then we run down this alley and hide. When they run past us, we jump out and stab them. That, Dante said, is a really poor plan. You've got better. Not at all, Dante said. They reached the corner a moment later. Blaze stopped and turned in a slow circle, gesturing broadly at the landmark of a finger-thin spire in the heart of the city. Dante caught on, shrugging like a stage actor. Blaze glanced back down the street, dropping his jaw when his eyes settled on the men following them, then cried out, and darted for the dark mouth of the closest side street. The heels of his boots disappeared into shadow before Dante had the presence of mind to run after him. The footsteps of pursuit rang out immediately from so close behind him, Dante didn't know whether they'd have time to hide. From twenty yards down the alley, Blaze looked back, then seemed to blink right out of existence. Dante's mouth went dry. A ruse. He'd run off, left Dante as bait to make his escape. 
Then a hand snaked from a doorway he hadn't seen until he'd gone by it. Blaze yanked him from sight, and they huddled in the dark, struggling to slow their panting before the men rounded the corner. Here, Blaze whispered. He handed Dante the little rat sticker he'd been carving the windowsill with a few days ago. I've got these. He brandished his knife and the kneeling stagger. There weren't much, but next to Blaze's offering, they looked lethal enough. Throw it at them or something. Boots echoed down the narrow-windowed walls of the alley. Dante couldn't catch his breath. The grey figures of three men strode by, swords in hand, and he made a rodent-like peep. He felt Blaze's hand on his shoulder, and then he was being pulled back into the street, and his hands were shaking so hard he was sure he'd drop both knives. Blaze lashed his sword from its sheath and raked it across the back of the trailing man. The others spun, points raised, and Dante cocked his arm and hurled the knife. It winked in the moonlight, then somehow hit and stuck in his target's shoulder. The man shouted and yanked it free, hurling it back at Dante, but he threw it like you'd throw a stone, and its butt bounced from Dante's chest. The third man closed with Blaze, and they circled like crabs, trading exploratory strikes. Neither of the other men were exactly giants, but they were full-grown, and as Dante's opponent recovered and menaced him with his two-foot blade, he saw how much each inch of reach meant in a fight. Dante pulled the dagger from his belt and waved it in front of him, wondering how it would feel when he lost his hand. The black moat was back in his eye. He battered at it with his left hand, narrowly avoiding putting out his eye with the point of his knife, and the man across from him laughed and swung. Dante ducked, hearing the sword whine over his head. Blaze fell back under a harsh assault and bumped him in the shoulder. His man swung again, and when Dante blocked it with the dagger— a sting jolted up his arm so hard his eyes fogged over, and he couldn't tell whether he still held his weapon. Blackness spread across Dante's eyes, rushing over his vision like ink poured on quiet waters, and he cried out, feeling no pain and not even having seen the man's killing stroke, but knowing he was dying. He heard cursing then, which probably wasn't uncommon in hell— but also the oafish shuffles of men who've gone blind suddenly and without reason. Dante dropped to his knees and heard blades whiffing the air. Beneath him the earth felt solid as ever. Steel clanged into a stone wall. As he'd passed from the world of the living to this confusing netherland, Dante'd had the presence of mind to keep Blazer's location fixed in the map of his head, well enough to know the boots scraping a few feet in front of him weren't the boys, and, touch returning to his shock-numbed fingers, enough to know he still held his dagger, he struck out, blind but no more than everyone else, waving the short blade back and forth somewhere around knee level, stabbing out at every stutter of the man's steps. His first swipe missed. The second landed and glanced away, and the third dug deep into yielding flesh. He heard a shriek and screamed back as the man folded into a heap, clubbing Dante's outstretched arm with his falling body. Dante launched himself forward, 
arms held in front of his chest to prevent himself from being gutted if the guy had his weapon ready, but landed on the man's unguarded torso. He stabbed down with both hands, knives tearing through soft things and thudding into bone until the body's blood was sopping from his fingers and dripping down his face. Not six feet to his left, Blaze and the last man struggled, and he heard the tentative squeal of their swords meeting. The man under Dante's knees was dead enough to stop worrying about. He stabbed him again, tasting bile, then flopped back on his ass. He'd lost track of who was Blaze and who was the last enemy standing. Loose gravel grated under his trousers as he scooted back. His eyes grew damp, and then... The darkness shimmered in a way he'd only seen light do. Two silhouettes faced each other, blades straining. And then they were whole under the moon and the stars and the torchlight trickling from the main street. Dante planted a palm on the dirt and buried his dagger in the attacker's side. The man twisted away, flicking him across the chin with the very end of his sword. Blaze leaned into his open body and swung sidelong. The sword cut into the softness of the man's side and clicked when it met his spine. The man bent his head, mouth wide. His neck strained into cords, working with some final words he couldn't quite voice. Then he slumped over the sword. His weapon banged against the ground, his hands hanging like gutted fish. He fell and didn't rise. Screaming, weeping Lyle, Blaze said, jerking his sword free. He wiped it on the body, and Dante saw a deep red crease over the boy's left arm, a spreading stain on his upper ribs. You're bleeding. Shut up and take his sword. It's a good one. I've never used one before, Dante said, putting away his knives. He looked down the empty length of the alley and shuddered. You can learn, dummy. Blazer's mouth drew into a long, thin line as he looked down on the bodies. He made a closed-mouthed gasp from deep down in his throat, and Dante had to turn away to keep from puking. After a few quavering breaths, Dante bent over the man they'd killed together and unbuckled his belt, tightening his throat when his hand brushed the warm body. He sheathed the dropped sword then bit his lips and pulled open the body's cloak. What are you doing? We're going to need money. That's sick, Blaze said, backing up a step. You're the one that just killed him, he said. But Blaze made no move to help. Dante hurried through the pockets, fishing for coin, then rifled through the clothing of the two other corpses. It wasn't a fortune, but it would last long enough if they were careful. After a moment of staring, he pulled off the least bloody cloak and swung it over his shoulders. His cloak, too? Blaze wrinkled his nose. What are you, a ghoul? We need to leave. Now. Dante stood and headed for the other end of the alley, refusing to let himself run. His legs were shaky and weak beneath him. The whole thing had taken less than two minutes. Ninety-odd seconds for three dead bodies and a wall of darkness he couldn't explain. The looted sword bounced against the side of his left knee, 
and he hoisted his belt over his waist. He tipped his head to the stars, trying to regain his direction. In the weeks he'd lived in Bressel, he'd learned no more than a smattering of its streets. He had the sense you could live there all your life without knowing more than a single district, and had never gotten the hang of which way was which. He picked out the seven-starred bow of Malleus, pointing the way to Jorus, the North Star, and led Blaze west at the next intersection, away from the direction of the docks. They moved down a broad street and past cloaked men, armed men, men on horseback, ragged men missing ears or noses and clutching flasks. The unlicensed sword felt like a beacon on his hip. He put it out of his mind. For now, their only worry was putting some distance between themselves and the bodies. What are you? Blaze asked, and Dante felt his bones try to leap out of his skin. They crossed Fair Street, Russell's old outer boundary, and the cobbles gave way to dirt. I'm fine. Did you hear me? I'm a sixteen-year-old man, Dante said flatly. Most men I know can't blot out the stars. They're there now, aren't they? Dante said, waving at the whirls of constellations. Blaze grunted and bumped into Dante's shoulder. He gripped Dante's collar, steadying himself, and Dante leaned into the boy's weight. He felt blood seeping through his sleeve. Shut up and sit down. I can bind those up. Blaze didn't say anything, just seated himself on the dirt road and stared at the wooden walls of the rickety two-story row houses that didn't look any older than ten or twenty years. Dante cut strips from the bottom of his new cloak and pulled them tight around the boy's forearm. What he really needed was stitches, but Dante had forgotten his needle and thread back at the room. The gash across Blaze's ribs was bleeding more, but wasn't so deep. He let a strip of cloth soak up some blood so it would stick to Blaze's skin, then wrapped another long piece around it. I didn't see him hit you, Dante said. Big surprise, Blaze said. Dante frowned, knotting the cloth over Blaze's shoulder. The kid was off somewhere else, working something over when he should have his eyes out for the watch or other pursuit. Dante didn't think it had anything to do with the shock of battle or Blaze's loss of blood. He wanted to say he'd had no control over the darkness, which was true. He wanted to say he had no idea where it had come from, which might not be. The way it blacked out like ink and then flickered away when Dante's emotions had changed reminded him exactly of a passage around the twentieth page of the cycle, when Starthus the Wise, facing six armed warriors, had encased them and himself in a lightless sphere and slain five of them one by one. The last of them then struck Starthus and clouded his mind with fear, causing the sphere to fade at once. A coincidence of patent ridiculousness, since it had said nothing about how Starthus had gone about dropping them in the darkness in the first place— all Dante'd done was try not to drop a load in his trousers. There was no way the mere act of reading the book had somehow limbered up his mind to the point where he could do things like Stathos. What had it been, then? 
trick of the light. Widespread hysterical blindness, like the kind he dread afflicted soldiers on the eve of battle so they couldn't fight. The first signs of a degenerative and apparently infectious ocular condition are a priest watching from the windows, drunk, using parlor tricks to toy with them. Lunar eclipse. Any of those was about as likely as Father Tame strolling down from his constellation and shaking Dante's hand. The one explanation that fit was he'd done something without knowing how he did it, and that was no explanation at all. As wrong as Blaze was to suspect him, Dante knew he was equally powerless to tell him why. They passed from the low, half-mud, half-fieldstone houses inside the West Gate to the low, half-mud, half-fieldstone houses outside the West Gate. This whole range of the city looked like it had been built within the last five years. The roofs were mud-caked reeds, the doors flimsy things, firelight visible in the gaps of their frames. Blazer's feet swept over the rinds and pebbles in the roadway. Tired? Dante asked. Blaze shrugged. We can't exactly stop here. He nodded, conceding the point. We could rest a minute, though. Why? Blaze met Dante's eyes for the first time since the fight. Something dark lingered in his face. His lips curled. You two worn out to keep going? I'm fine, Dante said, feeling the dullness in his knees, the burn in the backs of his thighs. It's just a couple of miles to the woods. We should be all right there for the night. Then we'll stop when it's safe. He had thought there would be some triumph if they survived their first skirmish, but instead of standing back to back against a shared dagger, it had made Blaze hate him. The wind kicked up, dragging leaves and trade papers and a few forgotten scraps of cloth past their feet. Graying things he was glad not to recognize moldered in the gutters. Since the time Dante'd left the village of his birth, he'd enjoyed his solitude, his total freedom. Other people only intruded on his ability to learn. If Blaze was going to part his company because he was as scared as a little girl about whatever Dante'd done when Dante himself didn't know what that thing was, he wouldn't mark it as a loss. Open fields showed between the houses after another half-mile. Within two or more minutes, the last of what could be said to be the city had been replaced by brittle cornstalks and the puzzled moans of cows. The city fires died away, and overhead, a thousand stars pricked out from the black curtain. A god was there, if the cycle of Oran could be believed, turning the stone, milling the substance that changed men's hearts to darkness. Chapter 3 They rose with the dawn and ate a cold breakfast in colder silence. They'd slept back to back, Dante's stolen cloak thrown over them both, and when Blaze stirred, Dante felt him freeze with a jerk before jumping up and jogging some ten yards off. Face buried under the cloak, Dante heard Blaze slapping his arms, his face working up the circulation. Dante sat up, glared at the sunlight filtering through the leaves. 
His legs hurt. So did his hand, where that murk had nearly torn away his knife and his fingers along with it. Most of the flies had died in the first snap of frost earlier that week, but the ones that remained found the two of them and sizzled fatly in the breezeless morning. He tossed his head when they landed on his neck, waving half-heartedly at their stupid black bodies, imagining every buzz was a bee about to sting him. Blaze wandered off as soon as he saw Dante was up, mumbling something about having seen some mushrooms, and Dante waited till he'd merged with the trees to open his pack and then the book. He thought the words would feel different, that the act of reading them after the night before would fill him with some deep and nameless force. But there it was, the same old clean black hand of a meticulous scribe, recounting legends and troubles of succession no one had cared about since the moment the last man who'd known those heroes and kings had died. Dante found it interesting, in its way, was somewhat mystified to be confronted with hard evidence life had been going on for so many hundreds of years, but none of that vague awe explained how he'd been able to summon the darkness. Leaves crackled, and he plopped the book shut and stowed it, watching the tree line. Found a few, Blaze said emerging and holding out a double handful of mushrooms with smooth pink-gray caps and pleated black undersides. Dante twisted his mouth. You'll die if you eat those. Right, Blaze said, and when he lifted one to his mouth, Dante bolted up and hit his wrist hard enough to sting them both. Mushrooms flew to all sides. It's poison. He nudged one with his toe, then crushed it into the dirt. Probably wouldn't kill you, but you'd barf up anything else you put down with it. Pardon me for not wanting to starve. We can't all be from the middle of nowhere, Blaze said. But he dumped the couple he was still holding into the leaves and kicked them away. He brushed his hands clean on the front of his trousers and looked up at the angle of the sun. Wasting light. I can teach you those things. Dante bent over and slung his cloak and his pack over his shoulders. I just want to get the hell out of here. Blaze started off and kept a couple steps ahead. For a while, they just walked. They'd made about five miles from the city before they'd gone to sleep, Dante figured, though they'd been traveling in the dead of night without a road, so who the hell could tell? Blaze kept a quick pace through the sparse grass and falling leaves, not too smart, Dante thought, not when he'd lost some blood the night before, and there was no chance they were still being followed. He kept his mouth shut. He had the impression Blaze wasn't in a talking mood. They broke off for camp before the sun had finished cradling itself in the mountains. Dante gathered up some tinder, meaning to risk a fire. He doubted the temple men would figure out he'd left the city for another few days, they could spend weeks combing Bressel before they could be certain. He and Blaze were off the trails in open country. There was no rhyme to their course other than a vague northerly direction so they wouldn't lose total track of the river. Three more days like today, and they could be a hundred miles away. Their trail, as he saw it, was cold from the moment they'd left the men dead in the alley. Cold again, Blaze said 
shifting the night-facing side of his body toward the fire. His thick, straight nose threw a broad shadow over the far side of his face. He prodded the dirt with a stick, snapping off a couple inches at a time and tossing them into the flames. Yeah. It hasn't bled since this afternoon, Blay said after a moment, peeling back a half inch of the strip of cloth over his left arm. That's good. Does it look red? No. He sniffed at it. What about you? I wasn't hurt. Dante watched tiny flakes of ash sail into the smoke and the heat. Just bruises. I see. He broke the twig in two and dropped it into the fire. Isn't there a bark you can chew to make it hurt less? It's not the bark, Dante said. You just can't feel the pain when you're chewing. Blaze waggled his jaw, and Dante put a hand over his own mouth. I can't believe you believe that. Blaze looked away. Shut up! I'm not a physician. There is a tree like that, Dante said, squelching his laughter. I'll find some tomorrow, if you want. I'm going to sleep. Dante watched him stretch out on the ground, back to the fire, and wondered if he should apologize when it was Blaze who couldn't appreciate a joke. Before he'd made up his mind, the boy was breathing deep and easy. Dante stayed up a while, letting his eyes drift over the branches of the forest. But for however hard he tried, he couldn't make the black speck come back. Blaze stayed silent the next day, but kept close by, didn't range ahead or disappear into the woods when they sat to eat or rest. The bread ran out at noon. They found a linberry bush, but the berries were fat, wrinkly, and overripe maroon. They took a break at late afternoon, hunkering down in the tall grass of a clearing. Tomorrow they'd head dead east, Dante thought, toward the river, find a town. From there, Blaze could leave, and Dante could... do something. Hitch a boat downriver and make for the coast below Bressel, maybe. Sail for Albaden, in the Western Territories. It wasn't as big as Bressel, but it would be a port town, lots of weird lore from foreign lands, and plenty far from the eyes of the temple men. It's working, Blaze said, a hunk of bark sticking from his lips. Tastes like shit. It's bark. Animals eat it, don't they? Don't they have tongues? You can't trust animals. They eat their own vomit. Dogs, maybe. I've seen dogs eat things from both ends of cats. Blaze spat flecks of wood, wiped them from his tongue. But that's why they're dogs. You're eating bark. What does that make you? I'm not eating it. Chewing it up, then. That's even more like a dog. Dante bit the skin around his thumbnail, tasted blood. Are you ever going to show me how to use this stupid sword? Or am I just carrying it around to impress all the girls out here? Go stick it in a goose, Blaze said, stretching out on the grass. The bark wiggled in his mouth. I don't think that would be fun for either of us. Dante leaned back on his elbows. He tried to picture a map of the lands north of Bressel. Wetton was up there somewhere. It was decent-sized. Not that it mattered where they ended up. If they followed the chancet long enough, they'd find somewhere with some people. 
Hold it while we're walking. What does that even... What would your mother think of you saying that? My mom's dead. I'm talking about the sword, idiot, Blaze said, the bark between his lips jumping with his words. Carry it in your hand. Swing it around. Get a feel for it. A sword doesn't react like a knife. It's heavy. It takes a while to respond to whatever it is you're trying to get it to do. And you've got to learn to account for that. Dante gave him a look. Is that how you learned? It was wooden, and I was about ten years younger, but otherwise, yeah. And then you'll teach me. Blaze shrugged, hands behind his head. Why don't you go find us some food? Why don't you take a dive down a hill? Dante said. But he got to his feet and walked out of the clearing. The light yellowed as he searched, plucking berries, gathering the bland, low-slung fungus that took more time to clean the dirt from its foals than it did to eat. Orange and red leaves drifted from the boughs and settled to the ground in the windless silence. He spooked a grouse, heart bursting at the thrash of its wings. He could try a few snares, but that would mean setting them up, then remembering where they were and checking them later. Then the several centuries it'd take to pluck feathers, hours of work, when he'd already gotten no thanks for all the other food he'd found them. On the way back to the clearing, he saw the green sprigs of wild carrots and pried them from the soil. They had the end of a rind of cheese left, too. Even if Blaze ate like a pig, it would be enough for dinner and breakfast. The carrots dangled from his left hand and the sword from his right. He whooshed it over the grass, lopping the heads from burgrass and the brittle straw-like elkwood where it grew in the damper dirt. He dreaded a few choice taunts about how Blaze would starve the first five minutes he spent on his own, but returned to find the boy sacked out in the grass. A couple hours of daylight left, he guessed. It would hardly be worth it to wake him up and deal with his nonsense. They could walk by night if they had to. Dante tamped down a patch of grass, plunged down, got out the book. His constant urge was to read through without stopping, but he knew whatever was between its covers was too important to treat like a fruit pastry, something to be devoured as quickly as possible. It deserved patience, deliberance, the kind of disciplined caution Dante'd never managed in any other part of his life. This, though, was different. He could nearly recite the first dozen pages by memory. Already he remembered the tales of the first hundred pages, like the nursery rhymes that stuck in his head whenever he gave them a foot in the door, like the drier sand history of the royal house the churchman had made him read whenever he came late to supper or didn't sweep the corners. He'd separated the proper names from the words of Narashtovic, teased through their context until he had at least a vague concept of their meaning, and in many cases could readily define them. He no longer had to page back to figure out which displaced brother had slain which usurping regent. Its pages were becoming a part of him. With no other leads on an entry into the world of his desire, he read with no lesser goal than branding the book's pages on his mind so brightly he'd remember them to the day his eyes went dim.
After half an hour, he glanced up and saw a world drenched in shadows. They flowed like water, pooling on the undersides of leaves, drifting through the air as fine as mist, defying the sunlight that still stretched through the branches. He blinked, and his head rushed with the warm, tingly delirium he got when he stood up too fast. Like that, the vision was gone. Blaze's snoring snagged so hard his head jerked. He sat up, rubbing his eyes with his fists. How long have I been out? I don't know, Dante said. His voice sounded far away. He cleared his throat. An hour, maybe. Why'd you let me do that? I'll have all night to sleep. Blaze bounced to his feet while Dante struggled with a reply. Let's go. Let's move. The sun slanted through the trees in buttery bands, that thick yellow light Dante'd only seen on cool autumn days, a light that reminded him of the years when he'd been young. An hour left till dusk, maybe less. He could see, but not hear, knots of tiny flies bobbing around each other. Dust motes hung in the windless air. Dante wiped his right eye. You did that, you know, Blaze said, swinging the walking stick he'd picked up before they'd started back out. Did what? Dante said. Made it go dark. He avoided Blaze's eyes, suddenly aware that an entire future depended on what he said next. His pause grew too long to pretend he wasn't lying. I couldn't do it again, he tried. Blaze whacked a branch in his way, snapping it clean. Too bad. It probably saved us. Saved me, maybe. You had a chance without it. Blaze grunted. They walked on. What's in that book, anyway? History, and a lot of stories, Dante said, gripping the straps of his back. Blaze stopped, tapping Dante on the shin with his stick, hard enough to welt. Bullshit, he said. That thing you just said is the product of a cow's ass. You wouldn't be risking your life over a bunch of stories. They wouldn't be trying to kill you to get them back either, whoever they is. He reached for the pack, and Dante drew away. What's so damned special about it? I don't know. Stop it. I don't. Dante worked the muscles of his jaw, reaching for an explanation he couldn't define. I heard it was supposed to teach you how to do the things the priests say they can do, throw fire and change the weather and whatever other crazy things, but I haven't read anything that tells you how to do that. So far, it's just like the Bannadon of Tame. Blaze snorted. I don't know anyone who read the Bannadon and then made a whole street go dark. Oh, yeah? You want to read it and see? Dante slid the pack from one shoulder. No way, Blaze said, jumping back. He narrowed his eyes to bright slits. You know what I think it is. What do you think it is? I think, he said, raising his blonde brows, it's a spell book. Yeah, that's what it is. Blaze raised a palm. Well, just look at it. It's got a big old bone tree on the cover. What else could it be? 
If it's a spell book, it's the worst damn one I've ever read. Just how many have you read? There's no such thing. Dante closed his eyes and sighed through his nose. Have you ever heard of the third scour? Blaze kicked a rock at his feet. No, I'm a halfwit. Then what was it? One of those things where all the people kill each other? What do you call those? It was a war, Dante said. A big one. He paused. From his right he heard the chirr of a red-winged blackbird. Pond nearby, then. Fish? He frowned at himself, glanced back at Blaze. It was little over a century ago. All the sects of the Selicet sort of banded together to wipe another one out. I presume their reasons were perfectly noble. Most of the histories I've read say the sect was the death cult that served a god named Oron. You know, no respect for babies, sacrificing human life, whatever. Dante looked away, feeling stupid. Somehow, exposing his knowledge of such boring, dusty histories was like admitting he collected pornographic illustrations of centaurs and mermaids, or saved up his coin for the commemorative daggers of the Explorers Club. Supposedly, since the serfs no longer respected the law of the righteous gods, they stopped listening to the rule of the king. You know, this life is short and the next one is long, so who cares what that guy says? That sort of thing. There were rebellions, and the one in the Colin Basin worked. They hanged the Count, burnt his wife. But when the cavalry came, the renegades didn't have much more than pitchforks and the bows from the manor's armory. The steps of the house were stained so red they painted them crimson to cover it up. If you believe that stuff, that's why the new Count established it as his colors. That is truly fascinating, Blaze said. I thought it was. So they splashed a little noble blood around. Peasants do dumb stuff and get killed for it all the time. Why did the whole kingdom have to fight a war? It wasn't just in the basin, Dante went on. He bit his teeth together. He'd read hundreds of pages on this stuff back in the books in Bressel. How could he distill all that work into something Blaze would get? It was everywhere. It was really popular. Probably because its members were saying things that hadn't been said in a long time, but used to be really important. You know Carvajal, right? Blaze made a blasphemous appeal to the sky. I'm not three years old, Dante. I was just asking. So Carvajal took the fire from the North Star and brought it to us, and was exiled from the belt of the heavens for it by tame, right? That's the story you hear when you're a little kid. Well, these Iran guys, they say Carvajal didn't originally oversee the pole fire, that his half-brother Iran was its keeper. He gave Carvajal the fire, but they say Carvajal locked him up behind the wall beyond the stars so he could have the credit. Then he brought the fire to Eric the Dragonat, etc., etc. Blaze nodded like he was paying any kind of attention. He planted his staff and lowered himself onto a lichen-fuzzed rock. Let's sit down over there. Dante nodded to the trees on the right that looked just like the trees to the left, as well as the trees ahead and behind them. At the pond. What pond? Can't you smell it? No. 
Blaze said. But he stood and waited for Dante to lead the way. He did, ear cocked for the blackbirds, and he had to cut back once, but then it was there, barely more than a stone's throw across, but maybe five times as long. Blaze gave him a look, snapping a reed from its banks. The birds, Dante said, after a blackbird had called. They like the water. Right. Blaze dropped down on a rock near its edge and wriggled off his boots. He skimmed the tip of the reed over the placid waters. Dante watched the gray missiles of trout drifting near the banks. The flies were thicker here, and the surface rippled with the rings of breaching fish. The water did smell good, now that he was on it. Damp grass and clean mud, the way stones smell when water's always drying from their smooth faces. The important thing is, Aron was the one who guarded the North Star. Dante went on. So what? So what? From a theological perspective, that's huge. It undermines the legitimacy of Tame and Gashen, and all of the twelve houses of the heavens. If Aron was the keeper of its fire, then he was pretty much the big chief. Worse yet, if he meant to hand his secrets down to mankind, that means... He's the one who deserves our devotion, not Carvajal. And if they got something that big wrong, how can we trust anything they say at all? Yeah, but it's all just stories. Blaze moved to his knees and overturned a stone. Pale pink worms wagged their tails in the last of the sunlight before sinking into the murk. They're not real. Doesn't their belief in the gods make them real? No, he said, it makes them stupid. I guess everyone in the world's stupid then. Dante dropped his eyes to the waters around the reeds. Now and then a trout weaved through their stalks, nibbling at the seeds and bugs caught in the net of plants. It doesn't matter if they're stories. The priests tell the stories that will make the people eat out of their hands, and the kings have power because they have the authority to say which priests are right— they don't like it when the stories that give them all this control are threatened. Do you know who you sound like right now? Blaze said, grinning up at him. The guys back at the almshouse I was with after they'd been drinking all night. The kings, this, the priests, that, everyone's stupid but them. Then they sleep it off, and when they wake up, they're back out selling their blades for pennies and getting turned down nine times out of ten, even then. I'm not saying I thought it up. He threw a pebble at the water near the point of Blaze's reed. A shadow of a fish darted into the deep. I'm just trying to explain why people get so mad when you start talking about this stuff. Lyle Almighty, get on with it. So, a Ron gave us the fire, Dante said. You've said that five times, Blaze sighed. Dante glared at him. The boy sat three-quarters turned, but when he ducked his chin, Dante could see he was smiling. The histories of the Third Scar paint him as a bloodthirsty death god. That's how they explain the revolts, that Aron ordered the serfs to kill the lords and the guards and the followers of all the other temples to satisfy his own need for blood. But see, I don't think that's right. In the cycle, the book, 
It mentions Aron a lot, and he never talks about wanting people dead. In fact, he's not very interested in us at all. I mean, everyone dies eventually, right? If you're an immortal god, who cares if a soul finds you in the stars today or twenty years from now? Even if he wanted to build an army, and I don't see anything to support that either, it's not like he's in a hurry to do it before he dies of old age. Blaze plopped a rock into the waters. I'm going to be seeing her on myself pretty fast if you don't quit being so boring. Well, does that make sense to you? That a god would be in a rush about a thing like that? Of course not. But we're the image of the gods, aren't we? So obviously they think like us. That must mean they're pricks like us too. Who wants to wait fifty years when you can snap your fingers and poof, you've got an army of the dead? For that matter, Blaze said, tapping Dante's chest as he built up steam. If they're so high and mighty, how are we supposed to guess what they're thinking? We're probably like ants to them. Can ants understand that we're thinking? That's different. How is it any different at all? It just is. Dante shrugged. He groped around for his place. So whatever Aron was, nobody else liked him anymore. What with the dangerous belief you're standing in this brief wick doesn't mean hell all to the one that comes after, and once things got so crazy in Colin, the counter-army practically conscripted itself. They smithied up a few thousand pikes for the rabble, and promised the land to the nobles, and off they went. Needless to say, all the heretics in Colin were killed. That only stirred up the ones everywhere else all the worse. But to make a long story slightly less long— they were all killed, too. The traditionalist armies burnt their temples and their books, beheaded the priests who renounced and quartered the ones who didn't. That's where the Felgate came from. Blaze dropped his jaw. What? Those little black knobs are their heads? Yeah. Dante laughed. Look like old apples, don't they? And they get to spend the rest of their years watching the asses of horses ponce down the street. And the thing is, they were wrong. They lied about Aron, and when his followers objected, some of them were killed. And then, when they tried to fight back, all of them were killed. It's like people care more about preserving their power than serving the truth. Blaze bobbed his head. The powers that be wouldn't be the powers that be if they didn't. Yeah. Dante grinned a moment, then realized just what he was grinning at and made his face go serious. I took the book from one of the ruined temples of Aron. Ah, Blaze said, nodding sagely. The kind of crime where it's a race to see who can hang you first. The best kind. You'd better hurry up and become an invincible wizard, then. I don't know how. Dante flushed. I wish I'd had more time in Bressel before they found me. And I wish I had a princess in her skivvies. In fact, forget the skivvies. Blaze chuffed at himself, then looked down. Actually, I want to see some damn food, then eat it. What have you got? He reached again for the pack. Let's catch some fish, before it gets too dark. Great idea, he said, standing and contemplating the pond. Where's the hooks? Dante got to his feet. Can't you sort of stab them? Yeah. Blaze whipped out his sword, and the metal rang in the quiet. He brandished it at the banks. 
Come on, you cowardly fish. Come up and dry land and fight like a man. He slashed the waters, sending droplets hissing. I missed. Well, maybe if you actually tried. I thought you were nature, boy, Blaze said, flipping water at him with the weapon's point. Dante shrank back. Can't you whittle up some bones or something, lure them out with the song of the sea? If I catch any, you can't eat them, Dante said, unsheathing his own sword. He trailed the bank, eyes on the lurking shadows. A challenge! He heard mud slurping and jumped when the rock Blaze had thrown catapulted into the pond. He spat water from his face. You ass! He brushed uselessly at his soaked doublet. I'll catch twice your stupid fish, Blaze said. He turned on his heel and stalked the opposite way. Dante hurried to a tall stand of reed some thirty feet down. Within moments, his eyes set on a trout hovering in the shallows. He lunged at it with his sword and fell to his knees in the water. He splashed back ashore, checking to see if Blaze had seen but the kid was occupied with his own prey. He scared away a second fish, then a third, before he moved further along the shores. And it wasn't until it was so dark he was beginning to see fish where they weren't there that he drew back his sword after a strike and found a trout speared on its tip. I hope you enjoy your carrots, he said a few minutes later when he found Blaze at the far point of the pond. Screw your carrots! Blaze said, displaying his sword over a stomped-down basket of grass. In the gloom, he saw the silver bodies of three cleaned fish. A wind riffled the waters, stirred the dry leaves of the trees against each other. They retreated into the woods, where a fire wouldn't be seen from the clearing at the pond, and bit into the crackle-skinned fish while they were still so hot they burned their mouths. For days they stayed at the pond, content to fish with branch-cut spears in the morning and the evening, scrubbing around for plants in the woods when the noon sun drove the trout into deeper waters, sometimes swimming, sometimes crushing around the undergrowth until their trousers were thick with burrs, running around for the simple sake of running around. Most days, Blaze went off for an hour or more in his own explorations, while Dante plunged into the cycle. Without references and histories and his own footnotes, he feared he couldn't grasp more than the surface of what he read. But the further he pressed, the more he understood. His progress was slow as ever. He was often forced to flip back to earlier sections, interrupted by the frequent need to forage for things to fill a stomach that seemed to empty every couple of hours of the book. But he was building toward a new peak. He could feel it in the hollows of his bones. When Blaze got back from his solo trips, Dante shut the book and came at the boy with the sword in hand. He learned the delicate mechanics of the parry and riposte, to watch the hips of his opponent, to know where he was going, to use his footwork to create the balance that would be the difference in who died on whose blade. Dante didn't know much, but he could tell Blaze was better than he should be at fifteen and a half. He had a natural grace, a quickness to his wrists that never let his blade stray too far to leave him open. Compared to that, 
Dante's relative clumsiness with the sticks they used for their full-contact duels was a constant frustration that filled him with a shame he hadn't felt since the night at the temple. He'd carried that feeling for as long as he could remember, that solitude, that sense that whatever he did was being judged by things he couldn't see. Before he'd met Blaze, he would have given up swordplay the moment he realized he wasn't any good at it. He was aware of his foolishness now, that Blaze had to hold back to keep from disarming him the moment they began, but he sparred on until his arms were so nudely he could hardly lift them above his shoulders. The memory of the temple began to fade, lurking beyond the edges of his sight. Not great, Blaze said, bending over to plant his hands on his knees after one of their sessions. But maybe you'll keep them from killing you long enough for me to run away. Not fair. That's what I hired you for. Dante went to bed exhausted, rose with the dawn, and read through the pink filter of sunlight. The days were mild. The frost stayed gone for a week, then reappeared in their sleep without warning, waking Dante a half-dozen times. Each time he woke, he pulled his knees tighter to his chest, or added another tent of branches to the fire. He got up for a good half-hour before dawn, cold and tired and sore, and he watched the flames blacken the thin kindling they cut each day, the odd hunks of wood they sometimes found sunk in the dirt, the wet fibers of which crackled like crumpling paper and spat smoldering knots of embers their way. All the wood would be too wet before long. A pre-morning breeze kicked up, bearing the smells of damp leaves and the stark cut of cold. The snows could come at any time. They'd be early if they showed today, and he thought the air would stay warm enough when it was mixed with sunlight and hard work. But it was there, biding behind the mountains, marching from the north. He'd spent time in the wilds around the village before, but mainly in the summer, and when he tried to think about where they'd go when the snows came, his mind turned its face from his worries. Years later, when Blaze was gone, and so was his youth, he'd looked to this time as a beacon, the single span of his life after the warm haze of childhood that he could remember without the twin shadows of doubt and regret. These couple weeks in the woods would hold the weight of entire seasons of the years before and after. When he thought of these days, allowing himself the memory, like an old dog getting up to bark at a fox he'd once chased, he thought of the yellow touch of sunlight through the trees, tasted the sweet, clean flesh of lake trout caught that day, heard the twitter of blackbirds and the laughter of two boys saw Blaze's sword flashing before it crashed against his own. A snake in every garden, the death of every pet, a day when one wakes to find his parents are gone, the bitter tale to those memories, all those years later, after the grey passage of decades, after everything had changed. There would have been a way to make things different, if he'd known enough to make them run to far-off lands, and so avoid the treason and bloodshed and heartache to come. But then that would come at the cost of the man he'd become. He'd close the memories, 
like a book. An irrelevant story from a place that no longer existed. There was no room for looking back on what couldn't be undone. When they saw what he'd done, they clapped Jack Hand, as he came to be known, in thirty pounds of chains, and locked him in the lowest level of the oubliette, where he was to be kept until his eldest brother's hourglass ran dry, which was said to be fed by the sands of the endless Mandal Desert. He lived in darkness, fed once a day, nipped by lice and by rats. Before enacting his imprisonment, they took the index finger from each hand, one finger for each of his brother's wives. There had been cause for more drastic justice, but royal blood was royal blood, which was more than could be said for the wives of his brothers, and not lightly spilled. Dante looked up and wondered whether it were all right to laugh at history, and more specifically a history of the killing of women. The cycle had taken a strange turn, abandoning the lumbering attempts to explain the skies and the encyclopedic catalogue of names and kings for digressive stories. Not that he'd read many of the second classical authors that had prospered in Gask centuries before, but that's what its tone reminded him of. It read with a certain ironic distance, not so stiflingly self-serious as the recent works he'd absorbed back in Bressel. He hadn't known books could be written in anything but the artless blunder of the holy books, the juvenile wit of romances and adventures, or the over-elaborate posing of poetry and history, these last of which frustrated him most of all, seemingly written more with the intent of intimidating whoever opened them than to say anything. And he read on, with half a smile, and the small but sharp fear this new tone was an aberration something that would disappear as soon as the story was over. Jack Han's cell was as dark as the caves under the earth. They'd intended it as punishment. He recalled the things he'd learned, dwelled on the last few hours with the bodies. He hailed the shadows to slay the rats and plague the lice, and sooner than later they no longer swarmed his cell. After a while, he likely went mad, though the lack of observers and Jack Hand's own questionable temperament rendered the status of his mind a matter of philosophy rather than fact. Who knows how we'd act, locked away, locked alone. The mind is a vast place, and its hunger's far sharper than the body's. The mind is a vast place, and the black of his world was vaster. He drew that darkness, shaped it, and when, three years later, they opened his cell because the growing stink, reportedly legendary even by the spongy standards of dungeons, could mean little other than its occupant had died and was rapidly being converted to the kind of brown sludge kept only at bay by the continual intake of breath, his captors were met by a chattering horde of rats. Skinless, fleshless, bloodless, the creeping bones of seventy-two life-sucked rodents flooding from each of thirty different cracks in the walls, forming into two streams of surging beasts that overwhelmed the guards as saplings before a tsunami. It's been wondered how so great a force could be stowed in all the space of his constricting cell— but what is not under debate is how they maimed and murdered every living occupant of the keep. 
There they ceased, and Jack Hand took his throne. The bodies fed his armies, and he, in turn, was fed by that shadow that lurks behind all things. Blaze was off trampling grass, but for now Dante marked his page. He'd kept a smile till the final sentence, when at once he knew, in the same way he knew if he jumped, he'd come back down, that if he stared hard enough and right enough at the deep morning shadows cast on his knees by the leaves, something would happen. Before the blushing hand of stupidity could grab him by the neck, he blanked his mind and settled his hands in his lap. He felt a pressure, a tangible presence, like water were being squirted into the front of his skull. Somehow it didn't hurt. It felt wrong, but not so wrong to tempt him to stop. Sweat welled from his temples. A hand span of the nearest shadows stirred as if by the wind. The illusion was so real, he didn't register shock until another part of his mind told him his hair wasn't moving, and he didn't feel colder like he would if air were moving over his sweat-slick skin. He raised a hand, and he had the queasy sensation of going blind as the dark substance swelled, casting him into a darkness as deep as the space between the constellations. His breath came hard, but he stood slowly, not wanting to spook it, for as little sense as that made. He still felt nothing against his skin, not like if he were wading through something solid. He took a trial step. It wasn't a disaster. He took another and tripped on a root. Pain shot through his palms and knees when they pounded ground and the delumination weakened, till it was more like a gray fog than like he had no eyes. Dante saw the condensed shadow was roughly spherical, highest a few feet behind him. It had stayed put when he started moving. He emptied his mind, and the darkness ate up the light. After five paces in a straight line, the world winked on again. When he looked down, he saw his body rising from the mass of shadows at an angle across his waist. Centaurian, as if his dad had mated with a globby black hemisphere. He wouldn't put it past him. Hey, Dante! Blaze's voice reached him in a hissed shout. I'm here, he called back, matching the boy's volume. And when he looked down, the shadowsphere was gone. He picked up the book and walked toward where he'd heard Blaze cry. What were you doing? Blaze peered past him into the trees. Reading. Not riding horses? Not recently, Dante said, eyeing him. Then someone else was here. There were tracks down at the pond. Travelers? Blaze quirked his mouth. We're miles from any road. Maybe it's someone's land. They're out for a bit of fishing. And maybe you're about to get an arrow through your neck. Blaze rubbed his mouth then his eyes. We've got to go. All right, Dante said, spooked by the boy's seriousness. They headed for the camp. A stone's throw from it, Blaze barred an arm across his chest and pressed him down into the bushes. What is it? he whispered. Maybe nothing, but if it's a damn trap, I don't want to walk right into it. The grounds looked empty. 
Their fire had gone out during the night, and any smoke was hours gone. The stillness of the wood pressed on his ears, like he dived underwater. Blackbirds chirped at each other. He heard the furtive rustle of small animals tracking through the fallen leaves. A crow cackled, and he jerked his arms to his body. A sour tightness took his chest. He'd come to think of themselves as the only two in this place. We'll circle around, Blaze whispered. If it looks clear, we'll grab our stuff. If you see or hear anything, freeze on the spot. Dante nodded, glad to follow Blaze's steps. The kid hunched down and advanced around their camp, pausing every twenty or thirty feet to cock his head to the silence. When they'd made more than half a circle around it, he hunkered down for a minute, lips a white line. Dante culled small effort in the fact horses were noisy by nature, always snorting and whickering at each other like big, hairy idiots. They couldn't take two steps in the dense forest without sounding like someone falling down a mountain. Blaze tapped him on the shoulder, and they stole straight for their gear. He saw no sign the ground here had been disturbed by anyone but themselves. They gathered weapons and vegetables, wordless, wrapping the two half-eaten fish from the night before in fresh-fallen leaves. Dante grabbed a stray book, and that was all it took to be ready to move. They drew back, Blaze leading them direct away from the pond, sitting a tenth mile to the east. They moved quickly but without panic, feet crumpling leaves but not crashing them. Still, Blaze would halt them every couple minutes to crouch beside a trunk and listen to the forest. It was early morning yet, the sun bright without being warm. The season had begun to shorten its track through the sky, but it would be light another eight hours, maybe nine, and the thought of going on like this for hours on end made Dante want to lie down then and there. There's no way they tracked us from Bressel, Blaze said at one of their halls. They'd have been on us in two days, not two weeks. We don't know it was them. Dante said, looking behind them. No one else has any reason to be out here. Other people exist, you know. Don't be a fool. Blaze's voice had jumped, and he bugged his eyes and brought it back to a whisper. It could be fox hunters. It could be vagabonds, though that would raise the interesting question of how the hell they got their hands on horses. Even if they were those things, it wouldn't make us any safer. There's no law here. Just us, Dante said, clenching his teeth. How does anyone get anywhere when everything's this screwed up? By being so nasty, mere sight of them makes everyone else run away. Let's go. Despite living in the woods for weeks, he hadn't truly noticed how many animals shared the land. Every crunch of leaves or sudden shrill cry made his neck go tight. The air was cool, almost cold, but he was tickled by icy lines of sweat down his ribs. Blaze walked with his back bent, leaning forward and hurrying along like his nose weighed two hundred pounds, and only constant motion could keep him from toppling. Dante urged the sun on, outraged that something so big could be so slow. Hours passed. His feet got sore, but he found he wasn't tired, not after the last few weeks of fake sword fights and stomping around the pathless woods.
The back of his mouth tasted like the dry, sour aftertaste of cranberries. His head felt thick, fuzzy, and no more substantial than puffwood seeds, and when he took his eyes off the ground and held his hand in front of his face, he saw that it was shaking. Noon. The sun came straight down and lay against his skin without warmth. He kept his eyes on the beat of his feet. There was no wind, and when he saw the ripple of the shadows of the leaves, his foot almost missed the earth. With a few more days of reading and concentration, he thought he would be able to do more with them than see them. He hadn't had those days, though. All he could depend on, if things fell apart, was his blade and his training. He trusted the steel, at least. He nudged Blaze toward the subdued trickle of a stream, and they knelt at its edge and drank away the sweat of the journey. He shrugged his pack from one shoulder, meaning to eat some carrots, then froze and listened to the language of the woods. Get back, he whispered. What is it? Blaze's hand went to his sword. Dante shook his head and retreated along the route they'd taken, breaking after thirty feet to head away from the stream. He pulled Blaze down under a thick bush and closed his eyes, trying to hush his breath. Blaze made as if to speak, and stopped at the snap of twigs from the direction they'd just left. He pressed himself lower to the dirt. They crossed the stream. They heard a harsh, deep voice that rumbled through the air. Dante raised his head a couple inches, but the trees were too thick to see anything but branches. What have you got? Not far off. I can feel them. The second voice was high, but faint. Dante heard more words, but couldn't differentiate them. Then, it's too close to tell. Let's take a damn break, said the third man. Haven't eaten since sunup. We can catch them now, the first one said. They're close. We can catch them just as easy without starving to death in the meantime. They're on foot. The discussion dropped to a mutter of details. He strained his ears, made out the words trail and book and carry the bodies. They went silent a minute later, and after another minute, Blaze caught Dante's eye and gestured north, away. Dante raised a finger to his own mouth. A few seconds later, a hoarse blue air passed its mouth. He thought he could smell its animal sweat over the gaminess of his own. Hooves splashed through the stream a few minutes later. Dante waited, eyes closed and mind wide, but he felt nothing. With a prickle to his neck, he realized he was disappointed. We should head back, he whispered, toward the river. Could be others searching that way. I don't think so. We can cut northeast, find a town. What good will a town do us? Blaze said. Keep us from getting killed in the woods like dogs? Come on. He got to his feet with exaggerated care, arms held to either side. He didn't know how long the stream would delay the riders, and he led the way this time, setting a pace so fast his trailing foot sometimes left the ground before his first had fallen. The leaves clicked together in the afternoon breeze, and he couldn't keep himself from hastening to a jog. They covered three or four miles before his wind gave out, and they dragged themselves beneath another umbrella of undergrowth. 
Not for the first time, he wished one of his books had a close-scale map of the land around them. He knew there would be people around the river. That's what rivers were for. But they could easily cut ten miles of north-south travel if they only knew where they were. He needed his back where the pack had bounced against it. They were following us, Blay said. His voice was above a whisper, but still soft enough not to carry. No kidding. Dante put his knees to his chest and rested his head against them. I mean, they were trailing us, like hounds. The one who sounded like a fairy said he could sense us. He can. How's that even possible? Don't ask me. Come on. Blaze said, poking him in the side. You study these things. The key word is study, Dante said, narrowing his eyes. I don't know how to do anything. This is hopeless. If they can pick up a trail that's weeks old, they can follow us to the ends of the earth. No, they can't. They lost us for a few weeks there. We can walk on rocks instead of dirt. Whenever we find a stream, we'll wade down it a ways rather than cut straight across. That'll just slow us down. It'll slow their woodsmen even more. Dante got to his knees, readied himself to stand. I don't think the one who said he consensus can tell any more than that we're near. If he could, we'd already be dead. But we can't hide when they've got him and a tracker, Blaze said wrapping his fingers around the hilt of his sword. That leaves running and fighting. I'm getting sick of my legs having all the say. My arms are getting restless. They're asking, when do I get to do my part? Tell your arms to stow it. We can ambush them, like in the alley. No, Dante said, then felt foolish at his own authority. We're not prepared. These ones are more dangerous than the others. This is Cowardly, Blaze said, but he stood. Dante's face went hot. Better yellow than red. Branches lashed their faces. Mud sucked at their boots. Roots reached up with gnarled fingers scrabbling for their toes. Their feet were stubbed and sore and sweaty. Their packs chafed their shoulders. Dante did all he could to make his passage look weird, walking on just his toes for a hundred yards until his calves gave out, striding longer with one leg than the other. Sometimes, when Blaze was ahead and distracted with making the trail, he'd hop on one foot for eight or ten bounces before he was afraid Blaze could hear the odd rhythm and look back. He had no idea whether it would help. He doubted it would do more than make the hunter laugh. What else could he do? turn their blood to fire inside their veins, conjure a demon to drag them down to hell. Maybe he could just make the entire world blow up while he was at it. He trudged on. A few miles further, another stream blocked their way, and they waded till the waters sluiced by just under the tops of their boots. They followed it upstream a couple hundred yards until it bent back toward the west, then clambered up the bank, Dante's feet felt like stones. They couldn't do another crossing, he thought. Their boots wouldn't dry before dark. Their time in the woods had taught them to walk with minimal noise, and they halted together when they heard the slow but steady steps among the leaves. Something heavy, many-legged, 
They ducked behind an ivy-wrapped stone and listened to the steps grow nearer. When he saw the branches approaching, Dante thought, for one crazy moment, the trees had taken life and were walking around on their roots. And then the tan sweep of the buck's head cleared the brush, and he ached for a bow. But they'd have no time to clean it, no strength to carry all that meat. And they let out their breath and hurried on. They continued through the afternoon, rested in the twilight, then walked a couple hours in the weak moonlight, guided by the bright northern wink of Joros, which he'd come to think of as the Mill Star. Just as he thought his legs would give out beneath him, Blaze stopped short, squatting down and planting his hands on his knees. That's all I've got in me. One more step and I'm going to fall on my face. We've made good time, Dante said plopping down beside him. Should find a town tomorrow. How far off from the river? Fifteen miles? Twenty? I've never been this far north. Me neither. Blaze laughed for the first time that day. I'd never left Bressel. You never saw the sea, Dante said, tucking his cloak around him. Well, yeah. Never any further than that, though. They thought their private thoughts. Dante's heart thudded when Blaze reached for the pack, but he emerged with the leaf-wrapped fish and a handful of withering mushrooms. He passed Dante one of the fish. May as well eat these. Won't need to save anything if we'll hit town tomorrow. Yeah. They ate their largest meal in days and sipped from the water skins. Exhaustion hit him before he was full. He could feel the puffiness in his eyelids, the discontent in his muscles that would mean full-fledged aches in the morning. Without speaking, they both knew the insanity of lighting a fire, and instead poured leaves over their legs and torsos to hide and to insulate. It's the book, Blaze said, and Dante realized he'd been asleep. Huh? They're following the book. Dante opened his eyes. He reached into the folds of his cloak, felt the leathery cover of the book where he kept it wrapped beside his face. Leave it, if you like, he said around the lump in his throat. I won't. Blaze didn't respond. Dante lifted his head to see if the boy had been talking in his sleep. I don't run from my problems. Blaze said at last. Well, not if I can help it. We'll outrun them to town. When they get there, they won't find us. We'll find them. That's a different tune than you were singing earlier, the boy said. I can't tell if that's the kind of optimism that's like to take them by surprise, or the kind that gets us killed. If you die, Dante said, closing his eyes, what's it matter anyway? I assume it'll hurt, Blaze said. Dante didn't know whether to laugh or curse or learn to pray. How had it all ended so suddenly? How did this violence keep finding him? If the nether drove them to it, and if the nether lurked behind all things, where in the wide realms of man could he go where it couldn't follow? Chapter 4 
He woke up. That was a good thing. It meant he hadn't been killed in his sleep. He stood and wished he had. Leaves fell from the folds of his cloak, rustling like distant water, and a blaze stirred. Dante's calves and lower back felt like someone had been tugging on both ends of them all night. He stretched out, gingerly, closing his eyes. After the initial shock, and as long as he didn't move, the ache was almost pleasant. The sun hadn't yet lumbered over the fields of the east, but the stars on that side of the sky were growing faint in the deep blue. Through a gap in the trees, the six stars of Thames Hourglass were just above the horizon. Autumn was slipping away. He sat back down, shivering a bit, giving Blaze a little longer before they picked up where they'd left off. The world was shadow. In the moment of that thought, his senses seemed to fade. The hesitant pre-dawn birdsong became muffled. The fuzzy shapes of the last of the night grew darker, less distinct. His own breath galed in his ears. He reached out for those shadows, extending both his hand and his mind. They didn't come, and somehow he knew that was right. He tried again, slitting his eyes until he saw more eyelash than forest, counting the seconds between his deep and steady inhalations. Somehow he expected the slivers of darkness to be cold, but the only way he knew they were sinking into his skin was through sight and a dull, far-off feel for its travel, the way you can finally see the sun move when it hits the horizon, or how the moon and fixed stars seem to have jumped whenever you look to the skies of the night. The pain faded from his limbs then. A bright red bramble scratch on his left hand went pink, and then to the rusty brown of an old scab. He picked it away with his thumbnail, and beneath it the skin was fresh. He closed his eyes and thought if the opposite desire of his mind would cause the opposite change to his flesh. What time is it? Blaze asked, rousing him. The nether, naming it for what it was, shuddered back into normal shadow. Just before dawn. Time for unreasonable men to be on their way, Blaze muttered. They packed up and lit out. Leaves spun to the forest floor. Dante let Blaze lead. He wouldn't know how fast to travel if his legs still burned like they had when he'd woken. Birds chirruped in the treetops like nothing were different. He walked with a stillness of thought, feeling light, feeling holy, the calm in the center of the storm of all this life. He'd stopped pretending like he didn't understand what was happening to him. He'd imagined it would take longer, in fact, that he'd need a teacher or a guide, that he'd need to meditate or pray to be handed the way. He didn't know how the book was showing him the way, only that it was. Dante watched the back of Blaze's head bob as he stepped over fallen branches or ducked under live ones. He'd learn faster if he didn't have to watch himself to keep what he was learning hidden. He needed practice, but couldn't get it when proof of his ability would turn the boy to silence and sidelong glances when he thought Dante wasn't looking.
Blaze had become something like a friend since the days in the woods had shown him Dante was nothing but an average kid. He didn't want to lose that. He'd had friends before, but not many, and he'd left them all behind the day he'd left the village. He missed them, in an abstract way, knowing they were gone to him, and he would never see them again. He began to forget himself. Little tricks as he walked, concentrating on the shadows until they curled around his finger, putting a dark globe on the toe of his boot, and seeing how long he could make it keep up with his steps. Thinking on the men he'd read about in the cycle, and the thrill they must have felt when they reached out with their hand and made the world change. They were no longer so unimaginable, so distant and alien. Stathus the Wise, and Linnigan, Jack Hand, and Kerry Cooper. He wished he could meet them and hear their words for himself. Stream up ahead, Blaze murmured, and Dante jumped. Okay. It should turn into a river. That's what streams do, become rivers, Dante said, tucking his chin against his chest and peering into the crossed boughs of the trees to the east, as if looking hard enough would summon up the grey waters of the chancet. We could follow it, I mean, he said, shrugging off Dante's tone. That's an idea. Can't follow our tracks if there aren't any. Let's cross it, head upstream a bit, and double back. A couple hundred yards on the other side, they turned around, retracing their path as closely as they could. The stream was shallow, fast, and strong, widening abruptly from ten feet across to twenty or thirty of ankle-deep flow, then constricting again, just as quickly, at the next elbow in its path. Its banks were dug deep. If they ducked, they couldn't be seen unless someone were watching right from the lip and its bed was a carpet of rocks, as smooth as if they'd been sanded, some as small as robin's eggs, others sturdy and immobile as the heads of bulls. Big floods in the spring carved it deep, no doubt. They walked on dry rocks at its edge for a while, throwing out their arms for balance, stones thocking together under their weight. The rush of water washed away the sounds of the woods, and they spoke, when at all, in raised tones that would have carried like seeds on a breeze if they'd been above the banks. At the bends in its path, the banks narrowed on them until the stony beds were buried in cold water that yanked at their ankles with the strength of a man. They slowed at these times, keeping a hand on the wall of dirt to their right or the shoulder of whoever was leading the way. This is not a civilized way to live, Blaze said, after the third or fourth such passage, raising one soggy boot while he balanced himself against the slope of the bank. The waters were getting deeper, reaching their knees when they took a wrong step. Want some food? Dante said. His feet had begun to ache again. He wiggled his toes, fighting back the numbness. The water felt like it came from close snows. I want a fire. Blaze stomped his feet, squirting water over the pale grey rocks, darkening them with dampness. And I want a pony that breathes fire and craps strawberries. You'd probably eat them, Blaze said. He sat down and let out a long breath. You wouldn't. Out of a pony's ass? Blaze hawked 
choked and spat into the swirling current. I don't even want to know where you think the cream would come from. Dante shrugged. Well, for me, then. He found a few mushrooms wrapped up in his pack, squashed by the books as they'd shifted on the walk, moist and drooping in their own fluids. He handed Blaze the bigger share, and the boy set them on his lap and stared at them for a moment. This is what I mean. Blaze popped one in his mouth, chewed, paused, then swallowed. He dipped a hand in the water and drank. This is how animals live. It's just for a few days, you baby. You're the baby. Why am I the baby? Because you're always scared like one. No one's going to save us. We've got to deal with this ourselves. Blaze ate slowly, chewing each off-white cap for a long time. Dante had to still his arm to keep from punching him. He blinked, looked away. This whining. I'm starting to learn, he said when he could trust his voice. Good. I'm tired of running this show by myself. Not that. Dante pulled his lips from his teeth and put his hand on Blaze's wrist. The boy met his eyes, then looked down, saw the grey trailing from Dante's fingers like wisps of smoke. What are you doing? He called to it, brought the dark places under the rocks like he'd brought the black images of the leaves that morning. He felt a click in his chest, like something there had turned on its side. But he kept the summons, his mind an empty tunnel. Stop it! Shut up. The words didn't break his command. Then it was done, and he sucked air and freed his hand, shaking it. The tips of his fingers felt as cold as his waterlogged feet. What did you do? Blay said, sharp as his weapon. Stand up. Walk around. Go to hell, he said then got to his feet and bounced in place. He walked a circle around Dante, and Dante saw the knots fade from his face. I'm not tired. Neither am I, Dante said, sticking out his jaw. He let the silence linger, let Blaze think his thoughts. Can you do anything else? Blaze said, gazing into the woods. Not really, not yet. Blaze folded his arms. No, it's not right. Why? Because you can't hold it in your hand? Dante picked up a rock and chucked it into the stream. Its splash was too soft to hear over the ceaseless whirl of the water. It's like you just woke up, isn't it? Like you haven't been walking at all. Blaze rubbed the faint blonde hair on his upper lip. My dad used to say if you could build your life around nothing more than swinging a sword, you'll start to think all things come down to who can swing it better. And he's dead, Dante thought. You're a swordsman, he said instead. That's not the point. I'm being careful, he said. I'm not about to mess with things I don't understand. It's not enough to save us, Blaze said, dropping his eyes. It's just a start. He tightened the drawstring on his bag, jerking the knot so they wouldn't slip. 
He got his feet under him and walked on down the stream bed. Blaze kicked pebbles behind him. The only trees that could cling to the steep sides of the banks were small things, deep-rooted gnarls with close-clustered branches, and they walked in the full light of day. They hadn't seen sign of their pursuer since they'd heard their talk the day before. For all they knew, the three riders had headed west, lost their trail, and been turning in circles ever since. They were being chased by shadows. With a week to himself, with a month of study, Dante knew he could learn things to put a stop to all this. His eyes stung. Why didn't they just leave him alone? If the book was so special, why had they left it abandoned in a ruined temple? He slipped on a moss-coated stone, and Blaze grabbed his arm. Thanks, he said, brushing his sleeve where Blaze had touched him. The stream turned again, and the walls grew tight. Overhead, trees leaned over them, casting them into shadow. A gap no wider than an arm span separated the leaves on one side from those on the other. A blue and ragged line of sky so small, he thought it could close completely if they faltered. He planted his feet in the water, each step deliberate as a chess move, thwarting the pull of the current. His legs were soaked past the knees. He walked on, eyes split between the treacherous stones under his feet and that thin blue band up above. One step, then another, cold but not tired, alone but leading his friend. It was hours before the banks leveled out and the trees pressed them to the water's edge. Dante had cleansed himself of his weariness again, but hadn't touched Blaze since. If he wanted to ache and struggle to lift his feet, that was his business. The stream doubled in width, and when he looked to its middle, Dante could no longer see the bottom. The voice of the waters moved from the thin nattering of gossips to a deeper, thoughtful hum. Sometimes he wondered where the speed of the stream had gone. Then he'd catch sight of a leafy branch on its surface, hurtling past them at twice their swiftest walk, and he'd remember clear waters didn't mean still waters. He didn't speak up, but it wasn't long before he thought he could smell it. That faint tang of fresh water, not so stagnant as the pond, less of the earthy musk of dead, wet plants, and more that of a moving body, the crisper scent of pebbles being ground into the mud and dry dirt taking on water. A final elbow, and the forest disappeared in front of them, giving way to the flat, gray depths of the Chancet River, half a mile wide if a foot, the same river Bressel straddled eighty or a hundred miles downstream. There they rested long enough to catch their breath and wring out their stockings, which steamed on the broad rocks where the stream funneled into the river. They crunched down on the last of their carrots, tossing the limp green tails into the water. They felt the sun on their faces. Which way? Blaze said, jabbing between his teeth with a stiff sprig of grass. North? Put more distance between us and Bressel? Makes sense. Five more minutes, eh? Dante nodded. He cupped his hands to the stream, made sure his water skin was full. 
He wriggled the feeling back into his wrinkled toes, drying them for the first time since they'd been following the waterway. It might be days before his boots dried. What's funny? Blaze asked. I don't know why I bother, he said, nodding to the damp on the rocks where his feet had dripped. So moss doesn't grow between your toes, Blaze said with an air of authority. You can't grow moss on your feet, Dante said, a small string of carrot dislodged from his teeth, and he spat it out. I suppose you've soldiered in the fields where such things are common. You have. No, Blaze said, scratching his nose. But my dad told me. Moss on your feet like the hair on the knuckles of grown men's toes. Moss only grows on things that don't move, Dante said. But he no longer knew if that were true. He'd passed plenty of days with wet feet, but couldn't remember any that hadn't ended around a fire. Be quiet. Like trees and be quiet. Blaze commanded. Dante glared at him and saw he was peering down the riverbank. It was a moment before the horseman moved into view, a couple hundred yards distant. Dante pressed himself against the rocks next to Blaze. Do you think he heard us? No, Blaze murmured, then wiped his eyes. Too much other noise. Do you see any others? No. Could be in the woods. What's he doing? Looking for sign. Dante said. See how he zigzags, how slow it is. Now wonder they haven't caught us, Blaze said. And then his smile went away. Yet. A minute went by. Another. The man kept to his search, looking up every twenty or thirty seconds to scan the area. The first time he did so, Dante pulled his head down so fast he barked his chin on the rock and almost cried out. What do you think? I think, Dante breathed, he's alone. Blaze nodded. There's two of us. Think so. Better now than when the odds are back in their favor. I don't know. Blaze touched the hilt of his sword. We can get him if we sneak up on him. He's on horseback, Dante said, swallowing against the dryness of his throat. He'll ride away. A ride out of range, then turn around and trample us. What if we went down a little closer, then ran out on the bank screaming and running away? Like scared little kids, Dante said, giving him a look. Exactly like that, Blaze grinned. But we're not little kids. What do you bet he thinks we are? If you're strong, you're supposed to fake being weak. It's like the first rule of the field. Um, Dante said, wrapping his head around that. He's still on horseback. He'll murder us. That's where you come in. Blaze lifted himself a couple inches and started backing on elbows and hips into the protection of the trees. Dante did the same. When they could no longer see the rider, and the river showed in faint flashes behind the wall of reddening leaves, they got up and drew closer, placing their feet in the forest carpet like the first steps onto the uncertain ice of a pond. After what felt longer than an hour's march, Blaze put a hand on Dante's shoulder and snuck forward to where the trees thinned, peeking around a bowl. Still there, he breathed when he got back. 
grab a couple rocks. Rocks aren't going to make any difference. Every little advantage, Blaze said, then bit down hard to stop a laugh when he saw the look on Dante's face. You never know, might get lucky. I bet. Dante rolled his eyes and scooped up two smooth stones, heavy for how well they fit in his palm. He followed Blaze toward the river. Insane, he thought. All this chasing had driven them insane. Knowing this was the smart play did nothing to slow his charging heart to dry the dampness under his arms. Ready? I guess. Go, Blaze whispered, then ran out on the bank and began shrieking for his mother. Dante followed him, body tight with panic, when he saw the rider not a hundred feet downstream. He heard him actually laugh, then ran harder at the thunder of hooves in the grass. Within moments, the rider had halved the distance between them. He whipped his sword from his back and crouched in the saddle, lining the two boys in his sights. Dante tripped, flailing his arms for balance, and his screams were real. Now! Blaze yelled, but the stumble had stolen Dante's focus on the nether. He reached out again, the edges of his mind roaring like the wind. Now, you son of a bitch! The rider raised his sword. Light flashed over Dante's eyes. He could see the sod leaping from the horse's strides. He stopped and turned, laughing in horror, and when he imagined he could feel the horse's hot breath, he flung out his hand, and the beast's head disappeared in a ball of blackness. A stone hurled past his shoulder, and the rider swiped at it as his mount locked its legs and skidded on the damp grass. One of its front legs buckled, and then it was down, sliding and rolling in the grass, the snap of its bones and the suddenly scared curses of its rider as he leapt free and collapsed to the ground. The boys charged then. Dante threw both rocks with all his strength, missing the first and clipping the man's shoulder with the second. Blazer's blade bobbed beside him, and Dante tore loose his own, and they were on the downed man before he found his feet. You tricky shit, he screamed. He struck from his knees, a fierce blow Dante blocked, but which sent him staggering. The man's eyes were bright with some feral emotion when Blaze's counter cut off his left hand. He swung wildly, forcing the boy to fall back, then reeled to his feet. Dante stepped forward and swung his weapon with both hands. The man deflected it, but his motion threw off an already poor balance, and Blaze's stroke broke his ribs like the staves of a barrel. He fell to his knees, propping himself up with his bleeding stump. He opened his mouth and spit hung in strands. His elbow quivered, and he raised the point of his blade at the two boys. Dante's backhand strike knocked it from his hand. Blaze aimed a final blow at the soft stretch of his neck. It didn't fall cleanly, but when he pulled back his sword, the body dropped and didn't move. Blaze laughed, a hollow thing. Dante didn't join him. The others can't be far, Blaze said. We can hide his body. Dante slid his sword into its sheath. The man's wide wounds steamed in the chill air. Not the horse. Then we'll run, Dante said. He found a small coin purse and added it to his pocket. The horse was thrashing on the earth, legs shaking each time it tried to rise, and the bones wouldn't hold. Its great glassy eyes rolled in its skull. Dante looked to Blaze. 
I can't, Blaze stated. There's a bow, Dante said, pointing. Take it. What if it kicks me? It couldn't kick through a broken board, he said. And when he went for more words, he found half-digested carrots instead. He leaned over and spat them into the grass. He was looking for us to have gone south, Blaze said, turning away from Dante's gurgles. He shouldered the bow and a half-full quiver. There must be a town that way. Wetton, Dante said, the sour taste of his stomach on his tongue. He spat again. We can go faster on the bank. Can't risk it. Blaze headed back up the bank. Let's stick to the forest edge. Dante disagreed, but found himself light on the guts to speak up. They broke back into the trill of birdsong and the rattle of wind-shaken leaves and made a brisk trot south. Within seconds, Dante was shivering without stop. That wasn't how I imagined it would be, he said once his blood had calmed. You think about killing people a lot, Blaze said, smiling faintly. Sometimes, he smiled back. It didn't last. On his knees like that. Don't feel sorry for him. He was all set to trample us into the grass. But it was so... savage, Dante said. And Blaze shrugged. It was worse than the other times. It felt like a regression, like an act of a man he didn't know. He had no illusions fights were supposed to be fair. If the one with the tracker had been even, he without his horse and them without surprise, he expected it would have ended with a few pounds of steel through his heart. Yet he couldn't shake the feeling that what they'd done had been unnatural, that somewhere the gods were watching them and their judgment would be harsh. We'd be dead except that spell. Blaze said softly a moment later. Yeah. Were you scared? No, he said, running faster. A little. When I tripped. I just about dropped a pile of my britches, Blaze said, chortling so hard he had to sputter out the words. Then the look on his face when you blinded his horse. Gods! Dante chuckled weakly. It had looked otherworldly. The black ball where there should have been a head the rider throwing his hands over his head like a man falling through the false door of a wildcat trap. You have a strange sense of humor. He'd have laughed too if he could see it. Blaze giggled. Dante joined him, feeling outside himself. Their nervous energy gave out after a mile or so, and they slowed to a stroll to catch their breath. Dante clasped his hands behind his head to ward off the stitch in his side. They're not going to miss our tracks after that, he said, gazing into the woods, not even with their woodsmen dead. I figured that's why we were running away, Blaze said. The nearest town could be twenty miles from here. They're on horseback. So what? So what? So they'll find us and kill us. Blaze rolled his eyes. So what do you want to do about it? I don't know, Dante said, startled at the pitch of his own voice. He thought he was angry with Blaze for being so cavalier, but after a quarter mile of silent seething, he'd reached the same conclusion as the boy. They couldn't hide. They had no horses. Returning to the woods would do no good when the temple men had already found them once. 
All they could do was run and hope. The trees thinned, and he saw a stream of smoke rising from a fraction of a mile down the bank. For a moment, he let himself think their luck had turned, that it would be the outskirts of a town, maybe even Wetton. But it was a single house on the river's edge. The land rolled empty beyond it. Wait, he said. That's smoke. What about it? Blaze yawned. There'll be a boat. Smoke means fire. At the house where they have the fire, you dunce. You don't live in a river and not have a boat. Oh, Blaze said. Sure. If we cross over, they'd have to waste time finding a ferry. The current's fast, Dante said, frowning, picking at this new thread. If we row hard, they'd have to be riding pell-mell to keep up. We can reach town ahead of them. They looked at each other. Ambush, Blaze said. Nata, Dante agreed. One of those words you repeat without a clue where it came from. Yeah, the boy said, licking his lips. That's it. We take them out of the mix, and that gives us time to think up what the hell we do next. If we can't figure out what to do before they send the next guys, maybe we deserve to eat it. Dante crouched in the bushes of the forest's fringe, nothing but open grass north and south. Can you run? Let's do this thing. They cut right down the shallow slope of the grassy band, and then the steep rocky banks until their boots touched the water. The house lay straight ahead. It was a small thing, clearly no more than a couple rooms, and as they got closer, Dante grew afraid they'd found the one fisherman in the wide world who didn't own a boat. They drew to a quick walk at a couple hundred yards off, ears sharp for footsteps, for shouts, any sign of its owners other than the white wisps of smoke. At a hundred yards he could smell it strongly, the sweet smoky scent of dry heat and crisp winter. His eyes locked to the hut as they fell into its shadow. The bank stretched out in a tiny spit right before the hut, and as they crested the moist earth, he heard the hollow slap of water on a hull. Nice deduction, Sage Pratus, Blaze muttered, regarding the rowboat moored in the miniature bay beneath the house. A light wind blew in from the north. It smelled like the weather were turning. Think it's safe. Does it matter? Blaze said, tromping down to the two-person skiff. Its timbers were bleached with the wear of water and sunshine, and above the waterline the wood was fuzzy to the touch. Blaze knocked near the top of the hull, and one of the beams actually rattled. What's holding it together? The power of prayer? They take this thing out? Dante hissed, glancing at the river. I wouldn't trust it in a puddle. River looks okay, Blaze said, grabbing hold of the unraveling rope at its fore and following it to a stake a few feet up the bank. Get in. Lyle's balls, he swore, then edged up through the water and rolled himself inside. It was decently broad and didn't threaten to show its belly at the addition of his weight, but he didn't like the way it rolled on the current. Blaze freed the rope and swung the boat up sidelong to the shore then wiggled his rear like a cat before it makes a leap 
and hurled himself in behind Dante. The boat flapped around like a man who's just stubbed his toe, and Dante threw himself flat against its bottom. You ass! I'm now sailor, Lay said. Now I'm the captain here. Grab a damn oar. Are you sure you wouldn't rather finish training me? I think I hear someone coming, Blay said, cocking his ear and shoving them off. Where? Dante whispered, ducking down and taking up an oar. He dipped it smoothly into the water. Well, that got you rowing. He smiled at himself and picked up the other oar. Dante glared at him over his shoulder, then pressed his fingers to his temples. Row on the other side, you idiot. I said I'm not a sailor. Blaze spat back. Doesn't sound really carry on the water. One reason among many, you should shut the hell up. Blaze muttered to himself. They pointed the nose downstream and paddled out into the current. From forty or fifty feet off, the bank rushed by like they were running on the water. The blade of Dante's oar spun whirlpools and clouds of bubbles into the light chop of the grey waters. Each time he lifted it clear, a stream of water spattered away from the oar. Blacks and blues shimmered beneath the silvery surface, a hint at the vastness of its depths. Whose idea was this? Blaze asked. In five minutes of travel, the hut was already little more than a dark blot upstream. Further than the opposite shore. It was a good one. You sound surprised, Dante said. He let his paddle skim the surface for a moment, arching his back to flex the kinks from his shoulders. He thought about calling to the nether, soothing his muscles, but let it be. Rowing wouldn't kill him. The breeze was very faint, buffering him around the ears with only the occasional gust, but back in the woods, the heads of the trees were swaying. Brown leaves tore loose and fluttered south, hanging nearly motionless with regards to the boat. For perhaps the first time in his life, Dante wished he knew more about mathematics. Waves beat gently on the sides of the boat in glorps and burbles. The two paddles swished rhythmically. The trees on the banks fell away, replaced by fields of black-brown dirt and old yellow wheat stalks shorn of their heads. Now and then, a house stood up alone in the farmland. After a while, Dante's knees cramped under him, and he squirmed into a cross-legged stance. When he grew hot, he shed his cloak. A few miles down, the chance had bent to their left. Following its curve, they saw it widen further yet, and beyond the broad grey bulge of waters, no more than three miles away, twenty minutes, he figured, if they kept to their strokes, the welcome smoke and low-slung spires of what had to be wetten. Dante looked back and laughed at Blaze. Let's pull up before we hit town, Blaze said. It'll look weird paddling right up to the docks in this thing. I'm sure we could come up with something, Dante said. But a mile upstream, they angled it into shore on a sandy beach and disembarked into the shallows. He picked up the rope from inside the bow, as far as the rowboat could be said to have one, and carried it to shore. There's nowhere to tie it up. Who cares? We should at least drag it aground, he said, holding the rope in both hands. 
Maybe it'll treat someone else as well. Fine, Blaze said, and blew air past his lips. They grabbed hold of its slippery sides and leaned forward, pulling it up on the sand until it was clear of the waves lapping up the beach. Good enough, master? It'll have to do, Dante said, looking away. Well, forward ho. Blaze took the lead. The land north of the city had been cleared for farms and firewood, coverless, so they took to the road. The hard, rutted dirt felt odd beneath Dante's boots. It had been weeks and many miles since he'd walked on anything but forest floors and the beds of creeks. He looked down on himself, at the mud stuck to the bottom of his cloak, the knots in his bootlaces where they'd snapped and been retied, the grime coating his hands, the black crescents of his fingernails. He looked filthy, even by city standards. He realized with a small shock that made him feel old, he wanted a bath. The north wind kept wet and stink of smoke and sewage and tanneries and manure and sweat from their noses until they were within a bowshot of its gates. It hit them all at once, and they looked at each other, nose wrinkled, then laughed quietly. Haven't missed that, Blaze said. We're probably no better, Dante said, nudging his nose against his shoulder. He was right. At least we came by it honest. The boy stopped before the gates and put his hand on his sword. Um... Wetton's a free city, Dante said, then frowned. I think. Blaze glanced among the modest traffic passing through the crossroads behind the gate. Men and women on foot, a lot of ox and mule teams bearing wagons filled with the harvest of corn and wheat and potatoes and beans. A good number were armed. Not all, not even a majority, but in a minute's watching they saw more men, and a couple of women, with swords at their belt, than anywhere in Bressel but the arms yards and the barracks of the town watch. I'm thinking it's okay, Blaze said. I suppose we could just act natural. I don't know about that. For you, natural seems to involve getting wrapped up in death cults and murderous intrigue. They're not a death cult, Dante said, falling in behind. Among other minor miracles, he'd learned to walk without knocking his sheath against his knee, and he allowed himself a small swagger as they rejoined civilization. The shadow of the gate swallowed them up and spat them back into the sunshine of the interior crossroads. A few blocks passed without purpose, lost in the vision of houses of timber and stone, the pillowy white smoke of smithies, the simple presence of other people. Dante found himself watching every man who walked their way. Sometimes, sensing his gaze, their faces darkened with the half-felt emotion of troubled dreams. Sometimes he thought he saw fear. The shadows grew long and longer yet. Size-wise, Wetton was no contest to Bressel, but it was large enough to hide them if they wished, and it soon became clear it was far too big for them to keep watch on every road. We should get the nearest inn to that north gate, Dante said, stopping at an intersection. He stepped back from an oncoming carriage. Horse sweat ruffled his nostrils, and he tasted bile. I was thinking about that. They might cut through the forest. We should hire a beggar to watch the western gate, too. Make it a kid, Dante said. 
That way we can threaten to beat him up. The docks, then? That's where the scum always floats up? Dante nodded, deciding not to remind Blaze where he'd first found him. They made a left for the river and descended into the noise and clutter of trade, the stink of old fish and things rotting in water, the tall blank walls of warehouses. Down near the docks, swarms of mudders and the kind of boy who's always bumping over breadstands tore through the streets like skinny, reeking flies. None of them looked older than ten. One such group shrieked past, and Blaze hauled one in by the collar. What's your name, kid? Whatever you want it to be, the boy said, eyes held fast on their belted swords. He looked about seven, but his clothes flapped loose around his body, and his arms were straight and thin, knobby at the elbows and hands. Smart, Blaze said. We've got a job for you. Come on. Can't I stay here? The boy's round eyes stood out from his cinder-smudged face. There's money in it, Dante said bouncing a chuck off his chest. The kid seemed to rematerialize at ground level to snatch it up, then stood and stared up at them, head cocked. George, he said, what's yours? We need you to watch the West Gate, Blaze said. Don't the guards do that? The guards would want more money, Blaze said, smiling tightly. Come with us or cough it up. Let me go get Barnes, George said. That way he can watch if I fall asleep. He darted away before they could object. They hustled behind, tight on the heels of their investment. He'll betray us in a second, Dante said. We'll promise him more if he doesn't, and a thrashing if he does. You'd make a good magistrate, Dante snorted. George pried another dirty-haired youth from the crowd around an impromptu wrestling match, and they padded back to the older two. He's my brother, George said. We need you to watch the West Gate, Dante said, bending down to put his face level with theirs. We're looking for two riders. They look like... He stopped. They'd never seen the men other than the one they'd killed by the river. Doubtlessly, pairs of riders filtered into the city a score an hour. What do they look like, Blaze? How the hell should I know? One sounded nasty and one sounded like a princess. One's going to look weak and the other will look strong, Dante said. He rubbed his face. How could he have made an oversight like that? How had they planned to ambush them when they had no idea what they looked like? The weak one should look like a priest, wearing a robe or something. Blaze scratched his neck. At least the nasty one will have a sword. And they'll be on horseback, Dante added lamely. Only two of them. Okay, George said. What do we do when we see them? What's the closest inn to the north gate, Dante said. The foaming keg, Barnes put in. He was a few inches shorter than his brother, bore the same moppish dark brown hair, a year or two younger. It's the one with the picture of the foamy keg over the door. Right, Dante said, squeezing his eyes shut. If you see them, one of you comes and tells us right away. The other one follows them and sees where they go. Another chucks in it for you if you do. 
and the fist if you run off, Blaze put in, shaking his under their noses. Ask the innkeep for Dante. Or Blaze. Okay, George said. When do we start? Now, Blaze said. The brothers looked at each other and trotted off toward the west. They weren't wearing shoes. That may have been very stupid. They made haste for the foaming keg and spent ten minutes arguing with the keeper about the vacancy of windowed rooms on the second or third story facing the north gate. Back in Brussels, Dante would have given in at the keeper's first sob story or breakdown of expenses, but after the last few weeks, facing limited silver and an uncertain future, he accepted no terms until he was paying only half again what he thought fair. Both parties left angry, which struck him as the mark of true sophistication in the intercourse of society. Blaze installed himself in the window to watch the streets. His tanned face grew murky in the twilight. Dante lit a candle and holed up in the corner, spreading the cycle over his knees. There's a couple of riders, Blaze said, leaning forward. No, wait, that one's a woman. A woman riding outside a carriage? What kind of town is this? Couldn't say. There's a couple. But that guy looks like he's a billion years old. He looks like he died about five miles back. Blaze laughed and clapped his knee. Dante scowled at his pages. And those two look like they've bathed in the last month. Can't be them. A couple minutes dragged by. Oh, there's a- Enough, Dante said. Hey, at least I'm doing something here. Do it quietly. There's a couple, he stage whispered, then laughed at Dante's glare. All right, fine, read your damn book. I will. Good. It is good, Dante said, and found he'd lost his place. The skies grew dark. With fading frequency, Blaze would crane his face out the window to meet the clatter of hooves. Dante lost himself in the book, flipping between sections to make certain he was matching names to lineage and king to kingdom. A knock banged against the door and he bit his tongue. Blaze pointed at them, mouthed, You. He lowered himself from the sill and stepped to the side of the thin door. Noiselessly, he drew his blade. Ah, uh, who is it? Dante called, giving Blaze the eye. Barn, sir a small voice said from the other side. Blaze let out his breath, and Dante unbarred the door. Did you see them? George says to say we saw the two people you wanted us to see, Barn said. Where's George now? Dante asked. Following them. Where'd they go? Blaze said. I don't know, Barnes shrugged. Dante looked at Blaze over Barnes's greasy head. Shit. It's okay, Blaze said, eyes darting. Ah, uh, we should have at least a couple hours until they'd go to sleep. Barnes, do you think you can find George before midnight? Yeah, he's my brother. Then go find him. You two keep following until they go inside an inn. Then George stays there while you come back here. You got that? I think, Barnes said twisting his hips and swinging his arms. What did I say? You said go find George. 
Then when they go to sleep, come tell you. That is what I said, Blaze said, giving Dante an impressed look. Well, go do it, dammit. The boy disappeared without a word. Dante stared through the open doorway, wondering how many of them died before they reached his own age. His older brother had been among them, sending Barnes and his brother to spy on killers for a chuck apiece. But they were willing to take it. To them it must feel like the wealth of dragons. He rebarred the door and yawned. The dawn in the woods felt like ages ago. He slumped back in the corner, massaging the back of his head. The rears of his eyes felt like someone were pressing against them with a thumb. I'm going to nap, he told Blaze. Switch you in a couple hours. He settled down on the pallet, wrapping up in his cloak. Sometime later, a knock stirred him from sleep and he drew a deep breath. There was the tick of a lock, a muted conversation, but in his half-sleep, he couldn't make out a word. Get up, Tommy, Blaze said. Barnes is back. Dante sat up straight. His brain felt like it had been left in the thoroughfare for a season. He blinked at Blaze's wiry height, at the squirming Barnes who didn't rise past his ribcage. Hello, Dante said, scratchy. Hi, Barnes waved. The two men went to their room a while ago. How'd you find George? I asked the other boys if they'd seen him until one of them said yes. Oh. Dante got up. He emptied his pack of everything but the book and a knife and re-looped his sword belt around his waist. He had no idea what time it was. He felt worse than when he'd gone to sleep. What's everybody standing around for? Lead on, Blaze said, shoving Barnes lightly between the shoulders. They tramped down the streets. The night was cold. Wind channeled down the empty streets. Overhead, the stars watched with blank eyes. For ten minutes, Barnes led them through an impossible tangle of alleys, stopping briefly to greet other small boys who looked up at Dante and his sword with round and gleaming eyes. Barnes stopped in the mouth of a side street and pointed across an avenue to a wooden building with a painting of a frog's head above the door. They're the third room on the second story said a voice behind them. They whirled swords out and saw George. Don't hurt me. Sorry, Dante said. Get up already. Do we get our other chuck now? George said, scooting toward them, ignoring the fresh dust on his britches. How long ago did they go to their room? Blaze said. A while, George said. First they had some drinks. I got thrown out, but I sneaked back in. Dante handed him a blackened piece of silver. Go buy yourself some bread. Don't tell me what to do, George said. He jogged into the depths of the alley. Barnes waved at them and ran to catch up to his brother. Did you hear what he said to me? You'll get over it, Blaze said. He put away his sword. Sounds like they're drunk. Couldn't ask for more. You ready? Are you? It's the only way to get them off our backs, Dante said. The common room was stifling, rank with smoke and the sweat of men and the vinegary odor of vomited wine. The innkeep glanced up and they kept their eyes front and beelined for the stairs. At the second floor, Blaze brought out his blade 
and Dante followed suit. Blaze counted off the doors, pointed to the third. Dante nodded. Blaze squared himself in front of it, paced back. He waited till loud laughter peeled up from the first floor, then barreled forward, leveling a shoulder against the wood. It splintered to chunks, and he hurled right through into the darkness. Dante yelped and leaped over the wreckage of the door, whacking at the first figure that wasn't Blaze, who was busy extricating his sword from the chest of the same man Dante'd just stabbed. The dying man gurgled, and a candle flared from the far end of the room. They paused, wrists flexing, when the dying man slumped forward on their blades. Dante Galland, the remaining man said, and they heard the high, reedy voice from the stream two mornings before. He had a long, pale face, black hair cued at the base of his neck, and falling past his shoulders. He was wearing nothing but a dirty grey set of underclothes which sagged at the ass and elbows. Some son of a bitch you won't leave us alone, Blaze said back at him, twisting his sword in the other man's body and hauling it free. Blood sprayed over his hand, and the corpse dropped onto Dante's feet, pulling his sword from his grasp. The man splayed his fingers at them, and Dante saw the air go dark. By instinct he punched back, and a black gout rippled like flame from his hand. The two forces met and became nothing. The man curled his lip, gestured with index and middle fingers. Dante felt the nether enfolding him like a cloak. He swung his arm from the elbow as if to say, Behold! and again negated the man's power. Stop that, the man said. Burn in hell, Blaze shot, chopping the air and spraying the man with blood. He stepped forward. Don't move, Dante warned. They didn't tell me you shared the talent, the black-haired man said, fists held out from his sides. A temporary stillness stood between them. What did they tell you? You'd stolen the cycle. He smiled with half his mouth. I can see that much is true. Can you? It cleared your mind, the man said, eyes and voice pinched with suspicion. Opened the path to the nether. I see, Dante lied. Indeed. The man nodded, glancing between Dante and Blaze's blood-slick sword. This may change things. How's that? Blaze said. They may welcome another into the fold, that's how. Blaze laughed. The only fold's going to be the one I cleave into your forehead. Then it's a good thing it's not your decision to make, because I'd crush you like a bean. You've been trying to kill me for weeks, Dante said. That was then, the man said, drawing back his shoulders. What you need now is proper training. I've stopped you well enough without it. If kicking down a door should impress me, then I'm impressed, the man said, brushing the shoulder of his underwear. But I'm not much, really. Nothing compared to the ones who'd teach you, or the ones who'd come after you if you deny me. Dante said nothing. To accept would be to part with Blaze. He knew there were parts of the book that would take years to untangle, that its pages held knowledge he'd never learn in isolated scholarship. The powers he saw when he slept.
He didn't even know how it had caused him to come in tune with the nether in the first place. He did know he didn't like this man, and didn't trust the sect he represented. They may not be the amoral, bloodthirsty force the histories tried to paint them as, but Dante suspected a force as primal as the Nether couldn't be tapped without a certain recklessness of spirit that must taint their entire order. Who are these others? The Holy Aferon, the man replied, as if he'd asked which direction the sun rose. And what is it they want? Open worship of our Lord, an equal place among the houses of the belt. Their temples are smashed, Dante said. Their people are slain. Their gods can't be killed, and neither can the ones who'd praise them. As for temples, we have ours within Menox, with Carver House. Even the houses of Gashin count priests of a deeper alliance. Dante drew back his chin. What? You've been seeding them with your own people? The man snorted. Am I supposed to think it's dishonorable? What's the honor in getting slaughtered in the open field? What's the glory in a fourth scar when you're the one getting scoured? I don't understand, Dante said, trying to remember all the men of cloth he'd met in the temples and cloisters and cathedrals of Bressel. How many of them served a second god in secret, the very one whose knowledge Dante had been seeking? How long has this been going on? That's enough. The man held up his hand, palm out. From the corner of his eye, Dante saw Blaze's arm tense up. Come with me back to Bressel and we'll sail to Narashtovic. There you'll learn whatever you want, things you don't yet even know to ask about. Agreement ached in Dante's chest so hard he'd almost said yes before he could think. He glanced at Blaze and the blood sliding down the boy's sword. Say Dante left now with this man for Bressel, for this Narashtovic. Say Dante had thirty or fifty years left to his life, three to five decades to spend forging a name so bright he'd rival the stars, and every day of which he'd spend regretting the moment he'd left Blaze to whatever mean fate awaited him. I won't be bound to anybody, Dante said, knowing there would be other ways. Not even the gods. I thought the same thing when I was your age, the man chuckled. Have faith in those above, and someday you'll be the one looking down. I'm not much for waiting, Dante said, and then he flung out his hand and sent the opposite edge of the shadows that would heal. The man jerked his hands up to his chest, but before he could speak, his stomach spilled open like a sword had torn across it. His hands plunged to catch the intestines that slithered to the floor. Blaze screamed. The man hunched, clutching at his belly, gaping at Dante. The man raised shaking fingers thick with the blackish blood of the body. Dante reached for more shadows to meet the man's summons and found only a flicker. Blaze's arm blurred and his sword spun across the room, pinning through the man's neck. The black-haired man made a choked gasp, tongue jutting from his mouth. He rolled his eyes as if exasperated it had come to this— killed in his underwear in a foreign town by two dirt-caked boys. Then he went limp, hanging from the sword embedded in the wall. 
What in the name of whoever you hold holy was that? Blaze said, planting his foot against the wall and clearing his sword. The body thumped. He wiped it clean and sheathed it. I healed him, Dante said. No, you didn't. I mean, I did it backwards. Dante lowered himself and groped for his own sword beneath the body of the first man they'd killed. He touched the warm stick of blood and drew back. I didn't know it would do that. I don't think he did either. Blaze kicked the corpse, then shuddered so hard he fumbled his sword. He turned to Dante, face white and misted up with sweat. Did you mean what you said? About not being bound to anyone? I'll find my own way. I don't need them or anyone else to find what I'm searching for. Blaze nodded and looked away. His face soured. This place stinks like a slaughterhouse. They left down the stairs. For whatever racket their disturbance may have raised, there was no sign the drunk keepers and drunker patrons of the common room had heard a thing. The two of them took to the streets, hunting their way back in the bath of the moon, till their eyes found the painting of the foaming keg. Dante pushed down his nausea. His shoulders felt as broad as a bear's. There was no power in the world that could stop him and Blaze, he thought. They'd bend the world to its knee. Chapter 5 They arrested your friend. Dante spun for the high-pitched, sexless source of that news. He backed in a circle, then saw the dark head of one of the two brothers. Now that they weren't standing next to each other, he couldn't tell which was which. Arrested. For what? How do you know? I saw them go in after you left, the kid said. There were a whole lot of watchmen. They carried him out on their shoulders. He tipped his head till his ear touched his shoulder. He said lots of nasty words. Dante grabbed the boy by the collar and hauled him into the alley he'd just come out of. If they'd been after Blaze, they'd be after him. It was only blind chance the kid had found him on his way back from the market before he'd returned to the keg. Where are they keeping him? They keep them all at the old bailey. They have the trial on the Saturday, and then if they're guilty, they hang them the next Saturday. How do we tell who's guilty? I don't know, the boy said, sweeping the dirt with his toe. I guess they all are, cause they're all at the hanging. Go see what you can see, kid. I'll reward you beyond your dreams. I can count to a hundred, he said, then spun off down the streets. Dante rested his hand on his sword, glancing down both ends of the alley. He double, then triple-checked his pack to make sure the book was still there. Anything at the keg was lost. Going back would mean arrest. His prayer books, his histories, his candles and his notes and spare paper, all that was replaceable. It hurt to leave it, but he had no choice. His first instinct was to skip town. His second was to hunker down in the woods until the Saturday after and make a one-man assault on the city when they brought Blaze down to the gallows. 
He saw several flaws in his plan, however, not least of which was he'd have no chance of surviving, and Blaze would be killed anyway. The gesture would be nice, noble even, and even if there were a bard in the crowd, Dante would have a song written about him everyone could sing and forget in a season or two, but that would make him no less dead. Except possibly in a metaphorical way, that would do nothing to stop the worms from eating his skin. He picked up a shard of cobble and hurled it against the alley wall. He took a breath and looked around again. What did he have? Time, in some small measure. He had time. He should juice that for all it's worth before getting sucked into anything rash. The trial was two days off, the hanging a week from then. The first order of business was to find a place to hide, so he couldn't be caught before he had a chance to try anything tremendously stupid. He drew his cowl over his head. Rule out the docks. The boys were too easily bought if any of the watch were canny enough to throw a little coin their way. Plenty of other inns in town, but inns attracted traffic, and traffic attracted do-gooders and bounty vultures. Even if he holed up in his room, coming and going by cover of darkness, someone would see him. He needed isolation. The kind of place no one went without being dragged. An abandoned building could work, if he could trust himself to differentiate between the truly abandoned and the merely decrepit. But that could be little better than an inn. Abandoned buildings attracted vagabonds, and vagabonds attracted lawmen. The basement beneath a slaughterhouse would be avoided by anyone with a working nose, but he'd have to do an awful lot of sneaking to avoid the laborers. And anyway, it was a place of trade. A churchyard, maybe. No one went to graves except on the anniversaries of the faithful departed. But he'd feel too foolish skulking around the tombstones. Leaving for the woods would cut him off from the clockwork of the city. He had to stay close. If, for some reason, the courts changed their schedule, Blaze could be killed before Dante heard one word. The graveyard, then. He set his mouth. At least his shame would be private. Dante fake-limped through the foot traffic, coughing wetly like a man on his way out, and enthusiastic about sharing his imbalanced humors. The first man he stopped drew his sleeve over his mouth and waved Dante to the south. Not knowing local landmarks are much other than what Bressel had taught him of how cities worked, he kept to the main streets, trusting his hood and his cough to deflect wandering eyes. Twice he crossed paths with officious men in cleanish brown uniforms. They walked without hurry, sweeping the crowds. Dante sealed up and strolled past them. If they had his description, he'd either run, fight, or die. Finding the churchyard wasn't hard, he just kept heading south until he saw a steeple surrounded by green lawns and gnarled old trees. Its lower stretch was coated in simple wooden poles, flat stones, fieldstone piles, and the dick-like obelisks of Sim, Leah's wayward husband who made sure to come back her way every spring. Just as often, there were no markers at all, just scruffy grasses on an ankle-high mound. The yard was big and quiet and empty. The shouts and hooves of the city faded behind him, blending into birdsong and the rustle of wind. 
He made for the towering markers and mausoleums that clustered at the crest of the short hill, a ways inside the yard. The first mausoleum door he tried didn't budge. The second swung with the sound of grating stone, but before he'd taken two steps inside, he was floored by the meaty stink of the recently deceased. He backed out, tenting the collar of his cloak over his nose. The fifth vault he tried opened reluctantly, and he eased inside, breathing through his mouth. All he smelled was dust and things turning into dust. Old flowers rested on the shelves with the urns of the cremated, but they were gray things, and when he touched them, they crumbled away, paffing against the stone floor. With the door propped part open, there was enough light to read by, if he squinted. He sat down on a cool stone shelf at the back of the room. He could bribe the Bailey guards, maybe. He didn't have much, but the collected purses of all the men they'd put down between Bressel and here would make a decent temptation to spring a nobody like Blaze. Just as likely they'd see right through him and lock him up and take the money. He could use George and Barnes as a go-between, but that was no better. They'd be beaten or killed if they showed up with that much silver. And them showing up at all after he'd handed them that much coin was no sure thing. He could try getting Blaze a note. Notes were simple enough, and maybe Blaze could tell him something that would help Dante break him out. But Blaze couldn't read. Dante covered his eyes with one hand. He'd relished his solitude not a month ago. Now it felt empty, powerless as a childless old woman. Blaze had been arrested for the crime of being caught keeping himself alive. Those were the facts, but Dante had the sense the arrest itself would be proof enough of his guilt. He grabbed a vase and hurled it across the vault. The lacquered pottery exploded, shards tinkling on the stone. Ashes billowed low on the floor like a fog. Where had the law been when they'd been hunted like foxes? The watch had only shown their fat faces after the blood had been spilled, the blades put away. Blaze had been sleeping when he'd left. No doubt they'd crept up on him that way, catching him in his bed. They wouldn't have the decency to meet him with a sword in his hand. Whatever his fate... Dante resolved to slit as many of their throats as he could reach before it was over. He spent the daylight with the cycle, groping for answers that would bring him the strength to find a solution. Jack Hand kept showing up. Jack Hand's kingdom grew to hold the two rivers at its north and the Golden Forge at its south. He married the Maiden of the West and saw the sun rise over two hatches of cicadas. But, as with all growths, it began to take forms he could neither guess nor control. He wiled the days in the Tower of Venge and brooded on the new powers he could feel stirring within the lands. Shadows played in the hands of men he'd never met, men who owed him no homage. In the time-honored right of a king to own the hearts and minds of those who live by his grace in his lands, he dispersed the army of rats to train their eyeless sockets on the men who practiced in secret. He called his advisers to the tower, trading tactics over maps and oaths over ale. At the end of seven days, 
he knew the names of the fifty-four conspirators and the homes of their families. Wise to the way, untreated roots will bear poison fruit, even when their trunk and its branches are hacked and burned. He dispatched his blue cloaks to reach every manor within an hour's span, and in that way he cut short that threat in a single long-armed stroke. The wails of the doomed had no time to reach the ears of the next in line, and they perished before they could take to the road and plant the seeds of retribution. He'd meant to send a signal of fire that night to all who watched, but when he gazed from his tower at the fresh green folds of land and the fine white houses of the dead, he puzzled on the balance of destruction and creation. Instead of burning the houses of the traitors, he washed them clean of treachery and bequeathed them to the priests of his patron. And they sang the miracle of the man who turned the crippling poison into the strength of blood. He napped through the twilight and first hours of night, and then cut out for the docks. Boys shrieked and punched and threw dice. He lingered in the shelter of doorways, wasting half an hour before he spotted the kid who told him of Blazer's arrest. Hey, Barnes. I'm George, the boy said, separating from his group. Did you find anything? No, George said, wagging his head. They won't let me into the bailey. Dante swore. Does it have windows? Why would a bailey have windows? There has to be some way in. George shook his head more. Vance tried to go in when he wasn't supposed to last year, and we never saw him since. You're smarter than him, aren't you? Dante said. The boy shrugged, and anger flashed through his veins. I'm beginning to doubt your value. You smell, George said, and before Dante could strike him, he'd retreated to a pack of eight or ten other boys. Dante took a step toward them, and their eyes glittered like animals beyond the light of a fire. They moved forward as one, faces and hands tight. He spat in the dirt and turned away. Once he left their sight, he ran and didn't stop until he reached the churchyard. He called out for the nether, released it, called again, convincing himself it was his to command. The next day gave him nothing. He read through the morning, leaving long enough to buy some bread and salted meat and ask the grocer where and what time they held the trials, then returned to his tomb and read and ate and slept. Like that, the hours were gone. He woke that Saturday, and it was some time before he remembered enough to be afraid. He didn't intend to do anything more than go down to the trial and see what turned out. But even that modest plan shook him like a boy shakes a lightning bug in a bottle. He ate a bite of bread, chewing long after it was soft enough to swallow, then put the rest away. He'd puke if he tried any more. For a while he walked among the tombstones, reading names, feeling his boots in the grass, and the dirt between him and the bodies of the forgotten. The stones bore names and titles and families, lands and holdings and glories, cracks and crooked bases, and vandalism. A bent-backed figure trudged slowly through the flat part of the yard, a couple hundred feet from the hill. 
Dante crouched behind a tombstone and waited for the man to go away. He reminded himself he was just going to observe, to see if maybe they'd just give Blaze the lash and then the two could be back on their way. He scooped up dirt and rubbed it on his cheeks and neck, mussed his black hair, combing it through his fingers to stretch it over his ears and down his forehead. Let them recognize him through that. The crowds weren't too bad. A few hundred people had found the time to loiter around the square to laugh and jeer the accused. Others formed a lopsided ring around a red belt of flagstones kept clear by a parcel of watchmen in rich brown cloaks. The red stones were divided into twelve sections and looped around an inner circle of white stone. At its center, a magistrate held court on a raised dais. Before him, attending his words with dirt-streaked faces, three men dressed in rags and chains awaited sentence. Dante's heart shuddered. Had he missed Blaze's hearing? He threaded among the crowd, trading elbows and shoulders. The magistrate murmured something, and the mob ruffled with laughter. Dante got about four people deep from the belt of red stones, and found he could go no further. He stood on his toes, scanning the faces of the accused, and after several long moments he found Blaze. The boy's cheeks looked puffy. A number of lumps and cuts stood redly on his nose and chin, but his eyes were hard and bright. The three men were dragged off for various beatings and imprisonments, and the next man in line was brought to stand before the court and be accused of attacking a tailor. For the next two minutes, the magistrate heard arguments of witness and defendant. The crowd cheered his sentence. See you next Saturday, some wag called as he was hauled off. The bailiff stepped up beside the magistrate and thinned his eyes at his parchment. Next to stand before this court, Blaze Buckler, he said. The people exchanged glances, laughing as the name circulated through the crowd. Dante clamped his jaw together as Blaze waddled into the open circle, chains clanking. Blaze Buckler, the magistrate said, and bulged his lower lip with his tongue. He had a fine, delicate-boned face, and he stroked the saggy skin of his neck while he considered Blaze. The charges against you are of two murders in the public house. What say you of your guilt? Not, Blaze said. Very well, witness. A man stepped forward, and Dante recognized the innkeep they'd seen in the common room of the frog's head. He was a fat man, the kind of man who spent more time in his own kitchen than fetching drinks. That would be me, sir. What did you see that night? The magistrate said, leaning forward. I saw the two boys come in, he said, looking around the craned faces of the crowd. They looked like rough boys. I've seen too many like them to be fooled by youth. To the point? Right. They went upstairs. After a bit, we heard some crashing around like the end of the world, and a bit after that, they walked down cool as the Norwind. I go upstairs and see the two slain. They had their guts hanging out like does. Sickening. Yes, sir. I'd never seen human intestines before. Were sort of pinkish-gray, with these funny blue bands around them. Ghastly. Indeed. 
the magistrate said, pursing his lips. As concerns your earlier statement, is that to say you didn't actually see the murders take place? Well, I wasn't about to go upstairs, the innkeeper said. It sounded like people were being killed up there. The crowd groused with laughter. The magistrate quirked his mouth and beckoned Blaze forward. What do you have to say in your defense? They were tracking me and Dante for days, Blaze said. His voice lost its waver as he went along. They're cultists. They tried to kill us before we turned the tables on them. So you admit killing them, the magistrate said, raising a grey brow. He met the eyes of the audience and they laughed. It was them or us, Blaze said, standing straight in his chains. So you say. Can anyone corroborate your story? Co- what a wait. The magistrate steepled his hands. Were there any other witnesses? Well, Dante was there, he said. If he was here, he'd tell you the same thing. Wouldn't he tell me anything to save his neck from rope burn? Blaze cocked his head. Is your majesty calling me a liar? The magistrate lifted his eyes to the overcast sky and waited for the nattering of the crowd to die down. He chuckled once they were reasonably silent, scratching his upper lip. I'm no king, he said, and I'd say your motivations cast some aspersions on your words. What? Well, how do you know he's not lying? Blaze said, pointing at the innkeep. Because he'd be hanged for it. He's run the frog's head for two decades, and his father before him. Do you have family here? Property? I'm a registered armsman of Bressel. Your papers, the magistrate said. Blaze said something Dante couldn't catch. The bailiff approached him and fumbled through the pockets of Blaze's grimy doublet. From here and there, the men of the crowd started hissing. The blank-faced bailiff removed a greenish crust of bread from Blaze's shirt, then scowled and cast it away. In another pocket he found the papers and carried them to the magistrate. You're not of the arms killed, he said after a moment's examination. Perhaps you gave them some trouble. They said I was too young, Blaze cried. A likely story. Look, you old crow, those guys were trying to kill us. What else were we supposed to do? Peace, peace, the magistrate said, raising his palms. The court has other business today, and you're not the first nor the last to hold himself above the law. That's all this matter is, isn't it? Your defense, so far as it can be believed, is the law of the wilds. The laws of man are derived from the gods of the belt itself. We believe in justice on this earth and mercy in the heavens. He parted his lips and gazed up at the clouds. You're to be executed one week hence. Well, eat shit, Blaze shouted. The bailiff punched him in the eye, and he dropped out of sight. Dante shoved the man in front of him out of his way, bouncing up and down to get a glimpse of Blaze before they wrangled him back to his cell. But the boy stumbled on his chains, pelted by hard bread and softer, less savory things, and was swallowed by the rabble.
The next prisoner was brought forth, and the mob forgot about Blaze as the process began again. Dante turned and forced himself away from the white stone circle and its red band. He bumped someone, and they responded with a fist to his ribs. Dante's hand clutched at his sword. The man's life was saved by Dante's dim understanding. He would only have the chance for one big scene in this town, and this wasn't the time for it. He walked on. He walked back to the tomb. He walked in a fugue of scarred faces and screeching voices that echoed from the city walls like the whole thing was shaking apart. Nothing but a show, a dance, an act for the men of Wetton to pat themselves on the back and feel great about having sent a trumped-up monster to his grave. The laws were as hollow as the black between the stars. He'd see them swing from their own nooses next Saturday. He felt grass beneath his feet and stopped to get his bearings. Rain was falling, pocking against his hood. Back in the churchyard, back among the dead. The rest of the town could learn a thing from the way they laid there without screwing anything up. He closed his eyes, shook his head. His chest quaked as he sucked air. See the show today? Dante didn't turn. He cleared his mind as best he could and gathered up the shadows. You were there, I'm sure. Ah, already I begin to see how you survived. The voice was nasal, accented with the clipped, burnished words of the kind of man who rode around in knee breeches. Dante faced him then, expecting a strong-chinned, empty-eyed lord, and meeting instead a skinny, dirty, two steps from sackcloth greybeard, with stringy hair and an air of patient amusement. What do you want? It isn't what I want. It's what you want, Dante. Now that's downright profound, Dante said. He froze, tightening his grip on the nether. How did you know my name? Lucky guess, the old man said. My name's Kelly. Pretty nice beard for a Kelly. I think I've been hearing that joke for longer than I've been alive. Callie smiled at Dante, letting him stew. It's short for something obnoxiously longer. I'm sorry, he said, unsure why. Don't be. The old man folded his hands behind his back and gazed up into the churchyard. A drop of rain hit him in the eye, and he blinked. Anyone would be angry after what they did to your friend. It was like a punchline without a joke, Dante said. It's not fair. He was telling the truth. What are you going to do about it? Wait a week and find out. I know your name, Callie said, looking on him with fever-bright blue eyes, a green corona around their pupils. Because I'm one of them. Dante jerked back and lashed out with all the nether he could hold. The old man should have ruptured like a sack of oats, spilled his guts like the devotee in the inn. Instead, nothing. A slight pressure in Dante's ears. Callie pinched his upper lip, chuckling. I didn't say I was trying to kill you. Oh, I suppose you're just here for a friendly chat about the glory of Iran. That would be boring for us both the old man said, beetling his brows. I've got far more interesting things to teach you. Like what? 
Dante said. His hand drifted toward his sword. Like how they wanted you to find the book? Right. That explains why they've been trying to kill me to get it back ever since. And sending a single kneeling to fetch a copy of a priceless relic makes sense, Cully whooped, slapping his knee with his shapeless black hat. I always told him that would be transparent as a window pane, but it always works. It always works. Dante rolled his eyes. So, logically, they wanted me to have it. Well, they did and they didn't. It's a large organization. It isn't like a single body, where all organs work in harmony. There are many cross-purposes, contradictions, disagreements in methodology. Are you expecting me to believe or understand any of this? Think about the gods for a moment, Callie said, then glanced behind him. He leaned in and touched Dante's elbow. Walk with me. We shouldn't do this here. Good. Where was I? The gods. It always comes back to them, doesn't it? How is it they're able to make everything so clear? Perhaps it's the advantage of their heavenly perspective, Dante muttered. Callie chuckled at that, a noise surprisingly like, heh, heh, and led Dante further into the churchyard. Once a few trees stood between them and the eyes of the city, the old man stopped and mused a moment, listening to the patter of the rain on the leaves. We speak of the houses of the belt of Seleucus, as if the gods were all one mind. Yet all of the stories are about how they squabble and shift alliances whenever it's expedient. And who could blame them? Their brothers and sisters and fathers and daughters are all bitches or the sons thereof. In similar fashion, the admirers of Iran are fractured in their methods. The underlings who don't know what's going on see your book's been stolen and are ordered to sprint off and plant you in your grave. Others, notably the ones who give the orders, put the book there for it to be stolen. Why the hell would they want to do that? Because it suits their purposes, obviously. And what's your purpose in telling me all this? Dante said. Callie just laughed. A good question. Listen, do you want to save your friend? Of course. Do you think you can do it alone? I think a lot of them will die, Dante said. A crow cawed from among the graves. Callie's own mouth stayed shut. No, Dante admitted. There's too many of them. It turns out true justice can always be made up for with numbers. Callie agreed, clenching his fists and cracking his knuckles. It's enough to make a man wonder if there's any such thing. On the other hand, a pure state of justice wouldn't be sullied just because, can you help me or not? Dante grabbed the old man's arm. A cold shock ran from his fingers to his shoulder, and he pulled away. What are you? You know what I am, Callie said deadly soft, and the whole world went dark. Dante staggered back, hands shielding his face until he saw the overcast light of mid-afternoon, the silent flight of birds, the fall of rain, the row on row of long-buried bones. When he looked back at Callie, 
he looked old and skinny as ever. Will you help me? Teach you. Kali corrected, holding up a finger. Enhance your knowledge, maybe a more accurate phrase. I trust all that running hasn't left much time for reading. Right again, Dante said slowly. How do you know all this? Simple deduction, the old man said. And having lived an awful many years in the company of men too given to scheming. So why do they want people to steal the cycle? Callie sucked his teeth, smacked his lips. You should know that already. Until a few minutes ago, I was under the impression its theft was a capital crime. Who is Aran? Is this a trick? Humor me. The god of death, Dante said. His face flushed, but he let his simplification stand. More like the god who greets the dead and transfers them to what comes next. What else? I don't know. He's Carvajal's brother. A gleam took Callie's eye. And the history between the two? Not very good, Dante frowned. He gave Carvajal the secret of fire, then Carvajal walled him up so he'd get all the credit. Callie raised his eyebrows. Dante thought he had the answer, but it was too wild, too conspiratorial. The old man sighed and dropped his eyes. And you seemed so promising. They want to release Aron from his prison, Dante blurted, and they want someone to steal the book because they can't do it themselves? You'd make a decent rhetorician, Callie said, applauding. I can't do that. I don't even know what I'm doing. Oh, indeed. It's more complicated than that. Much more complicated. But the book is bait for the kind of person who might be able to help them. Running you through all the rigmarole like that. What? He drew back. To weed out the ones who can't help? Callie bit his lip and wagged his head, weighing the statement. Something like that. Isn't trying to kill me a little extreme? Couldn't they just have me read a few pages and then have a go? Or, you know, ask whether I've ever seen a shadow slithering around like a snake? Wouldn't that be easier than some big charade where either I die or a lot of them do? First off, the minions who've been chasing you don't know anything more than that you stole the book. They really do just want you dead. Callie scowled. I told you, it's complicated. Is that your word for insane? Lower your voice for the God's sakes. The old man winced, patting the air with his hands. It's one of those things that's worked, no matter how crazy it sounds, so it's hardly worth getting into why it works. It has a lot to do with the fact everyone else thinks they're dead in these lands, so if they don't want to spill the beans, they have to be elaborately sneaky about these things. The rest of it's one of those webs of politics where understanding it would take a lifetime of history and then another lifetime of theology. If it turns out you've got two lifetimes to spare, we'll hash it out in front of a hearth some day. But for now, stop asking stupid questions and just believe what I'm telling you. And what's your role in this web? Dante said, ignoring the bevy of suspicions that popped up whenever anyone talked about taking something on faith. Why are we even talking right now? 
because I happen to think my brother believers are full of shit. He looked around himself, as if noticing their surroundings for the first time. What are you doing staying in a cemetery anyway? No one comes to a graveyard if they can help it. Smart. Smart enough to ask your damned question a third time. Callie sighed, wrinkling his nose, then laughed just as suddenly. It was supposed to be charming, Dante saw, but he found the man's shifts of mood jarring, a sign of a mind more fractured than fanciful. I am not a fanatic of their ends-over-means philosophy. That's what caused all this trouble in the first place. He tugged his beard far away. So, I'm cast out. Meanwhile, they found a way to tell people about the power of the book and the truth of Iran without exposing themselves, then recruit the few who can actually make any use of it. But you know what happens to tools that don't get the job done, right? Or tools that ask too many questions? What? They're thrown away, you idiot! Callie huffed. His breath curled in the moist air. But I know the same things they do. He narrowed his eyes, sly. The things that can't be learned by reading the cycle. I can turn raw men into great men, and in so doing steal them away from the hands of my foes. He smiled, and with his grey beard and bright eyes, Dante thought he looked like a grandfather who'd spoil a boy hardened by the father's tough love. He shifted his feet. Every man of Aron I've met so far has wanted to make my head a separate entity from my body. Indeed. And when you tried to throw that little trifle at me, what did you feel? You barely had to think to deflect it, Dante replied. You could have smashed me to bits. Tiny ones. But then I'd have blood and bone all over my cloak. Callie cracked with laughter as he stroked his grime-streaked rags. Dante shut his eyes. He'd resigned himself to flinging himself at the men who held Blaze in chains and dying in the attempt. Ever since he'd run out on the village, he'd felt hemmed in, a minor part of an infinite play, casting out blindly for a force that could never be his. Three months since he'd left them behind. He could still see the grasses turning yellow in the heat of high summer as he ran down the path that led to Bressel, still smell the dairy-like stink of his feet when he unbooted them after that first day's travel. Before he left, he'd been taught nothing more than what the monk of Tame who'd housed him had seen fit. The stories of the gods, how they'd created man and then been betrayed by men's foolish arrogance, how we wouldn't know peace until we learned to return to them on our knees and seek forgiveness. A weak-minded lie, the monk told himself, so he could accept his meager place. Dante owed nothing to anyone. And so he'd left, chasing the story of the book. But when he'd found it, the monk's threat of a mediocre existence had been replaced at once by the mortal threat of the men of Aron. Never in his life had Dante been left alone to find his own way. I want to learn, Dante said, gazing into Callie's mirth-wrinkled face. I'll burn the whole city if they stand in my way.
Chapter 6 The vault was as good a place as any for their work, Callie had declared, if a little dramatic. So there they went. Callie swung the door shut behind them, closing them in darkness. Dante reached into his pocket, and his torchstone bathed them in a pale light. Where'd you get that? Callie said, seating himself on the pedestal near the front of the room. I've always had it. I may have made it, for all I know. Dante lowered himself to the cold stone floor and tried not to sigh too loud. Made a lot of them, did you? I did, actually, so stop making that face. We all need money. Callie puffed out his cheeks and looked around himself. So, let's see about trying some terminology to these vague things you've taught yourself so far. We'll start at the beginning. Oh, good. Modern understanding says the ether is the force that illuminates the firmament and bestows motility to man and beast. Some schools take this a step farther, equating this original force with jurisprudential order, explaining that just as the laws of our courts are derived from the reflection of the perfection of the revolution of the heavens, so are the laws of man's nature a reflection of the animatory power of the belt of the Celeset. So, personally, I feel these schools are unnecessarily harmonious, establishing a false dichotomy of order meant to reinforce the position of the elite in the minds of the blank-slate boys they're supposedly educating. Any idiot can see this school is an artificial imposition of the human mind. As if the mishmash of vengeance and despotism we witnessed this afternoon bears any resemblance to the unabridged consistency of the stars, do you think the ether's responsible for poor Blaze's fate? No, Dante said, face stony. Callie barely noticed, launching himself into the next phase of his lecture with the intensity of a man who spent decades thinking about an audience to relieve the pressure of his head. Tell me what I just said, he said some ten minutes later. Dante turned his hands in his lap. You said the nether, the ether. You said the ether, Dante said, pausing until he was certain there'd be no interruption. Lurks behind all things, and that's where we draw our power. That's not what I said. Callie snatched his cap from his head and twisted it in his bony hands. You're just parroting the book, treating the ether like the mirror image of the nether. Is gold the opposite of silver? Is the sun the opposite of the moon? You've got it all backwards. Backwards? First the ether, then the nether. How can you define the primary when your view of the secondary is all warped up? You don't even have the grounding to understand the words primary and secondary are themselves gross assumptions of the tame-based perspective. Callie scowled combing out his beard with his fingers. Listen, I've got some things to go do. But I haven't learned anything, Dante said, rising to his feet. I'm beginning to understand how true that is. I'll be back by dark. Callie pushed his frail back against the door. It grated open, and he wormed into the gap. Meditate on what it means to be a duck, he called back into the tomb. A duck? 
Dante said, but the old man was gone. Dante wandered from the door and propped himself on a shelf. Somewhere across town, Blaze was in a room like this. Probably it was smaller, darker, had been home to more of the dead than this mausoleum. Dante punched the stone shelf, then sucked his bleeding knuckles. A duck. What the hell was that supposed to mean? If this was a game, why didn't Callie just spell out what he wanted? If Dante was supposed to do all the work without any guidance, what was Callie doing there in the first place? He took a long breath. There was a chance Callie knew what he was doing. He was very old, after all. If he wanted ducks, Dante would give him ducks. He'd give him so many ducks, the old man would be ashamed he'd ever given him such a juvenile exercise. Okay. A duck had wings. It had webbed feet, like the kneeling, but that couldn't be important. A duck had a bill. Feathers. Liked water. Could travel by land, sea, and air. Was that it? That its home was everywhere and thus nowhere? That sounded like the kind of shallow paradox that would send Callie twittering. What else? What made a duck a duck? Was it the feet, the bill, the feathers, the sum of its physical features? If you chopped all the duck-like parts from different animals and sewed them up into one new animal, would you then find yourself holding a duck? Or was the opposite true? A duck was created with the inherent element of duckiness that informed its growth from the egg itself. Dante glanced at his torchstone as its light grew dim and found he was no longer angry. He dug a hunk of bread from his pack and chewed. It wasn't a chicken or a goose or a swan. It was close, but the differences were enough to earn it a separate name. It walked on two legs, but it wasn't a man. It swam, but it wasn't a fish. Dante traced a mallard in the dust on the shelf. He didn't think Callie intended him to define it by what it wasn't. In the end, a duck was very few things. There was a whole world it wasn't. Was a duck its quack? Nothing else he knew quacked. Geese honked, but that was different. Hens clucked and roosters crowed and chicks peeped. Meadowlarks sang and starlings chirped and crows cawed. A duck, it seemed, was the only thing that quacked. That must be part of it. If a duck walked up to him and asked him about the weather, that would make it, in some sense, a man. Still a duck, but less duckish. He bounced his heels against the stone wall beneath his seat. How long could you spend sitting around thinking about ducks? Was there a point where you'd know everything there was to know? He decided to go back to basics. Ducks lived in pairs, but sometimes they lived in flocks. Ducks laid eggs. Ducks also hatched from eggs, which he thought might be a slightly different thing from laying them. A duck ate water weeds and bugs, he thought, though he wasn't certain of that. He realized he was just listing their traits without conclusions. Duckiness was something more than what it ate or how it looked or lived or quacked. All of those things were true, 
But if he told someone who'd never seen a duck all the things he'd just thought, they might be able to visualize one, but they wouldn't really know what made a duck a duck, would they? How could he explain the nature of duck kind so an outsider would understand? Footsteps jarred him from his maze. How long had it been? The sun was all but set. Dante stuck his head out the door, hand on sword, and saw Callie's bent-backed figure trudging up the hill through the drizzle. Have you dwelt on the nature of duckhood? he said as he entered. I have. What have you learned? A duck is a duck, Dante said. Callie pinched the bridge of his nose. Go on. It's not a chicken, or a goose, or any other bird, though if you told someone that's what a duck is like, they'd start to be able to see one. It's got a bill and feathers and wings. It swims, flies, and walks. So what element can be said to be its home? He stuck his tongue between his teeth and waited for a cue. Callie screwed up one eye, shrugged. It quacks, he tried. Nothing else quacks. Except a duck call. Dante went pale. He hadn't thought of that. I don't think you can ever define a duck, he said slowly. If you could, you'd have created one. I think all you can do is describe it, piece by piece, until you've got an animal like nothing else. An interesting theory, the old man said. Well, am I right? Callie pulled back his chin and snorted. How the hell should I know? Well, why did you make me do all that thinking about ducks if you don't know what one is yourself? Dante said, pounding his fists against his thighs. You weren't doing well with the discursive approach. What else do you want? Why ducks? To hear you quack, Callie shot. That doesn't... Dante snapped his jaw shut. He walked to the back of the room and glared at the inscriptions on the wall. His face felt hot as a branding iron. Making sport of one's students doesn't strike me as an enlightened instruction. Callie laughed brightly. Were you so petulant with whoever taught you to talk like that? Do you always expect the ones you teach to read your mind? Youth! Callie spat, a grunt so hateful Dante's scalp tingled. He spun around and Callie's pinched face opened with laughter. You take yourself too seriously, do you know that? He rubbed his hands together and got the look of a man who's just had his first puff on a pipe. I suppose you want to get down to business. That had crossed my mind. Double-crossed it, maybe, Callie said, looking worried. His eyes flicked to Dante, and he smiled tightly. Think about the nether the same way you taught yourself to think about the dock. That's it. Dante's mind flashed with the notion this had all been a mistake, that he was wasting what short time he had left. What about this ether stuff? Callie waggled a hand. Forget it. We're taking a new approach. Dwell long on the nether, and we'll see where you are in the morning. But the night's just started. You haven't shown me anything. Patience, he thundered. It's a week from now till your destiny becomes known. That's as long as it took the gods to build the world. Do you really think this will be harder than the creation of everything in existence? 
Dante worked his throat, and Callie stepped forward, craning his thin neck. You know what happens to apprentices who tried to work gold before they've hammered iron, don't you? They're commended for their initiative. Their masters stuffed them into the forge. Callie patted his palms against his stomach. If you unravel all of the secrets of the nether tonight, read your damn book. Lyle's wrinkly, sweaty sack boy. Haven't you ever heard the tale of the tortoise and the hare? He spun on his heel and left the tomb. Dante closed the door and lit a candle. He yawned, tired as he'd been after a full day's march through the woods. He didn't think the shadows would help. He sat down on the cool stone floor and let his mind unspool. What was Blaze doing at that moment? Sleeping, staring at the ceiling. He had no doubt the boy was alive, at least. If the condemned died before they could be killed, the whole process was thwarted. The man they'd killed to get them in this mess, the long-haired man at the inn, had said the priests of Aron had infiltrated the shrines of the other gods. Somehow this inclined Dante to believe Callie's ludicrous assertion that they wanted people to find the book. There was a strange intuitiveness to it all, a compelling alternate logic in sacrificing a few pawns to expose the people like Dante and draw them into the fold. What were they after? Rebellion? Build influence in the temples while they scared up talented men to— he still didn't know if he believed it— to release Aron from his starry prison? How would they do that, exactly? Build a really tall ladder? Or better, hold a fake Olympics to find who could jump the highest and then launch him into the heavens? He tried to laugh. They were going to take a shot, though, no matter how stupid their plans sounded. Where did they get that kind of power? It would come from the nether. He knew that much. What was it? He stretched out on the floor and plumped his pack under his head. He closed his eyes and tried to picture what it looked like when he called the darkness to his hand. It was darkness, yes. Intangible, but it moved less like light and shadow than like water, flowing where resistance was least, pooling in the low places, filling the gaps between things like water filling up a box of pebbles. But it wasn't water. It moved with a mind of its own. What was it? When he drained his thoughts and let the black tide take their place, what was it he held inside his head? Get up! It's the guards! Fists pounded on the door. Dante's heart jump-started itself right off a cliff. He couldn't see a damn thing, just the faint light wriggling through the chinks in the wall and the narrow line that traced the door. Pretend he wasn't here. They might be dumb enough to believe it. More likely they'd force their way inside and chop him into geometry. He needed to think fast, act fast. He cleared his mind and let the nether come. He rose then, drawing his sword with a steely hiss, left hand wrapped in darkness, and swung open the door. No, it's just me, Callie said in his normal nasal pitch. Be proud. You looked like you could have scared someone. I suppose this is a lesson on the virtue of vigilance, Dante mumbled, sheathing his sword. 
he stepped out into the yard. I just thought it would be funny. Callie blew into his cupped hands and stood in the feeble sunlight. Make any progress with the cycle? I fell asleep. Good. Sleep's more important than history, as evidenced by the fact the latter puts you to the former. Callie spent a minute gazing over the graves. The morning was foggy, the grasses bent with dew. Their breath roiled from their mouths and hung in the air. One of the yard's many crows called out, waited, then called again, as if they were asking if anyone was home. Did you think on the nature of the nether? It's like the ocean at night, Dante said. His face bunched in thought. He shook his head. I feel like the moon, in a way. When I look on the dark water with the fullness of my face, it rises and heaves to meet me. Poetic, Kelly judged, but ultimately as inaccurate as all poetry. What do you think it's like? Were you listening at all yesterday? What do you think all that talking was for, my health? Maybe it's not the subjects that are slippery, Dante said, a thrill in his skin, but the manner of their instruction. Kelly frowned at him. His gray eyebrows were so thick, Dante worried they'd pull his brow right over his nose. The old man looked away, letting it pass. It's not the answers, it's that you remember to seek them. Each definition you find brings you one step closer to an unreachable ideal. Don't take that to mean you shouldn't try just because you can never reach it, of course. That's what babies do. Are you a baby? No, Dante said through his teeth. Of course not. Who said you were a baby? He sighed like all hope had faded from the world. Don't think of it as hopeless. If you had no name for it, would that mean it doesn't exist? We have no single word for this pre-winter breeze that teases you into thinking it might snow, although it's really not that cold, and which kind of buffets against your face rather than streaming or lashing. He took a breath. But does that mean you don't feel it? And in a different way than you'd feel a dozen other kinds of wind? Defining the nethers the work of a lifetime. The only way to keep reaching closer to its central duckiness is to know you'll never be done. Dante waited to see if there was more. So you'd define the nether as semantics? Callie shook his head. Just keep trying to think about it in new ways, but don't get so wrapped up in trying to understand what it is you stop learning how to use it. That's all I'm saying. He blinked, chuckled. Well, not really, but let's pretend that's what I said. Dante thought, and not for the first time, taking the man as a teacher might have been a blunder. So the old man had thoughts so deep he couldn't capture them with words. Callie whistled something mournful and keening, ignoring him for the moment. Dante's eyelids fluttered. He clumped the shadows in his hands and unleashed them on the old man, just a sort of probe, and before it reached Callie, it disappeared like spit on a summer flagstone. Callie stopped whistling. What was that? Just how much do you know? Enough to know how little you do. Again, 
Dante gathered the nether. This time it boiled off his hands before he could unleash it. I said stop that! Callie's voice echoed against the walls of the vault. What's your mind like when you call out to it? Dante asked, clasping a coin-sized pool of the stuff between his palms. You're not used to it yet. That's why you have to think so hard. Callie regarded him with one eye closed. To me, it's like scratching my ass. My hand's there before I have to tell myself I'm itchy. That's beautiful. Dante opened his hand and blew the shadows at Callie in a puff of tiny motes. Callie flinched, scowled. You could punch me in the stomach and it wouldn't make a difference, the old man said, tossing his head. You could probably stick a sword through my heart and I'd still strike you down, though that must remain a regrettable hypothetical. Do something, Dante said. I want to see how someone else does it. Could be useful, Callie said. His face kept its vaguely bored expression. Dante was about to ask when he was going to start, when he felt Callie's summons looming in front of him like the empty space beyond a cliff. Dante laughed and punched the old man in the stomach. He woke up some time later. The world was fuzzy and grey. A toe nudged his side, and he realized it had been doing so for some seconds. What happened? You expressed a sudden urge to cease existing, said a blurry, Cali-shaped object. The object helped Dante to his feet, and the boy faltered and leaned against the old man. See what you wanted to see? I'd had enough talk, he said, when he trusted himself to speak. His nose tickled. He wiped it saw blood. We'll start there, Callie said. The nether will come once the mind is ready to receive it, but it's the nether's nature to thirst for the water of life, and I'm not talking about whiskey. Blood, Dante said, wiping his fingers in his palm. Except for that last part, Callie had sounded like something from the cycle. Blood. I'd wondered about all those scars on your arms. Most of them are actually the product of an oversized mouth. Callie smirked, then pressed a knuckle between his eyes and peered at Dante. Call to it. It's going to look like it's eating you. It's not, so don't be afraid. It can sense fear. What? It's not a bear. Being scared just makes you do stupid things. Dante counted his exhalations for most of a minute, then unlimbered his mind. They came at once, swirling in his outstretched palm, minnow-like wraiths that seemed to flash black. So far you've worked the nether in its most basic state, Callie said. Blood amplifies its strength, allows it to truly alter what it touches. Dante waited, watching them circle one another. Others came without being called. The ball expanded from a large marble to the size of his closed fist, but mostly it grew denser until he thought he could feel an icy weight denting his skin. It's a fragile thing in this state. It burns as violently as Suman's oil. Little pricks and tingles rippled across the flesh of his palm, 
as if the leechish things were nibbling with razor teeth. He no longer felt the dull throb from when Callie knocked him out. His vision flickered, then returned brighter than before. The scent of grass stuffed his nostrils. It would snow that night, he knew. He could feel it in the breeze. The muscles of his arm began to twitch. This is when it wants to create or destroy. This is the nether in its most potent state. Release it now. The thing was so dark he could barely bring himself to look at it. The individual motes had stopped following each other's tails, and the ball pulsed slowly, almost as if it were breathing. A note as high as the clouds sounded between his ears. His hand had gone numb. He thought he could crack the tomb with a punch, raise it with a look. Nothing seemed beyond him. Release it for the sake of the gods, let it go! Dante turned his hand, palm down, and jabbed it at the trunk of an acorn tree thirty feet away. Its bowl was a foot and a half across. It crumpled like paper. Splinters of bark shot into the air. A great crack thundered past him. He staggered, stripped of all strength and senses with the departure of the nether. He wanted it back. He wanted the shadowy outlines he'd seen around all things to retake their shape, for his eyes and ears and hands to once more feel like the world's own will. He mewled, and as the tree's wide head boomed into the grass, he fell to his knees, paused there, then slumped in a heap. We should probably hide somewhere for a while. Some part of him heard Callie muse. Oh, right. He grabbed Dante's wrists and dragged the half-conscious boy into the sanctuary of the vault. Dante squinted against the candlelight. He tried to sit up, and the blood rushed from his head. They're all going to die, he said, and his laugh twisted into a cough. He slapped the stony floor, fighting for air. Always good for a boy to have ambitions, Callie said. For your next trick, try something a trifle less flashy. Think of yourself as a channel through which the nether may flow, like the narrow banks of a creek. If a meandering little stream suddenly finds itself engorged by a few hundred thousand cubic tons of water, it tends to no longer resemble itself once the flood has gone away. He got to his feet, eyes glinting down at Dante. A stream doesn't really capture my meaning, however. Swollen streams aren't all bloody and shrieking and flopping around until they die. I'll be careful. I doubt that. And for God's sakes, eat something. Stop making me sound like your father. These things will burn you up before you know it. Dante managed to sit up. Nausea and hunger battled for his stomach. He had a headache. He touched his face. It was still there. That was good. If you were my father, I'd make patricide popular again. Oh, shut up, Callie said with no real annoyance. He furrowed his brow. What were you thinking? Were you trying to destroy the city with your first attempt? I just wanted to see what would happen. Callie rubbed his chin, whiskers rustling. Frankly, you shouldn't have been able to do that first try. Be more cautious next time. I am learning fast, aren't I? 
Dante said. He squared his shoulders, daring himself to press for praise. I mean, have you seen other people learn as fast? Probably, Callie said through a yawn. Some take faster to do it than others. Like a duck to water, you might say. Ha ha. Why do they pick it up so fast? Why do some students learn to read quicker than others? What? No lecture on the nature of the talent? A physician named Camrates once theorized a correlation between the width of one's veins and one's ability to channel the nether. Callie began, considering the ceiling. Obviously, bunk. The notion of channeling is only a metaphor. That didn't stop him, however, from dicing up a dozen corpses in his search for proof, including a couple that may not have been corpses for another few years if he wasn't so dead set on proving an anatomical connection. No pun. Dante opened his mouth, and Callie immediately cut him off. What's your birthday? February 12th. Why? Do set. The two rivers. Ruled by a Ron in the old design, you know. The belt's first link. You think your birth sign influences it? No, Callie said, sighing heavily. That's what some people think. Dante bit his teeth tight. You don't have any idea, do you? I think the answer is a boring variation of all things in moderation. It's likely there's some inherent quality that gives one man more facility with the nether or the ether than his fellow, but the strength of one's will probably has a great deal to do with it as well. That is boring. Would it be more interesting if I told you there was a gland in your skull that's probably twice the size of a normal man's? Did Camrates discover that? Dante's face went guarded. No, wait. Callie chuffed with laughter. Listen, there's a lot of theories, but none of them are very good. Would you believe you're chosen by Iran? Or maybe you're the offspring of an imp and a woman? Be practical. One could well argue it's nothing but practical to try to find out why you're good at the things you do well. Well, then one would probably be slaughtered by the town watch in a few days, when he should have been learning to kill them instead. He clapped his hands on his thighs. You've got work to do, book to read, do it. You're leaving? Callie turned and went for the door. Good night, you've got a lot to do. I'll be back in a couple days. You're always running off just when I'm beginning to learn. Shut up and accept your progress for once. I could hurt myself, Dante mocked, but Callie was already on his way. Beyond the doorway, the land was dark. Flakes of snow drifted into the grass. Callie had stayed for hours while he slept. He fished out the rest of his bread and chewed it in the dark. He wanted meat, a beef stew of haunch of lamb. Something so big he'd feel silly taking bites out of it. He clinked the coins in his purse. What use was money if you didn't spend it? Who wanted to save when you could be dead next Saturday? The following days were quiet. He ventured out for food and lingered around the market, eyes sharp for members of the watch. No one mentioned the executions. They talked about whether the snow would stick next time and the work they still needed to do on their homes. About the new viceroy appointed for Wetton and its farmland. The recent turmoil so intense in the streets of Bressel. 
a member of the council had been killed, and another had stepped down. The retiring man said he meant to focus on his work at the Guild of Arms, but the talk was he'd been exiled for a secret incompetence even rumor couldn't unravel. Dante edged closer to the four men who spoke of this, daring himself to ask questions about violence he'd seen no hint of when he'd lived there, whether it had anything to do with the city's temples. Strangely, he was concerned for the city. He'd only lived there a few months, but he'd heard so many stories about it as a boy, it had felt like a home from the start. He still considered himself a Bresselman, could speak with more authority than these bumpkins on its onion-domed library, Tenterman Palace, the fiery eyes of the statue of Fanon, planted centuries ago where the sandbar had once regularly grounded the dumber, drunker, or unluckier captains of the merchant fleets. He'd live there again, he resolved. He knew better than to ask about the riots, though. They'd want to know his name, whether he was from the great city, and if he had news of his own. Might even want to know his position on the struggle. He was an adept liar, as all boys learn to do to avoid chores and beatings, and, once they were old enough, public whippings. But he had no room to chance it. His tongue didn't always listen to his brain— he wouldn't have the freedom to join such talk until Blaze was out from under the law. Instead, he went back to the mausoleum, intending to ask Callie next time he saw him. Of the cycle's eight hundred-odd pages, he'd consumed no more than a quarter, and he set on the remainder with the same fruitless abandon he'd spent his money. When he stopped to rest his eyes or stretch his legs, he messed around with the nether, forming a shadow sphere inside the tomb, or sweeping it along the ground to stir the leaves, or send a small rock rolling. He fed it no blood. No matter how badly he wanted himself at the center of all things once more, he was dogged by the memory of how crushingly small he'd felt after he released it and destroyed the tree. So, how's it been? Transcended this mortal existence yet? the old man said when he appeared some time later, tugging his cloak tight around his shoulders. Dante closed the book and looked up. Who wrote the cycle? Many people, Callie said, fixing him with a look. The first part was assembled, according to the few scholars who've done credible research on the time, in something like a half-dozen sources over the span of sixty-odd years. The second part is actually much older. Some of them go back as far as we have records. A Gascon scholar named Nettigan once claimed to have found a tablet in the ice north of Narashtovic, with an Aran story dated at 9,000 years ago by its description of the locations of the stars. No one was alive back then. How do you know that? Were you there? No doubt you were. Dante cocked his head. If it's got so many authors, how do we know we can trust it? It's not like it's the word of the gods themselves, Callie scoffed. He tugged his fingers through his beard. I think the many authors are a stroke of its genius. They're all collected under the umbrella of authority, that is, the cycle, yet it's possible, if you read closely, to read the writings of men with distinctly opposed states of mind. Who's right, then? Neither. Both. Maybe the answer lies not in the words of the men, 
but in what emerges from their implied dialogue. He stuck out his lower lip, conceding. Or maybe one of them is just wrong. This is dangerous in a sense, since his inclusion in the cycle would seem to make his words infallible. Yes, a learned man will know they're clearly false. Is this intentional on the part of whoever finalized its structure? Is it a deliberate maze meant to guide us not so much to a certain set of facts as to an enlightened flexibility of mind? Well, is it? Dante started. I didn't realize those questions were anything but rhetorical. They weren't, but let's pretend. We can't know the answers to any of your questions without digging up the authors and shouting interrogatives at their bones, Dante said, not entirely meaning to make fun with his aping of Callie's mode of speech. But, yeah, yeah, that doesn't mean they're not worth asking, but it does mean there's no way to know for sure. Besides, wouldn't a much simpler explanation be there was no plan? They just scooped up all the legends and poured them between two covers? I suppose, Callie said. He huffed. It's possible they didn't write the cycle with the express purpose of refining our mode of thought, but I don't see how else we're supposed to reconcile all the disconnects. I don't know about that. When I read the stories of Jack Hand, I see justice in his vengeance. I admire his courage, that he can just seize things and reorder them how he sees right. Isn't that a truth that's always true? It's the story of every age, isn't it? Ah, the time-honored absolutism of youth. I'm young, so that means I'm wrong. No, Callie said. He sighed. Age models things, that's all. You'll see what I mean if you thwart all decency and live another couple decades. Ah, Dante said. The time-honored condescension of age. Mind yourself, the old man warned but his voice was warm. I suppose you'd even try to make sense of all those numbers the cycle is so fond of repeating. Anyway, I didn't come here for sophistry. Frankly, it bores me. He scratched his ear, face clouded with thought. What's the name of your reprobate friend? Dante looked up. Blaze. I found a way to contact him. When can I see him? You can't. Callie said, silencing him with a look. What I can do is pass him a message. Tell him I'm coming, Dante said, pressing his hands together. Tell him not to worry. I won't let them get away with it. Callie smiled behind the thatch of his beard. That'll show him. What? Then tell him to start figuring out how he's going to repay me. Is that better? Much. Callie yawned and went for the door. That's it. Aren't you supposed to be teaching me things? You've already got too much to digest and not enough time to do it in. Practice. Think on what you've learned. Read the damn book. I've got better things to do than mope around a graveyard like a widow pining for her husband's yard. Fine, Dante turned away. Go lecture at someone else for a while. Choke on your ingratitude. Callie spat. He flipped his hands. Bah! Wind gusted through the open door. Dante watched him go, then turned his eyes to the walls, 
to the drawers full of corpses. Like Jack Hand and the bones of the rats in his prison. He'd been one man against a keep full of defenders, and he'd taken it and made it his. When Dante first settled into the tomb, he'd found other things dead than men. The leathery bodies and dry skeletons of rats and rabbits that had found their way in but not out. Pigeons and crows that had taken shelter from the weather and battered themselves dead at the cracks of the daylight and the walls. Seven or eight tidy piles of bones. Maybe the cycle was a past meant to be borrowed by the ages to come after. Was that why its authors had written it, however many hundreds of years ago? To let later men stand on their shoulders? To preserve themselves through the actions of people they could never hope to meet? Something rustled in the shadows of the vault. He doubted that whoever had written the book, whatever they'd had in mind, they could have seen what he had planned. He hoped it would be enough. Chapter 7 A holy day, a joyous day, the midpoint between autumnal equinox and winter solstice, when Leah left the land and Menoc reluctantly took up its reign, the day, by coincidence, of the execution. Dante watched the sun spark up over the roofs of the east. He'd loved this day when he was younger. The night before was Falmax Eve, the night of fire, the night Carvajal flew down from exile to take arms against white-bearded Tame, who'd thrown him out for bringing the fire to man, the night when head-high stacks of wood were burnt in the squares, and boys wore masks and robbed men of apples and tin pennies in the street, slaying any man who bore a beard. The theatre dressed in yellows and reds and bright-burning gems and played out Carvajal's original betrayal, how he lit a torch from the mill-star of the northern heavens and descended with it from the skies to the earth. Tame saw the blaze of its fall and gathered his children and his children's children to destroy whoever defied him. But Carvajal brought the torch to Eric the Draconat, he who ate dragon's hearts, and Eric climbed the ladder of the heavens to dual-winged, scale-backed Daris, and so win his northern army to face the forces of Tame. They met on the snowfields of the north, and the snow churned and boiled under the heat of their blood. There Tame slew Daris, and confusion shouted across the land. Eric's rebellion of men, and the half-gods, and Daris's drakes, were smashed. But in the final moment, when Eric struck deep at Tame's heart with Anzode, the sword tempered in the hearts of one hundred and eight dragons, he actually spilled the god's blood upon the ground, forcing the father of the skies to retreat to his seat in their heights. Carvajal fled then, too, bearing Eric's unconscious body to the hole in the north sky where Malleus's bow had punctured it long ago, and every year on Falmax Eve, Carvajal seduced the blackbirds of Menoc to bear him down to earth and drag the punishing fires of Barod's son away so he could wreak his rebellion by cover of dark and the earth could rest and heal. The next morning, the farmers set down their scythes and plows and flails and drank to the cycle of the gods. 
They toasted Leah for her faithful bounty, praised Sim for making their wheat and oats and barley grow tall, thanked Barod for the life of his yellow rays. They gave a cry for Carvajal's daring that would keep them warm through the winter, for the saturnine locking of the time of Menoch that would make the return of the gods of light and life all the sweeter. Many of them ended up passed out before the sun had gone down. Dante thought he could already hear the earliest revelers singing out in the city. The watchmen would partake too, he knew. There would be few better days for the confusion he meant to sow. All set, Callie said, when he showed up twenty minutes later. Yes. Good. Overconfidence is a strong ally. People are always surprised when you try to do things you can't. He started at the soft skitterings in the dark corners of the tomb, then snorted. You've been reading too much. Dante flushed despite the cold. I haven't had anyone around to teach me different. It'll probably make them think they're crazy. That should be fun. Callie wiped his nose. His ears and cheeks were pink. Auspicious day. Does the nether run stronger on Falmax Day? Don't be daft, Callie said, rolling his eyes. As if the forces of nature change because a kingdom throws a party. I just thought ridiculous. I walked out to the tree a couple days ago, Dante said after some silence. It's in a clearing south of town, not much in the way of cover. I'm sure there'll be plenty of meat shields, Callie shrugged. When do you think we should leave? Sometime before they hang him, I imagine. Dante pursed his lips. I want to be there an hour early. I haven't exactly been able to find out how many guards they'll have or how they'll bring him in. I won't know what I'm doing till I see that. Fine. Are you coming with me? Dante said, heart jumping up a tick. I'll be there, Callie allowed after a moment of hemming. You realize I can't just wave my hand and bring peace onto the world. Why not? What can they do to you? We can be so quick they won't know what's going on. I haven't lived as long as I have, the old man said, tossing back his chin, through vulgar displays of power. Dante glared at him through the dawn. Why have it if you won't use it? What can you possibly be afraid of? There's a difference between fear and prudence. And even if there isn't, Callie said, sticking his finger at Dante, fear's a good thing to have. You might live longer if you had more. Sounds like a pretty crummy life to me. Callie looked away from him, like the matter were too stupid to discuss. Dante folded his arms. Just do what you can, then. I won't be holding back. That's the spirit. The old man rubbed his jaw. It's probably best if you hone your plans under the assumption I'll give no help at all. That way, if I drop dead between then and now, you won't be left in the lurch. They killed time speaking of the meaning of the figures in the cycle, and then about where they might meet when the two boys escaped. Callie suggested running, or riding if circumstances allowed stealing a horse, into the southern woods, saying he could find Dante easily enough. He'd found him in the first place, hadn't he? 
The old man bitched for a while about the weather, made threats about sailing for the islands of the south. They watched the sun shed clouds and fog, resolving from red to orange to yellow, and then Callie once more took his leave. Dante couldn't quite understand how the day had come so quickly when the last week had dragged like a broken leg. He paced away the morning in the tomb, trying a couple of times to sit down and meditate on the nether, but every time he tried, he'd get five seconds of clear thought, followed by five minutes of noodly worries about what if the watch carried bows, which they probably would, and what if the innkeeper were there and recognized him before he made his move, and what if he made it there and they were just too fast and turned Blaze off before Dante could wade his way through? What would Callie tell him? Some paradox about allowing his worries, but rising with them like an eagle on a storm. In other words, something useless under any practical circumstances. He took up the pen and ink he used to make his notes on the cycle, though never within the book itself, and sat down in that late autumn daylight that always looked to him like the pure light of nostalgia, fuzzy, faintly yellow, hardly warm but not quite cold. He didn't care if no one would ever find his letter, or if it was only read when they tore down this tomb to build something living people could use. He didn't care if it had as little impact as if he'd written it in water. He just wanted something to leave behind. He had no kids, no lands, no books written by or about him, and if he failed, his only notable friend would be every bit as dead. He spent an hour alternately scribbling on and shredding up his dwindling supply of paper. He tried to elevate his speech with the grand aphorisms of the men in plays, but that just sounded dumb. He tried to match the happy irony of the cycle, but it sounded hollow. He tried to tell his story, at least the part where Blaze had been unfairly condemned, but that ended up sounding whiny. He should have thought about this yesterday, let himself sleep on it. Now it was too late. He listened to the crows jabbering at each other and found them no help. The sporadic bells and shouts from the city weren't any better. He listened to the light wind whistling in the bare branches. No dice. At last, exasperated with himself, doublet damp under the arms, worn down by the jitters he had since waking, he set his pen going. If this note is found, it will mean... My uncertain fate has been clarified, and to my detriment. I leave now to fight. I'd like to think the cause is just, but don't all men do what they think right? Let's leave the issue for once. No only, I laid my life at the door of a cause I felt worth it. I hope, if there is some final judge of these things... He will look on me with more mercy than he's shown so far. He signed his name and closed his eyes a while. At least it was less foolish than his other tries. He tucked it under an urn. Who knew? Maybe he'd be able to come back and rip it up before anyone could see it. If not, he'd have far more pressing worries than what some idiot thought of his final words. 
The bells of Wetton's many temples and pair of proper cathedrals tolled across the damp air. Two hours till that time. The walk to the crooked tree wouldn't take more than fifteen minutes. He meant to arrive an hour early, size things up. He figured the minimal chance of being recognized in that span would be outweighed by having the time to conceive a more detailed plan than show up and start killing everyone. Where was Blaze? Still clapped in his cell, on his way, eating his final bread, swearing at everyone within range. He'd forgotten to ask Cully whether he'd passed along his message, and now that, too, was too late. At once he felt himself on the brink of tears. Deeper than the chance he might never speak to Blaze again, he felt ruptured by the knowledge that even if they survived this day, one would come when they didn't. Dante was sixteen years old. He quite possibly wouldn't live to twice that. At the outside, he had four times as long to go. What he'd lived so far felt like no more than a blink. He could barely remember anything beyond the last three years. Was that all life was? A brief bubble of memory that slid through the years until the sudden stop? If Blaze died and he didn't, would he still think of Blaze when he was twenty? Thirty? If he died and Blaze didn't, and Blaze forgot him, would Dante then be gone for all time? Dante opened the cycle of Aron and flipped through from beginning to end. After about six hundred pages, his blood went cold. He stopped, poured back through the pages one at a time. Narashtavik. The final third was written entirely in the dead language of Narashtavik. How would he miss that? How would he dragged it around for a month without knowing he had no way of reading over 250 pages of it? He'd glanced at the last page or two, but he'd assumed they were an appendix or a glossary, and since he couldn't read any of it, he'd just put it out of his mind. Foreign words always drove him mad. Besides, he'd been a little preoccupied with running his life to spare much curiosity for what the next section would hold. This was, in no small terms, a disaster. In all of Bressel, he'd found no works that would offer any significant inroads into deciphering the dead language. Were there any translations of the cycle? Supposedly, the fires of the books they'd burnt in the third scour rivaled the rising sun. Well, that's what the priests of Tame and Gashin and all the others said, and he'd certainly never seen any evidence to prove them wrong. Most of the references he'd found to the old texts came in the form of warnings that owning them would result in your beheading, or, after the initial post-scour excitement had worn down, the handing. The cycle wasn't strictly linear, which muddied the matter of the importance of the part he wouldn't be able to read— but surely there was something of value in the last hundreds of pages. Nobody would just throw together a pile of nonsense and build a faith around it. Callie would have something to help them, perhaps. At least point him in the right direction. The half-hour bell rang out, and he remembered this was one more worry he could delay for now. Dante laughed nervously, feeling light as a gnat. Perhaps he should risk his life every day.
Departing places without leaving anything behind was getting to be a habit. He double-checked the nooks and corners, then cycled down the list. The book in his bag on his back. His sword at his belt under his cloak. A knife on his other side. Bread and meat and water skin in his bag, along with a couple of candles and the tools for writing. Torchstone in his pocket, of course, and a few other necessities, his silver and flint and needles and salt and a couple neat rocks and those small objects he'd found in the tomb. Why was everyone else so eager to tie themselves down with things? They were idiots, that was why. A man should own no more than he can carry. By the time he'd gone a block from the churchyard, he knew the crowd was going to be huge. The streets were stuffed with red-faced farmers and squads of young boys running around with a hand pressed over their left eye like the one Carvajal had lost in the battle in the snowfields. Carriages crept through the mob, unable to build up the momentum to give the pedestrians the choice of clearing a path or being stomped into the dirt. Impossibly, even more filth than normal clogged the gutters and spilled in the roads. Shattered mugs and the busted slats of barrels lay everywhere. Pigeons dunked their beaks in soggy hunks of bread and the stems and seeds of a dozen different vegetables. From all sides he heard laughter, whoops, the cheery hails of men and women who haven't seen each other in whatever they think's been too long. He kept his hood on his shoulders. Unless the followers of Aron had already dispatched more men to rub him out and reacquire his copy of the cycle, the only one in town at all likely to recognize him would be the keeper of the frog's head. And between the thin crowds of holiday and hanging, he was no doubt more than a little tied up with his work. Dante, running around with his face bundled up like a criminal, would only have the watch asking why he was running around with his face bundled up like a criminal. The standing water in the streets wasn't frozen, but it wasn't far off, either. His breath whirled away from his mouth, just barely visible. It felt good to be moving. He strode with purpose, weaving his slight body through the blathering clusters of people. He watched their faces, how they laughed and told jokes and found common ground bitching about the boys running wild— with special emphasis on how things had been different in their day, and the unreasonable tithing practices of the church and the signs of degradation in the criminal element of Bressel. One of them opined that men emanated a mischievous vapor which, when mingled with the same vapor of others in the level of density and proximity you can find only in such overpopulated hives as Bressel, resulted in a much more malicious strain, the kind that led to the careless robbing and killing of drunks and, eventually, widespread anarchy. Dante slowed to hear the man expound his theory— but the hundreds of other voices drowned him out. Within seconds, he was no more than a single note in the symphony. There was no one direction to the flow of people. There were public houses on every street in Wetton. But the general movement tended toward the south. Now, Harry, what with the executions over an hour away, and probably lots of boring proclamations and condemnations to kick it off— but wait too long, and you'd get a place too far back to see their feet kick when they were turned off. 
A hanging wasn't a hanging when, for all you could see, it may as well be a sack of potatoes strung up on the branch. Even in the cold, the people stunk. Dante tucked his nose into the collar of his cloak and was reminded he hadn't bathed since their stay at the pond. At least his ripeness was his own. A dark-haired boy brushed past him. Of course, they'd be drawn to the hanging like flies to a cow's ass. Dante pulled up his hood then and tugged it low enough to shade his eyes. George and Barnes would be out there somewhere. They knew enough about him to turn him in, if there were any price on his head. Single-story houses began to outnumber those with two or three floors. Sometimes they even had strips of dirt or grass between them. Another couple minutes, and he reached the trampled-down fields that never quite recovered from the monthly crowds. Copses of trees fringed its edges, but the only tree of note stood planted at its center, casting a shadow over the path that cut across the grasses. A light crowd milled about, talking and drinking, buying meat pastries and finger vegetables from the stalls that no doubt materialized overnight here every four weeks, like clockwork mushrooms. Dante stopped a short way into the commons to take stock, wishing he had a pipe to light or any other way to immediately look casual. Obviously, the wain would come in down the path. Already people were mostly keeping clear of the rotted dirt. The tree spoke for itself. The prisoners on the wagon would be bound, but their heavy chains would probably be replaced with rope, so hoisting them up and down wouldn't hurt anybody's back. Besides, with five extra pounds of iron on their wrists and another ten clamped tight around their ankles, the hangman might misjudge their weight and pop their heads off when they fell. A few guards would walk ahead of the wagon, he imagined. A second wagon would bear the hangman and his understudy and their armed entourage. No officials, most likely, other than a bailiff or some other nobody with a loud voice. At minimum, six men of the watch. Probably twice that, with the potential for more. They'd likely be in varying states of the inebriation that was impossible to avoid on Falmac's day, but that wasn't going to be as big an advantage for Dante as it should. Their minds would want to be off raising tankards and groping paired deposits of fat like every other man, but their captains would want them martial, swords ready. Between a troop of armsmen and the crooked tree, the crowds couldn't help remembering their place. People kept filing in in twos and threes, and boisterous beer-sodden throngs. He figured the guards would cluster up on their way in, give themselves some protection from the revelers. That would be the worst time to try to take them. Ideally, there would be a few self-important speeches to give the men of the watch time to disperse and get distracted by the fights and taunts of an intoxicated, high-spirited crowd— if he were really lucky, a few guards would use the confusion to slip off for a pub. Dante would bide his time then, and hope they wouldn't try to string Blaze up first as an hors d'oeuvre. What about the other prisoners? Instant allies if he could free them. The watch wouldn't know which escapee needed to be killed first. That was it. He'd have to act fast, but he could make that happen. Then what? He headed for a copse of trees and thought that over as he searched for a walking stick suitable for staving in skulls. 
The men he released might have the fighting spirit, but they'd have a serious want for weapons. And that, he thought, was as far as he could take it. Let them get ready to strangle a few men, then set those men free and go on from there. There would be at least a little fighting and a lot of running. Other than that, it was all up in the air. Maybe he'd be able to steal a horse. Maybe not. Maybe Callie would strike down with a word everyone who looked at Dante cockeyed. But almost definitely not. He clenched his teeth, stomach twisting. He didn't like depending on all these contingencies. He wasn't sure he could trust himself to act smoothly in the confusion of battle. He considered himself a deliberate man, the kind of man who didn't make a choice until he'd thought it all the way through. That's what you did when you wouldn't tolerate mistakes, least of all from yourself. But this, this was chance, chaos, the toss of a die, the blindfolded plunge. He should have hired the boys to make a scene. He should have taken the offer three years ago to sail from Bressel to Portsmouth and back. It wouldn't have taken more than two weeks, and he'd never sailed. He should have enticed a couple bodyguards to aid him with careful lies and the reckless expenditure of silver. He should have read more. Not just the book, but books. All the books of the library of Bressel. He should have practiced more with the blood. He'd done so one time more, lighting the shadows into a small fire one afternoon, outside the tomb, but he'd quickly stamped it out, afraid someone would see the flames and the smoke. He should have found a way to speak to Blaze himself just one last time. He should have written a letter to the monk back in the village. His life there hadn't been so bad. Boring, but not bad. After the stark and brutal lessons of the last month, he'd come to appreciate the strength of the monk's quiet methods, the lessons he taught more often with a well-turned sentence than with an open hand or a bark-stripped branch. The low-key panic he'd felt since waking up had left his mind reasonably flexible, fast, if a little flighty, but as the minutes rushed on, he found it harder to keep a rein on his thoughts. Sweat oozed down his sides. He maneuvered up to within a stone's throw of the tree. The crowds had swelled quickly, filling the field, spilling into the path and jostling each other for lines of sight before there was anything to see. The bells of one o'clock pealed from wet and proper. He squeezed his eyes shut. Within moments, his ears filled with the cheers and whoops of those at the edge of the field nearest the city. The wains were rolling in. A hush preceded the wagons as the people looked on the faces of the condemned and for an instant imagined themselves seated with the prisoners. Once they'd lumbered past, the catcalls and laughter started up again, louder than before, and in that way Dante followed the progress of the watch. His stomach felt like something were pushing up on it from below. There were too many tall men between him and the path to catch a glimpse of the wagons, but underneath the crowd's babble he thought he could make out the rumble of two separate sets of wheels. Bad sign. He wanted to get close enough to see Blaze, but if he moved now he'd never get back his place some twenty yards from the clearing around the crooked tree. Half of Wetton must be here. With Fallmark's day, along with the farmers and peasants who tended to show up in direct proportion to the scarcity and brutality of the method of execution, 
though hangings were enough to do the trick, there could be twice as many men in Wetton today than was normal. The wave of silence and the shouts that followed on its heels came nearer. Whips cracked from the direction of the path. He gagged, swallowed. He still had time to leave. No one would know he'd been here but Callie, and Callie would understand. Dante's death, when it came, wouldn't mean anything, wouldn't strike any blow against injustice and the corrupt law of man. He'd just be a body. But as much as his legs were ready to run, and they were shaking so hard he thought he might drive himself into the earth, he knew, if he left now, he would hate himself for all his days. He'd carry a mark so deep it may as well be branded on his forehead. He'd filter all his actions thereafter through the memory of the day he'd let them kill Blaze. And in that sense, his life would already be told. Worthless for however many more years it may last. Besides, as Callie might say, just because killing the watch wouldn't do any good didn't mean it wasn't worth doing. The quiet took the crowd around him. Wheels creaked in the cold. He heard the snorts of the draft horses, saw a blip of their driver through the shoulders of the men in front of him. The driver's bass voice carried past his ears as all the people thought on the day they'd take their own ride on the wane to the tree at the end of the path. And they were shouting, jeering, and Dante was shouting too, eyes clenched shut, head thrown back, a wordless cry of defiance. He was ready. He pushed up further into the crowd. If these idiots were still in his way when the time came, he'd yank out his sword and give it a taste of their blood before it bit into the watchman. He shoved his way onward, matching glares, refusing to yield, and made his way within ten feet of the inner rim of the masses. Close enough for now. Close enough to crane his head and see the wagons break from the walls of people and into the clear circle around the tree. He started counting men. Six at point in front of the wagons, brown cloaks flapping behind them. Three more to either side, five more trailing, one bearing the banner of the city, the eagle's black talons clutching the golden shock of wheat. And three, no, make it four, crouched down in the bed of the second wain, hands resting on their hilts, scanning the crowd for anyone with any funny designs on the black-hooded man sitting cross-legged at its center. Dante's eyes flicked to the first wagon to count the condemned. Seven. Somehow, there were always seven. There among them, blonde hair a mat of grease, face smeared with dirt and soot and dried blood, sat Blaze. Dante stretched on his toes and pulled his cowl a couple inches back from his face, but he didn't dare cry out or wave his hands, and the boy didn't look his way. He didn't appear to be seeing anything at all, in fact. Dante'd never seen that look in his face. Eyes downcast, face tranquil as a slack sail, body swaying loosely at the jolts and jounces of the wane. He hadn't looked that way when they'd been chased through the forest by three grown men on horseback. He hadn't even looked that way in those days after he'd seen Dante call the Shadowsphere in the alley in Bressel. He'd pouted and brooded and kept to himself, but beneath all that he'd kept a spark, 
an air of confusion and betrayal that lent some moment to his moods. Now he looked like he were already dead. Dante's knuckles whitened on his staff. Sure, a veritable army of men drawn for honor guard. For their sake, he hoped they said a prayer before it began. Time blurred. Men jumped off the wagon and hauled the doomed men to their feet. The black-hooded man lowered himself and took down a couple stools. He set them beneath a crooked tree and slung two of the nooses draped over his shoulder onto the tree's one straight and level branch. Dante turned his shoulders and wiggled closer. The watch picked out two filthy men whose age he couldn't guess and made them step up on the stools. The hangman fitted the ropes around their necks, setting the knot at the back, behind their heads. With a jerk to his gut, Dante realized these men weren't going to be kicked off a platform so their necks broke, like had been the practice of Bressel's most recent hangman. They were going to be turned right off the stools. They looked like they'd have no more than a foot to fall, two at the utmost. Jack Gray, executioner of Bressel, averaged his ropes at eight feet and, so he boasted, varied their length to the build and weight of his client, just enough to make sure the spine snapped without yanking the head clean off. These men would hang till they strangled. Some of the older men he'd known, men who could remember the hanger before Gray, said it could be five or ten minutes before the legs stopped kicking that some of the condemned had dangled for a full half-hour and been found to have their hearts yet beating. Before they'd made it law that all who hanged must be kept on the line for a full hour after their initial turn, half-hanged Kurt had been cut down after forty minutes, buried, then been dug up filthy but breathing when a traveller had heard his cries beneath the dirt. So Jack Gray had brought new methods with his contract. Dante was amazed the two men who stood before the crowds offered no resistance as the ropes closed around their throats and tied them to their fates. Why so spiritless? What could they lose? Now was the time for rage, to exact some minor measure of control in choosing the moments of their deaths. Not this farce, this resigned obeisance. Maybe they deserved what they were about to get. Was that it? Did they feel the same way? Had the fact some fancy man on a podium had deemed them guilty of their crimes convinced them it was their time to move on? The hooded man finished his preparations and stepped back. A watchman with silver pins flashing on the collar of his cloak took center. You have been tried and condemned in the courts of this land. Any final words or requests? I asked the mercy of the family of the man I did kill, one man said. I only wanted food. The crowd booed. Another slug of whiskey, the second man shouted through his thick brown beard. The crowd laughed, raised flagons and flasks. So it ends, the watchman said. The hangman stepped forward, draped a white cap over the first man's face, then the second. Dante's heart shuddered as he reached into the deep folds of his pockets and gathered up his burden. The captain of the watch reeled off some speech about justice and the obligations of civilization. 
We take no joy in meeting out the fate you've earned yourself. The captain smiled at last. A moment of silence, please. Pray to the gods. They have been known to grant mercy, even to the wretched. He held up a hand, and the crowds went quiet. Dante's fingers slid over the fragile bones he'd taken from his pockets. He set Jack Han's inspirations on what little open ground he found at his feet. The six fleshless rodents raised their eyeless heads at him, clicking their teeth. No going back now. He held his hand close to his chest and gestured toward the tree. They skittered through the clustered legs of the audience, unheard, unseen. For whatever extra insanity it would add, he popped the torch stone into his mouth. Someone cried out at the sight of the bleach-boned animals streaking towards the bound men. It would have been more dramatic to wait till Blazer's turn had come beneath the judging branch, but he wanted as many men turned loose as he could manage, as much chaos as he could muster to conceal his true intent. More shrieks rose up on the tail of the first. The watchmen glanced around. A couple loosened their swords. Within seconds, the dead rats had leapt on the hands and ankles of the criminals. This was it, the plunge, the toss of the die. A cold anger stole over Dante's bones as he watched the rat's teeth clashing through the ropes of the condemned. The hangman cried out and bumped one of the men off his stool. His bare feet kicked at the air. One of the rats jumped on his feet and scrabbled up his legs to the noose. It chomped down, and within three heartbeats, the rope snapped and the man thumped against the ground. Everything began to move at once, and Dante whooped like a savage and plowed through the men between him and the clearing. With a terrible thrill he wouldn't unlive for all the world, he burst into the open ground. The dead rats were running out of ropes to gnaw through, and with a thought he sent them to assault the first guard who'd figured out something bad was going down. Blood leapt away from the man's leg as the rats ripped in with tiny claws. He smashed the bones of one with the pommel of his sword, then fell screaming to his knees. The rats swarmed up his body. Dante rushed into the field, staff in his left hand and sword held high in his right, torch stone gleaming from his open mouth. The judgment of the gods has come! He screamed around the stone at the men who'd be hanged. Kill them all! Fight for your lives! Heads turned his way. The Kanya men seized the confusion for their own. One of the guards cut down a distracted prisoner, while one of the prisoners punched out a guard and snatched up his sword. Like a school of fish, every man moved at once. The watch clustered up and began to advance on the tight circle of condemned men. The vast crowd wailed like a roof-stripping gale as some fell back and others pushed forward for a glimpse of this new chaos. Fight, you bastard sons! Fight for your lives! Don't you dare give them up to these dogs cloaked in law! Dante closed on their ranks. He threw the staff at the first prisoner to look his way. One of the watch broke rank to intercept him, and Dante stretched out his free hand and the man's ribs popped, dropping him mid-step. Blazer's shocked laughter bubbled over the shouts and the roar, and Dante met the boy's eyes and tossed him his sword. Its point speared the earth, and Blaze snatched it up and met the first wedge of watchmen, lashing out with the full strength of his arm. 
Dante spat out the torch stone and dropped it in his pocket. He took his knife from his belt and laid open the palm of his left hand, flashing his teeth at the hot rush of pain. Blood wicked up the lines of his palm, and he closed his fist. He looked up, meaning to join the skirmish beginning in earnest between law and outlaw, and met eyes with a watchman not three feet in front of him. The man's sword whooshed through the air in a downstroke that would cleave his skull. Dante shouted out to the nether, but there was no time. His eyes and nostrils went wide. He thought, so there's nothing up there looking out for us. Perhaps it wasn't all in vain. Blaze still lived. Blaze could still make it out. Steel flashed as the stroke fell. Dante heard a hiss like a doused torch, and then a gurgle and a wet boom, and his face was showered with stinging blood as the guard's sword exploded in what had been his hands. Dante fell back, swiping gunk from his eyes, and the guard raised his spurting stumps and keeled over like a cut tree. Callie. Hope flared back up in his chest. He rushed to the main battle, feeling sure and invincible as a panther. A line of bodies from both sides marked the border of the struggle. Small, crushed bones lay in disordered piles, but a pair of his rats fought on, digging into the stomach of one of the watchmen. The man doubled over, crushing one of the vermin as it squirmed through the other side of his body. Blaze whirled, knocking back their attacks to right and left, but the guard's sheer numbers gave him no room to strike back. Three of the other convicts still survived, one with Dante's staff, one with the guard's sword, the last with just his own bleeding knuckles. Before Dante could make a move, a watchman lunged in and ran the unarmed man through. He felt as if it were someone else's hands grasping the nether and sending it in a black bolt that squirted the guard's brains from his ear. A knife flipped through the air and into Dante's left biceps, and he screamed and went numb to the fingertips. He yanked it free and flung it at the watchman, closing on Blaze. The man flinched back, and Blaze swept out and sprayed blood into the air. At least a dozen of the guards left, though, to their mere four, and already he could feel his control of the shadows growing tenuous, threatening to burst from the channel of his body. He risked a backwards glance, saw some of the crowd had fled to the city, while others had fallen back to the safer perspective of another dozen steps away. He thought he saw a brown-garbed group pushing their way forward. Their progress was hampered by the countercurrent of the mob, but they couldn't be more than a minute or two away. They'd come fast once they reached the clear ground around the tree. The watchman facing them noticed it as well, and fell back to reform their ranks. The prisoners panted, glancing around themselves, beginning to understand the reprieve Dante'd given them was coming to an end. I hope the brilliance of your plan doesn't stop here, Blaze said, edging up to him. There's more of them on the way. We're not going to be able to fight them all. That's a no, then, Blaze said, crestfallen. Affirmative, Dante said. Do the thing on them where it goes dark, he whispered. One of the watch tightened his mouth cursed, then stepped forward and raised his sword against Blaze. Steel met steel, and both sides stood transfixed as if waiting for a cue. The watchman made a series of tightly controlled thrusts, forcing Blaze back. Blaze tried a counter, and the man brushed it aside and responded with a stroke that, were Dante in Blaze's place, would have taken off his head. 
Blaze leaned back, swiveling his hips to speed his sword enough to meet it, and the man's blade scraped down his and into his arm. As if the sight of the boy's blood were a command, the rest of the watch started forward, points of their swords held in front of them, and Dante coaxed the shadows to plunge them into total darkness. They shrieked blindly. The watchman's attack on Blaze had left his stance open just a hair, and when he heard the cries behind him, he hesitated long enough for Blaze to wheel his sword down in a three-quarter angle and lay open the man's chest. The watchman staggered back into the pitch. Charge! Blaze bellowed, shaking his sword high over his head, then turned and ran away for the wagons. The two other prisoners took a step forward, shouting battle cries, then caught on and swerved to follow Blaze's retreat. Thrown by the feint, clearly terrified that their eyes had suddenly stopped working at the command of an archmage who'd come to them in the form of a boy, slinging death and destruction over their ranks, the first of the guards didn't emerge from the Shadowsphere until the band of rebels had cut the beefy horses free from the wagons. Blaze heaved himself up onto the bare back of a black horse and swirled his blade. I can't ride, Dante shouted from the ground. Neither can I, Blaze said, face blended in terror and exhilaration. He hugged his body to the neck of the horse and reached a hand down to Dante. Dante grabbed it and they wrestled his weight up on the animal's back. By the time he was set, the guards were pouring down the hill toward them. Behind them, another squad rolled out from the road, moving to cut them off. This is bullshit, Blaze shouted. He kicked the horse in the ribs and was almost thrown off its back as it galloped straight at the men coming down the hill. He caught his balance just as the first came into striking distance. Blaze laid out with his blade, meaning to decapitate the closest man in one clean stroke, and instead his sword caught in the man's skull and yanked back Blaze's arm, nearly dismounting him for a second time. This is hard. Just don't get us killed, Dante said, gripping his horse for dear life. He'd put away his knife and had no other weapons than the shadows. A faintness in his head and chest told him he needed at least a moment's rest before he went to them again. To their rear, he saw two other prisoners trotting their way, the one with the staff was clenching himself against his horse's neck and rapidly falling behind the one who'd picked up a sword. That man kicked his heels, holding the weapon wide away from the horse's heaving flanks, like he'd been born armed and in the saddle. Within seconds he closed on them and matched Blaze's speed. What's next? he called over. What's the hurry? Blaze said, swiping and missing at a ducking watchman. He cursed and started their mount in an awkward circle. Horses are faster than they are, Dante suggested loudly in Blaze's ear. That just means I've got plenty of time to kill a few more first, he said, riding the horse for another pass. The two groups of guards had merged and were making a slow turn to try to drive them toward the city. Blaze set a course for the stragglers and rode one down beneath the horse's thundering hooves. The second watchman turned and raised his sword and Blaze cut his arm off at the elbow. He drew the horse up short by the makeshift reins left over from its ties to the wagon, and the animal reared back. Dante flattened himself, clamping his legs so hard against its sides, he felt sure he or the horse would break. Blaze crouched down but lifted his fist and carved a tight arc through the air with the point of his sword. 
Cower then, you sons of bitches! he yelled, spit flying from his mouth. I'd kill you all, but you stamp one roach and twenty others take its place. The horse's front hooves landed, and a shock ran up Dante's spine. Blaze turned it to the south, where the staff-wielding criminal was spurring his horse through the thin remnants of the crowd. Rot in hell! Did you hear that? You can all just die! He charged forward. The guy with the sword hurried to their front. Dante laughed as the remaining peasants parted like flocks of quail. Young men and women, in ragged clothes, waved their hands and cheered them on. Blaze tipped an imaginary cap, and the girls cheered harder. What's your name? One called after him. Blaze Buckler, he shouted over his shoulder. And my friend Dante, greatest sorcerer to walk the earth. That's not very wise, Dante said. Ah, oh, we'll never see them again. This way they can write some songs about us, make the watch feel like jackasses for years to come. They neared the forest fringe at the edge of the field. Blaze laughed and cursed a few gods for good measure. As if they'd taken personal interest, Dante saw a spear point of men on horseback break from the crowd and angle to intercept them before the woods. Oh, come on, Blaze said, slapping the horse's sweating side. I didn't mean it. Dante whistled to the other two prisoners galloping ahead. The horseman glanced back, saw the pursuers, then slowed to let Blaze fall in beside him. Can't outrun them, the man panted, and Dante saw it was true. The horses they'd stolen were so bulky they were practically plow horses. Next to the saber-thin bodies of the watchman's horses, the ones they rode were like the jewel-fattened swords kings used to ennoble their bravest and richest knights. The watch would be on them before they reached the woods, and once again they were outnumbered. Don't these people have anything better to do? Dante muttered. Can't you make the earth swallow them up or something? Can't you stab them all in the heart wearing a blindfold and women's drawers? You've got women's drawers? Blaze gave Dante an intensely interested look, eyes going wide when he saw the riders behind them. Hey, they're really getting close. One rider spurred himself ahead of the pack, intent on Dante's undefended back. If they slowed down to fight, the others would catch them. If they rode straight on, the one would run him through. His eyes felt moist. He blanked his mind and touched the nether. It leapt up easily, ready to return. There was no holding back now. Dante shouted at the swordsman on their flank. Can you hold off that one? The one, sure, the prisoner said, straightening his arm and slanting his sword at the ground. I just need a few seconds. Dante turned his face from the wind, trying to tear the breath from his mouth. The man dropped a couple lengths behind them and blocked the path of the lone watchman. They crossed blades, and the other five pulled side by side with each other and hurried to his aid. Dante's palm had mostly scabbed up, and he sucked in air and cut an X across his hand. Shadows flocked to his blood at once, wriggling around his fingers, coating his skin halfway to the elbow. His body went cold. He could see the individual beads of sweat rolling down the faces of the watch, could smell the horse's sweat and the earthy mulch of rotting leaves. He felt as if he could drop down and outrun their horse on his own two legs. Why hadn't he been doing this more? 
What was there to be afraid of? Lightning in his veins and vision so sharp it was like he could see into time itself. This was everything he'd ever wanted. Watch this, Blaze. I'm going to do something neat. He splayed his fingers and released the nether, shaping it to the image in his mind. For a second, nothing happened. He looked at his empty hand, expecting sparks or smoke. Nothing. They were going to die then. In the gap between the battling pair and the five galloping watchmen, a wall of flames erupted from the earth. It roared twenty feet high, then collapsed to half that, a fire so hot it was white. The five men screamed as one. Their horses bleated, reared back, trying to stop the wild rush of their bodies. One man and mount tried to leap through, and the fire scorched the skin from its belly. They tumbled apart. Dante saw the silhouette of another man flying forward, thrown by his horse. By the time he cleared the fire, he was a corpse. Dante tried to swallow, but none of his muscles wanted to work. Behind them, before his sight started going grey, he saw the sword-wielding prisoner swing forehand, knocking aside the watchman's blade, then backhand, slicing off his hand, and finally swung his shoulders in a second forehand, sending the man's head spinning into the grass. A low branch rushed past Dante's face. Someone kill me while I'm happy, Blaze shouted. I can't believe you came back, Dante. I didn't know what to think when I saw your face back at the tree. If I'd had a real meal in the last week, I probably would have filled my trousers. Ah, Dante said, meaning something about how he couldn't think either. His vision tunneled. His legs loosened their grip on the horse's flanks. Blaze had escaped, he thought, and then the darkness took him. Chapter 8 Pain woke him. This didn't surprise him. Some animal part of his brain had been registering hurt even as he slept. But rather than the all-body throb Dante'd slumbered through for however many hours or years since he'd collapsed mid-ride on their escape from Wetton, this pain was in his face, light and stinging, and with it, a flat smack. What did I tell you? A nasally voice said. About streams that want to be rivers. Don't you remember the part about dying? Stop it. Dante slurred, pawing at whatever was hitting him. He blinked a few times. Callie? No, bearded Gashin himself. I'm here to recruit you as my chief general in the war for the heavens. The old man scowled down on him. Where are you trying to get yourself killed? Kind of the opposite, Dante said, and before he could say more, his lungs spasmed. Callie threw a handkerchief in his face. Dante dabbed at his lips, and the mess came away bloody. Where are we? Somewhere safe from Wetton's watch and the Aronite's hounds. Dante blinked again, gazed dumbly at the musty stone walls. It looks like a dump. It's my temple, Callie said. Show some respect. You blew up that man's sword when I was charging them, Dante remembered. He laughed, quickly clutched his sides. Oh, 
At that moment, you weren't looking very capable of not dying. Dante, Blaze shouted, head stuck through the doorway. He poured into the room and shot Callie a black look. I told you he wouldn't die. Technically, it was a bet. You should have seen yourself running into that field, Blaze said, grabbing Dante's shoulder and shaking him like a crying child. Those rats stampeding in front of you like hell's own army, staff in one hand, sword in the other, face all lit up with light. You'd look like a demon come down to earth, or one of those old wizards that used to obliterate a battalion just by pointing at them. Those stories are all exaggerated, Callie said. You're old enough to know. So you admit you're wrong. What happened to the others? Dante said. Did they make it? They're out in the yard somewhere, Callie said, flipping a hand, eating up my food and drinking down my wine, no doubt. Why couldn't you have saved a sixteen-year-old girl? I wasn't about to save anyone but Blaze, Dante said. He eased himself upright. The blood left his head and he felt as if he were floating in a warm sea. He waited till his eyes weren't full of specks. I was just using the others to make a mess. I don't think mess quite covers it, Callie said. He frowned through the snarl of his beard for a moment, then couldn't help chuckling. All right, it did look ridiculous. They'll be talking about it for generations. Ten years from now, all the people who'll claim to have witnessed the execution that wasn't could fill an ocean. How long was I out? A whole damn day! Blaze said. He bounced on his heels. I'll go grab the others. They've been waiting to thank you. What? Dante said once Blaze had run off. What did they think? I was trying to save them. That's exactly what they think, Callie said, running his fingers through his beard and laughing to himself. They think you have a special purpose for them. That's crazy. In what way is dying so I don't have to a special purpose? Try to get them to swear you a life debt. Never know when that might come in handy. Will you be serious for a minute? Dante doubled over in another coughing fit. He brushed water from his eyes. What am I going to tell them? Obviously not the truth. That would crush them. Callie explored a gap in his teeth with his pinky nail. In a minute... They're going to bound in here and slobber all over you, trying to convince themselves you really do have a meaning for them. The polite thing would be to play along. Well, I'm not going to lie to them, not about something like that. Oh, yes, it would be far more ethical to strip them of their illusions and leave them to fend for themselves philosophically naked. You talk like the little babies. I think they can do all right for themselves. Callie rolled his eyes. The first time you saw them, they were about to be hanged. That doesn't mean anything, Dante said, wriggling upright in his bed. Those people hang anyone they don't like. The whole thing's a sham. They were going to kill Blaze for looking like a scumhole and not having any friends there. And for killing all those people. Those people were trying to... Dante started, then bolted upright, scanning the room. Callie looked puzzled. Then his face wrinkled up in a smirk. Dante turned back to him. Where's the book? Your pack's on that peg over there, the old man said, tipping his chin past Dante's shoulder. You wouldn't let go of it even after you'd been knocked out. 
Praise the gods, Dante said, sinking back into the bedclothes, then glanced in fresh panic at the door as Blaze burst back into the room, followed by the bearded swordsman, who Dante now recognized as the new stop man who'd asked for more whiskey before they turned him off, and the staff-wielding man who'd made a poor horseman and— Dante noted with a strange thrill, was still carrying the staff, as though Dante's touch had made it into something more than a snapped-off branch. The two ex-prisoners exchanged a smile, then looked back at Dante. Well, some talk of whether you'd pull through, the bearded man said, glancing at Blaze and jingling some coins in his pocket. My name's Robert Hobble. I'm Dante. No, I mean, I'm Robert Hobble. And well met, Dante said. Guess I'm not as well known as I thought, Robert smiled. Thought I was a corpse for sure up there. I had this half-assed notion the mob, once they saw it was me, would rush right up and uproot the crooked tree for now and forever. But I guess they thought I deserved it after all. His face went blank just a light crinkle around his eyes, like he was trying to fight off a headache. Don't know what to make of getting rescued by you. Think nothing of it, Dante said quickly. The man with the staff stepped forward. They don't tell stories about me like they do for Robert, he said, ducking his head, but I appreciate what you've done just as much. It's like I've been given a second chance. Then spend it well, Dante said avoiding Blaze and Callie's eyes. What's your name? Edwin Powell, sir. We might not have made it if you weren't fighting alongside us, Edwin. Might be, Edwin said. He leaned on the stick and nodded at the far wall. But I'd be strangled and buried if you hadn't led the charge. I'd planned to die there, Dante said. I think I would have if you two hadn't discharged yourselves so well. To his ear, his words didn't sound entirely his own. He had the sense he was repeating sentiments he'd once heard from someone else, and while he meant what he was saying, there was something platitudinal in it, a blandness that made him feel as if he were lying. He flushed, and before he could find a way to thank them that felt real, he coughed so hard he sat up straight, eyes watering. The young lord needs his rest. Callie said, restraining his smile till the two men had turned back to Dante. In other words, get the hell out. I pledge to spend my second chance better than I did my first, Edwin said. He tapped the staff against the stone floor. I won't make you regret what you did for me. He looked down. My family's worried, no doubt. With your leave, I'd like to go back to them now. Of course, Dante said. No one's eager to see me back, Robert said, scratching the stubble on his throat. Would probably be best if I stayed out of sight for a while, in fact. Maybe I can pay you two back by teaching Blaze all the ways he's embarrassing himself when he waves around that sword of his. My dad taught me how to fight, Blaze said, hands gripping his belt. Robert held up his palms. I just mean, no education worth its salt ends at twelve. I'm fifteen and a half. My mistake. I try not to pay attention to anyone under twenty. They have the habit of dying right around the time you start to like them. Maybe you've got a habit of boring them to death, Blaze said. Enough, Callie said, tugging at sleeves and shoving at backs. 
Go yammer at each other out in the yard. He overruled their objections and ushered them out of the room, then closed the door and pressed his back to it. Country hens. The real crime was not letting the watch turn them off when they had the chance. I couldn't find a way to thank them, Dante said. It sounded fine to me. I once heard a duke say the same thing after a successful siege. That's exactly the problem. You want to be you, and you alone, Callie said knowingly. The key is to be less civilized. What does that mean? Dante said. The old man just stared at him through the grey halo of his beard and ruffled hair. What are you going to do now? Sleep, Dante said, stretching his arms over his head and sliding back beneath the blanket. Yes, but I presume at some point, hours or even days from now, you'll wake up and be wanting for something to do. Finish the part of the cycle I can read, then learn how to read the part I can't. I see. Callie said. His eyes flickered wide with something that looked bizarrely like hunger. Then he nodded, inscrutable as ever, and went for the door. First, rest. Once you're done coughing up blood, then you can think about what comes next. Dante could stand after the first day and walk around after the second. When he felt well enough to hobble outside his room, he found the building really had been a temple. A poor one, most certainly. More of a shrine, given that it had only four rooms, and the largest of these wouldn't have held a congregation of more than forty. It was a sturdy edifice, though, all mortared stone, with high arched ceilings that stole up the heat even when the main hearth was blazing. The walls were covered in bas-relief from Dante's knees to a foot above his eyes, filled with hand-sized figures of bearded men in crowns and robes with stars flaring from their hands, and a number of smaller figures who appeared to be getting killed by those stars. Concealed among the kingly shapes was a frame of a man standing in a cell. Rags hung from his shoulders in abstract tatters. At his feet, three rats stood on their hind legs, front paws dangling. His outstretched hand bore four fingers. He saw Blaze no more than two or three times a day, at meals or when the boy came in from hours of traipsing around the open wood as he'd done when they lived by the pond. In the mornings and late afternoons of the shortening days, Dante heard the crash of swords out in the yard, mingled with the phlegmy laughter of Robert Hobble as he doled out some new lesson. Callie all but quarantined himself to his room, as if he couldn't stand sharing the same space with other bodies for more than a few minutes a day. Dante sat by the fire reading the last sections of the cycle that was still in the malish tongue, and tried to shut his ears to the shouts and play of blades outside. By the fourth day he could have joined them, he thought, in that he felt physically well enough to spar. It wouldn't hurt to improve his training. His current worth with the sword was about one notch above being able to take a swing without chopping off his own face. Instead, he stayed indoors. He didn't want to slow Blaze down. Robert had skill. That much was clear from how he'd acquitted himself in the field. Blaze must know that, unencumbered by Dante's clumsy swipes and plodding advancement, he could learn something that might end up saving his life, probably Dante's as well. 
If they thought it would do any good for Dante to be out there, they'd have asked him. So he read and reread, scribbling notes, flipping forward and backward, doing his best to place the fractured chronology in some kind of order, borrowing from Callie's bountiful stacks of blank paper to compose small essays on the cycle's curious symbolism and authorial shifts and veiled concerns. He wrote these not because he intended to amend or refute in the public arena the other scholars he'd read, though he hoped, with a desperation he could never wholly admit to, Callie would someday read them and confirm he was on the right track. But from a compulsion that felt as elemental as the stone walls and wood chairs that surrounded him. It was trying work, but it wasn't tiring. It was slow and uneven, and he was constantly frustrated by how little of the words on his pages matched the ideas in his head. But he was propelled by the momentum of a boy's first found love in the subjects of men. By the end of a week, he reached the final page of the Malish chapters before it shifted to the dead language, and in that last light of afternoon finished what he'd started an age ago in Bressel. The final times will come as they began, blinded by the white blanket of the northern snows, settled at the foot of the tree of bone where the dragonat spills the father of the heaven's heart-blood on the snow and planted his knuckle within the soil. The skies will be black, though it will be full day. The winds will howl with the laments of the slain as the starry vault is shattered and all things thought past once more come forth. A scaled beast will arise with three tails and four wings and lay waste to the land. Rivers will reverse their direction and graves will spit the dead to mingle with the living. Fire will consume the cities of man. The gift never meant to be given turned in hot cleansing against those who tainted its power. The beast will make himself known, lashing out with his tails to smash the false temples of men who have forgotten the true faces of the belt of the Celeset. Eric the Dragonat is dead, though he lived long, and in this twilight time he alone will not return. The beast will hold its judgment, and its judgment will be that of the scythe to the wheat. He knew some priests put great stock in apocalyptic prophecies, but Dante couldn't escape the sense whoever had written this hadn't meant a literal three-tailed dragon was going to show up in the end days and bring a physical end to the world. It was like this story was an ancient cathedral buried up to its steeple. Men could see the spire's tip, but few could guess there was something grand beneath it and no one could imagine what shape that cathedral might take. An understanding had been lost. Possibly the man who'd written it hadn't even understood exactly what he was passing along. This story, though, was a thousand years old at the least, possibly many times that, told and retold until it had been embedded in the cycle. How could Dante unearth its true shape when the men who'd first conceived it had been dead for so long? None of their names survived. Where on earth would he even start to look? Finished, Callie said, startling him from his tangle of thoughts, as garbled as the web of a whirlpool spider. As far as I can get. Good, 
then start thinking about where you're going next, because you can't stay here. Dante's head snapped up. You want us to leave? I've got my own business to get back to, Callie said, frowning at him. What did you think was going to happen? I thought you were going to teach me how to read the rest, Dante said, finding his hopes sounded much less ridiculous now that Callie had dashed them. Vanetha, too. Well, you are wrong. Surely you know as much as anyone about these things. Miles more. Callie sighed when Dante started in on another objection. He waved his hands in front of his face, brushing it away. Even if I had the time, which I don't, I'm not an instructor. I was bad at it when I was young, and now that I'm old, I'm as likely to kill you as tutor you. Things are muddled. I know how to navigate my own coasts, but trying to explain it to fit someone else's mind is worse than impossible. Where can I go, then? Dante said, grasping the cover of the book. Even the Library of Bressel doesn't have the rest of it. It's like the whole world's forgotten. Not the whole world. Where, then? Callie's blue eyes flinched. The dead city. Narashtovic itself. That's where the Aronites wanted to take me once they saw I knew the Nether, Dante said. He stared hard at Callie. You think I should go to them now? Why? I thought you hated them. No doubt you heard some news in Wetton, about the skirmishes in the plains of Colin, the riot stone in Bressel. What does that have to do with anything? They stem from the same source as the language of the cycle's last section. The dead city, Dante said, ignoring the embarrassment that came with using its nickname. He shuffled the pieces of what he'd learned and what Callie had told him of their motives around in the workshop of his mind. They mean to start a war, then. How does that help them release Aron? It doesn't, Callie said, squinting at him. But they have this idea it would be somewhat disrespectful to restore Iran to his seat when barbarians like us still beat people to death for having the audacity to praise him. Have you ever seen Iran? Of course not. He's imprisoned. Okay, Dante said. He worried his lip for a moment. Have you ever seen any of the gods? One of their stellar messengers, even? Anything at all that stands as hard proof of the divine? Callie shrugged at him, and Dante bowled on. So who cares what the Aronites are up to, then? They're just a bunch of dopes in robes. They're going to sacrifice a few goats, turn their eyes to the heavens, and see nothing but the stars. Aron's not going to ride down on a flaming chariot and lay ruin to the earth. But they will in his place! Callie thundered, striding forward till his face was no more than a foot from Dante's. Blaspheme all you like! Maybe Aran exists, and maybe he doesn't. Maybe he's nothing but a foofara. Fine. They still believe he does, and they're still going to war for it. Thousands are going to die for it, including a few who don't deserve to. Dante drew back, silent until the anger worked its way from Callie's face. He had a long time to wait. So, why bring this up? Dante said at last. What does that have to do with me going to Narashtovic? Two fish, one spear. Will you drop the oracular nonsense and talk like a person for once? Callie snorted, as if making himself clear would be beneath his dignity. 
Dante maintained his silence, and Cali snorted again, tugging at his sleeves. What I'm saying, since during your escape you evidently sustained a blow to the head, is it may be within your power to abbreviate the coming bloodshed. That's a load of it, isn't it? Why don't you stop it? I know it's hardly in your nature to prevent people from bleeding, Cali returned. You're much more comfortable rupturing organs and spewing people's brains out their ears. That seemed especially unnecessary, by the way. The old man tapped a finger against his teeth. It's my very power that prevents me from going there and doing something myself. Now that's just stupid, Dante said. It's of equal probability that you're the one being stupid. I was known in the dead city once. They'd no sooner let me through their walls than they would a horde of hooting savages. As soon as I got within a hundred miles, they'd strike me down with a pike, then chop me into fragments, stick me on any number of other pikes, and dance around a bonfire. You, on the other hand, appear completely unremarkable and would stand out no more than any other foreigner. Probably because I'm not any more dangerous than a pilgrim. Callie chortled at that. I'm not about to fawn on you like those peasants you saved. In fact, if you actually believe the words you just said, I should crush your skull as a service to the collective human race. The truth is, you're a sharp young knife, and so is Blaze in his way. There's a reason sharp knives are the favoured arms of assassins. Even so, Dante said, flushing a little. Caught off guard, these were the first kind words he could recall Callie saying. It was a second before he understood those words weren't purely poetical. Assassins? Well, yes. If I thought we'd have to kill every citizen of the dead city, I'd send an army, not two boys. As it is, I believe we can stave off war with the death of a single priest. There are people in the dead city. Callie gave him a look. You thought it was full of talking corpses, maybe? Walking skeletons? Of course not, Dante lied. They just call it that to keep out pilgrims. Callie looked blankly at the carvings on the wall behind Dante's chair. It was sacked a few times. More than a few. After the fourth or fifth time they'd rebuilt it and plotted out all the new cemeteries, someone got wise and moved the palace inland a few hundred miles. Now Narashtavik is sort of a kingdom within the wider kingdom of Gask. A few stubborn dunces who equated their land with their identity stuck around and have continued getting sacked ever since. It's become an isolated place. Weird, in a bad way. No one goes there on purpose, and over the years it's become a shell of its former self. But there are those who still live there including an awful lot of Iran's chosen, since in that city they could worship a stuffed donkey for all anyone from civilization would care. He wiped his nose and sniffed. Some do claim it gets its nickname from the regional practice the people have, suspicious of outsiders, as I hope you see why, of stringing up strangers from the city walls. But I believe it's just those little differences that make the world special. Dante ignored him. Whenever the cycle mentioned it, it talked about a place as big as Bressel, not some horrid backwater. Bigger? Callie said. But the cycle's a thousand years old, and that's just the young parts. 
when a text becomes sacred, you can't just run around updating it for the modern era. It would throw the whole thing into suspicion. So what about this priest? How did we... Callie sighed. Right. It's difficult to tell what kind of idiocy might be in the heads of the council. But I think if its leader were rendered persona non grata, by which I mean dead, the forces of reason may be able to cajole and flatter the dogs of war back from their madness. Her name is... Her name? They take orders from a woman? Death doesn't discriminate, does he? Why should his followers? I'm beginning to think you should travel to Narashtavik just to broaden your horizons. I just didn't know a woman was their leader, Dante said. He resolved to stop interrupting. Samarand, Kelly said. She's not terribly old, though all you young people look alike to me. She's a wretched firebrand, always going on about how Iran's faithful have let themselves be pushed from their proper place at the table. I think if she were to stop rushing around exhorting violence and mayhem, the moderate elements would snap out of their collective nightmare and go back to grinding the radicals beneath their heels, as is just and proper. Fascinating, Dante said. I won't do it. Callie's eyebrows shot up. What? I'm not a dog of war either. I'm not going to travel ten thousand miles to kill some woman on your say-so. Do you have any idea how insane this sounds? You don't, do you? This sounds reasonable to you. No way. First off, it's barely a thousand miles. Second, you must have killed a dozen men by now. That was completely different. Was it? It seems to me a dead man's a dead man no matter why he's dead. We were defending our lives, Dante said. He clutched his copy of the cycle to his chest. I shouldn't have to apologize for that. Will you apologize when this war kills thousands, then? Callie said, leaning in again. The old man looked like he should stink like a dock, but Dante was constantly surprised to find he had no odor at all, even when he was practically spitting in his face. If Samarand lives, thousands will die. How will you split that hair to wash your hands of guilt? What if she was going to kill a million people instead, the entire world? Would you do something then? Stop it, Dante said. He stood up and faced Callie, meeting the man's age-honed glare with his own raw outrage. Find someone else. This mess is none of my concern. He started back for his room. He didn't know where he would go, if not Narashtavik, but he'd begun to understand just how large the world was, once you learned to face the fear of leaving everything you knew behind. There were way too many kingdoms, baronies, chiefdoms, and rogue cities out there for all knowledge of the cycle to be confined to Narashtavik. He was only sixteen. It galled him to have to wait a single day to read the rest, let alone however many months or years it would take him to track down a malish translation on his own. Or, he supposed with an inward groan, to learn whatever foreign language it might have been translated into. But if nothing else, a period of far-flung wandering would give the Aronites some time to forget him, to stop hunting him through the towns and the wilds and go back to their own business. Barden is real, Callie said from behind him. Dante closed his eyes, hand on the handle to his room. 
A huge tree, grown out of bone, is real. Yes. Sprouted from Tame's severed knuckle and watered from his gushing heart. I'm a few eons too young to know that, Callie said. Nor do I know whether its limbs bear the waters above the world, while its roots rest in the waters beneath the world, as the book would have it. But I have looked on it. Dante turned then, knowing it for a ploy, but unable to stop his pulse from thumping till he could feel it in his chest and in his ears. What was it like? Callie started to speak, then shook his head. Looking on it was like living in a world without light and air. His eyes drifted from Dante's, lids wrinkled so hard his eyelashes fluttered. The old man pulled his lips back from his teeth. He suddenly looked immeasurably older than his sixty-odd years, as old as a wind-scoured mountainside, ages older than all the years of man. I've seen many things I'd call miracles, if I didn't have the training to know how to do them myself. But if the gods left a single fingerprint on our world, it was in the white tree. The book says it's north of Narashtavik, just over a hundred miles. Callie stood there, arms dangling down his sides, hands coarse and spotty and useless, as if nothing existed beyond the walls of his skull. Is that supposed to make me agree to kill a woman I hadn't heard of till two minutes ago? That's for you to decide. Callie's eyes snapped to his, some of their former light restored. If you won't, maybe I'll find another way. Maybe I won't. But if you want to see the white tree for yourself, the road leads through Narashtavik. Dante caught Blaze before he disappeared the following morning and arranged to have lunch with him down by the clearing with the stream that ran a couple hundred yards from Callie's forgotten old shrine. Hours later, they sat down in the tall grass in that cool November light, listening to the stream gurgle through the rocks. It was the first time since their arrival they'd been by themselves, free of Callie and Robert bossing them around and making jokes and story references Dante almost but couldn't quite understand. As he and Blaze swore and laughed at each other's insults, Dante realized he always acted differently when he was around the adults, as if he had to be his smartest and most sophisticated or else they'd stop listening to him altogether. And it was some time before he could make himself interrupt their breezy mood with what he'd come here to say to Blaze in the first place. Something's going on out there, Dante said, after a short lull following the laughter that had followed an unbelievably obscene joke from Blaze. Blaze cocked his head. I don't hear anything. I mean, out there. Dante said, gesturing his palms up, away from each other, to take in the woods and the sky. Something violent. If you're talking about life, Blaze said with light annoyance, that started a long time ago. He bit into the leg of a rabbit he and Robert had caught the day before. Dante shook his head and tried to look serious. There's going to be a fourth scour or something. Callie says we might be able to help him stop it. And you trust Callie? You don't, 
Dante said with honest surprise. Blaze shrugged at him. It's not just him, Dante went on. I don't know what you heard while you were in the clink, but it was all over the streets. There's riots down in Bressel. Other places, too. People are getting hurt. City people riot over everything, Blaze said. He plucked some grass and tossed it at Dante, one blade at a time. One day, they're rioting over how it's too hot. The next day, they're back in the streets about how it's not too hot enough. We'd have to go to Narashtovic. It's on the north coast of Gask. That far? Blaze examined him. Do you want to go? I don't know, Dante said, and found that though those words hid a sea of desires and doubt, they nonetheless were true. Do you? Blaze took a last bite from his drumstick and lobbed it into the fast, shallow waters of the stream. Whatever you want, he said. If you think we need to go, we'll go. Dante nodded. If we're going, we should leave tomorrow. Waiting will just make things worse. I'll tell Robert. Think he'll take it, okay? I think he'll come with us, Blaze said, and Dante could only nod again, silenced by an emotion he couldn't grasp and wouldn't want to put into words. Blaze popped up, brushed grass from his legs and dirt from his seat. Don't tell him I told you, but he thinks you're onto something. He laughed ruffling his own hair. He wants to hop on board your wagon before it rolls off for the land of mead and honey-haired women. This needs to stop, Dante said, then laughed too. I'm serious. He went back to the shrine and started packing. With little else to do and possessing the brand of spirit that couldn't devote a whole day to any one thing, Blaze and Robert had hunted more meat than the four of them had been able to keep up with, most of it was salting in the cellar. The rest was hanging from a lattice of branches they'd arranged to soak up the smoke from the outdoor fire pit, and that, so far, hadn't been molested by a passing bear. Dante gathered up as much as he thought wouldn't spoil on the trip. The nights had been flirting with freezing, giving his guests a lot of leeway, and stuffed into a sack the meat and some of the breads and vegetables Callie had smuggled in from the city twice a month. He gathered his things, his candles and books and papers and knives, and leaned them inside his bedroom door. In the morning, he'd be able to leave as soon as they'd eaten. Callie bumped into him as he was making a final scan of the temple, sized him up and offered him a slight, solemn nod. At dinner, they ate a great haunch of the boar Robert had brought in days before and drank stream water so cold it stung Dante's teeth. The other three shared a bottle of wine Callie dredged up from the cellar, then a second, then Robert slugged down most of a third. Dante sipped from the same glass all night, rising only when Blaze and Robert staggered off to their respective rooms to sleep it off. This is the right choice, Callie said then. So you say. I won't pretend to know how to measure the value of one life against another, but there are times when it's easier than others. A few weeks ago, I didn't know about any of this, Dante said. He rubbed his eyes. It still doesn't feel real. 
The legends make it sound grand, to be swept into causes you have no part in. But in truth it's grim, and it's unfair, and it wears you down. Callie stood and moved around the table to put a hand on Dante's shoulder. The skin of his fingers was a lusterless white, flaky from the dry air. Dante didn't move. Take comfort you won't be alone out there, and that, whatever happens, you're doing something that will keep all these people down here safe. Though he didn't expect to find any rest in his immediate future, Dante managed to fall asleep in little more than an hour after he laid down. They rose shortly after dawn, gathered up the sacks Dante'd packed, slung them over the three draft horses they'd stolen the day of the execution that wasn't, and since bought saddles for through the anonymous agents Callie used as go-betweens for his needs. They took up their weapons and their trinkets and their charms. Callie took an old sword from the shrine's walls and gave it to Dante, deflecting his protests with the advice there's nothing more dependable than a sharp hunk of metal. They ate a light, quick meal, then sat in the saddle in the cold morning light outside the shrine, saying their thanks and goodbyes to the old man. One last thing, Callie said, when they'd hit that final silence between when they'd said everything they needed and when they were ready to ride off. He fumbled in his robes, then produced a wax-sealed letter. It's for an old friend of mine. He's a monk by the name of Gabe. You'll find him in the Monastery of Menoch in the town of Shea. It's pretty much on your route. Dante took it from him and tucked it under his doublet. His gloom from the previous night had evaporated with the daylight and the knowledge they were on their way to somewhere he'd never imagined he'd see. There was a big horse underneath him. The air smelled like damp earth and was lightly cold from a rain during the night, but he knew he'd warm up once they started moving. He was glad, for the moment, to be who and where he was. Can't you just fly it to him on the wings of a talking crow? He said down to the old man. Good gods, just get him the damn letter. I'm beginning to doubt you can do anything at all. Shut up, Callie mused. He scratched the thick gray beard on his cheek. Don't leave town before he reads it. He may be some help. He used to be a fairly useful man. He bit his lip. If he hasn't died, of course. It's been a while. We'll die of old age ourselves if we don't head out soon, Blay said. Robert chuckled. Then get the hell out, Callie said. I'll finally be able to read in peace without it sounding like a war outside my window. We'll miss you too, old goat, Blaze called over his shoulder as they started into the woods. Dante turned in the saddle and waved to the old man. Callie held up his time-gnarled palm and watched them go. A cloud passed over the sun, throwing them into shadow. Dante cupped his hands to his mouth and quacked. Chapter 9 Twelve hundred miles, Dante figured. Between winding roads and the detour to Shea, they could count on twelve hundred miles of travel. Honestly, it sounded insane. It sounded like the kind of trip you started off expecting to lose a third of your men along the way. He shifted his seat, trying to get used to the horse beneath him. 
The way it bumped, the way its muscles rose with more strength than his entire body. Twelve hundred miles of getting jostled around by this monster. Pilgrims and caravans would take a season to cover that much ground. Robert had looked at the horses and the route and projected they could do it in six weeks of steady travel, not counting snow. Snow could change everything. None had stuck around Wetton yet, meaning they could count on the first two hundred miles to be clear at that moment. The slow rise of the plains could be completely different. So could the weather in the valley, in the five-odd days it would take to reach those plains. The valley almost always saw snow at some point, though some years the lower chance it didn't get dusted until the full thrall of January. Already it was late November. Unless they could gallop so fast they turned back time, there would be snow by the time they reached the north. In that sense, it wasn't worth thinking about. It wasn't a matter of if, but when, and whether they walked or rode hell for leather, they would see snow before it was through. All they had to worry about was reaching the pass through the Dundon Mountains before it got snowed in. Callie's shrine was about twenty miles west of Wetton. They travelled northeast, meaning to intercept the northern road a safe distance above town and follow it as far as they could into the mountains. They rode with no particular hurry, both to give Dante and, to a lesser extent, Blaze, the chance to learn how their horses reacted to their commands before trying anything fancy, like moving faster than a walk. Dante had done some riding back at Callie's, but by and large the ways of a horse were as foreign to him as those of the kneeling. Twelve hundred miles. Plenty of time to figure out just how crazy all this was. He pulled his cloak around his shoulders. It had grown thinner and more ragged since the night he'd stolen it off the body in Bressel. Poorly mended and open to the wind. They'd need sturdier clothes. Take care of it all in Shea. Callie's friend, nice thick cloaks and blankets, fresh food, maybe even a night in a real bed. Blackbirds and robins and crows twittered and coughed. Squirrels and rabbits and larger things crackled among the fallen leaves. The sun swung up into the sky and pierced through the bare branches, warming their bodies. They didn't talk much. No sense throwing out their voices on the first day. Good to be out of that place, huh? Robert said, after an hour or so. I was starting to get the stir-crazies, Blaze said. Something off about the old man. Robert let the sunlight fall on his upturned face. Appreciate his help, but I won't miss him. He helped more than you know, Dante said. No doubt about that, just not my sort of company. A stream crossed their path two odd miles on, and they dropped down to drink and let their horses do the same. Dante watched Robert walk up to the stream and stooped to scoop water into his mouth. You don't walk funny, he said. Blaze and Robert exchanged a look and a laugh. Fine, Dante drank, flexing his fingers against the cold. It's just a name, Robert said. Pretty weird one. They stretched their legs, then got back in the saddle, 
Robert spent a few minutes rubbing his beard. I'm thirty-some years old now, he said to no apparent cue. Couldn't say for sure. Split the difference and call it thirty-five. Back when I was a young man, a couple of years your elder, I'd been at the pub long enough to be feeling right, when I stood up to go tap my private keg and found my right leg was completely numb. Been sitting on it a while, I guess, and when I tried to walk, it just dragged along behind me. Couldn't feel a damn thing. He chuckled, running his fingers through his beard. Earlier that night, I'd thrown some lip at a man I'd just met, one of those loud, boastful men who's always watching to make sure everyone's watching him as he goes on about the strength of his arm and the speed of his blade and how big the tits on the last one he'd banged, the kind you want to stave in their head just to shut them up. I just offered my opinion on the likelihood of a canine presence in his maternal lineage, but him being that kind of man and all, he didn't see the restraint I'd employed to keep our differences purely verbal. Well, fellow sees me stand up, or more rightly, hobble up between the booze and my leg, and then limp around the room trying to get back the feeling. He sees his chance. Not only am I drunk, but evidently I'm lame chance to take back his honor without sticking out his neck. Even a man fundamentally scared inside, as him, thinks he can best a lamed drunk. He comes up, and at once I see the murder in his eyes. Spend enough time at pub, and you develop an eye for that pretty quick. Anyway, without a word, I've drawn my sword, and he's drawn his, and we're squaring off. He's dancing this way and that, right and left, taking pokes at me, trying to get me off my balance. I've got half a mind to what he's up to by then, and bide my time, letting my leg wake back up. Drunk as I was, I knew I wasn't in any real danger. He was decent at best, but I was good, damn good. Doesn't take long before my leg's tingling— and just a few seconds after that, it's hurting a bit, but I knew I could move it just fine. I kept up the act, shuffling around the same spot, letting him build his spirit, and soon enough he's taking this big swing meant to open my defense for his backstroke. I jump aside like Quicksilver on a griddle and strike for his heart. The man chuckled some more, gazing back through the ears. It was clear he'd told this story often. Dante guessed this pause was part of the telling. Well, for however clear my thinking, however swift my sword, I was still about half a mug short of stinking, and my blade just went through a lung and a few other parts that will kill you, but not exactly clean, like a good whack through the ticker. I kicked the oaf off my sword, and he fell down and gave me a look like I cheated him at cards. You're no cripple, he gasped, and you're no swordsman, I roared back. The crowd cheered and rolled them out in the street to die somewhere else. They bought me so many rounds I don't remember much else. Just when I woke up the next afternoon and slouched back in, all scared for the watch, the crowd cheered again and hailed out, Robert Hobble! Dante joined their laughter. Robert hadn't meant what he'd said about Callie, he'd decided— He'd just been talking. Tried that trick a few times after that, Robert added, after they'd settled down. Every time I realized I'd caused some serious trouble, which wasn't half so often as when I'd actually gotten in the stew, 
Then I'd catch that look in their eyes, and I'd start limping around like a man without a foot. Men are like dogs when they see a man's got something wrong. They'll tear him apart just for being broken. If you can get them to come at you, thinking you're somehow less of a man, you'll live a very long time. Didn't they catch on after a while? Dante said. Sure did, Robert said. He winked at Dante. Every man in every pub in Wetton knows my name now. These days when I insult them, they just laugh it off. Imagine that. I have to leave my hometown just to get in a fight. It's a cruel world, Dante said. It wasn't hard going, but it was slow going. The horses were used to clear fields and ploughed dirt, and hadn't yet loosened up to the disorderly rubble of a forest floor. Dante kept his eyes sharp for sign of the road. Once they reached it, they would be nearly two percent done with their trip. Fifty times as long as that, and they'd be in Narashtavik. They'd hardly been in the saddle for any time at all. Fifty times nothing was still nothing, wasn't it? Robert stopped them for lunch a little afternoon. They tore at strips of salted rabbit, gnawed on lumps of bread that still had some give to them. Dante wandered off a ways to urinate. On the way back, he saw a gleam of white within the grass. He knelt beside it. Bones. Sharp teeth. Something small. A cat or a ferret. Just a little dirty black fur sticking to the delicate sweep of ribs. He reached down and brushed away the fur. It was dry as old hay. He could see one of the horses nibbling a tuft of grass back where they'd stopped, but couldn't see Blaze or Robert. He got out his knife, wondered what he was doing, and dimpled his left thumb until a tiny blot of blood sprung up on its end. He wiped it along that knobbly white spine. Black flecks leached from the earth and onto the skeleton. The bones shifted as if in a stiff wind, and then the thing was on its feet, narrow skull pointing its sockets at his. He grasped it under the ribs, tendonless, fleshless. How did the legs and paws stay stuck to the body? And stuffed it in the deepest pocket of his cloak. It hung against his body with a cold weight. Dante brushed off his knees and rejoined the others. They were waiting for him, already mounted. Find anything interesting? Blaze called down from his horse. That's gross. Dante pulled himself up, careful not to crush the slender construct against his body. He ducked the low claws of branches. The trees were getting shorter, he thought. Younger. Within a mile, they could see the road. A hundred yards out, a grassy gap in the midst of the woods. You boys see anything odd down there? Robert murmured, lowering his head to peer through the skein of branches. Yeah, Blaze said. Traffic. It's a road, Dante said. It's ten or fifteen miles from Wetton, Robert said, tracing the road as it arced to the south. How many people you seen pass in the last thirty seconds? I don't know. Ten? Where are they going? Dante inhaled. 
What did that mean? Was he supposed to be able to read their thoughts? What had Blaze been telling them? He was right about to say something nasty about the nature of the roads when he saw it. North, he said. They're all going north. Funny, isn't it? They watched a while longer. The traffic didn't slow. Dante stopped counting after fifty. Robert raised his eyebrows at them and nudged his horse forward. They cleared the last line of trees and angled their horses down the shallow bank leading to the wide, well-packed road. A few of the people looked up with dirty, sooty faces. Dante glanced north. They speckled the road like rabbit droppings, going on until the path curved and was swallowed by forest. Maybe we should keep overland, he said. There were an awful lot of witnesses at the hanging. He gave Blaze a look. They might even know our names. I think they've got worse worries than fugitives, Robert said. He nodded south toward Wetton. Great, gray columns of smoke billowed into the air, forming a hazy cloud in the clear sky. Perhaps the chimney sweeps are getting a late start, Blaze said. Dante nudged his horse forward and flagged down one of the men on foot. What's going on down there? A party, the man said without looking up. The kind with fire and burning instead of wine and gifts. He continued right on by. It seems, Dante said, glancing significantly between the other two, the city is on fire. Hey! Blaze called, moving his horse to block the path of an angry-looking man with a sword. What happened? Oh, that, the man said, turning to the mountains of smoke as if he'd just noticed. Someone's smoking a pipe in bed again. Have I gone insane? Dante said. Blaze bit his tongue. Let's pretend it's them for now. We're on horses, you dummies, Robert said. That makes us look rich. He hopped out of the saddle and waved at a pair of men coughing and leaning on each other's shoulders. Damn city torched up, did it? Viceroy catch someone squeezing his daughter's ass and go on the rampage? That would have been worth it, one of the men grinned. The pair stopped and swayed in the road, wiping grime from their faces. Some riders showed up at dawn, way I heard it, the second man said. They couldn't have done all that, though. Are you forgetting that enormous mob? The first said. I haven't seen one like that since the false succession. Hear what they were up in arms about, Robert said. I've heard plenty of things. Anything you believe? No, the second put in. Just the trumpets of swift-winged rumour. They're upset about the Viceroy's cut of the grain, or all the coloners been moving in. Or their wives' ankles are too fat. Maybe the end is finally nigh, and it's time for the guilty to pay for their crimes. Can't be that, Robert said. We're still running free, aren't we? Tame kind of dropped the stick on that one, huh? The first man said. Well, nobody's perfect, the second shrugged. The three men chuckled. I'll tell you what I saw, the first one said, squaring his shoulders. I was walking down Bolshak Street when all these people started boiling out of the temples. I can understand someone coming out of church angry, 
but they had weapons, right? Swords and torches and flails. There was no one sect, it was all of them. It looked like they were fighting each other. A priest of Gashin was punching another man in a red robe, anyway. That's when I started running. I don't know what's going on, but it started in the temples. What's new? Robert muttered. They exchanged agreements and spent a silent moment gazing at the smoke hovering above the southern forest. Well, we'd best be on our way. Say, what's your name, friend? The first man asked. Robert leaned in. Robert Hobble, he said from behind his hand. And I'm Lyle's no account, brother, the first said. The one who still lived with their mom while Lyle was out talking to the gods, the second added. Robert began to walk in a stiff-legged circle, mumbling curses like a confused drunk. He stumbled, waving his arms. I thought they'd hanged you, the first man said, folding his arms. Never underestimate the power of bureaucratic incompetence, Robert said. He reached into a pocket of his cloak and shook out a couple time-tarnished chucks. Here, friends, don't let that trouble catch up with you. They doffed their caps. The second bit his lip and grinned. You off to clear it all up, then? No, Robert said, raising a doubting brow. Too much anarchy that way lies. People with no respect for the law scare me. They laughed again, then clasped Robert's hand and started back down the road. Robert grinned and pulled himself up on his horse. Well, as usual, it's the clergy's fault, he said. That's what we're going to stop, Dante said. We're two percent of the way there. Sounds horrible when you put it like that. Robert sighed, then brushed off the mood like dirt on his sleeve. I suppose that means we ought to hurry. Indeed, Dante said, looking north on the hundreds of miles of mountains and rivers and snowfields between them and the dead city. Let's haul ass. Night came quickly. They'd made another twenty miles along the road, then spent the twilight penetrating far enough into the woods to where they could light a fire without drawing the attention of the bedraggled masses that kept coming out of Wetton. The sun disappeared behind the trees and the hills of the west, and they brought in the kindling and roasted some of the uncured meat they'd taken along. Considering all they'd done was ride, Dante was shockingly tired, saddle-raw aching. More than a month of this to go. Wetton was already burning. He had no idea whether the other local militias would be enough to quash this thing, whatever it was. This unrest and whatever they were trying to accomplish with it had roots as long as a river. They'd hidden for years, keeping their memory alive in the minds of the people, and finally, for reasons he couldn't guess, they'd taken this thing back to the open. They were ready. Dante had no delusions they'd ride into Narashtevik in a few weeks to find Samarand and all her people had fled to exile or been executed for their perfidy against the Southlands. The fight would only get bloodier before order showed its sheepish face.
Dante hadn't told the others the full nature of their mission, that they were traveling a thousand miles to kill some old woman. He'd just said they had to get to Narashtovic and go from there. Neither Blaze nor Robert were the kind to get too worried for details or complicate things with their own plans. He had the impression they thought of life as something like the act of riding backwards on a pell-mell horse. They could guess where they were likely to head next by the things they saw whipping past their heads, but who could say for sure? And in any event, they'd certainly be there soon. So what was the point of turning around and taking up the reins? The horse had done well enough so far. Why mess with a good thing? They made low talk around the fire. Robert thought they'd made good time despite the slower trek through the woods and the careful path they'd had to weave around the foot traffic on the road. He looked up to the flat sheet of clouds that had rolled in during the evening and grunted. Daylight's a little scarce this time of year, he said. So long as we've got a road to follow, we ought to get our start before dawn. Dante watched the subdued fire burn against the darkness. If you think it's safe. What? Marching before dawn? Blaze crooked the corner of his mouth. Growing boys need rest. If not for me, think of the horses. Sunsets by six, Robert said. There's no reason to stay up past eight. That should give you plenty of time to rest your weary bones. Eight o'clock? Even Callie burned the candle later than that, and he'd make a dead log look spry. Every second you spend yapping is one more second you don't spend sleeping, Robert said. He wiggled down next to the fire and pulled his cloak over his face. Good night. Dante followed suit, settling down upon the dirt and rocks. Hard to believe he'd been in a bed the night before. What a terrible thing when what's right is overruled by what's popular, Blaze said. I said good night. Third time comes stamped on my knuckles. He heard Blaze mumble something impolite, then the scratch of leaves and the whoop of cloth being thrown over his head. Six weeks of this, Dante thought. Nothing to it. He woke to something nibbling on the ends of his fingers. He brushed at it feebly, three-quarters asleep. It ceased for a blessed second, then bit down hard. Dante drew his hand to his chest, inhaling sharply. Before his eyes snapped open, he thought he could see his own face. He gasped and bolted upright and pulled the cloak off his head. By the faint moonlight, escaping the net of clouds and the fire's red embers, he saw the skeleton of the small predator reared on its hind legs, front paws bent at the wrist. Its pale head bobbed. He rubbed his eyes, caught another glimpse of himself, this time from the perspective of something looking up at the puzzled oval of his face. He thought he heard two separate winds whispering back and forth. Again he closed his eyes, and again he saw through something else's. The cycle had not mentioned that. The thing scampered off a couple of feet, then turned and ducked its head. It spun away and disappeared into the undergrowth. If Dante was meant to follow it, 
the thing didn't have a brain in its skull. Instead, he closed his eyes, planting his palms firm against the intense vertigo of what the little beast saw as it rushed along six inches above the dirt. It parted the grass and scrabbled over roots and rocks, fast as a man at a run, and quiet as a bird on the breeze. He could hear no more than the most minor rustles of its claws, and through its own ears, he realized, though it didn't have any. For just a second, he opened his eyes and heard nothing at all. It streaked along through the brush. After no more than a minute, it stopped short, creeping forward until the fuzzy impression Dante received from its eyeless sockets fell upon a circle of six men in hushed conversation. It was too dark to make out faces, or even tell one from the other. Are you sure it's him? He heard through the predator's ears. I can feel it. Can't be anyone else. There's three sets of tracks. What, are you scared? They're asleep. We were told there'd be two. The unlocking must have driven ten thousand men into these woods. It might not be them. And if it's not, what's three more bodies? We need that book. The book is the key. We can't let them slip away. Laramore would kill us. I'm not joking. If we come back without it, he'll rip out our guts and laugh. He won't even bind our hands because he thinks it's funny when you try to stuff them back in. Weeping Lyle. You said it, man. Get yourself together. Not a word until they're dead. Dante heard steel rasp from leather. He popped open his eyes, breaking the contact, and shook the shoulders of the others. Go away, Blaze mumbled. Shut up, Dante whispered. Robert awoke soundlessly, sword appearing in his hand. Six men, Dante said. They're coming for us. They think we're asleep. Then let's not burst their illusion, Robert whispered. Don't make a move till it's too late for them to fall back. But there's six of them. What are we going to do, run? Only hope now is to surprise them instead. Dante nodded, throat dry as sand. He eased out the old no-frills sword Callie'd given him and pulled his cloak up to his eyes. The fire was nothing but glowing embers. He waited in the darkness, eyes slitted, ears straining. What if he'd been wrong? He dropped his left palm to his blade and slid it along its edge, cheek twitching against the sharp bite of cold steel. Blood seeped into his closed fist, warm and wet, and with it came the shadows. Leaves crunched softly as the men filtered into the camp. From between his eyelashes, Dante saw their swords glinting in the ember light. They found out, splitting between the three prone forms, two on each. How close could he let them get? Fifteen feet, then ten. Boots ruffling the dirt, eyes bright in the shadows of their faces. His throat tensed against a scream. They were standing over him then, looking down on him, processing how they'd turn him into a lump of lifeless meat. One of them raised his blade, and Robert's voice roared up then, and Dante leapt to his feet. Robert rolled away from the downward slice of a sword, and in the same motion lashed his own across the calf of the attacker. 
the man dropped with a shout of shock and pain. The two men on Dante cried out, then pressed forward. Dante leveled his sword in front of him and flicked the blood pooled in his left hand at the nearer of the two. Where it landed, the shadows followed, sizzling against the man's skin and sinking to his innards. The man sunk without a word. The remaining attacker made a quick thrust and Dante fell back, offering a weak counter. The man deflected it, eyes grim in the starlight. From the corner of his eye, he saw Blaze retreat to Robert's side as Robert curled past and thrust and laid open a man's back. A flicker from Dante's front, and he jerked up his sword to prevent his head from being struck from his shoulders. Someone screamed, and a gorge of fire opened up at the spot he'd last seen Blaze and Robert. Steel clashed in a staccato smack of swings and backswings. Dante dropped to a knee to dodge another blow. His attacker hefted his blade, then grimaced and screamed as the skeletal predator sank its razor teeth into his hamstring. Dante gripped his hilt with both hands and slashed out as short and fast as he could manage. The first hit cut open the man's forearm, and he dropped his sword. The next three put him down. He turned. He didn't see Robert. Blaze faced off against a tall, long-limbed man dressed in the plain black uniform of the others, and a caped figure draped in chainmail and trimmed in silver thread. Except for a dancing white flare on Dante's eyes, the fire that had flashed up moments before was gone. He saw Robert then, stretched out on top of the two men he'd slain. He wasn't moving. Blaze unleashed a flood of obscenities and charged toward the mailed man bowling back the one remaining swordsman. Dante felt a cold pulse of nether from the mailed man. The man pointed at Blaze, and Dante planted his feet and struck the attacker with a column of shadow. The small, dark sphere in the man's hand evaporated with an angry hiss, and he yanked his hand back, shaking it, glaring at Dante with eyes full of unfairness. Blaze and the last swordsman had squared off, trading blow for blow, but the swordsman's size and range fell back in the face of Blaze's rage. He swung heedlessly, sword whipping through the air with the full strength of his arm, and just as Dante thought the boy had overextended, he drew his sword level with his ear, muscling the swordsman's downward counter behind his head, then stabbed straight forward into the man's neck. The man gurgled blood and fell face first into the embers. How did you know we were coming? the man in chainmail asked in a tone of open surprise. Dante answered with a spike of nether that would have split the body of any other man. This man's face creased as he cupped his hand as if to catch a ball and split the shadows to either side of his body. His nostrils flared. Who taught you that? You learn fast when someone's trying to kill you every week, Dante said. He saw Blaze advancing, sword angled from his body. Rest easy, then. This will be the last attempt we need. He swung his arms at Blaze as if he were heaving a sack of wheat, and it was all Dante could do to divert the fires to boil away into the sky. Blaze bent like a sapling in a gale, but somehow kept his balance enough to swing a swift, light backhand that clipped off the last knuckle of the man's middle finger. For the first time in the battle, Dante saw fear cross the man's face. What was that? he cried, skipping back a couple steps to try another strike. Blaze stepped forward, wary as a cat. 
Dante held his breath and focused on the point six feet above the man's head. If the man went for Blaze now, he could do nothing to stop it. Blaze jabbed like a fencer, and the man dropped back again. The two were too close for Dante to release the thing above him. The tendril of energy between himself and the summons felt tight as a string tied around his heart. Blaze chopped at the man, and he actually held out his arm. The sword struck it below the wrist, and the metal of the blade and the tight rings of the armor flashed like a storm. Blaze yelped and slung away his sword, stumbling back. The man smiled, curled his bloody fingers to finish off the boy. And that was when Dante released it, pouring on the nether till the sheer drain forced him to his knees. A swirling pillar of white fire leapt down from the point of his focus. An all-consuming crackle roared through the camp like the sky-high bonfires the people lit on Alden's Eve to remind the sun of its strength. In that instant, the man's eyes flicked up and his brow wrinkled like he'd splashed mud on a fresh robe. He bellowed and clenched his fists, and the pillar faltered but kept on coming, smashing him into the ground. It disappeared as quickly as it had come, wisps of smoke trailing up from a half-dozen tiny fires on the man's cloak. Dante took a hesitant step, flinching when the man raised his head. Well, now you've done it, the man said, skin sloughing from the left side of his face. You've gone and killed Will Palomar. His eyes widened and his breath rattled away. The body relaxed, flopped back against the dirt. You've got to help him, quick! Lay said. He was trying to kill me. Robert, you dunderhead. Dante took a woozy step. Not again, he thought. But he clenched his jaw and forced away the grey stealing over his eyes. He crossed to Robert's limp body. Blood wicked through the man's cloak. Dante couldn't tell if it was his or from the two men dead beneath him. His head pounded like the last time he'd been drunk both the days of the during and the misery of the after. He balled his fists and rubbed his eyes. He lowered his ear to Robert's nose and heard shallow, uneven breathing. Half his cloak was singed. Bright white blisters stood out on his cheek. Dante pulled back Robert's cloak and saw a deep gash along his ribs, leaking blood down his side. Some of the hair had been burned from his chest. Dante wiped his nose. What happened? He said. What does it look like? They damn well stabbed him. How bad did he get burned? Can't you tell? Blay said, crouching down beside him and clasping his hands together. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm not a physician. Well, help him, damn it. Okay, Dante roared. He flexed his fingers and called to the shadows. He sensed a reluctance in their substance, a reticent anger even, for whatever sense that made, but he pressed back until they folded to his will. Remembering how he'd shucked off their weariness in the chase through the woods, he concentrated on the source of Robert's bleeding. For a gross moment he thought he could see beneath the skin to red muscle and white bone, as if it were his own, he could feel the sick tickle of flesh knitting back together. His eyelids fluttered, 
He forced himself to keep going, arms quaking, chest heaving, then felt himself fading and fell back on his ass, gasping for breath. Is he fixed? Belay said, ripping the shirt off the dead man and daubing it over the blood that had washed down Robert's ribs. Dante tried to say, kind of, but choked instead. He bent forward, coughing into a closed fist. Robert started coughing too, spitting blackish blood past his lips. He groaned, but his eyes stayed shut. Is he going to make it? Blaze said. How should I know? Dante battled down an inappropriate yawn. I'm so tired right now. He's moaning. Good sign or bad? I think ideally there should be neither bleeding nor moaning. Dante pressed his palms against his eyes. What are we going to do here? Blaze's eyes snapped to his face. What are you suggesting? I'm asking. I don't know, Blaze said. He laced his hands together and huffed into them. He can't travel like this. Dante lowered himself to his elbows. What if they've got someone else? Then we fight them too. How did you know they were coming? I heard one of them cough, Dante said. He glanced around the fire, shut his eyes. The skeletal animal was gone. Blazer's eyes drifted toward Dante's pack. How did they find us? I crapped up on them when they were talking. One of them said they'd tracked us. They were confused we were on horseback. How would they know? Blaze scratched the top of his head. Maybe someone recognized us on the road, passed the word. God knows there were enough eyes out there. I think he's doing better, Blaze said cautiously. His breathing isn't all ragged anymore. That was scary. That's good. Were you just asleep? No, Dante blinked. He struggled to sit up. If we try to ride, we could kill him. I don't think I could ride right now either. That's not a lot of options. Blaze nodded, gazing into the low fire. Risk it. I think we've got to. I guess I'll take first watch. Okay. I'm going to wake you up if he looks any worse, Blaze warned. Okay. Dante's a stupid idiot. Okay. What? I said, go to sleep already, Blaze said. He shredded another shirt and pressed it to Robert's wound. Okay, Dante said, and sleep folded over him like a glove. Dante sat in the dark and waited for the dawn. Long stretches of silence were broken by the night noises of the woods, hoots and screeches and the furtive shuffling of small animals. At least there was no wind. He couldn't have taken the wind in the trees. Blaze had dragged off the bodies while he'd been asleep. There was that, too. The ground was thick with the shine of dried blood. Clouds obscured the moon and stars. He had no idea how long he'd been asleep. It felt like fifteen minutes, twenty, but Blaze had assured him it had been three or four hours. Robert remained asleep. His breathing and pulse sounded... well, they existed.
He didn't know what should sound good for a man who should probably be dead. Blaze had stoked up the fire, but he didn't think that was causing Robert's sweaty brow or flushed face. Dante ate from the saddlebags and drank a full skin of water. Frowning over the unconscious man, he meant to give the nether another shot once he'd absorbed a little food. He didn't know how to feel about the lie he'd told Blaze. For all he knew, the attackers had followed their tracks. To find them in the first place, though, the mailed man who called himself Will Palomar had followed their feel. The book's feel. Dante's feel. He didn't know which. Maybe it was both. He did know their mission was too important to threaten by telling Blaze the truth. He needed Blaze, needed Robert, needed their eyes and their arms if he was going to get to Narashtovic. They needed him too, didn't they? Robert would be dead now without his aid. They'd all be dead if he hadn't seen the men plotting their attack, if he hadn't sprung them from the gallows. Not that that should buy their loyalty, exactly, but there was a give and take here. He wasn't keeping them around for his own ends alone. In any event, they were big boys. They'd made their decision to stick with him. If they thought things were getting too dangerous, they could make the decision to leave. A couple birds started chirping. A few bugs whirred and thrummed, but most had already died in the frost. The survivors wouldn't last much longer. At the first touch of dawn, Dante rose, walked around the fire, worked his blood back into his limbs. He still felt tired, but no longer painfully so. He knelt over Robert's unconscious body and closed his eyes and emptied his mind. When he sent the shadows into the long brown scab on his chest, he felt nothing. He saw no change in the flesh. He closed his eyes again, reached out to the wound again, but it was as if the netho was passing under a bridge and disappearing before it reached the other side. He set his mouth and tried at least to assuage the fever. He touched Robert's brow. It still felt hot. He sighed. Dawn broke, grey and gradual. He let Blaze sleep. It was clear they wouldn't be going anywhere until Robert had woken or croaked. Maybe it was the false hope of the daylight, but he doubted the temple men would even know their latest agents had failed for at least a few days. There was no use punishing Blaze with sitting around waiting for something to happen when he could hold things down for himself. For once, Dante didn't feel like reading. He watched the fire burn and thought about the summers in the village. What's going on? Why does hell look exactly the same as Earth? Dante jerked his head. Robert's eyes were open, crinkled in pain. You're awake! You're... Brilliant. Robert lifted his head and looked over his bandaged body. How'd you get the wizard? I smote him with fire, Dante said. Robert frowned at him. Can never tell if the youth of today are being serious. A weakness of character, I think. You're right. I'll play dead until he ran away. Robert's arms shook as he tried to sit up. He lifted his shoulders clear of the ground, then fell back, squeezing his eyes shut for a moment after the impact.
That was unwise, he said. Dante bit his teeth together. Stop making things worse. We're already losing time. You've always got more time, Robert said. He chewed his beard. Well, until you don't. Indeed, Dante said. He decided against waking Blaze. It would help if at least one of them kept in fighting condition. Dante felt like he'd been sewn up in a sack and beaten for three days straight. He could probably ride, but if at that moment a one-armed eight-year-old challenged him to a fight, he'd either run or cheat. How's Blaze? Robert asked, as if reading his thoughts. Unhurt. Is that right? He chuckled. The sound was like gravel grinding together. Robert Hobble himself gets flambéed by a sorcerer and stabbed by a bumbling bodyguard who only knows to grab the handle of his sword because it's the part that sticks out when it's put away. And that kid comes out without a scratch. He wiped the sweat of his forehead and smiled with half his mouth. There's something wrong with that. Dante shrugged. He does seem preternaturally lucky. Maybe he's just got good taste in friends. Robert stared at him with pain-hooded eyes. Dante kept quiet. So what are you, exactly? Why do people keep asking me that? Oh, please. I'm a young man, that's all. I've known plenty of young men, Robert said turning his head to face the sky, and none of them can do anything like what I've seen you do. Dante hunched up his shoulders. That's why I'm learning all this. I don't want to be like everyone else. Lots of people say that. Then ten years later, you couldn't pick them out in a crowd. Robert shifted his hips to resettle his weight and stopped at once. He bared his teeth and let out a long breath. I... Don't suppose you've got anything for curing sword wax? I already tried, Dante said. Inexplicably, shame stole over his face. Ah, guess the Dominion of Steel still holds sway, then? For now. Robert chuckled, then clutched himself. Lyle's holy bastard, that hurts. Then don't do it. What's cracking your acorns? This is just the second day, Dante said. He clenched a handful of leaves, flung them into the fire. This is supposed to be the easy part. And I suppose this is the part where I tell you nothing's easy, as if that's supposed to help. Robert sighed and gingerly folded his hands under his head. It just doesn't seem fair. Robert laughed some more. Could be worse. You could be me. Dante nodded, glancing up a moment later. You doing okay? I've heard worse. I bet this feels like a joke to you, Dante said, uncertain what he meant by this. For about the last ten years, everything's felt that way. While Dante was busy trying to gauge if he was serious— Blaze stirred beneath the folds of his cloak. The boy emerged into the daylight, red-eyed, hair sprung out like a dandelion. 
He gave the world a sour look and belched. You're disgusting, Dante said. Shut up. Blaze draped his cloak over his head and shoulders and clutched it under his chin so he resembled a clothy mountain or a sack with a face. What time is it? Time to make me some breakfast, Robert said. You're up. In a manner of speaking, he said from his place on the dirt. Blaze swung his face at Dante. Why didn't you wake me up? You're up now, aren't you? I'd have gotten you up, and I'd have punched you for it. Blaze jumped up, flapping his cloak against the cold, and wandered around the fire to lean over Robert. Does it hurt much? Only always, Robert said. I thought you were going to die. You should have seen all the blood. It looked like someone dumped a spittoon on your chest. Robert closed his eyes and made a noise through his nose. You know what? Forget about breakfast. Well, it did, Blaze said. He straightened up and his eyes drifted to the tethered horses. They've settled down a bit. Yeah, Dante said. Moving the bodies may have helped. I think they got a little spooked when I was chopping them up. Blaze folded his arms at the sudden silence. What? One of them was moving. Well done, Robert said. Now will you stop recounting the recent horrors and get me some God's damn food? I am not your maid, Blaze said, opening up one of the packs and rummaging around. Have some bread. Marvellous. He brought it to Robert, who spent a minute propping himself up before trying a couple bites. Bread's a dry substance, you know, Robert said, spitting crumbs. Will water sate his majesty? Robert pursed his lips. If you don't have anything stronger. You know we don't, Blaze said. He gave Dante a look. You could get off your ass at some point. I'm plotting our next move, he said, twisting a blade of grass between his fingers. While you're up, grab me a bite. I'm going to spit in it. Oh, now, don't trouble yourself on my account, Dante said. Robert laughed through his nose and winced. He'd live, but it would be three days before he felt well enough to ride. Three days waiting in the woods, while the world moved on, and Narashtovic drew three days closer to war. Dante spent each one training with the Nether till he was close to passing out, vowing they wouldn't be delayed again. Sooner or later, sooner, according to Callie, and if anyone outside the dead city itself would know, it was him. It would take more than two boys and a drunk to stop what was marching out of the north. It would take an army, if it could be stopped at all. A kingdom could be lost to the wounds of Robert's body and the want of three days. If he hadn't been frustrated enough to punch down a tree, Dante might have laughed. Chapter 10 Robert had to stop within a couple hours the day their path resumed, and for the first few days the march was broken by an equal time spent resting away from the road. Dante and Blaze kept a guard at all times, switching between watch and sleep while Robert slumbered or merely stretched out and waited for the throbbing ache to subside. 
Dante preferred to eat up the hours with sleep, but sometimes it took an hour or more to slip away. Things would go faster once Robert was better, he told himself. They would lose a few days, but it wouldn't always be these stuttery steps of six or eight stops a day. They would make it in time. The woods gave way to open grassland peppered with trees and the creases in the land. The road held out. The grass rose to their waists on either side of the rotted dirt, swirling in the winds that swept unbroken from the north, carrying with it the promise of winter. Traffic was heavier than normal, or so Robert said, but nothing like what they'd seen the day wet and burned. The chancet forked after three days, and they curved along its tributary. The plains rose so imperceptibly they couldn't feel it in their steps, but then the grass gave way to soft, rolling hills, blanketed in stubby yellow and gray grasses that shot long-tailed seeds into the air when they led their horses off the road to graze or rest or camp. They lit no fires in the open land. There was talk on the road of a wider struggle of bands of pike-wielding men marching through the fields. Rumor had the king's legions assembling in a counter on Wetton and encamping outside Bressel. But, according to the few travelers they spoke with, the enemy had no strongholds, no apparent homeland whatsoever, and the militia spent more time leaning on their own pikes than carrying them. The cavalry combed out the glens and ponds around the cities, but found nothing more than the miserable camps of refugees from the cities. After a week's travel, the dirt seemed to crackle under their feet, and they saw snow streaking the hills ahead. It was no more than a dusting, two or three days old, and it melted in the sun that stayed strong through the day. As dusk fell, the sunlight caught the chimney smoke of a town. They'd passed plenty of villages on the way, dropping in on a couple to purchase food, but mostly skirting them entirely, cutting through the open lands until they could reconnect with the road. None seemed under siege, nor were any more than a few hundred strong, resident-wise. Dots along the river where two roads crossed, or traders found deep water moorings and docked their cargo of grain or hemp or hay or wood. The town they looked on, in the buttery sunlight, could properly be called a town. It could only be Shay. When they encamped, Dante took Kelly's letter from his pocket and rubbed his thumb over the sigil-sealed lump of black wax. What did it say? An introduction of Dante to his long friend Gabe. A warning. A plea for aid. He put it back away and dreamed of a city built of the hollowed bones of giants. They woke early and tramped through the stiff dirt of the road, breath fogging from their noses. Dante pressed a fist against a knot in his lower back. A night in an actual bed, or even a thick lump of straw, would be a nice thing. A fire, hot food. He liked to think he was too hardy to need such things, and in a way he was already used to the sparer ways of the road, but if they popped up, he wasn't about to turn them down. The town grew nearer resolving itself into individual buildings lining the river. He bared his teeth, realizing he still hadn't told Blaze and Robert the full nature of their travel. 
He meant to go to Narashtavik, they knew, and somehow that could stem the tide of whatever was taking the cities of the south. They didn't know its end would be the killing of a woman. They didn't know he sought a knowledge of the cycle only the dead city might reveal. How did Kali know Gabe? How big a role did he intend the monk to play toward them? If they were old friends, and Dante believed they were, perhaps it would all be spelled out in the letter, and when Gabe questioned him, or gave him advice, or whatever Kali expected from him, the two he traveled with couldn't help having questions of their own. Dante watched the town grow nearer. He should tell them, give them the story on his own terms, act as if he had nothing to hide. But the day wore on, and soon they were too close to stop without looking foolish. And then they rode past huts and the small squatty homes of full families, and it was too late. They'd meant to reach Shea in six days from Callie's shrine, perhaps a week if they hit a delay. Instead, it had taken them till the afternoon of the twelfth day. Ten thousand people, if you had to guess, and most of the ones they rode by on the way to town gave them looks. Not dirty looks, exactly, but the kind with questions behind their eyes. Rumor had reached them then, but not battle. They killed a few minutes wandering turning down progressively broader streets, reminding themselves what housing and other people looked like. Fun though this is, Robert said, head following an eaveside painting of a stag's head dipping its tongue into a mug. It's neither enlightening nor intoxicating, and thus must be said to be beside the point. It's probably near a churchyard or some of the other temples, Dante said, glancing down the street. He thought he saw the clean lines of Gashin's red shield a few blocks down. Probably, Robert said. He pulled up beside a heap of rags containing a man and eased himself down from his horse. Well met, good man. The pile grunted at him. Robert smiled at it, then turned to the saddlebags and extracted a hunk of bread. We're looking for the Monastery of Menok, he said. But all this food's weighing us down. Afraid we'll never make it unless we get rid of it. Got anything of a more fluid nature? The man in rag said, pulling himself to a sitting position and squinting up at them. Ah, Robert said, favoring the cobbles with a wry smile. That lack is one of the many tragedies we wish to unburden on Menok's ears. The ragged man accepted the hunk of bread and snapped it in half. He munched down a couple bites, glancing between the three of them. Been on the road a while, he said, crumbs flecking from his mouth. A fortnight or so, Robert said, taking a bite of the bread he'd kept. He nodded. Busy travel through Wetton. Dante tensed. Robert bit his lip, as if trying to remember then jerked up his chin. We passed around it about a week ago. Is it true that they burned it to the ground? They, Dante said. The rebels, the man said, frowning. The black cloaks. It was on fire, Robert granted, but not to the ground as such. You would still recognize the city if you saw it. 
the man's whiskered face twisted up. He set his eyes on Dante. You mean you haven't heard of the rebels? From what I hear, all the Southlands are washing blood. We've been on the road a while, Robert said, cutting Dante off. Weren't there others on the road with you? We're men of the cloth, Robert said, surreptitiously pulling his cloak over his sword. Our vows allow us to pass words only from necessity. Hell's bells, and I've been flying off with the questions, the man said. He forked his fingers in the sign of the Owl of Menok, gaze drifting between the swords at Dante and Blaze's backs. These must truly be trying days if the monks of the Grey God won't travel without steel at their side. You have no idea how trying, Blaze said, glaring down the causeway. The monastery, Robert said. He placed an arm over the bandages under the mailed vest he'd taken from the body of the sorcerer Dante'd killed. Of course, the man said. He pointed them down the street and described a couple turns. My apologies for delaying you, sirs. Might I ask you make a prayer for me of Menoch? We'd be some damned awful monks if we wouldn't, Blaze said. Thank you, my son, Robert said, working his way back into the saddle in a careful series of limb maneuverings meant to minimize stress to the vast scab on his chest. Your aid will not go unrewarded. He took the lead, leaving the other two to catch up. Dante spurred on his horse, sending a cluster of men wrapped in debate scattering from his mount's heavy hooves. Over the years I've worked out a sort of system of classification for the kinds of questions one may need to ask or hear while on the road, Robert began once they'd made their turn. There's the rhetorical and philosophical questions, i.e. the ones you can ignore or maybe nod at if the asker's giving you a look like you should have been paying attention. There's the immediate, practical, and useful questions, i.e. where is a good pub? And, for the love of the gods, man, where's the nearest pub? And then he said, raising a finger, there are the stupid, why-did-I-just-open-my-mouth questions, the kinds that are a fancy way of saying, I'm too dumb to see my next birthday, such as, please, sir, I'm too drunk to make it to the goldsmiths with all these heavy bags, do you know a safe place I might lie down for an hour? Or, who's been burning down all the known world? He shot Dante a daggerly gaze. Guess which one yours was? He won't remember it by tomorrow, Dante said, face prickling with heat. You won't either, if you wake up with an axe in your brain. Am I supposed to be able to understand that? I suppose not, since evidently you don't even know asking stupid questions tends to get a damn sight more thrown back at you. I know that. I was trying to find out if he knew anything about them we didn't, Dante said. His face lit up. Look, there it is. The monastery was a tall, narrow structure of dark stone. Its upper windows bore shadow-cut glass of what Dante presumed were important scenes from the god's life. 
Its entrance receded from the street, giving way to a well-tended garden of small shrubs and dead flowers. At the garden's center was the boulder of Menok, meant to represent his imperturbability, his gravity, the solidity of his pensive presence next to the mercurial Carvajal, or many-faced Silidus, or the crimson rages of Gashin. What do we do with our horses? Malay said. Hide them under that rock. Robert winced as he got down. Dante didn't think it was for his wound. He tied the reins to the open gate at the street entrance and rolled his hands at the boys to hurry it up. They tied their horses and scampered after Robert up to the thick wooden door of the monastery. By the time they got there, someone had already opened the door to his knock. May I help you? said a skinny, sallow man, little older than Dante. We're here to see Gabe, Dante said. Brother Gabe is deep in meditation. Then he's probably bored, Blaze said. Let us in. The man smiled. Focused meditation is the closest we men may come to understanding the wisdom of Menok. How long is he going to be? Dante asked. As long as it takes? the man said, tipping his head back. Even a meditation on the worms and the dirt may take days to unravel. Especially those kinds, since in thinking we know so much about them, in truth we know so little. Robert squinched up his eyes. Is there somewhere we might wait? We were sent by an old friend. All friends are old, the man said for all of us are made of dirt, and what's older than dirt? Rocks? Blay said. But rocks turn into dirt when they're old enough. Dirt dust? The man opened his mouth, then closed it and raised his brows. Have you ever considered our order? Can't say I have, Blay said. He wriggled his back. Got anywhere to sit down? All that riding's put a pain in my ass. You can wait in the parlor. The man glanced over their shoulders toward the gates. I'll have a boy see to your horses. Thanks, Robert said. You just let us know when Gabe wakes up. Meditation's the opposite of sleeping. Sounds awful, Robert said. He snagged Blaze and Dante by the sleeves before the conversation could go on and drew them toward the room the man had indicated. The floor was of slate, the walls painted a steely gray. A statue of a droop-eyed dog sat vigilant in the corner. For all the room's simplicity, it was furnished with padded benches, and they plunked down and stared at each other. Dart Gabe will be like that. Robert said to the look on Dante's face. Mostly it's you young ones who want to preach at you. I don't preach at you, Dante said. I meant monks and things, Robert said, waving a hand. Suppose it can be applied to all youth, now that you mention it. You're the one always explaining things for hours. Because you're too dumb to know things for yourself, Dante set his mouth and tried to think of a reply. You sure Menok's not the god of death? Blaze said, raising a brow at all the grey and black. He was originally just this guy who sits around and mopes, Dante said, 
examining the walls. When Oran was expunged, people did start to look to Manak about death, but it's not the same. Oran? Robert asked, face suddenly drawn. Dante unlatched his teeth from the thumbnail he'd been biting. You know about Oran? Enough to be suspicious of the fact you do. They sat with their thoughts. Maybe a quarter hour went by before the man who'd met them at the door stuck his head around the corner. Gabe will see you shortly. Good to know the universe has been solved, Blaze said. He kicked his legs against the base of the bench and waited some more. Next time, suppose we can go to Sim's temple instead? Get some apples, fresh pears, some... Ah! He bolted upright as a massive, fur-covered beast lumbered through the door on two legs. Blaze fumbled out his sword and held it before him. Get out! I'll hold it off! Put that away! Robert hissed, barring his arm over Blaze's. The thing in the doorway blinked at them. Dante saw human-like eyes in its face. That it wasn't furred, but deeply bearded. That the man's whiskers climbed so far up his cheeks they nearly met his eyelashes. He's a Norrin, you sack of rocks. Boo, the man said. His voice rumbled like the gurgles of the earth. He'd had to duck when he walked through the doorway. Six and a half feet, Dante guessed, if not taller, and at least three hundred pounds, though it was hard to tell beneath his loose black cassock. For a moment he couldn't see his ears, then noticed they were just small and round as fresh-cut coins, and pressed flat against his densely-haired head. And Norrin, Blaze said. From the north, Robert said, smiling with embarrassment at the monk. Usually. Was too cold for my blood, the man said. He smiled, showing broad, flat teeth that looked like they could grind Dante's bones. You're here to see me. You're Gabe, Dante said. That's right, the Norrin said. We're friends of Callie's. He sent us to you. Callie? Gabe blinked at them. The old man, Dante said biting back further words. He had the notion, reinforced somewhat by the fact he was a hermit, Callie's popularity wasn't great. What if, in a slip of his twilight years, he'd sent them to an enemy instead, or a friend he'd forgotten he'd quarreled with, or someone he didn't know in the slightest? You know, Blaze said, lectures a lot, thinks he's quite funny. Gabe chewed on his mustache nodding blankly. Dante reached in his pocket and took out the letter. He sent you this. Gabe's hand reached out. It was large as a plucked chicken. Oh, he said, scratching the wax seal. Kali, it's been a while. So you know him, Dante said. Yes, Gabe said showing his teeth and looming forward till he seemed to take up all the room. And now your fates are sealed. Blaze gasped and went for his blade. Its bright snap cut over Gabe's barking chuckles. Ah, she's up to no good again, then, the Norrin muttered. He considered them a moment. Come with me. 
They followed him deeper into the monastery. He glanced balefully at a cell that would barely have room for his shoulders, let alone all of them, then led them up a set of spiral stairs and down a hall into a kind of sitting room or library. A great many books lined the walls, at least, though who knew with pious types? Gabe settled onto a mat, sitting on his heels, and nodded the others into some normal-sized chairs next to the window. An odd, dreary light cut through the smoke-stained figures worked into the glass. Gabe slid his thumb under the seal with a dry crack and unfolded the papers onto his lap. Dante examined the window while Gabe examined the letter. The figures were impressionistic, shadows of men, but he thought the window depicted the scene of Menoch soothing Gashin's anger before he could blast the land with sunfire after he discovered his priest, Enon, had lain with his daughter. You didn't read this, did you? Gabe asked once he'd finished a couple minutes later. Did the seal look tweaked to you? Dante said. I assume you're a clever lad, if Callie took you up. That may be, he said, meeting Gabe's stare. But however much I may have wished, I didn't read that letter. Gabe frowned, then nodded. So, you're off to kill Samarand. Kill? Who? Blaze said. Gabe glanced at Dante, then laughed, a bubbling thing that may have been called a giggle if it hadn't sounded like a bull choking to death. He thinks it will stop all the things that have started in the last few weeks, Dante said, staring at his hands. The fighting, the burning of Wetton. He says Samaran's driving it all. Gabe scratched the beard on his neck. I think he overestimates her. Blaze gaped. Her? Quit shouting, Robert said, touching his temple. Dante twisted his hands around. Callie thinks she's a firebrand, that she's whipping up the radical elements of the Order of Iran and leading them into open battle. He thinks with her death, they might fall back from the brink to a more reasonable course. What do you think? Robert said to Gabe. He shrugged. I think someone else will step into our place. So it's a fool's errand? I didn't say that, Gabe grumbled. He frowned at the filtered light in the murky window. I've renounced all violence as an abomination against the Brotherhood of Man. But if I could, I'd pop that bitch's throat with my bare hands. I'm getting mixed messages, Blaze said. From a moral standpoint, I condemn all sides, Gabe said. From a practical standpoint, killing her would be grand. I just doubt whether that would put a stop to anything. What's so bad about her? Dante asked. How long are you here for? Long enough to learn a little about the woman you all so dearly want dead. Samaran's a priestess, Gabe began in a soft voice. For a long time, the god she serves has been worshipped only in secret. Do you know what they do to anyone caught with a copy of the book you carry? Cut off the hand that turns its pages, Dante said. Gabe pushed up his lower lip. They used to kill you, 
The March of Progress. His mouth twitched down as he remembered more. When she was young, she'd give speeches about how believing in secret was living in slavery. She resented that we'd be persecuted for following a god they want us to forget, but was integral to the forging of the world and its people. We all resented it, of course, but some of us recalled the lessons of the Third Scour, and thought it best to continue to live in the fringes than to provoke the war that would obviously follow the path she advocated. There had always been extremists who considered their freedoms a worthy cause of all our lives. You saying they're wrong? Robert said. Aron's glory isn't lessened if his supplicants can only bow to him in the shadows. He's a god, not a king. In truth, he doesn't need our prayers and sacrifices at all. He helped forge the fixed stars themselves for the sake of the gods. He doesn't need me telling him Aron is great to know it's true. But it does help keep us focused on matters celestial rather than earthly. Anyway, we'd have been crushed like a beetle, Gabe said. He paused a moment, glancing from Dante to the others, then back, as if rearranging the long-abandoned furniture of his mind. He cleared his throat. A shadow crossed his face. Samarand. She became de facto voice of the dissenters. Over the years, they swelled their numbers to a full third of our ranks. She herself rose to the council, though the continued unpopularity of her views, combined with the insistence of how she expressed them, prevented her from reaching the direct line of succession. She was charismatic, fiery, plain-faced, but when she spoke, a light took her eyes, and men sworn to celibacy hoped Aron might forgive them for their thoughts. The surprise would have been if she didn't attract a following. Nor were the things she rallied behind wrong, exactly, just impractical. The belt of the Celeset is broad, splintered to its own interests, but there are those things that may reunite them, however temporarily, and the resurgence of the faithful of Aron is one of them. Gabe fell silent, staring at the creases of his massive hands. How did she come to power, then? Dante said to break the silence. Gabe looked surprised to see others in the room. The usual way, he said, looking out the window. He brooded for a long moment. Distracted, Dante thought, perhaps by old memories. The Norin closed his eyes, as if reaching some thorny decision, then went on. The head of the order dies suddenly and unexpectedly, and she takes advantage of the vacuum to reassemble the hierarchy in the manner she considers proper. Did she kill him? Blay said, perking up. Callie thought so. It's why he left, along with the fact those of us who'd been content to stay hidden no longer had much role in the order, and left Narashtovic, where it was safe. Dante licked his lips. You disagree with Callie? 
Who said that? Gabe clasped his face with his palms, running his fingers through his thick beard. Always putting words in my mouth. He's probably right. The old man was old, but not that old. When he left, well, his death was unexpected. Convenient enough to render an accident unlikely. Samaran's power had grown stagnant. Did she do it? Probably. Even if she didn't, the way she strong-armed the council was reprehensible. He gave Dante a strange look. She's the one who revived the idea of using the cycle as bait for powerful recruits. That should give you some idea of her methods. In other words, Robert said, gathering his words and passing them out one at a time, menace she may be, but there are plenty of others who'd take her place, easy enough, if she were to wake up with a knife in her face. More or less, the Norrin rumbled. Robert glanced between the boys. What do you think? Well, I think, as I don't know what the hell's going on, Blaze said. He tried to catch Dante's eyes. This sounds like the kind of thing that gets you hanged. Remember that? Hangings? Gabe itched his nose. Well, only if you're caught. Know what I think? I think this thing's a runaway boulder, Robert declared. Difficult to pry out of a slope, but once the descent's begun, the only way to stop its momentum is to throw a bunch of bodies in its way until it's bashed itself to a halt. He glanced between the boys. We can either fling our own bodies beneath it, in the hopes of slowing it some tiny fraction, he said, shaking his head, or let lots of other people waste themselves on it while we go get drunk, he concluded, nodding emphatically. That's the most cowardly thing I've ever heard, Dante said. He stood and gazed out the window into the filth and decay of the street. Callie thinks it will work. That weed be enough to stop it. We have to reach Narashtavik. We have to try. Can't promise to follow you there, Robert said, shaking his head. Sounds virtuous enough, sure, but also like I'd end up six feet under. I'll go. Blaze rose and joined Dante at the window. I don't know why. It sounds dangerous and stupid, but I'll go. Dante nodded. He listened to the muted shouts and whip-pops of the city streets, thinking how to say thanks. Well enough, Gabe said. Callie told you about the dead city's views toward foreigners. He said they're a little aloof. I've got something that should keep them from killing you on sight. A token that traders use to prove they've been there before without causing problems. It's why Callie sent you here. Ah, Robert said, ticking his nails on the pommel of his sword. Only if it's no trouble. No more than anything else. Right then. Got any food? Preferably something you don't have to eat with a hammer, Blaze said. There's a kitchen downstairs. I'll have a boy fetch the token. You'll stay the night. Wouldn't turn it down for a full keg, Robert said. He patted his stomach. 
Well, I wouldn't turn it down leastwise. Well enough, Gabe said. I'll see to your quarters. Dante turned to go and felt a heavy hand weighing on his shoulder. A word, young master. Dante nodded and watched the others go. Blaze waved on his way out the door. Dante took up a chair and scratched the wispy hair on his chin. He needed to learn how to shave. How do you know Callie, Gabe? The Order. And before that we fought on a war together. Dante tried to imagine Callie swinging a sword or charging a line of armsmen. He couldn't even see him without the gray beard or bent back. Which one? Gabe sniffed. The one twenty or thirty years after the one before it. When a new group of eager young men had had time to grow up without its memory and decided it was time to leave their own mark on the world. Oh, Dante said. That one. I left when he did. It was clear the place we'd called home had become something different, something we no longer felt right to support. Thus, why you came to lie low in the receptive arms of Menok? No, Gabe said. He painted Dante with a scornful gaze. I came to Menok because of a philosophical understanding with the god. We should spend our lives brooding by ourselves. It makes more sense than the egotistic struggles for supremacy of every other sect, including the one whose tome you carry. Dante didn't reply. Gabe let loose a long, slow exhalation and removed some of the edge from his voice. Tell me how you came here. We followed the road from Wetton. I'm speaking in a broader, less literal sense. Ah. Dante cleared his throat. He thought a second, then, in abbreviated detail, told the monk how he'd heard of the book hidden in the temple outside Bressel, of the men that had come after him once he'd taken it, how they'd chased him and Blaze to Wetton, how he'd met Callie when preparing to rescue Blaze from execution, how he'd sprung Blaze and the other prisoners and fled to Callie's shrine to hide and recover, how Callie told him the secrets and menace of Narashtovic and why he had to go. The whole tale took less than ten minutes. When he concluded, he thought how unfair it was that everything that had happened to him since the fall could be summed up so readily. So much got lost in the telling. Let me see the book, Gabe said at its end. All right, Dante said. He picked up his pack where he'd set it by his feet and held it to his chest. Gabe raised his eyebrows. Then Dante opened it and drew out the cycle. He handed it over. I see, Gabe said, tracing the cover image of Barden with one thick finger. He opened it. I see. He flipped a few pages, then leaned his nose toward the text. Dante saw his eyes scanning lines. His mouth opened a little, showing those big, flat teeth. He turned to the back, to the sections written in Narashtovic, and Dante tried to read the emotions that roiled across the stolid flesh of his face. Surprise, amusement, wariness, urgency. At last, back to guarded brooding. I see. What? I see. 
he said. Why they want it back so bad. You said they use it to discover recruits. Callie, too. Yes, but they use copies. Things they can afford to lose if the trail goes cold or the thief goes down with a ship. Dante actually blinked. This... Gabe ruffled his beard and tucked in his chin, chuckling in a way that wasn't entirely happy. I once knew a man who hated Samaran's idea of how to use the book, thought it manipulative, dangerous to the order. He once joked about switching out the copy for the original. See how smart they felt without their special book. I think I've met that sense of humor, Dante said. How can you tell it's the one? You know who's conscripted to transcribe these things, Gabe said, offering Dante a rare smile. Men like me, bored with bad eyesight. The mind wanders, you misspell a word, transpose things. Maybe you editorialize a little. Every copy has errors. He lifted the book. This one's clean. Oh. Dante said. Gabe tapped his fingers together. Meaning? Objects collect power through age and use. That one's different from its copies. I can't tell if you're speaking literally. Me neither. Gabe twiddled with one of the black cords around his neck that dangled from the cassock. You should tell Blaze to name that sword he used when you freed him from the law of Wetton. Will that make it... He trailed off, not wanting to sound stupid. Special. If not, it might make him think it is. These things can't exactly be measured. The book, Dante said, taking it back from Gabe and running his fingers over its cover. Does that mean... A high ring of shattering glass sounded from the street. Angry shouts followed at its heels. Dante waited for them to settle up who owed whom a bottle before going on. Do you think... The door burst open. Robert half collapsed through it, sword in hand, face bearing that tight, flat expression he'd held the night of the fight around the campfire. Something's going on downstairs, he said. Just a couple of drunks, Dante said. No, downstairs in the monastery. What's going on? Gabe said, getting to his feet in a way cassocked hills shouldn't be able to do. One of the monks killed one of the other monks, Robert said. He leaned into the hall, and a moment later, Blaze swung back into the room, sword out, breathing heavily. Killed? Gabe said. A bunch of them have swords and staffs and things, Blaze reported. It looked like a few of them came in from the street. None of the monks would kill anyone. It's happening, Dante said, the back of his neck tingling the way it did when he heard an animal creeping through the woods by dark, or when he finished a book that read like it had been inspired by the gods themselves. The fighting starts in the temples. That's what they said. Yells and crashes of wood and steel came up from the first floor, underlining his point. Shit. Gabe took a long breath through his nose and nodded at the doorway.
You should leave. You've got other troubles to see to. A compelling argument, Robert said. No, Dante said, drawing his sword. We can stop this here. They won't take this one place. Going to save the whole town too, Gabe said. Dante stuck the point of his blade into the wooden floor. It came to him all at once. The idea that he was more than an arrow shot from another man's bow, unable to deviate his course once he'd been set in motion. He'd known Gabe less than an hour, but already he liked him. By nature, he had no patience for the self-important mysticism of the men of the gods, but something about this monastery and the quiet conviction of its men was too important to hand over to the Aronites. Kali might say their passage to Narashtovic was too important to risk their lives in this place, but he was almost three hundred miles away, was too wrapped up in his own dealings to venture out into all this strife. Dante was here now, and here, he thought, was a place worth saving. We can't defend the whole town, Dante said, but we will fight them off here before we run like rabbits. At least you'll have time to prepare for whatever comes next. Besides, Blaze said, we still need that token. I'd rather die here than get eaten by barbarians a thousand miles from here. Idiots, Gabe said, with neither a smile nor a scowl. He lifted a sturdy, dark wooded chair and snapped off a leg. He swung it through the air. Well, let's go see what the fuss is about. Yes, Dante said, neck tingling again. He pulled at his sword and found it was stuck in the floorboards. He yanked again and stumbled into Blaze's back. What's your hurry? Blaze muttered. He put an arm in front of Robert before they left the door. Me first, you're unsound. Physically, perhaps. Tell me who not to kill before I do it, Blaze called back to Gabe. They pounded down the stairs. At its base lay the still bleeding body of the young man who'd answered the door. Blaze and Robert flanked out, facing the two doors in. Gabe's face went slack, and he knelt beside the body. Dante stood over him, beginning a call to the nether. Don't, Gabe said. He's dead. I'm sorry. Grieve later. Gabe surged to his feet, chair leg in hand and took them through the parlor and to the outer entrance of the monastery. Drops of blood shone on the slate flooring. Fresh gashes marred the table in the parlor. Dusty old fabric spilled from a slash in one of the benches. The rooms were empty. Gabe cracked open the front door and peered into the gardens. From deeper inside the monastery, they heard raised voices. Follow me, Gabe said. Blaze tried to stay at his side, but the hallway was too narrow for any more than Gabe's bearish shoulders. Dante and Robert jogged at their heels. The Norrin took a right turn, and they emerged into a relatively open room of simple chairs and round, rough-hewn tables, a dining area or meeting hall. At its far end, some forty feet away, a group of men were pounding on a closed door. What's going on here? Gabe shouted. We've trapped the usurpers in the kitchen, a bald man in a cassock cried back. You have swords in your hands, Gabe said, stopping after he'd crossed half the room. And who are those men with you? 
They're the gardeners I was telling you about, the monk said, glancing to the men at his sides, dirt-faced men wearing black cloaks and naked swords, one of which streaked blood down its length and tacked against the floor. Hanstein, Gabe said in a quiet voice, lay down your arms. This can end now. I thought you were one of us, Hanstein said. I thought you were one of us, Gabe cried. You killed Roger. He was a boy. There was confusion. Hanstein pinched the bridge of his nose. Help us out and he'll be the only one. Have you ever even read the Gunnigat? Do you remember that second rule where you may willingly harm no man? Oddly, it mentions nothing about our conduct towards Norrin. Hanstein smiled briefly. I know what you used to be. It's time, Gabe. We will no longer let ourselves be hunted and killed for serving the first among gods. Then go serve them in the street, Gabe said, taking a step forward. And get the hell out of my monastery. Why don't you leave? Because this is the house of Menoch, Gabe roared, shoulders bunching. The men at Hanstein's side fell back a step, then tightened their grasp on their swords. Then let it be reconsecrated in the name of Aron, Hanstein said. He glared at his swordsmen. With their blood! They eased forward, leading the way with their blades. Hanstein flung out a hand. Nothing happened. I thought you knew who I was, Gabe said. The men walked forward, leaning into aggressive crouches. Blaze leapt at the lead man, then skipped back, drawing him into Robert's waiting blade. Blood splashed against the slate. Dante swung out his sword, blocking a strike at Gabe, whose hand shook as he absorbed the stream of nether Hanstein had slung at him. Dante screamed and opened a wound across the attacker's forearm. His blade clattered against the ground, and Gabe laid out a pounding backhand with his chair leg. The wood snapped in half on the man's skull, dropping him. Blades clashed to Dante's left, where Blaze and Robert fended off two men. The remaining one on Dante's side fainted, knocking aside the tip of his sword, and Dante spun to dodge the following thrust. It ripped over the thin flesh over his sternum, and he felt the woozy scrape of steel dragging over his bones. He stumbled back. Wrapped in his invisible tussle with the other monk, Gabe stepped forward, leaving Dante behind. Dante scrambled backwards, scooting on his ass. The swordsman swung down, and he rolled away. He tried to swipe at the man's ankles, and his sword was knocked wide. The man leaned forward for a crosswise sweep meant to open Dante's guts, and his sword bounced from Robert's. Robert followed up with a quick poke that drew blood from the man's left side. Dante found his footing and rose next to Blaze, who was falling back under the wolf-like jabs of a pair of attackers. Set my blade on fire, he hissed at Dante when their shoulders bumped. For once, Dante asked no questions, instead shutting off his mind and gathering the shadows. He wiped his hand in the blood dripping down his chest and flipped a few red drops Blaze's way. His sword thwumped with fire the length of the blade. I'll drink your souls, Blaze shouted, waving his flaming weapon in their faces. They actually dropped back, 
and Dante touched his own sword, shrouding it in a shifting mist of darkness. He fell in beside Blaze. I'm going to get the others, Anstein said, and from the corner of his vision, Dante saw him run across the room to an open door. Gabe picked up a chair and threw it at his retreating back. It shattered on the wall beside the doorway and dropped into a splintery heap. Blaze and Dante lowered their shoulders and advanced on the remaining two men. A shout sounded to the right, then a flurry of metal strikes too quick to count and the thunk of a sword burying itself in flesh. Another sword rattled on the ground. Dante glanced back in time to see a man's head spinning over the tiles. Robert staggered back, soaked in blood. Dante turned back to his own fight and saw a sword headed for his face. He battered it aside and slashed down, cutting open the man's boot and bloodying his toes. The man hopped back, yelping. From the front of the room, Gabe was disappearing after Hanstein. I'm going to help him, Dante said, sidling away from his attacker. Robert was red-faced and breathing heavily, but his mouth was twisted in angry joy. Dante sprinted after Gabe, banging his hip on the rim of a table, hearing swords meeting behind him. He plunged into the room on Gabe's heels, and the battle in the dining room immediately grew muffled. Hanstein stood in the middle of a dark hallway. Maroon drapes and pious paintings hung from the walls. Dante reached Gabe's side. Hanstein did something with his hand, and Dante's ankles and knees locked, and he skidded over the stone flooring. Then his elbows were tight, mid-swing, his wrists and fingers frozen. He couldn't turn his head. Every breath felt like a massive hand was squeezing back against his chest. He tried to blink, and his eyelids fluttered. Hanstein snapped his fingers, and a gout of flame whooshed down the hall. Gabe grunted and tamped it down with an angled strike of his hand, like a cougar stretching out his claws for the rump of a buck. He took a step forward, and so did Hanstein. They both raised their arms at each other, and for a few long moments they looked to be trying to carry a fifteen-foot invisible table between them. Shoulders shifting, wrists bending over their heads, muscles shaking, Gabe's columnar body bulging like a boulder, and Hanstein's spindling limbs twitching beneath the drooping folds of his cassock. Dante watched, literally paralyzed. He felt hot blood slipping down his doublet, a faint breeze where the cloth had been opened by the attacker's sword. The two men huffed and grunted and spat curses between their teeth, he could feel the tingle of power in the air, the way his arm hair stood when clean clothes rubbed dry skin, or the way the air felt during a storm. But more so, as if they stood within the thunderhead itself. An audible crackle started between the two men, cutting over a droning hum that twisted Dante's stomach. Sweat dripped from the Norrin's broad brow. He could see the veins on Hanstein's temples. Gabe's lips opened, showing those flat teeth clenched tight. He growled, an animal noise that started low and suddenly burst into a guttural howl. To hell with this! He waded forward, one foot, then another, as ponderous as if he were walking underwater. A step at a time, he closed the distance between himself and the other monk. Too late, Hanstein deciphered his plan. The thin man bent back, and Gabe reached forward with a hand as thick and knotty as the bowl of a pine. He closed his fingers around the other man's neck and lifted him into the air. 
They grimaced at each other, the nether flipping between them in swift, streaking shadows, and then Gabe slammed Hanstein against the wall. His head and hands flopped. Howling again, Gabe lifted him higher, wrapping the trunks of his arms around Hanstein's back and hugging him to the barrel of his body. Dante wanted to close his eyes, but whatever Hanstein had set on him held fast. He watched as Gabe's shoulders flexed and elbows tightened, heard the dreadful snap, saw Hanstein's body bend like a broken fish. Gabe raised the corpse and flung it down the hall. He stared after it, shoulders heaving, breath whistling through his wide nostrils. He turned then, and Dante was glad his bladder seemed as frozen as the rest. Cully, never taught you about rooting, Gabe rasped. Dante tried to shake his head. He tried to speak, managed little more than the weak moan of a sleeper caught in nightmare. Gabe closed his eyes and folded his hands, and Dante flopped to the floor. He'd been mid-stride when the thing had caught him. Gabe cleared his throat and spat toward the body. You'd have died long before you met Samarand. Show me, once this is over. Of course. Dante nodded, gazed down the hallway at the pile of robes that looked like a man, but bent in a way men didn't. I thought you had vows against things like that. Gabe pushed out one of his bearded cheeks with his tongue. What is it with you heathens? Always searching for a contradiction. The laws of men are can't like the laws of man. You don't break one and whoops, it's time to pop your neck. Menoch, in his wisdom, knows there are times his holiest laws must be broken. He gazed at the corpse he'd made. He'll judge me fair. Robert's hurt, Blaze shouted from around the corner. They started, then turned back to the room they'd left. The floor was awash in blood. Stretched out by the last of the armsmen, Robert lay prone, rolling back and forth on his stomach. Gabe knelt beside him, turning him to his back and pinning his shoulder to the ground to stop his mindless rocking. He pulled back cloak and chainmail. The wound on his chest had reopened, and below it, another gaped on his belly, where a few of the links had been split. Narrow, but deep. Dante saw something slimy and purplish, winking beneath the welling blood. He put his hand over his mouth. Stay sharp. Gabe said, pressing his unbloodied fist to his mouth. I'm going to be out of it for a minute. You can put that out any time, Blaze whispered, nodding to his sword laying on the ground, its flames licking at the stone. Dante waved a distracted hand, wiping them away. Gabe mumbled to himself, planting his hands on Robert's shallow rising chest. Dante glanced down from the door he'd been watching and saw motes of light and darkness swathing Gabe's fingers. They left him in a murky curtain, the way rain looks, falling from a distant cloud, soaking into Robert's body. Robert tensed, arching his spine, teeth bared, the cut skin folding together, pushing out blood and small meaty things that made the back of Dante's mouth taste bitter. Gabe wiped it away with Robert's cloak. 
The skin was red, welted, as disturbed as a fresh burn, but it was whole. Robert went limp. He blinked as the others looked on. Gabe slumped back, resting on his elbows, chin touching his chest. The problem with getting stabbed, Robert started, then turned his head and spat blood, is you can only kill the man who did it once. I got him, Lay said, shaking Robert's shoulder so hard the man's head wobbled. His sword got caught in your chain and I stuck mine through his heart. Robert sat up, closing his eyes. He rubbed the side of his head. Surprised they hung around at all after your sword literally caught fire. I know, Blaze said. It looked great, didn't it? Like a demon come to take them away. Yeah, Robert admitted. You fought like one, too. He cracked open one eye. What's all that pounding? Or is that in my skull, too? Dante realized he'd been hearing it, too. Behind the locked kitchen door. He crossed to it, put his ear to the wood. The pounding started again, and he jerked back, rubbing his ear. He cupped his hands to the door, shouted into them. Stop that! The hammering ceased. What? I said stop that! No! Open up, we're friends of Gabe's. That's a rather old trick, don't you think? said the voice on the other side of the door. It's true. I think we'll take our chances in here. It's worked so far. Look, Dante said, glancing back over his shoulder to where Gabe still rested. If you don't open up, I'm going to get Gabe over here and he'll break it down. He heard murmurs on the other side. Someone cleared his throat. We're armed. Good. Then, if I'm lying, you can cut me down. More murmurs. Longer this time. Just a minute, the voice said. We'd just about had these bars all set. Dante heard squeaks and the scrabble of tools against the door. Something clinked mutely on the other side. The process repeated. Behind him, Gabe got to his feet, followed by Robert and Blaze, and they came to Dante's side. What was that thing you did to Robert? Dante said to the Norrin. Gabe raised an eyebrow. Fixed him. With the specks of light? Ether, Gabe said, giving him a look like he just said breakfast was his favorite meal of the day. It's better at building than the shadows. Restoring and creating is all it can do, in fact. Didn't Kali teach you this stuff either? This is elementary. His methods are a little unorthodox, Dante said. Wood jangled against the floor, on the other side, and then a lock clicked. The door swung back, revealing four men in cassocks crouching back, kitchen knives held ready in their hands. Gabe! cried a short, elderly monk. The Norrin stepped forward and they embraced. The monk gazed past him to the wreckage of the dining room. Brother Hanstein and a couple of the others let in some black-caped men. They told us to join them or leave. When Roger told them this was a house of peace, one of the men struck him down. I saw, Gabe said. 
He hunched his shoulders. Brother Hanstein is dead. I'm sorry, the old man said. I don't understand why he did this. The others nodded, saying nothing for a time. Who are these with you? One of the monks said to break the silence. Friends, Gabe said, gesturing to them in turn. Dante, Blaze, and Robert Hobble. They helped put down this treason. There's going to be more, Dante said. Where did the other turncoats go? Hard to say, the old monk said, knitting his brow. We put a lot of wood between us and them. We weren't prepared. Better than being put to the sword, brother. Gabe curled his arm and massaged the hamhock of his biceps. Find yourself some real weapons. We'll be ready for whatever comes next. We'll secure the place, Robert said. His face was pale, but his voice was steady. Get some arms and then bar everything but the front door. We don't know what's going on out there. Gabe led them into the hallway where Hanstein had died. They stepped over his twisted body and one by one flung open the doors to the cells. Every third or fourth held a black-cassocked monk clutching a book or a fireplace poker or a brass candlestick. Gabe clapped them on the back and sent them to the dining room to meet the others. They locked the door leading to the inner gardens and Menoch's shrine and moved to the second floor. More of the same. Quiet rooms, hunkering monks, whom Gabe calmed with soft words, and the boys encouraged with grins and whoops. The small, cramped rooms of the two spires held no one. In the top room of the second spire, a dome-roofed space so small, Gabe could have stood at its center and touched both walls at once. He took a dull white object from above the wide window and pocketed it. He gestured to the stairway. I don't get this big plan of theirs, Blaze said as they headed downstairs. Three monks and a few guys with swords. Take a monastery which wouldn't happen in the first place if there were four good men here able to defend it. No offense to you, Gabe. Then hang around till the law comes by to pry them out. How is this thing taking hold? Confusion and exploitation, Robert said. Start up a religious squabble the watchmen want no part of. Start rallying the commoners, go from there. All they need's a toehold. He shrugged, playing off his guess. That's what I do, anyway. By the time they got back to the dining room, the monks were abuzz with work. A few carried ceremonial swords and other relics in the rope belts around their waists. Others bore wood axes and hoes and iron-banded walking staffs. A pile of pokers and knives and other fallback weapons lay beyond the kitchen door. No sign of the others, Gabe said to Nolan. Who else was with Hanstein? Alan and Romsey. Alan, Gabe said, face crumpling. Nolan nodded, eyes downcast. Gabe sucked a deep breath and clenched his fist. How did that happen? I'd imagine him cutting off his own nose before he betrayed his brothers. Most of the order remains loyal, Nolan said, gesturing to the monks and hired boys scurrying off with hammers and nails and planks of wood. Don't be tainted by the poison in a few men's hearts. 
I'll meditate when there's time. I have to see these men off, he said, nodding to Dante and the others. Don't let anyone in the door. Steadfast. We'll give them a taste of hell if they try, Nolan said, shaking a gardening spade in his fist. Gabe led them to the front door, where they'd arrived little more than an hour earlier. He stuck his head through, looking on the oddly quiet street beyond the gates, then stepped into the yard. The sun had fallen during the fight. Dante sucked down deep breaths of the cold night, suddenly certain they could retake the rest of the town if only they had the time. We had horses, Robert said. They'll be around the side. The three muscly horses munched on spilled oats, oblivious to the racket inside the walls of the monastery. Gabe patted one on the shoulder. His eyes were nearly level with its own. Dante, the rooting is a simple thing, he said, stroking the horse's brown mane. You'll feel its tendrils beneath your feet and the ground. Cut out those roots, and you'll cut out its hold. It's common among the priests. Not common, but deadly when used right. More subtle than that gruesome thing you did back there, and not half as sapping to your strength. Quick, call to the nether. Dante took three quick breaths and held his hands an inch apart, the same stiffness as Hanstein's summons took his joints. He fought to move his hands. Ignore it, Gabe said. Focus on the tension at your souls. He did feel it then, as if the bottoms of his feet had extended down into the dirt, locking him in place with a hundred wiry roots. Fingers quivering, he guided the nether to the pressure in his boots. The roots withered. His knee twitched. At once, the whole thing snapped, and he stepped forward, wild-eyed. Good. Don't panic if they sneak it past your guard. Clear it away like brambles in your path. Easy enough, Dante said. Don't see why Kelly never mentioned it. He's always been more of a theorist, Gabe said, shrugging. He smiled a little, his first since before the fighting. Here. He reached into his pocket, revealed the object he'd taken from the spire. A set of spiraling horns, bound in the middle by a flat section of skull, neither prong longer than a man's middle finger. Wear it around your neck. It should get you into the city. Should, Robert said. They're the horns of a nasty little thing called a kappa that lives in the snows of the north. Should prove you're a native, or at least you're a frequent visitor. He bit his lip. Of course, they are a wary people, and it's been a while since I've been there. Would be nice to shrug off a little trouble, Robert said, shaking his head. Seems to follow on our heels. Gabe cocked his head. Does trouble follow you, or is it troubles found all corners of the world? Afraid it's a combination of the two, Robert said, favoring Blaze and Dante with an unflattering glance. I see what you mean. Come with us. Blaze said, stepping forward and tilting back his head to meet Gabe's deep-set brown eyes. We need you. They need me here, 
I'm not a warrior. But there's only going to be more of this. If this won't convince you to hit back, what can? Gabe drew himself up to his full height and breath and stared Blaze down. The boy's eyes danced away. I knew the horror they brought before they touched this temple. Lenoran said, I'm supposed to reverse my beliefs because men I'd called friends betrayed me. How petty do you think I am? I didn't mean that, Blaze said, dropping back a step. I know, Gabe said in a softer tone. He looked over the black outlines of the roofs, visible above the willows of the yard. I couldn't live with myself if I went with you and found out the monastery had fallen. Who knows? Perhaps we can keep Shay from falling to what's taking the south. Perhaps, Robert said. He kicked the dirt. Good luck to you. What way will you take through the mountains? The pass, I thought. It'll be snowed. The riverway should be open yet. Yeah, and at a week to the journey, Robert said. Gabe nodded. You'll see more Norrin on the other side. Leave them be, and they ought to extend the same to you. We look more beastly than we are. He pursed his mouth. No more beastly than any of you, at least. We're not beastly, Blaze said. If they do come at you with suspicious intent, say, Hanan, Gabe said. It means peace, more or less. Draw it out, though. Briefer vowels mean something more anatomical. Hanan, Dante tried. Longer. Hanan. Better to err with caution, I suppose. He nodded at Robert. Wounds should be fine. You'll need sleep soon, though, and food. Anything else, Mum? Robert said. That's it. Gabe drew up his brows at Dante and opened his mouth as if to say more, then shook his head and looked off toward the street. You're good men. Don't go dying up there. Robert nodded and swung himself into the saddle, registering surprise when he felt no pain. Good work, he said down to the Norrin. The boys saddled up and Gabe untied their leads. They exchanged goodbyes and they walked the horses to the gates. One last thing, Gabe called from the steps of the monastery. When you see Samarand, put a stake through her heart. Dante twisted in the saddle. What? Is she a vampire? No, Gabe yelled. But I imagine it'll hurt a lot. Robert wrinkled his nose. Menoch's men are strange ones. They turned into the street, leading the horses past shattered glass and the strewn refuse and fallen knives of a recent struggle. Further up the street, they saw blades flashing in the torchlight. What do you think? Blaze said. I think, Robert said, hand drifting toward his sword. If we stop to fight everyone's fights for them, we'll have no time left to reach the end of the world. Yeah, Dante said, touching the scabbing wound on his sternum. No more delays. They cut down a side street. The sounds of skirmish peaked and faded in the still air.
Robert kicked his horse up to a trot. They'd done something good, Dante thought. When other men spoke of winning a battle, they simply meant they'd survived and stood their ground while the other side had fled and died. In Shea, they'd preserved a spark of thought that would have been blown out by the winds of upheaval if they hadn't risked themselves to save it. And as he rode, it was with a centered pride that he'd chosen to act and had chosen well. By the time he remembered he'd forgotten to ask Gabe what it meant that he held the true cycle, the town of Shea was nothing but points of light behind them. Chapter 11 Cold, Dante thought. And then he thought it some more. He towed the inch of snow on the ground until he could see dead yellow burgrass. Cold and hills with the promise of more hills ahead. He scowled at the blue mounds of mountains on the northern horizon. A couple days away, he tucked his chin into the collar of his second shirt and wondered why anyone bothered to do anything. They stopped at a farmhouse the day after they left Shea, where the owner had waved a pitchfork in their faces until Robert used the fact they hadn't already ridden down and slaughtered the man to convince him they weren't bandits. This established, the man accepted a decent chunk of their remaining coin for extra clothes and blankets and bread and cheeses and meats from his cellar. The clothes were rough-spun things, thick with the scent of sweat and dirt, and scratchy as falling into a barrel of drunk cats, but Dante figured it was better than dying of the cold that seemed to grow deeper with every step toward the mountains. They passed a few more fields and farmhouses that afternoon, but had seen nothing but wind-scabbed hills in the day and a half since. Just enough snow to get their boots wet whenever they dismounted. Just enough damp to let them hope they'd find some dry wood down in the drawers. But when they settled down for the night, they couldn't get a spark to catch. Dante cupped the nether in his hands and set a white burst among their tinder and got nothing but thick plumes of pale smoke. They huddled together, breath steaming, shivering until sleep overtook them. The road roughened, narrowed. The ruts disappeared. Ostensibly, others took this way, and Dante knew entire caravans crossed it in the half-year they could count on the pass to be clear. But they saw no specks of other riders, saw no sign of the campfires and gutted game and other spoor of travellers. The mountains hung huge as ground-hugging clouds, blue with pines and white with snow, distant and implacable as the fixed stars. The wind seemed to grow colder by the hour. Robert sang crass drinking songs. A couple times Blaze told stories about the battles his dad had seen. Mostly, he'd rolled around Bressel as a merchant's bodyguard, but in his early years, when he was just a couple years older than Blaze, he'd been a swordsman of the young king's army during the annexation of the southwest coasts. None of the dirty brawls Blaze and Dante had seen, Blaze said. Formations, ranks, thousands of men and scores of wagons, and when the battle was over, a far greater army of magpies and crows and kites. Blood so thick you could smell it for miles. 
Blaze told these things with a faint smile, a flicker of envy in his eyes. Robert tutted about how those things really weren't so grand, and besides, if Blaze liked them so much, there was always another war and the need for men to die in it. Blaze rebutted with the belief he'd make a fine soldier, earn himself a knighthood. Robert just laughed. Kind words from the king, maybe, but he'd never eat at the same table. Men were born into such things, he said, not made. Dante told them of half-mad Jack Hand, how he'd sacrificed his brother's wives to see if he could bring them back, how his brothers had mutilated him for it and his long imprisonment, his insurrection, and how he'd bested the rebellion meant to replace him. He'd lived 180 years, Dante said, and had twelve sons whose own sons staked out an empire from the far eastern shores all the way to the wide fields of Colin. Robert dubbed them good stories, if the incestuous intrigue of royalty was what tightened your drawers. But the oldest man he'd met had claimed eighty-seven years, and that man had looked like something left in the ground a season too long. Dante shrugged. Things were different then, he said. Jack Hand was a sorcerer. Before he could die, he was taken to the right wrist of the constellation of Aron, the sign whose crown had burst countless years ago into a pink cloud you could see during the day's full light. The book said its light had lasted for a complete year and rivaled the moon in the night. After it had faded from sight, when people looked up at that headless alignment of stars, they'd seen not the body of Aron, but the currents of twin rivers flowing across the heavens. The clouds bulged blackly above their heads, and tiny flakes of snow twinkled like dust in the autumn sun. Within another hour, it was falling as thickly as a burst pillow, puffing against their faces. Dante pulled his collar over his nose and his hood over his brow, he looked out on the whitening world through a slit of fabric, breath warming his nose, and tried to imagine what the world would look like on the other side of the mountains. Let's camp up now, Robert said, a couple hours before nightfall. I want to have a full day to tackle the pass. How does it look, Blaze said, peering up at the deep fold between two skyscraping peaks. Robert shrugged. It looks like a pass. And you look like you're stupid, but that doesn't give me any idea just how stupid. Well, it's got snow, see? That white stuff? Robert pointed to a barely visible squiggle along the flank of the left-hand mountain. Guessing just a foot or two so far, other than the drifts. What if it's steeper? Dante said. Start praying it isn't. Robert patted his horse's shoulder. Shouldn't take more than two days, unless one of you does something especially dumb. Not that it's very far, mile-wise, just takes a lot longer. Dante woke three times that night to shake snow from his blanket. They'd bedded down in a gully right off the road, which, this close to the mountains, was little more than a scraped path of rock and dirt— but the scrubby little pines weren't enough to stop the winds from pouring down the slopes and pelting them with small, powdery flakes. He tried, without success, to wring his blanket dry that morning. He stuffed it in a sack. Maybe when it froze, he could just beat the ice away.
Careful where you lead your horses, Robert told them as they started up a steep incline after a pre-dawn breakfast. They can't tell a ten-foot drift from solid ground. Try to stick close to the slope and away from any really smooth-looking snow. I think I'll just follow you, Blaze said. Probably a better idea. The snow stopped falling shortly after the morning broke, but what was already underfoot got thicker with every hour of travel. By mid-morning, Dante turned in the saddle, and saw the last of the hills sprawled beneath them like frozen whitecaps. Pines clung to the slopes to the left, chunky black rocks fell away to the right, crusted with ice and snow. Dante had imagined the pass would be an impossibly narrow line carved out of the mountain face, but it averaged about thirty feet wide, sometimes opening into an expanse that might be a meadow in summer weather. They rode single file, slowing to a crawl the couple times the pass closed to the width of two horses abreast. At those times, Dante tried to keep his eyes from the way the snow tumbled down for a couple hundred feet, before ending in a valley bottom broken by the black bodies of snow-dusted boulders. Winds knifed through the peaks, throwing fine, stinging snow in their faces. Dante's clothing grew stiff. Tiny drifts formed in its folds. The horses ploughed through foot-deep snow, sometimes plunging past their knees. The beasts stepped high, snorting, tossing their heads. Robert spoke softly, clucking his tongue, letting his mount hug the rising slope. Just after noon, his horse swooped to its chest in the snow and bounded forward, its whinnies carrying on the wind. Once it scrambled clear to snow below its knees, Robert halted, panting in the cold. How much further? Dante said, drawing up behind him. Can't see too well, Robert said. He hunched his shoulders and gazed uphill into the mists of the clouds. More than half their daylight was gone. Dante blew into his hands. They were stiff, inflexible, as if their motions lagged a second behind his thoughts. It's still going up. I can see that much. Robert brushed snow from his cloak. He folded down his collar and wiped ice from his eyebrows and mustache. Should be close to the crest. Dark's going to come fast up here. Won't want to press the horses once it does. I don't exactly want to stay here overnight, Dante said. And I don't want to get old, Robert said, but I'm afraid it's my best alternative. Can we get back to somewhere less freezing already? Blaze said. I need to take a piss and I don't want it snapping off. They waited around to eat a handful of bread and drink from skins filled with melted snow, then got the horses going again. Dante watched steam rise from the shoulders of Robert's mount. He was tired, cold. He glared across the snow-crusted slopes. They had hundreds of miles of travel after this. A wrong step, a hidden drift, and this voyage would be over. The places where men lived were full of people who wanted him dead, and the places where men didn't live were hellholes of ice and snakes and sudden cliffs. How did anyone get as old as Callie? Pure stubbornness? Luck? 
hanging around a forgotten temple while he sent the young man out to tramp around the wilds? That was part of it, he'd wager. He'd further wager it had something to do with the book in his pack and the things it represented. Callie could make him explode by looking at him. Gabe could scrape up his chunks and patch them back together. That monk, Hanstein, could lock Dante in his tracks, could have killed him at his leisure if Gabe hadn't been there to snap his spine. Even Will Palomar, the man he'd slain with the bolt of fire in the woods outside Wetton, could have struck him down, he thought, if not for the man's arrogance and the blind chance of Dante's sentry. Sometime he would die, if not during this journey to head off the war coming for the Southlands, then in another two or three decades. One moment he'd be alive, the thing that made him embedded firmly in the fortress of his skull, and then the next instant, perhaps before he understood what was happening, he'd be separated from his body. And if his body held a part of whatever it meant to be Dante, he'd never be the same again. Maybe he wouldn't remember anything once he'd gone from Earth to the space beyond the stars. Maybe he wouldn't be able to think at all. Why did people have to die? Why couldn't they know what happened once your body died and rotted to waste? Crags climbed on all sides. He felt like he was walking in the bottom of a bowl. The clouds had lifted from the pass itself, but still streaked so low, Gabe probably could have stretched up and touched them. It started snowing again, and he blinked against the freezing bite of the flakes against his face. His eyes grew watery. Beneath his collar, his nose was running. Robert called something over his shoulder, and the wind snatched it away. Dante cupped a hand to his ear and shook his head. Robert drew up and leaned over. I said, that's the crest up ahead. It all looked the same to Dante, snowy and rocky and cold, obscured by walls of wind-driven snow. The shallower drifts were back down to a mere foot deep, he saw. They rode on. He thought reaching the top of the pass would be inspiring, triumphant, but when they got there all he saw was more snow and a carpet of clouds in the valley to the right. The dark lump of Robert's horse leading the way looked like an anonymous stranger lost in the nowhere. Snow continued to batter his face. He'd always thought it fell out of the bottoms of the clouds, but here he was inside one, and the snow was still falling. He tipped back his head to try to get a glimpse of the clouds above, but all he saw was close-pressed grey. Dante's horse slipped then, and he grabbed wildly for a hold on the saddle. Hundreds of pounds of bones and guts and flesh struggled beneath him. The horse bucked its front shoulders, and Dante heard Blaze cry out as if the world tumbled on its head, and he threw out his arms and crumped face first into a snowbank. He kicked his legs and fell back on his ass. You all right? Blaze shouted. It's cold, he said, shaking snow from his chest and arms, wiping his hood over the slush melting on his nose and cheeks. His gloves were soaked, and his hands stung like they'd been struck. He put a foot in the stirrup, and the horse took a step forward, 
and he had to hop along and hang onto the saddle to keep from falling again. Dante patted the beast, mumbling baby words he hoped the others couldn't hear, then hauled himself up. Soft landing, he shouted into the wind. Robert's hood whipped around his face as he considered Dante. Then the man turned and continued on. Robert slackened his pace, letting his horse feel its way through the drifts and the slippery descent. Dante had been gripped by a slow kind of terror on the way up the pass, but as the day drew on, he found himself increasingly distracted from the imminence of his death on these rocks. What would Narashtavik look like? Would it be one big fortress to ward off the constant sieges? Would its buildings look like monstrous tombs? How would he find Samarand? Would she be like its queen, gazing down on the snow-wrapped city from the safety of her towers? Or would she be like Callie, an underground figure emerging from hiding only to meet with the others of her order? When he found her, how would he kill her? Leaping from the secret of a dark alley to slip a knife in her spine? Or meeting her in open single combat, like all the stories of two foes meeting in all the legends of the world. He realized he didn't know a thing about the dead city, other than it wasn't really peopled by the dead. Why hadn't he asked Callie more? Would it have helped? Was there any sense in trying to plan before he was there to see Narashtavik with his own two eyes? His horse slipped again, leg jolting and without thinking, Dante yanked the reins close to his body. The horse stopped short. He took a deep breath, fighting the rushing wind that wanted to tear it from his mouth. He turned his head away from the gales. Stay in the moment. There were hundreds of miles ahead of them yet. There would be time to brood when a misstep wouldn't send him plummeting into a frozen abyss. He hurried to catch the couple steps he'd lost to Robert, face flushed with a vein-flooding rage. What was wrong with him? Why was he so afraid of the cold and the heights? Robert was managing just fine. Blaze wasn't complaining. Either he'd die, or he wouldn't. There was no in-between, and either way, he wouldn't have to worry. He was so sick of the mantle of panic he let himself feel whenever he faced the slightest trouble. It was disgusting. It was commonplace, and it was weak. He spit into the swirling snow. It was time to become something more than the sum of his emotions. Robert slogged along, and Dante slogged behind him. He made his mind go quiet and endured. It was impossible to tell how much time was passing. Light continued to fight its way through the mist and the snow, but who knew how much was left? He hummed to himself, having heard you couldn't feel fear when you were humming. Blaze didn't seem to notice. He made himself recall from memory entire passages of the cycle of Aron, the opening verse. The stars shimmered on the waters, and for thirty years Aron took their measure. As he held the nail of the north, Tame jostled his shoulder, and all came loose, and down came the waters to drown out the land. Near the end of the first chapter, And Aron said to Van, Father of Eric Draconat, 
Make no sacrifice, for it shall all be mine in time. Much later, when Aron had disappeared as an act of force, and the tome turned to kings and priests, Gil-Galel rode seven times around the keep, shaking his sword and naming the seven bodies of the heavens. And at the seventh circle, the keep fell, and the king was no more. Fragments, half-remembered stories, scores of names. Again, he forgot the trail. It had stopped snowing at some point. The stuff on the ground was deeper than it had been at the wind-scoured gap at the peak of the pass, now swallowing the horses to their knees, but it no longer lashed Dante's face. The mists began to lift. Sometimes he could see the green smears of snow-bent pines a couple hundred yards away. And then it was gone, and he could see the entire trail twisting its way along the side of the mountain, and the skies rose until the clouds hung not on his face, but a thousand feet above. And to his right, in the valley between the bodies of the mountains, he could see a long, silent lake, its waters cobalt and shining sapphire, and at times a creamy, scintillating green he'd never seen in all the world. His breath caught. What kind of sorcery are we heading into? he said to Robert. The wind had dropped to a strong breeze, and he no longer had to shout to compete with its moaning grief. That's just glacier water, you ninny, Robert said, but his gaze fixed on it while his shoulders stayed in swing with the rhythm of his horse. It's nothing special. Do you see that? Blaze said behind him. Yeah. It looks like burning glass. Dante nodded, eyes clinging to the shelf of ice above the lake. Ice that was white at its cap, blue as a frozen summer sky in its middle, that same otherworldly green at its feet. The wind harshed, and all he could hear was the snow as it crumpled and squeaked under the horse's hooves. The air was cold and clean in his lungs. They followed a curve in the trail, and a wedge of rock and pines occluded the aching blue lake. Dante kept glancing back, glancing to where the valley should be, wanting one more glimpse of the hidden waters. Robert pushed them on till the light ceased gleaming from all that white snow to be stolen by the westerly peaks. They were still in the mountains proper, as far as Dante could tell, but the cold was less stunning, the wind less biting. Robert spied a broad, flat break in the pass a few minutes downhill and took them there, tying the horses to the pines that would offer them some shelter. He started to scoop away the knee-deep snow with his gloved hands, just enough space to lie down in. When they did, Dante saw their bodies would be hidden from sight and wind. He and Blaze pitched in, sweeping away the snow with their boots, grateful for an excuse to flex their numb, sodden toes. It was nearly dark by the time they finished. Robert straightened his back and considered their work. There, that wasn't so bad, was it? He said. Nobody died. Fell off a cliff, froze to death. There's still time, Blaze said, wiping his nose. Hard part's over. Tomorrow we'll get back down in the hills. Might not even be snowy. It's the north, Dante said. 
So what? Robert clapped his hands together. It's just the North, not another world. You boys need to get out more. Besides, mountains make the weather act screwy. You never know what it's like back in reasonable elevations. Couldn't these people have started their little rebellion in the summer? Blaze mumbled. Would that be too much to ask? He rummaged through the saddlebags, picking out some food. He tossed the heavy wad of Dante's blanket at his chest. Catch! Dante caught it and almost fell back into the snow. It had frozen or something. Thick to begin with, it now weighed ten or fifteen pounds. He stretched up his arms and tried to roll it open, frowning when it drooped to but a slightly less creased position, then shook it hard, sending ice particles flying into the last of the light. This stinks, he said. Ah, it's not that bad, Robert said through a mouthful of cheese. At least we've got blankets. Think how bad it would be if we were up here naked. Why would we be up here naked, Blaze said. But just think if we were. There's no possible reason we would ever be up here naked. Robert shrugged and took another bite. I'm just saying. Some years it snowed in six weeks ago. We've been lucky. Huzzah, Blaze said. He wrapped himself in a couple blankets and stared out on the snowfields, on the black of the trees and the grey of the unlit snow. The clouds parted and a three-quarter moon washed over the valley with pale rays. Doesn't that make it all worthwhile? Robert said, scratching his beard and smiling. No, Blaze said. I'm cold, Dante said. Lyle on the rack, then go to sleep. You may hate this day, but you'll be able to remember the story twenty years from now. Assuming the gods suffer a collective collapse of reason and decide to extend your whining lives that long. Robert got up and stamped around the campsite, patting the horses, touching the pine needles. Dante hugged his blankets around him and wiggled his fingers and toes. After a while, they stopped hurting. By noon the next day, they dropped out of the mountains and into an endless sea of white-coated hills. The snow was shallow, though, no more than three inches, sometimes disappearing entirely in the places where the sun shone unshadowed for most of the day. Compared to the trudge through the pass, the horses all but flew as they walked. They saw no more before the sun had set, and they took shelter in the hollow of a draw. No riders, no farmers, no trails of smoke and civilization. The day after was just as empty. It was as if the snows had wiped away the world. They crossed a ridge, and to the right, a circle of great grey stone blocks stood like the grave markers of all things. Dante pulled his cloak tighter around his shoulders. After that moment, he couldn't shake the sense they were being watched, that there were eyes in the trees or the dark creases between hills. But he knew that was foolish. People had better things to do than spy on them all day, things like keeping themselves alive or getting the hell out of these wastelands. Still, it stuck with him, that uneasy creep of a presence among the isolation. He didn't mention it, not wanting to look like a scared little child, and so he just walked on, 
one more hour, one more day, that much closer to the dead city. Ever get the sense we're being watched? Robert asked the next afternoon. They'd crested the saddle of a hill and paused to gaze out on all the ones yet ahead of them. Blaze took the break to scare some food from his packs. Sometimes, Dante blurted, then waited for Robert to volunteer more. Me too, but this time I think we really are. Oh? Can't be, though. There's nowhere to move without being seen. Robert gestured to the open rises of snow. Trees lined the folds of the hills and sometimes sat in clusters at their base, but mostly it was empty, easy travel and easier sight. Have you seen anyone? Dante craned his neck. It looked as barren as ever. He pushed back his hood, felt the cold breeze on his cheeks and nose and ears. Maybe. He pushed his brows together. Ah, who knows? Been so long since I've seen anyone but you two Winguses, I'm probably imagining things. Robert motioned them on. Somehow, Dante had stopped feeling the cold. He recognized its presence, knew if he'd appeared here after a week in the relatively balmy offshore breezes of Bressel, he'd be shaking like an epileptic. But for now, the chill no longer hurt. They rode downhill and were enfolded in the soft swell of the land. They rode uphill and were bracketed by mountains to the west and south, huge things of blue and white beneath the tight top of grey clouds. When Dante dismounted, he imagined his shoulders were still rocking to the gentle bounce of his horse. There was no proper road as such, nothing paved or even rutted, just any number of dirt trails that joined and forked every few hours. But Robert checked Callie's map often, squinting at the course of the sun and, at night, at the particular dial of the stars. A river glinted to their west, and over the course of a day it swung to intersect their path. The ground angled down to meet it, and they cut through the snowy grass to drink fresh water and fill their skins with the cold mountain runoff. Dante spotted a bulge in the bank that created an eddy where fish might rest. But they had no poles. Couldn't spear them from the shallows like he and Blaze had done at the pond. They'd made good time on the day, and Robert suggested they set up here and enjoy the rest of the afternoon. Dante and Blaze shrugged off their second shirts. It was still cold, but between the sunshine and the running around, they doubted they'd need them. And ranged down the river's banks, eyes sharp for the deep purple of janberries. Dante judged they had about an hour of sunlight left. It was the first honest free time they'd had since they'd left Gabe and his defense of Shea. The first time they'd had that wasn't spent riding or throwing together a shelter or hugging themselves and trying to remember what a fire felt like. And they ran beside the river, tagging each other with pine cones, cutting reedy branches and dueling in the late afternoon. Blaze twirled his branch beneath Dante's with a smooth turn of his wrist and pressed its springy tip against Dante's heart. Yield, you menace! Never, Dante said, cocking his elbow to strike at Blaze's neck, and Blaze rammed his stick forward. It bent against his cloak and doublet, 
then snapped two-thirds down its length. Dante waggled his weapon. Aha! You're unarmed! And you're minus one heart, Blay said, throwing what was left of his stick at Dante's feet. Dante turned toward the river and slung his like a spear. It disappeared into the waters, then bobbed back to the surface, straightening in the current. Blaze jogged up the bank a ways and called Dante over to a janberry bush crouched against the foot of a pine. The purple berries were small and hard and sour, never truly in season, but it was good to taste anything fresh. All the food in their saddlebags was as dry as licking paper. They ate all they picked, then gathered a handful each for Robert, popping a few in their mouths as they backtracked toward the camp. They climbed a short ridge and saw Robert on his hands and knees in the grassy snow, peering across the waters. The boys froze and leaned into the nearest tree, following Robert's gaze. All Dante saw on the other banks was a few squat pines surrounded by bushes. He had a word half-formed when one of the bushes moved. Norin. Four. Make that five of them. Swords at their belts. Bows slung over their massive shoulders, staring right back at them. Robert motioned for them to get down. Blaze made a long face at Dante, and Dante shrugged. The river washed between the two groups. Not quite a bow shot across, and the weapons the Norrin carried looked as tall and potent as the men who wore them. Blaze crammed the rest of his janberries into his mouth, then hesitantly raised a juice-stained hand. The Norrin stood as stolid as the hills behind them. Dante reached out for the nether, awaiting their move. One of them lifted a hand and waved back. Another dropped its eyes to whatever he'd been examining in the dirt and poked at it with a long staff. Their voices rumbled over the water. They talked a while, gesturing upriver, then turned as one and walked on. What was that all about? Blaze said. He spit out a stem. Looked like hunters, Dante said. They started toward Robert, who was already striding their way down the shore. Next time, try not to bumble right into the war party, he said, glaring between them. Well, you could have said something, Blaze said. Yes, I really should have shouted... Watch out! There's some men over there that could probably kill and rob you if they wanted to bother. Would that have done it? What about a signal, whistling like a bird? Dante said. What about you look around once in a while? Robert said, poking him in the chest. We're five hundred miles from home. You've never stepped foot here, and I've only been here twice, neither of which was recent. Things are different now. If you don't keep your eyes open, you could be killed— you can't just be goofing around. Have some God's damned sense. There was a long silence. I brought you some janberries, Dante said. He held out his berry-stuffed hand. Blaze ate all his. Robert closed his eyes and sighed. He grabbed a few from Dante's palm and lobbed them into his mouth. Sour, he said. They're janberries. I know Janberries are sour, I was just saying. Robert ate a few more, face slackening as he munched. May as well follow the river for now. 
should be the Lagaganset, if I'm reading the map right. Find a town eventually, pick up some fresh food, then find a road straight to Narashtovic. Plus plenty of janberries on the way, Lay said, tipping his chin at another bush a short ways down the bank. Just keep your stupid eyes open, Robert said, shaking his head. Those Noran were tracking deer, looks like. Water attracts all kinds of men and beasts. Probably see more of them before we see any chimney smoke. Blaze gazed into the current. Lag, Lagagaga? What the hell was it? The river. Call it the river. Right. The Noran sightings increased their frequency the further they penetrated into the territories of the north. Blocky silhouettes on dawn ridges. Silent hunters crouched along steam beds, eyes gleaming from the thicket of their beards, tracking deer and elk through the snow. Sometimes Dante saw tracks so big it looked like two drunken children had been falling down every four feet. He tied the set of horns Gabe had given him to a length of leather string and draped it over his neck. They saw men, too. A single-sailed boat coasting down the river one afternoon, the twists of farmhouse smoke out on the flat expanse of the basin, a pair of raggedy travellers on foot who gave them one look before cutting away from the river into open land. It snowed one noon, adding a couple inches to the two or three already on the ground, going mushy and soggy once the sun broke back through the clouds. Villages began sprouting up every ten-odd miles, farming, fishing, the smoke of smithies. They'd passed two or three a day. Not yet wanting for food, desiring no contact with the locals, they toured around, cutting through the lightly treed fields and fallow farmlands. The ground got lower, and the snow got thinner, until one day it gave out altogether. For the first time in two weeks they were able to light a fire. The boys leaned so close their damp clothes and blankets steamed. Dante doused his bread in water and let it warm until it wouldn't crunch between his teeth for once. In the mountains and the hills, they'd sometimes slept without keeping a watch, but in these lowlands, with the spark of their camp visible for miles in the night, they split shifts between watch and sleep. The nights were coming on the longest of the year, and even the three hours of guard duty spent sitting with their backs to the fire or pacing around the rim of light, they'd wake before dawn, fixing breakfast, chatting idly, waiting for the ground to grow grey enough for the horses to see. That spire there, Robert said the day they saw their first real town in these lands, pointing to the tall, dark finger of a temple sprouting from the middle of the city. I've been there. Almost twenty years ago, but I was there. Does that mean we should go around? Blaze said, giving Dante a smirk. What? Of course not. Anyone who'd remember that's probably dead by now. Robert rubbed his beard. I wouldn't recognize my face, at least. I'm sure they've forgotten. Oh, Blaze said. From a few miles out, it looked the same as the cities of the south. From half again as close, it smelled the same. Once they drew near enough for the buildings to resolve from greyish lumps to individual structures, Dante could see some of the outlying houses seemed to be 
roofed with sod. Not even the poorest houses were thatched, like he'd always seen in the outer ring of Bressel or down by the docks. These homes were roofed with steeply piled dirt or tight-set planks or overlapped tiles of shale. The nobler manors and warehouses were set from firm, chunky, mortared stone. It looked like a city that would last a thousand years after its last occupant had died. Looks all right to me, Dante said. Wait a minute. I'm sure it will get horrible soon enough. Robert took the lead toward the town. I mean, no fires, no fighting, no hordes of armed men. Where are Ron's faithful? Maybe it's already over, Blaze said. Robert rubbed his mouth. Could be it hasn't started. But this is much closer to Narashtovic, Dante said. That's where Samarand and her council lives. Things should be ten times as crazy up here. What's going on? Robert shrugged, then gave him a sharp look. Don't go asking any questions. They'll know we're foreigners anyway. But they don't know we're stupid foreigners. They won't think I'm stupid. I do, Blaze said. Yes, they will. Robert ticked the numbers off on his fingers. First, they'll think you're stupid because your accent's bad or you can't speak the language and you dress funny. Smell, too. Second, they'll think you're stupid because you don't know the things that everyone knows. Why isn't your city burning to the ground, you'll ask, and they'll look at you like you just tried to eat a loaf of bread through your arsehole. That's what's stupid. Dante said. They'd be stupid to think that. Well, why don't you just educate them as to the error of their ways, because that's how people think everywhere. Go on. You're not in any hurry, are you? Fine. I thought we were in a hurry, Blaze said. We are, Dante said. Quit dawdling. They rode into town. Other than the sturdier buildings, the occasional presence of Norrin rather than kneeling, and the foreign language— Gascon, Dante presumed, since for the last few hundred miles they'd been in Gask and its territories, as far as anyone could be said to rule over the worthless lands around the Dundon Mountains, it didn't feel that much different. He'd never really paid attention to the traders and travellers who spoke Gascon back in Bressel, but with an ear cocked toward the tongue, he started to think he was going mad. It was a thicker, more imperative-sounding tongue— but it sounded just enough like Malish to make him think he could catch about every tenth word, if only they wouldn't speak so maddeningly fast. With a jolt, he realized he understood one of their words, and not from his native tongue, but from the cycle, to release or unlock. They dress funny, Blaze said nodding to a couple men wearing long, open-bottomed clothes that struck Dante as some kind of fur-lined dress. Robert sighed. He took the lead and headed for the market, where they wandered around until they found a merchant who spoke enough malish to sell them some fresh bread and dried meats, and could barter with Robert over a couple bottles of wine. Eventually they reached some kind of agreement, and Robert cradled his bottles and smiled out on the bustle of the market the cries of the sellers and the guarded eyes of the buyers. Not all the smells were bad, either. For every whiff of old fish, there was one of cinnamon. For every sulfurous blast of hide tanning, 
there was the sweet, sagey lilt of land leaves. Don't suppose we can spare a day or two here, Robert said. No, Dante said. That's why I said, don't. Robert kept lingering, though, arguing with tradesmen in a broken combination of the two languages, sometimes resorting to exaggerated gestures and repeating himself very loudly. He bought some salt, some fresh-cooked crayfish, which he sucked from the shell, a bag of strong, bitter-smelling leaves. We'd better get moving, Dante said, checking the light. Good for another ten miles, maybe. One last thing while we're here. Robert. Dante. Dante squeezed his teeth together. We're not here to stuff ourselves with treats or take a wife. We need to go. Robert bit his lip and took one last long look at the flash of coins changing hands, the laughter of men sharing a bottle, the wry faces of women sweeping doorways or naming the price of their vegetables. He nodded. Dante mounted up and led them on. Robert lagged at their tail, head turned over his shoulder, watching all those people fade into the waning light. The river unspooled across the land, bowing east and then back north, and they followed it across the days. From the berth of a few miles' distance, they saw the steeply pitched black roofs of another town dotted with snow. Three days from the dead city, Dante reckoned. He tried to imagine what Narashtavik would look like, but all he could see was the twisting alleys of Bressel, the damp rotted docks, the overgrown clusters of houses ringing the city on three sides to the river. Half the city was fresh-cut wood, houses and halls that hadn't existed fifty years ago, to hear the old man talk. He couldn't picture a city that had been Bressel's rival when the last pages of the cycle had been penned a thousand years ago. And once he was there, how would he complete his two tasks? Who would teach him to read the final third of the book? Would they have an academy? A forgotten library? Monks eager to teach the good word to those who'd come to hear? How could he hope to learn the dead language of Narashtavik? and tracked down and killed Samarand at the same time. He didn't imagine it would be as simple as walking up behind her in the street and sticking a sword between her ribs. She was chief architect of all the chaos in the South. From what little he'd gathered, she was practically queen of a city that paid service in name only to the greater kingdom of Gask. He knew he wasn't nearly potent enough to kill her in a fair fight, and wasn't nearly stupid enough to think her army of priests and retainers would let him get close enough to die that way in the first place. He wished Callie were with them. The old man would know what it would take. How had all this dropped on his shoulders? He and Blaze to end the war. It had seemed far less insane back when they were nestled safely in the temple outside Wetton. Here and now, with less than a hundred miles to the end of their journey, it seemed to Dante the caprice of colossal miscalculation. This warranted armies or hardened assassins, not a pair of boys whose faces didn't even wrinkle when they smiled. They were going to die. Three days from now, perhaps a week from now, but they were going to die. 
What's so funny? Blaze asked. Our plan, Dante said. The brilliant part about it is we can get as drunk as we want, because if we accidentally tell someone about it, they'd never believe a word. Hilarious. Does that mean you've been working on it, then? Yes. Oh, Robert said. I've got to the part where we get to the city. Ah. It was two more days till they climbed the brown mound of a low hill and saw the dead city. It consumed an entire quadrant of the horizon, a boundless smear of black and grey buildings, broken here and there by the windy spires of cathedrals and the closed fists of keeps, circumscribed by two concentric rings of walls, a bigger bulge of accumulated industry than Bressel itself, ten miles across if it were an inch. Two of its arms reached north to hold the grey waters of a bay, and beyond it, the haze of the sea. Dante's face split with a smile. He'd come from shore to shore, well more than a thousand miles, a distance he'd ever only dreamed of crossing. Whatever else befell him, by noon tomorrow he'd step foot in Narashtovic, the city of the book, the city of the dead. He had dreamed it, and then willed this dream to life. Robert stopped them the following morning some ten miles from the city. He poured through a pack and passed around meat and cheese, stabbed a knife into the cork of a wine bottle, and twisted it open. He tipped it back into his waiting mouth, bubbles glugging into the bottle's upturned base, then wiped his lips and passed it to Blaze. Blaze chugged and passed it to Dante, and Dante had a sip. Robert sighed through his nose and considered the distant lumps of the city. Never feels right to say goodbye without a drink of wine, he said. I've never liked it at all, Dante said. Robert nodded. Who's leaving? Blaze said, handing the bottle back to Robert. Are we sending off the horses? Why would we send off the horses? Dante frowned at the ground. Robert chuckled, then went quiet when he realized Blaze meant no joke. We're not sending off the horses. Then what are you talking about? It's time, Robert said. He tapped his nails against the side of the bottle. Here's where I leave you two, to yourselves. Why? Blaze said. Just the one word, and Robert had to look away. You two have your mission. I'd just get in the way. No, you wouldn't. You're the best swordsman I've ever seen. What you need right now is not a sword. It's a story to tell the locals why you're here. Two young men could be anything. Lordlings out to see the world, a pair of hired blades, a scholar and his man-at-arms. Whatever you say, they'll never imagine the two of you could be a threat. And that's the thing that will save your asses. He took a drink and pushed his mouth against his sleeve, face red. Some old bastard tagging along's just going to confuse them. Make them wary when you want to be a snake among the reeds. This whole thing seemed stupid and crazy when there were just the three of us. Blaze's eyes shone with anger and some raw hurt. 
Now we're supposed to do it all with two. Trust me, you'll be better off. This calls for subtlety beyond my means. And what if we're not enough to take her down? Blaze said, flinging his hand at the city. What if they go and unleash her own? Maybe he will eat the world. Even if that's a steaming pile meant to rile things up, they look pretty damn safe up here. The king's not going to march an army to the ends of the world when Samaran's got mobs burning up his backyard. People are going to die. Quit that, Robert barked. Quit what? Saying what we've all been thinking? Trying to shame me into this, you whelp, he said, stepping forward and sticking his finger into Blaze's chest. If I thought for a moment you two were skipping off towards suicide, I'd make you turn back right now, or at least rob you before the others could get your corpses. First time I met you, Dante was busy lighting up the entire town watch, for God's sakes. And you killed plenty yourself as soon as your hands weren't tied. You two could set the world on fire if you wanted. Blaze snatched the bottle away from him and had a pull. Fine, he said wrapping the glass with his knuckles. Run off to your whores and your booze and your brawls. If you ever had a set of balls, they're far too shriveled to help us now. Robert started to reply, then bit his teeth together. Lips curled. He looked away. When he spoke at last, his voice was forcibly softened. Spill as many words as you want. I'm leaving. I know in my heart it's the right thing to do. Nothing can change that. The only thing left to settle is whether you'll remember me with darkness in your heart. Get out, Blaze said. Nobody moved. He raised his arm and smashed the bottle against the frozen dirt. I said get the hell out! Well enough. Robert turned to Dante, face blank but eyes bright. I think I've repaid whatever debt I owed you. I never held you to any debt, Dante said. I know, Robert grinned. That's the only reason I stuck around at all. Dante nodded, gazed back the way they'd come. Where will you go? Should have a few friends still kicking around these parts. Would be plain rude to come all this way and not say hello. He sniffed, wiped his nose against the cold. I'll be there in wet and blaze. You know where to look. Passed out in your own filth behind any public house, Blaze said, back turned. You were listening, after all. Robert smiled for just a flicker, then flashed his eyebrows at Dante. He climbed into the saddle, wheeled his horse, began to backtrack the first of the miles. He halted thirty feet out and faced them. Blaze turned his head at the sudden silence of the horse's hooves. Walk with the gods, boys. Don't you dare let them get you before you get them. Dante watched him ride away. At a hundred yards, Robert dropped down a ridge and left his sight. Dante nodded to himself. He'd see Robert Hovel again, he pledged. And when he did, He'd bring Blaze with him. You don't look too surprised, Blaze said, face matching the dark clouds overhead that hadn't yet decided to spill their burden. You saw how he was in that town. 
He's been saying he meant to leave us since Gabe's. I didn't think he meant it. Dante shook his head, a flare of frustration budding in his chest. He means every word he says. He does, Blaze agreed. He kicked a stone. Dante couldn't think of a single thing to say to soften what had happened. He stared dumbly at the dead city, thinking ten miles. Ten miles, two hours if we hurry, and three if we don't. Ten miles. Ten miles. As if all he had to do was think hard enough, and they'd shrink away to none. He risked a look at Blaze. Want to rest before we finish it, he said. When we're this close, what are you, a girl? A baby? I want to see this fancy city of yours. It's not mine. Yet. He nudged his horse forward. A breeze followed him. He imagined he smelled the faint scent of salt water. Gabe told me before the attack you ought to name your sword. Blaze glanced at his side as if he'd forgotten it was there. Name my sword. He said it might give it power. Blaze laughed and pulled it free. Sun glinted down its steel as he waved it in front of his face. You believe him? All the famous warriors do it, Dante said, lifting half his mouth. They must be onto something. Blaze slitted his eyes, nodded. Air whistled over his swing. He smiled grimly. I dub thee Robert Slayer. Now, come on, Dante said. It's my sword. I can name it what I want. What kind of name is Robert Slayer? It's a vow, Blaze said. Brows furrowed like Dante was stupid for asking. Next time I see him, I'm going to challenge him to a duel. What about all the help he gave us? Dante said. He tried and failed to see any hint of humor in Blaze's eyes. I'm not saying I'm going to kill him. Blaze held the sword level with his arm and peered down its length. Just slosh some of his blood around. Show him who's the whelp. All right. Dante freed his own weapon from its sheath. I think I'll name mine Blaze Chopper. The gods will know you're copying. Your blows will land as falsely as its name. You've got a direct line to them, do you? You have chat. I know how these things work, Blaze said, cutting the air between them. You can't just name your sword a joke. You named yours Robert Slayer. And it's going to taste his blood, Blaze insisted. His lips twitched. The only blood of mine you'll ever taste will be my skinned knuckles in your teeth. I'd burn you to a cinder first, Dante said, pointing to him with the first two fingers of his right hand. You'd set me on fire? Blaze gave him a look of mock horror. Dante laughed, looked off toward the city, for a moment felt as if things were back how they'd been before they'd ever met Callie and been so ensnared in all these problems of churches and kingdoms. Things were different now, though. They rode not solely for the lives of themselves, but for those of thousands in the Southlands. 
they rode with the cold force of a mortal purpose. Through it all, they carried the weight of the men they'd killed on the way. The dead city took the land before them, boundless and ragged, black and ancient as the earth's first wound. Chapter 12 Narashtivik grew wider with every step, taller with every minute. Its outskirts were a tumble of old stone and mouldering wood, tainted everywhere by a confusion of indistinct black smears, as if a hundred years ago an all-consuming fire had chewed the city up and left the ashy remnants to the slow erosion of time. But from the city's interior, wispy columns of smoke twisted into the seaside haze of sky. Stay sharp, Dante said. Someone still lives here. Sorry, I was lost in the rugged beauty of that giant mound of trash up there. Once they drew nearer, Dante saw the black spaces weren't charcoal and shadow, but the deep green needles of northern pines. Thick in the streets, pushing up among the tumbled stones, choking out the places where men once lived. They'd make easy firewood, but there they were, unmolested, undisturbed. Dante touched the pair of horns that hung from his neck. The tracks of others broke the crust of snow that lay on the road. From within the jumble of houses and trees, he thought he could see the shadows of movement. Far too few for a city of this scope. The silhouettes he saw lived in the lawless ruins. Wouldn't necessarily bear the mantle of docility that seemed to affect most men who lived in the company of thousands of others. Dante closed one eye, reached out for the nether, felt it reach back. He led his horse around a tongue of rubble that lay on the roadway. They left the pine-speckled fields and crossed into the sprawl of empty buildings. Once or twice a minute, he saw a man hurrying across one of the streets ahead, heard the footfalls of inhabitants from somewhere within the alleys and cross streets. Further toward the city's heart, he'd catch a shout, a bell, a few moments of breeze-scattered blacksmith's hammer blows. He slowed his horse watching both sides of the road as they passed the moss-coated stump of a home that couldn't have stood for two hundred years. Then an open patch of half-buried timbers that may once have been an in-house but now looked one strong rain from washing down to a square of dirt no different than any of the rest. Then a weed-choked foundation resting bare of walls or roof. From the distance of a mile or more, an uneven line of grey stone showed behind the worn roofs of those buildings that still stood. Tell me why this feels wrong, Dante said. Where should I start? I don't mean that, Dante said, jerking his chin at the detritus. Callie made it sound like we'd be trussed up in a net and thrown in a stew the instant we showed up. Blaze chewed the inside of his lip. I don't see a damn thing, and all I hear's one smith who can't keep time. That's it. There's not enough noise. You can separate one sound from another. Blaze nodded. He loosened his sword. 
they followed the road. Not all was empty, not all was ruin. Some houses boasted all four walls and a roof without holes, and here and there wooden structures that didn't look completely decrepit shared walls with older ones. The chock of a solitary wood axe echoed from no more than a hundred yards away. Down a street where the cobbles were as gappy as the teeth of a surf, Dante caught the unexpected flash of a garden, an ordered spread of green amongst the defeated crumble of housing. A man's sowing footsteps came from the other side of the street, and he turned in time to see a pair of wary eyes before the figure disappeared behind a damp wall. They moved on. Voices and the clanking of men at their labor grew thicker as they approached the city's first wall. It shared the disrepair of the lands around it, webbed with cracks, its top as jagged as the peaks they'd crossed weeks earlier. Graying, fluttery lumps dangled from spears planted in the stone. In places, there was no wall at all, just a carpet of stones, and beyond it, a view of the city that looked half normal. The road led to a gate of sorts, or at least one space in a stonework that was intentional, though Dante saw no sign of a grill or doors to shut the twenty-foot walls against invasion. They halted a stone's throw from its base, and moved off to the sod at the side of the road to dismount, stretch their legs, have a bite. Foot and carriage traffic moved on the other side of the gates. If they hadn't just crossed through a couple miles of desolation, Dante could almost imagine it was a city no different from any other. I don't suppose you have any idea what you're doing, Blaze said. Not really, Dante said, and the admission lifted a weight from his shoulders. He gazed back at all the empty buildings. At least we won't have any trouble finding a place to stay. Yeah. Blaze flexed up on his calves and crossed his arms, watching the signs of life past the gate. I was kind of expecting to have had to kill someone by now. Dante nodded and chewed on a bite of bread. Dirt peppered their legs, and they jumped back. Six feet in front of them, an arrow vibrated in the soil like a plucked string. Outstanding, Blaze said. He twisted it from the dirt and gazed up at the walls, patting the arrow's head against his leg. I believe that was a warning. More dirt spattered them, and again they heard the twang of an arrow coming to rest in the earth. The second had landed a mere cubit from Blaze's boots. He gaped. Who shot that? Dante lifted an open palm and turned a slow semicircle in front of the gate. He didn't know whether Malish customs would mean anything here, but figured if they were bright enough to know how bows worked, they'd get the picture. Blaze yanked out the second arrow and snapped it in half, casting the fragments into the street. Don't, Dante said, scanning the crest of the wall for movement. Tell them not to shoot at me. We're travelers, Dante called up to the fortifications. That's why I shot at you. A voice came back from up and to the right. In Malish at that, not the barking language of this land. Dante squinted at the horizon of stone and sky. Stop shooting at us, Blaze said. 
State your business, the voice said. Blaze sucked air and looked at Dante. Dante pushed out his lip and shrugged. A critical error of preparation, Blaze murmured. Dante nodded. Um... Another arrow hissed over their heads and tinked off a wall somewhere behind them. State your business in Narashtavik or join the others on this wall, the voice called out, and Dante took a step back as he re-examined the grey things stuck from the spears along its top. What was wrong with mankind? Got it, Dante said to Blaze, then raised his voice and tipped his face toward where he thought the guard was emplaced. We're pilgrims of the South. We've come to pay homage to Aron in the city that is his most holy. Aron? Blaze hissed. Are you trying to get us killed? Dante waited, sucking breath through his teeth. No more arrows creased the air. The walls stood silent. What should I have said? He whispered to Blaze. Were merchants here to sell our invisible wagons of riches? I didn't hear you brimming with suggestions. What about all those great lies Robert came up with? At least they've stopped trying to kill us. Unless they're on the way down so they can get their hands involved. What are your names? The voice said, and the two boys jumped. John Girdle and Bob Oxman, Blaze called before Dante could give their real ones. Him being John, of course. What kind of names are those? Dante whispered. What kind of names are those? The voice shouted. The ones our fathers gave us, Blaze roared back. He was met with more silence. The breeze ruffled the needles of the pines, the refuse in the streets. Very well, John Girdle and Bob Oxman, the voice said at last. You may enter. The sermon of Samarand will be at noon, three days from now. The boys looked at each other. Dante cupped his hands to his mouth. Where exactly? The Cathedral of Ivars, the voice said slowly. Where did you say you were from? The South, Blaze said. Indeed, the voice said. Enter then. They grabbed the reins of their horses and walked them forward. Dante kept his eyes on the part of the wall where the man had spoken from until the stone cast its shadow on them, and they stepped into the next circle of the city. He glanced toward Blaze as they made their way up the road and into the company of others. John Girdle and Bob Oxman, indeed. What if the gatekeeper hadn't let them pass? What would they have done then? Would they have died in the street among the filth and the ruin? It was a strange world, he thought a horrible one, an ongoing rush of violence and confusion where no place felt like home. The wrong words could make his stomach churn with loathing for his failure, could make others move to strike him down. Where did Blaze find his bluster? For all his own mind had opened since he'd found the book, the only moments that didn't feel like a test that found him wanting were when he was reading or when he'd said something to make Blaze laugh. What was the rest of it? the running from those who would kill them, the riding to this city for the one they would kill. And if they managed to make that so, 
Would anything be different once Samarand was dead? Wouldn't he always feel this way? Wouldn't he always be worried to the nub of his nerves by the memories of the foolish things he'd said, the times he'd tried and come up short, the moments he'd reached within himself and found he didn't have the strength to act at all? She's here, he said, staring dumbly at the space between his horse's ears. Where? Blaze said, hand snapping to his sword. I mean, in the city. Didn't we know that already? Not for certain, did we? Blaze screwed up his face. I thought you and Callie were certain she was here. I thought that's why we decided to ride a million miles to get here. Are you saying we could have come all this way and had to turn right back around? No, Dante said, slowing as they reached an intersection with another broad avenue. Well, yes. You son of a bitch. All's well that ends well, right? He was about to make fun of Blazer's concerns some more, but was suddenly too busy collecting his jobbed drawer. Do you see that? Blaze followed his finger. See what? That you haven't washed your finger in five years? That's a temple of Aron, Dante said, pointing down the street at the white trees standing in relief above the double doors on the face of a tall, spired structure missing most of its roof and pitted with wear on its walls. Fine-boned gargoyles stood watch on its eaves. So? I thought this was their capital. Out in the open like that. It looks hundreds of years old. It would have been burnt down a dozen different times back in Bressel. Glaze made a smacking sound with his lips, then just sighed instead. I suppose you want to look inside. Hells, yes I do, Dante said. All the dread he'd felt toward himself and his surroundings a minute earlier lifted like a fever dream. What was this place? Should we just put these horses in our pockets? What? Oh. Dante glanced around the square. The couple of men on about their business. The dark windowed faces of steep-roofed buildings. Let's just stash them behind someplace empty. It still looks pretty clear. Blaze snorted. Thieves are like roaches. Everything looks clear to the moment they're running off with your food. Then we'll steal someone else's horses later, Dante said. Just carry anything you can't replace. Don't forget your blankie. And just leave our mounts for the first guy with an eye for easy money. Yes, we're in the city now. They're practically a burden. Oh, what should we do with the horses? Should we stable them? When did we last pay the groomsmen? Should we just tie them up? What if someone robs us? The horror! Oh, if only we didn't have these horses. Dante stopped waving his hands around. You see? But I like them, Blaze said, patting his horse's neck. There's a time to let things go, Dante said. He turned his horse down a narrow road, and they wandered a while in the rows of mostly whole buildings lined against the city wall. He chose one that looked particularly abandoned. The trash looked old and grey, no boot prints in the yard, no smoke from the chimney, or any of the other holes in the roof, and they tied their horses to a pine sapling that had shot up through the front stoop. Dante led Blaze back toward the temple, 
orienting himself by the wall behind him and the cluster of spires toward the city's center. The door creaked like the planks of a ship, but opened easily enough. Weak sunlight diffused through the broken and shutterless windows. The ground floor was filth. Apple cores and chicken bones and eye-wild potatoes and small moldering piles that may have been edible a year or five ago, or, judging by the smell, may already have been eaten once. Clouds of crumpled paper sat in front of the fireplace of the front hall. Dante smoothed one against his knee. The alphabet was foreign, but he knew enough to know the name of Aron when he saw it. They stepped carefully past the refuse to the back rooms beyond the mostly empty Great Hall and found more of the same. Clearly the temple had been used more recently for the housing of the penniless than as a home of the god. A wooden staircase, missing only a few slats, rose to the second floor. Dante tested its footing, keeping close to where the steps met the wall. They squeaked like cancerous rats. Blaze followed him up, face tight, spitting curses each time the boards popped or groaned. We could have found these same wondrous treasures out in the gutters, you know. But not this, Dante said, crossing the landing to a bookshelf behind some smashed-up tables. Three quarters empty, and when he picked up what works were left, most of them sloughed rotten pages over his feet, or dangled as empty covers, the leaves stolen for starting fires or far less dignified ends. A handful of intact and legible volumes remained, however, and three of those were even in a language he could read. He wedged them into his pack and turned in a circle, looking out on the dust and the kipple. Let's try the spires. Let's, Blaze agreed, much too enthusiastically, but he tailed Dante up the solid stone stairs they found at the far rear of the temple. The only things left in the upper floors were a number of plain iron candelabras and horn-hewn statuettes, a lot of wood chips, and a few axe-scarred tables which had evidently been too much trouble to haul downstairs and burn. Dante picked up a thumb-sized carved imp and handed it to Blaze. Here, he'll ward away your troubles. Blaze held it up in Dante's face and frowned. He held it beside his ear, shook it. It's not working. Funny, Dante said. The temple had long since been scoured of nearly everything that could be sold or set on fire, and they finished their search within minutes and re-entered the street. The horses hadn't been stolen from where they'd tied them in front of the old house by the wall, and finding the premises no less dirty than the streets and far cleaner than the temple or either of the house's neighboring edifices, the boys settled in. The sun was just saying hello to the western horizon. Dante lit a couple candles looted from the temple and set them at either end of the house's main room. That is, the only other room besides the one the front door opened on. We should find the Cathedral of Ivars tomorrow, he said, easing himself to the floor. He rocked back and forth on the hardwood. Feels weird not to have bumps beneath your ass. Blaze gave him a look, then moved on. Going to be a lot of people. I get the impression we weren't the first pilgrims the gatekeeper'd seen. 
I'm just saying, we know she'll be there. We should see if it's an option. I doubt it'll be a good one. Thus, the scouting. Dante exhaled hard. It can't hurt to look. Maybe it'll be perfect. Blaze shrugged. Let's not be in some big hurry to make it the first option. I'd prefer to leave here on my feet than on my back. Dante got out one of the books he'd found in the old church. Its cover bore the inky silhouette of a man holding out his hand to a rat. It's going to be a risk no matter how we do it. There are risks and there are risks, Blaze said, wandering around the far side of the room. He slipped a finger under one of the slats nailed over the window and gave an exploratory tug. You know. I know, Dante said. But three days from then, they'd be looking on Samarand with their own eyes. Whatever risks it carried, whatever else it would mean for his other goal within the City of the Dead, the opportunity would be there. And if it looked right, they'd be fools not to take it. We'll see how things look tomorrow. Through force of habit, they were up well before the sun. Dante rose first and lit a candle in the other room, and skimmed the new additions to his library. The first was a sort of rebuttal to the cycle, fleshing out historical detail of its major figures, and often diverging into windy lectures about the way its theology failed to account for the fundamental and contradictory truths of Menoch and Carvajal. Its penultimate chapter purported to examine the final third of the cycle of Oron, the part written in ancient Narashtavik, and Dante plunged into it with a pounding heart. But after a dozen odd pages, Dante found it scarce on actual references and long on opinion. Fascinating to the author's scholarly circle, Dante was certain, and would perhaps have been of interest to him if he'd first been familiar with the source material, but for the meantime, infinitely boring. The second tome, the one with the man and the rat on its cover, was, as anyone could have guessed, a slim volume devoted entirely to Jack Hand. A lucky find, but irrelevant to its present purpose. He smiled and set it aside. The third told the tale of the two-part war, what later became known as the Second Scour. Dante's knowledge of that time was hazy at best, and he read until Blaze woke, absorbing the tale of Malon's ill-fated crusade four hundred years ago through the Dundons into Gask, where hard winters had regularly left their forces underarmed and poorly fed, weakening them until they'd been in no condition to drive out the Gascon counterthrust to the northeast territories, which had menaced the neighboring lands until King Saal I had been forced to sign treaty, granting Iran's faithful, in all Malon, freedom of worship. A treaty that had been broken eight years later, when the other houses declared they could no longer stand for such blasphemy in their homeland. Sleep had mostly dried away the sunken mood Dante'd entered after their encounter with the arrow-firing gatekeeper, and as he read, the last of his depression burned away, leaving his mind light and swift, renewed under the warm glare of written words. But for Dante's finds, interesting as they were, he was yet no closer to understanding the remainder of the cycle than when they'd left Shea. Somewhere in this city, he had to find the key.
They ate a cold breakfast and decided to venture out on foot, reasoning the horses might command respect, but they'd command double that in attention. Dante was certain the Aronites were still searching for him, but was fairly convinced they'd lost his trail and didn't know how to get it back. He doubted they had anything more than a vague description of his appearance and wanted to give no watchers any reason to look his way twice. After twenty minutes of aimless walking and another thirty of fruitless attempts to get directions from other pedestrians, Dante was considering heading back for the horses, if only so the next time his malish words were met with a sneer, he could just trample the offender to death. Finally, they lounged in an unused doorway on one of the busier streets and tried to look undisturbably dangerous till they heard words they could understand. They fell on the two men who'd spoken their language, swords swinging from their belts, maneuvering themselves between the men and the open street. I swear I'll run the next man through who brushes us off, Blaze muttered loudly as they approached. Pardon me, but are you able to direct us to the Cathedral of Ivars? Dante said to the pair, tilting back his head and shooting for an air of ironic embarrassment. Easily, the taller of the two said, glancing between the road-worn faces of the boys. Follow the road through the inn gate, then make straight for the citadel. The cathedral will be the rather large thing across from its gates. He considered the cluster of structures towards the middle of the city. In fact, you can see its spire there, he said, pointing over the roofs to the titanic arm of a steeple standing across from what appeared to be a single enormous block of grey stone. The structures were a couple miles away, faint through the smoke and the early morning haze of the bay, but indisputable, the clear heart of Narashtovic. I see, Dante said. Oh, thanks, kind sirs, Blaze said. Right, Dante said. We'd been warned of the aloofness of this city, but hadn't warranted it would extend to the honest faithful. Indeed, the shorter man said, eyes flicking down their shabby clothing and unkempt faces. You've traveled far. From Bressel by the Aster Sea, Dante said. The two men raised their eyebrows. Dante licked his lips. But we left it months ago, and now we have a couple miles still to travel, it seems. Good day. I told you, Blaze said once they'd headed up the street. We had no way to know that, Dante said. It's the tallest thing in town. And if we'd guessed wrong, we might have spent so long wandering we'd missed the sermon. That's right, we'd be wandering for two days. Dante glanced toward the cathedral and citadel, whenever their great heights could be seen above the clutter of the streets. He had the unpleasant suspicion the clergy of Aron didn't limit their control of the city to its finest church. Things got louder, busier, and fouler the further they travelled toward the city centre. They walked through a decent number of poorly dressed people speaking two or three different tongues, and gazing up at the ruin and age like all newcomers to a major city, but despite the pilgrims' presence and the locals hurrying on about their business, it felt less alive than a place as middling as Wetton or the Gascon town they'd stopped in along the way. They made good time through the modest traffic, 
reaching what the man had called the in-gate within a half-hour. Four men bearing pikes twice their height and dark-plumed helmets flanked the gate to the next ring of the city. The last set of walls besides the citadel itself. The guards' eyes tracked the comers and goers with the alert boredom of those used to standing on the same square yard of street all day. Dante and Blaze settled against a nearby building to share a drink of water and watch the people pass. For no reason they could see, half the company peeled from their post and stopped a dirt-smeared man on his way through the gate. They spoke in the garrulous local language, voices pitching up, and then the guards flung down their pikes and dropped the man in a flurry of punches. They picked up his unconscious body by the armpits and dragged him through an iron-banded door set into the stonework beside the gates. Abrupt shifts in the grey of the stone betrayed where attackers had successfully bombarded them down, but in contrast to the earlier walls, these ones were unbroken, unadorned by the heads and quarters of criminals and the unwelcome, clean from moss and lichen. These walls looked like the rock on which the enemy waters would break. When Dante crossed beneath them, sharp eyes meeting those of the pikemen, the city within the tight circle of the Ingate looked whole, as prosperous and peopled and mighty as the noble quarters of Bressel. At its center, no more than a quarter-mile distant, the sheer smooth walls of the citadel dwarfed all but the spire of the cathedral. It had once been a palace, Dante knew, the ancient capital, but now it looked more like a castle. Narrow slits were placed along its curtain walls, and the towers they connected. Among the crenels he saw the far-off shapes of men, standing watch on what lay below. Now that is a big building, Blaze said, letting himself look impressed. What do you want to bet it's where Samarand calls home? I don't know. My life? Dante snorted. They strode down the street. Men with half a foot in height on them shuffled out of their way without seeming to know why they were moving. They turned another corner, and before Dante looked up, he thought he could sense the vast weight of stone pressing on him with greater force than the rocky walls of the mountains had. He lifted his eyes. They'd found it. To his right, the keep. To his left, the church. The Cathedral of Ivars was built with clean lines and elegant swoops that made the intricate buttresses and delicate arches of the great churches of Bressel look like an unshaven man in a dress. For a full minute they gazed at the charcoal-hued stones spearing up into the sky. Two thick towers flanked a central one, whose flattish face seemed sewn together by a series of vertical lines standing out from the stonework. From the gigantic block of the body of the church, the main spire was stacked in three discrete levels, two of them squarish, the second somewhat narrower than the one beneath it, and crowning them, reaching so high as to stab the stars, a conical tower of dizzying steepness. At its apex, Dante saw a plain ring of steel, the icon he'd come to know as a Rons. I think I need to sit down, Blaze said, falling back a step. 
arm held out behind him for balance. My God, Dante said. He fought the desire to fall to his knees. That must be... That is really, really tall. Five hundred feet, Dante guessed. I've got no God's damn clue. Higher than the Odellian of Bressel. That's 366. By a lot, Blaze said. He lowered his gaze and shook his head. Nobody was paying them much mind, Dante saw. A few others were standing on the far side of the street, trying to catch the cathedral's full perspective. Others filed in and out from its great doors, eyes downcast, speaking softly, if at all. Let's go inside. What? Blaze said. Just walk right in. I think it's okay, Dante said, jerking his chin at the others. They don't look any cleaner than we do. But what if Aron knows? Dante frowned at him, then led them up its steps and to the double doors. Ten feet high and five inches thick, but they swung easily, noiselessly. Dante followed a couple other pilgrims through the foyer, and then they were in its main chamber. Captured space soared above them. The ceiling arched like the keel of an upside-down boat, or like the ribcage of Fanon's Leviathan. It was the single largest room Dante had ever seen. At its far end was a richly draped dais, a red pedestal and a number of metal trappings gleaming brightly in the light through the shadow-cut glass windows and hundreds of candles lining each wall. The front half of the room was consumed by row on row of benches, their wood stained as dark as silt. Between where they stood and where the benches began lay a clean floor of creamy stone, tiled with the twelve-part circle of the celeset. Recessed alcoves along the walls sheltered icons and minor shrines to the prophets of Aron. All that space looked empty as the air beyond a cliff. But there must have been eight guards and forty pilgrims in the main chamber, lighting prayer candles in the alcoves, kneeling before the altar, standing near the room's edges with their hands over their mouths, and eyes drifting across the wings of the ceiling. Awfully wide open, Blaze said. With small gestures, Dante mimed sighting down an arrow shaft and letting fly toward the altar. He raised his eyebrows at Blaze who shook his head. I don't know. Imagine it packed, Dante said. With soldiers, maybe. Dante headed over to one of the walls. Footsteps and coughing echoed from front to back, but as long as they kept their voices to a murmur, he didn't think their words would carry. He contemplated an alcove presenting a three-foot statue of a holy man he didn't recognize, a work of thickly impressionistic muscles and blunt features, its clean lines mirrored the greater build of the cathedral. Could take cover in one of these, he said, nearer the front. I'm guessing those benches aren't intended for the huddled masses, might not be able to get too close. Dante nodded, trying to gauge the distance from alcove to altar. It was a ways. Somehow it was harder to guess indoors, inside a building where a full-grown man had no more presence than a mouse. How's your archery? Dante said. Shitty. That much better than mine, 
Dante sighted in on a couple of decently dressed men standing in front of the main altar. He couldn't tell one from the other. He and Blaze would have to be closer to stand any good chance of landing an arrow, if they could even get the bow through the door. If they had a straight line of sight, which was doubtful when the crowds filled the place up, and the closer they got for the purpose of improving their chances of a true strike, the further they'd be from the doors that would let them outside. No, won't work. Spell? Blaze said, catching his eye. Not sure my range is any better. Dante rubbed his eyes, trying to remember the furthest he'd fired the nether. The tree in the graveyard in Wetton, probably. And that'd been barely half the distance they may need. They had two days yet till the Sermon of Samarand. They could return to the wilds to let him test and flex the reach of his mind, but such an attack would rest on a full foundation of assumptions. Was this sanctuary warded against hostile employment of the Nether? For that matter, was there any such thing as wards? Samaran's priests, would they be as wary for otherworldly assaults as the pikemen would be for those of steel? I'm thinking this isn't the place. I'm rather doubting that castle outside would be any easier. Dante bit his lips between his teeth. She'll have to walk here and back from it. Blaze huffed, the puff of air ringing from the walls. He lifted his eyes and lowered his voice. From just across the street? Dante nodded. There'll be crowds, confusion, and probably no more than a minute when she's in the open. Not much time for the right moment. You know, this was never that hard all the other times. Not counting all the times we were nearly killed, Blaze said, eyes full of scorn. Can we go back outside? Talking about this in here is creeping me out. Yeah. Gods, it's beautiful. They left its hushed shelter for the bright daylight and the relative roar of the babble of pedestrians. Across the way, the citadel stood as solid as if it had been carved straight from a hillock. We'll get here early, Dante said. His voice wasn't yet back to a normal level. Watch how she comes in. They'll probably follow the same route back. Blaze bit his pinky nail, spattered into the street. How is it, he said, staring at the battlements, the flags snapping in a wind they barely felt at ground level. They seem to know our every move when we're 1,200 miles away, but here we are close enough to piss through their bedroom window and we're free as an eagle. Probably they don't recognize you with your hair down in your eyes, Dante said, not to mention that stupid beard. Yours is so much better. Looks like you sewed a rat's tail to your lip. Rat's tails are hairless. Well, imagine they're not. Two days, Dante said. Blaze bit another nail. Only if it looks good. Maybe the whole city's lit up with the stuff of the book, Dante said. It'd be like trying to find a lantern held in front of the sun. Blaze wrinkled his brow. Are you basing that on anything at all? 
Well, it would make sense. You're an idiot. Nobody's come through that gate the whole time we've been here, Dante said, nodding at the closed doors and the front side of the citadel's walls. Do you think that's odd? Oh, yeah. When I was growing up in our castle back home, we let people in and out all the time. The walls were just to impress the neighbors. I mean, you don't need to keep them closed all the time when you've got all those soldiers. You'd think we'd at least have seen someone carrying food in or garbage out, or couriers waving letters around so we can see how important they are. There hasn't been a thing. Closed, in the middle of the day. Yeah, Blaze said, folding his arms. It is a little odd. I'm going to ask someone, Dante said, straining his ears for the sound of their native language. What? What did Robert tell you about questions? Suddenly you're on his side. Just because he's a prick doesn't make him wrong. Excuse me, Dante said, flagging down someone who wasn't dressed in fur. Excuse me. He put a hand on the man's shoulder. The man spun, face dark, but his eyes went guarded when he met Dante's. Can you tell me why the Citadel's gates are closed midday? No one goes in, the man said in a thick accent. Ever? Ever. No one? The man rolled his eyes. Priests go in, no one else. That's why they call it the Sealed Citadel. Ah, Dante said. I thought that was just an expression. No, this is an expression, the man said, following up with something obscene. He walked away. Did you hear that? Dante said to Blaze. Yes, but I think you'd break your back before you reached it. About the citadel. Yeah. Blaze tipped his head at the high walls. So what? So? We can't get in. We might just have this one shot at Samarand. Yeah, and maybe she'll recant her wicked ways and off herself before we have to do it for her. Blaze's mouth twitched. His brows drew together, creasing the skin between and above them. At that moment, he no longer looked in any way young. There's no way we can know until the moment comes. Let's not talk about it till then. Chapter 13 Instead of talking, they prepared. The next day Dante sold the horses, reasoning it was better to take whatever they could get now than to get nothing when they were stolen. In his haste, he received perhaps a third their worth, and in coin noticeably blacker and irregular than the malish chucks that had been minted within his lifetime, but to him it seemed a fortune, a rogue's retirement in the coin of the realm. They blew half of it on clothes, on fur-lined black cloaks and gloves, on unpatched trousers and the padded doublets of the high-collared fashion popular in the rank of Narashtovic. Dante chose red, blaze a deep pine green. No one would mistake them for princes, but neither would they any longer be indistinguishable from the gutter sewage. They found a barber, were shorn of their wispy beards, and had their shaggy hair shortened and straightened. In the clean sunlight of the street, Blaze brushed stray hair from the back of his neck, a strange smile on his face. I feel like a jacketed ape, he said. We look like traders, 
Dante said, feeling the weight of the coins in his pocket. Maybe even minor nobles. They won't turn us away. They walked around the city till long after dark, not yet ready to forfeit the long hours to sleep. At last, legs weary from the trip to market and back to the cathedral and two circles around the sealed citadel and a trip to a public house, they returned to the home they'd made inside the first wall and stretched out on a pile of their old clothes and blankets. I wonder how Gabe fared, Blaze said, into the quiet and the darkness. I bet he turned that monastery into a fortress. And the knighted monks? Why not? Picture it, Blaze said. He laughed through his nose. Those bony old men sallying forth on goatback, waving butcher knives and rakes. The rebels don't stand a chance, Dante chuckled. They were silent for a while. He'll be fine, he said, mind on all the weeks that had gone by since they'd last seen him. And the Southlands had been under threat of fire when they'd left that world behind. We'll see to that. In the ethereal dawn hours before Samaran's sermon, they walked to the bay at the north edge of the city and gazed out at the subdued waters of the northern sea. Grey, brackish on the breeze, calmed by the sandbars at the bay's mouth and the arms of land to either side. How many men can say they've seen both this and the aster? Blaze said, kicking rocks through the fine dirt on the beach. I'm glad we came, Dante said, uncertain what he meant. The sun struggled against the mists of the waters, cloaked and concealed. He wished he could have watched it rise one last time. They arrived some three hours before the sermon. Already the streets were thick with people. Men in rags with strips of burlap tied around their feet, men in finery to shame Dante and Blaze's new clothes, passels of boisterous merchants whose rings shone in the sunlight. Norin loomed above the crowd like the Cathedral of Ivars above the dead city. Dante shifted the sword at his belt. Robert's warning about the curiosity of foreigners had cowed him into asking no questions about the legality of bearing arms in this place, but they'd seen many men in the streets who wore blades without worry, including men of obvious lowness and poverty. And this day was no different. He supposed a couple thousand years of constant invasion had made lax the laws of arms so strict in Bressel. Dante's nerves felt as tight as the morning before the execution that wasn't. He sipped often from his water skin, and halfway wished he had something stronger. The boys spoke little, eyes on the crowds, eyes on the men standing post on the walls above the keep's great gate. An hour before noon they entered the cathedral. Half full already, and still the streets were packed. They returned outdoors, restless and beware, ambling down the broad way. They leaned against the side of the thick wall of the house of some noble estate. The shield above its gate wore the black and white of Barden, and the same spiral horns Dante still wore around his neck. He'd seen other men wearing them, too, men dressed in the plain and frillless clothes of traders, who profit too little to ever stop for festivals and feasts, but he had no idea what the horns meant to those who saw them, 
whether they were doing him any good to wear them. Noon came. The bells of the cathedral pealed for three full minutes. The crowd quieted, then heaved with the volatile energy of anticipation, eyes on the silent gates. The last bell rang and wavered in the cold, crisp air. One moment slipped by, then another. The groan of ropes and clank of chains cut through the babble. They hushed as if commanded by the earth itself. Guards emerged from a small door by the gate and helped guide the huge gates apart. Behind them, a grill of iron bands as thick as Dante's arm lifted a final foot and locked into place. A stream of footmen bearing swords and short pikes and dressed in the black and silver of the Watch of Narashtovic, marched from the walls of the citadel to the street, carving an open lane to the doors of the church. They assembled two solid lines, arms presented, chins lifted, heads held immobile, as a small retinue of fancy-dressed men and clergy in soft, thick-folded robes entered into the open space. A chant thrummed through the silence a foreign song shot through with grace and loss and renewal. Dante stood on his toes, and at the center of the procession he saw a woman in a silver-trimmed black robe that clung to the swing of her arms and the sweep of her legs. Her open face was aged, but not worn. Rather than the crumbling edifice of something that had once been grand— her features looked like the accumulation of a strength that could only be built through long years, the way a cathedral, as eternal as Ivar's, could only be built by two or three or five generations of architects devoting their lives to its completion. A single black braid ran down her back. Dante heard Blaze draw his breath. Her name rippled through the crowd. Straight from the keep, Blaze said, low. Dante nodded. Right out in the open. The men from the keep moved with formal deliberance. None looked younger than forty, most much older, bearing varying degrees of beardedness and baldness, walking on knees and hips stiffened by the clutch of time. A single Norrin walked with them with ponderous strides. Ninety seconds spent crossing the street, no more, and then they walked through the same cathedral doors as everyone else would. When the last priest had disappeared from the street, the castle guard turned as one and filed back through the citadel gates, leaving behind a small detachment of troops, half of which followed the retinue of clergymen within, while the other half split itself to posts on either side of the church doors. The crowd woke from the spell of having looked on something holy and piled up through the doors. Elbows jostled Dante's ribs and back. Blaze clung to the back of his cloak to keep from being separated. They squeezed inside, and after that crush of people, the soaring interior of the cathedral felt as open as the head of a hill. Seated to either side of the dais at the great hall's rear were the monks and priests of Samaran's detachment. She was nowhere to be seen, though through the close-pressed masses and the shaggy heads of Norrin and the faint smoke of candles and braziers, she could have been standing at Dante's shoulder without him having the wits to notice. 
By habit and instinct as deeply felt as the drive that calls sea salmon to take the rivers and streams of their birth, the men with fine dress and tongue-tripping titles had settled in the benches at the front, and like striations of rock the boys had seen in the shelves of the Dundon Mountains, the men and women who filled the temple grew progressively grubbier the closer they got to the front doors. Blaze said something Dante couldn't catch. He tugged Dante's cloak, and they slipped off to the right, cutting through the relatively loose crowds that filled the space between the solid clumps of men lining the alcoves and the clustered masses toward the church's center. After a minute of rubbed shoulders and dirty looks, the fresh clothes matched those of the men around them. They stopped roughly two-thirds of the way toward the altar, perhaps eighty feet from where Samarand would speak. It would have been impossible to fire a bow within these person-choked confines. Blaze leaned toward Dante's ear. So this is the part where they make us wait to remind us just who Aran loves most, right? Lots of guards out front. Dante said. A lot of crowd, too. That could help. Yeah. Dante rested his hand on the pommel of his sword and wondered how many priests up on that altar could channel the nether. He could sense it, he thought. Power like a gaping chasm. When he narrowed his eyes, he thought he could see the shadows hovering around them. Perhaps it was just his eyelashes. He giggled, covered his mouth. Seconds birthed and died as the masses waited, and he found himself strangely awed by the precision of time, ever-evolving, matched with the undeviating courses of the sun and the moon, and the five roving planets, and the backdrop of the stars. Perhaps these believers were right. Something so regular could only exist through the glory of the gods of the Celeset. The crowd inhaled as one. There she was, alone at the center of the dais, materializing as if she'd always been there. Her hands were folded in front of her stomach. Despite her robes, Dante could tell she was a thinnish woman, possessing no more body than was necessary for the discharge of her responsibilities. He had a clearer look at her face, both plain as a farmer's wife and unadornedly magnificent as the standing stones of the long-dead people they'd seen in the hills on the northern side of the mountains. It held no arrogance, however, none of the severe lines of austerity that should come with the isolation of her holiest stature. "'Welcome, travellers,' she said into the light buzz of voices. Her voice spread through the acoustics without echo. The people fell utterly silent. Welcome to this place and to this time. Many of you have come from distant lands, cities and hamlets I couldn't pronounce. She gave a wide smile, then let her face grow sober. Let us first offer prayer to any who may have left this world along their way. It's a cold season, a dark time. Though we see the promise of dawn, and will soon feel the warmth of the sun. Not everyone who stepped out on the path toward that sliver of sunrise now plants their feet inside this cathedral. They are honored, 
but not grieved on, for they are with Aron now, culled back to the form from which we all sprung. Let us remember the years they spent among us in this world. The people bowed their heads as one. A couple of coughs broke the stillness, but no one spoke. Blaze leaned in toward Dante again, whispered so softly he could barely hear it. She's speaking malish. Dante opened his mouth to offer some insult, then stopped. He hadn't thought about what language Samarand would choose in this swapped-up place, or how they'd hoped to understand her, assuming she chose Gaskin. But she spoke clearly, and without accent. There had been a kind of hum to her words, though, an undertone which couldn't be explained by any special architecture of the church. It was as if she spoke through a vibrant fog that cleansed her words, even as it enshrouded them. A trick of the nether, perhaps. Dante shook his head, shrugged. Thank you, she said softly. May they find peace in the kingdom beyond our own. She gazed out over the crowd, letting long seconds speak of her contemplation. These times are indeed troubled. It's easy to forget we're not alone in our strife and struggle, that our fathers and mothers, and their mothers and fathers, saw troubles every touch as serious as our own. It's been that way as long as our city, and indeed the race of man, can remember. There is a story I've heard that speaks to this, from a place very far from here and from a time that's beyond the memory of any of our long lines, about a young man named Ben. She paced forward on the dais, gave her head a little tilt, spent a moment examining the mathematical beauty of the arch of the ceiling. Ben was the second of the eleven sons of an old and clearly well-loved man, a miller who'd lived on the banks of the same river all his years. For all his heart, his home was humble, and as his sons came of age, he could no longer support them all in its modest walls. When the last of them reached the age of fifteen, he gathered them in the yard, for none of his simple rooms could contain them all, and said to them as follows, I've been your father for many years, and I've done what I can to see you never want for food or shelter. But now I'm old, and you are young, and it's time for you to become men of your own right. Go out into the world. Make your fortune. Return here in seven years' time so we may share your joys, for I know all of you will grow to be fine and honest men. His sons nodded, and they embraced and went their separate ways. The years passed, and it was as their father had said. They prospered, found the love of wives and the respect of men. At seven years, they ventured back to their home, families in tow, to rejoin their father and support him as he had once supported them. The father and his sons wept openly when they all were back in one roof. They built a grand house around the old, 
one to keep them all in warmth and safety, and after the final hammer stroke, they gathered in its airy kitchen to toast each other and tell the stories of their seven years apart. All of you are healthy, wise, rich, he said. Though Ben, in his unclean robes, showed no wealth of coin and possessed no more than the clothes on his back and a sad-eyed black hound. Tell me, what have you become, my sons, and how you've made your way in this world? I have become an armsman, strong of arm and stout of heart, said the eldest. I am a farmer a man of wide fields and sweet grain, said the third son. I am a harlequin of the king's own court, said the fourth, and every time he calls me, my tricks lift the clouds from his brow and lift his heart to rule with the wisdom of the gods. And so they went through the line, each telling the story of his wealth and place, until, at last, only Ben remained, Second son Ben, swathed in his simple robes and unshod feet. And what wealth may you share, Ben? the father said. I am a monk, he said. I have no temple, no mass or brotherhood to call my own, and I live only through the charity of alms. But I am at peace and perhaps I can bring that to my brothers and my father. The father smiled and again embraced his sons. But the others looked askance at Ben, lone among them who would have no place in the gardens of the nobles. Samarand paused her story and drank from a plain copper cup. She smiled out on the people. For the first time, Dante thought he saw a crease of skin beneath her eyes. And so the brothers lived together as they'd done while young. The armsmen kept their fields free of bandits. The farmer fed them each meal. The harlequin made them laugh and clap each eve. All shared their gift and talent. Even Ben, silent Ben, would tell them stories of the gods and their prophets when asked. And for a time, they did live in peace. But as with all men who don't understand those whose joy comes from a different source, in time the brothers grew resentful and jealous. Ben swings no sword, the armsman said. Why should I protect him from the thieves? Ben grinds no bread, the farmer said. Why should I feed him of my harvest? Ben knows no dances, the harlequin said. Why should I pass his long hours with mine? And so they decided to cast Ben from their house. The father tried to argue, saying Ben was of their blood. He was wise as any, but he was old and couldn't stand against these ten sons. And so they took Ben up, breaking his fingers when he tried to hold fast to the doorway of the house, and they cast him on the street with his dog, penniless as the day he'd returned. Ben grieved for the loss of his brothers and his father, but he told what he'd learned to the beggars and the vagabonds, and they shared their bread.
He preached in the street, and the people came to hear his words, until no traffic could pass that throng in the square, and still the crowds grew larger. A year from when he'd been cast out, the people of the town came together and built him a temple, a proud, simple shrine of stone to hold his flock and hear the things he'd learned in his years and travels. Twice, each week, Ben spoke his sermons, and in those times he smiled to see the joy he brought to those who'd listened. The brothers heard of this temple, came to town to see it. It was simple enough, but beautiful in its way, and when they looked on it, the shame of what they'd done to Ben burned inside their hearts. Instead of coming to him with open arms, they clustered together in angry words, and that night they came upon the temple and burnt out its roof and smashed down its walls with great golden hammers in defiance of the success Ben had earned. When Ben saw what they'd wrought, he wept. Not for the temple. Temples can be rebuilt. Not for himself. He knew the permanence of his temple had been an illusion, and that, though it had been built for him, it was in no way his. He wept for his brothers. He wept for the anger that had turned them from joy. He wept for what he knew was next to come. For the townsfolk came to Ben and cried out at the sight of the ruins, of what they'd built. Who did this? they said. And Ben, who in his virtue told no lies, answered them, My brothers. He tried to salve their anger, to tell them this was an earthly matter, that more stone could always be dug from the ground and set in place. His words fell on ears deafened by righteous rage. The crowd marched upon the house of the brothers and drove them out. They put the fine house to the torch and the brothers to the sword. The flames of their destruction cast long shadows on the town. They spared the father, the old man, and with damp cheeks and beard, he walked from that place forever, taking with him Ben's black dog. Samarant paused to smile forlornly, and from his distance Dante saw Ben's terrible sadness reflected in her eyes. In time they built a new temple. Its spire kissed the heavens. It was more beautiful than the first. They brought Ben to it and said unto him, We are sorry for the fate we brought your brothers, but they tore down what we put up. Ben looked at them and nodded. I do not condemn you, he said. There was no right in what they did. Then we did right to burn their house, to plant them in the earth, the people said. No, Ben said, and he held up his hands for silence. I do not condemn you, but do not mistake vengeance for justice. The gods 
look on us all with sorrow, for truly we have forgotten the harmony of their sphere. The people bowed their heads. Ben returned to his sermons, and the people returned to his temple. He spoke with joy and with righteous visage, and never again let the townsfolk see the sadness that had stolen his heart. Samarand sighed. She stepped down from the altar and paced its steps, meeting the eyes of the barons, the ship's captains, the farmers, the docksmen, the landed gentry, the wandering vagabonds. She turned her back on the assembly and stepped back up to her place at the altar's peak. A few men coughed, muffling their weakness in their hands and cloaks. She let a minute go by before turning her plain face back toward their sight. The jealousy of men finds us all. The men of the South and the East, even some of our brothers and neighbors in our own land of Gask, they look on what we do, and they mistake piety for threat. Who is Aron? He takes us all, this much is true, but he does not seek nor want our end. He takes us in his time, and when he does, he welcomes us to his fields in the stars. Still, we strive for Ben's virtue, his patience. We try to make his peaceful compassion our own. We try not to blame our brothers for the wrongs they do us. After all, they are our brothers. I've been to a dozen lands and I see the same faces here as any corner of the earth. Look around you. Go ahead. Thousands of faces turned and met each other. Samarand met men's eyes and nodded. I see the same men and women, sons and mothers, uncles and sisters as anywhere else. Are we so fearsome, so foreign, such a menace to the ordered world? Maybe we are. Our brothers think so. When they see our temples, they look upon their own mortality. When they hear our scripture, they hear the bells that toll for their souls. When we speak our truths, we speak of things that trivialize the weight in their purse, the bounty of their soil, the flash of their brooches and rings. Still. We want no man's death. We don't even seek to own his mind, which is more than can be said for some orders of the House of the Belt. We want nothing more than a place at the table. In the end, Samaran said, clasping her hands before her, her voice clear and pained in the open air of the great cathedral. Who is to be blamed for the chaos we have seen? Is it our brothers for their failure to understand us? Is it us for having the temerity to raise arms to reclaim those things we would build upon the face of the earth? She pursed her lips, shook her head. Let us seek to be like Ben. Let us take no pleasure in whatever we must do to keep our temples and our faith.
The gods do not smile as we bury our dead. Not even our own wishes a man's blood to fall before his time, no matter what the men of other gods may say. We are not right to take their blood, no matter how wrong they may be to make us take it. Remember that. Whatever we must do, they are our brothers. They are our brothers. When they die, we must weep. We must be like Ben. Live this earth. Live this earth, the crowd responded, and this time Dante heard their words in a mixture of tongues. Samarand nodded simply. She stepped down from the dais and was surrounded by her clergy. For a long while no man spoke nor moved, their minds consumed by the truth of her parable. At last the men on the benches closest to the dais stood to speak to each other, or gaze longer on Saruman's face, where she exchanged words with the others of her order. The standing crowd blinked away their trance, and the singular acoustics of the room dissolved into babble. A general movement toward the front doors began. Let's get outside, Dante said. Get a good spot for her to walk back. Blaze nodded. They forced themselves into the crowd. Dante glanced over his shoulder as he shuffled forward, trying to catch sight of the woman in black and silver. She would be delayed with her duties to recognize the presence of the men of importance who'd attended her sermon and now waited for her in the first rows. The rest of the masses oozed toward the doors, a foot every couple seconds. After a few minutes, the blockage gave way, and the people thinned, and the boys could walk at something near a normal pace. She tells a good story, Blay said. Reconsidering. Pretty words don't change what she's doing down in Malin. Dante nodded. No swords. He glanced around the square, shielding his eyes against the glare of the day after the dim of the church. I may be able to do it unseen. Right. They drifted a short ways from the straight line between church and keep. The square was filled with men just milling about, talking over the speech discussing what they'd do for lunch, a confusion of Gascon and Malish, and a couple other minor tongues Dante couldn't place. The gates to the sealed citadel were open, but blocked by a black mass of guards. They weren't expecting Samaran to be long, then. I wonder how she does that, Dante said. Does what? Reconciles what she's saying with the burning of Wetton? All the things they're doing down there. Blaze rubbed his left eye with the back of his hand. She probably doesn't think she's doing anything wrong. Otherwise she wouldn't be doing it, would she? But it's acting more like the townsfolk than Ben. So? That was just a story. That's just something they say to keep everyone else in line. Yeah. But doesn't it bother her? Dante stared into the space above the heads of all the people. I really think she believes it. It's so hypocritical. Ben's a dream, you dummy. Something to keep little people like us happy and faithful while she's off getting things done. 
She's not moping around worrying over the state of our souls. She's off fitting the worlds like a glove to our hand. Dante looked at Blaze, alarmed. He was supposed to be the clear-eyed one, not Blaze. Blaze was supposed to be breezily unconcerned, unflappable. Something in his speech reminded Dante of the careful passing he imagined Samarand must do to cleave her beliefs to the things she did. How does someone get like that? he said. Blaze shrugged, spat between his feet. We've killed a lot of people to get here. But we had to, Dante said. Blaze only shrugged once more. Dante watched a half-dozen troops march with pikes on shoulders across the square. A few pilgrims continued to trickle from the church doors. No son of the priest. He took a drink of water. Though he could feel the pressure of his blood beating in his veins, his hand was oddly calm. He smelled the stink of the city and its people, the shit and the rot and the sweat, odors his nose had ignored since the day of their arrival. If he concentrated, he could isolate a score of different conversations. The sun shone from the stones of the street and the faces of the buildings. It was a nice day. Did I tell you, Dante said, a grin replacing the brooding on his face. The morning they were set to hang you, I wrote a letter to be read after my death. Blaze's face lifted with laughter. What did it say? I can't remember. Something about how I was off to save my friend and I expected to die in the doing. I'd have traced my middle finger. I wasn't in the best of moods, Dante said, shuffling his feet. That was actually the least hysterical thing I could come up with. Blaze nodded. He rubbed his clean-shaven jaw. What would you say now? Dante thought a moment, giving the question its due. I'd say hello to Callie and Gabe and Robert. That's it. That's it. What would you say? I'd ask them to catapult my body through the roof of a nunnery. You wouldn't, Dante said, wiping cold sweat from his temple. Why not? Blaze yawned into the sunlight. What would you do if a body came crashing through your roof? Scream, right? Get all excited? I'd like to think my last act was to give the sisters a little fun. Shut up, Dante laughed. They spend all day reading holy mumbo-jumbo and squeezing their legs together. Don't tell me they don't deserve a good time. There she is, Dante said, grabbing Blazer's arm. He bumped him toward the cathedral. Men clustered up around the doors and called out to Samarand from the midst of her retinue. She met their wide-eyed gazes with a look of pleased shock. Men called out for blessings, falling to their knees at her feet. She touched their hands and brows, and Dante could see her lips moving. He called out to the shadows, just enough to make sure they were there. They waited, restless and snapping, as if aware of his intent. Samarand waded through the penitent. A number of armed and uniformed guards followed the troop of holy men, but they cleared no path, letting Samarand mingle with the faithful. Dante grasped Blaze's cloak and forced them forward, trying to guess her course. A dozen priests at her side, as many guards, 
Not a chance for a straight fight. He had it then, the plan that had till that moment been so nebulous and abstract. A single dark stab at the woman when she was too close to detect it before it opened her belly, then blend off through the crowd. Simple enough. His ribs felt prickly, like a hill of ants were walking up and down his skin. Samarand made no hurry through the surge of men and women seeking her touch, her words. More pushed forward to fill up the spaces as soon as they opened. She came closer. Men walked away dazed and smiling with parted lips. The process was orderly in a way mobs weren't. Dante pulled his lips from his teeth, turned it into a tight smile to try to match the faces of those around him. He heard the musing tones of Samaran's voice, and then the laughter of men. The priests clasped hands with men in gold-threaded capes and soft-furred cloaks, leaning in to exchange counsel and well-wishes. The knot grew nearer. Thirty feet off now. The eyes of her bodyguards were clear, casting through the men who thronged around her for the glint of daggers or the shadow of nervous faces. Someone bumped into Blaze, and he fastened his fist tight. The boys exchanged a look. Blaze's eyes were flat, cold, ready. Dante imagined his own as their mirror. Samaran smiled, bowed her head to someone's kind words, and Dante remembered all the men she'd sent to kill him. The dragging gasps of the last breaths, the way they'd hounded him through city and forest letting him be baited by the book, then making him fight his way to their favor or die on their blades. Like beating a pup until it was ready to prowl the grounds with nothing but hate for any man it saw. She would deserve it, he knew. She wasn't like Ben. She treated people like tools to keep her safe behind her high walls. Twenty feet away, ever closer. Ten. He could hear each of her words now, the thick-tongued scrape of Gascon. He moved to put Blaze to his left, between him and the citadel. He slid his knife from his belt and sliced a shallow line over the ball of his left thumb. Blood wormed into the folds of his hand. A single bead rolled down his palm, dripped to the street. He closed his eyes to catch his breath. When he opened them, she was standing in front of him. Their eyes met. Samarans were a sky blue, airy with the peace of her fifty-odd years. He saw no violence in them. She was a good liar, then. She murmured something in Gaskin, and he steeled himself against a flinch as she reached out for his forehead. Her fingertips were warm. She looked at him again with kind creases in the corners of her eyes, and he felt a yawning fear sweep through the marrow of his bones. He let the nether wait. When she moved down the line, when she turned her back, he dipped his head to mimic the gratitude of the others. He kept his left hand clenched, blood slick between his fingers. Samaran smiled at him again and turned to Blaze, who doffed an imaginary hat. 
She laughed, took his hand. Dante held his bleeding fist against his stomach and sent for the nether. He found nothing, an emptiness he'd never before felt. His breath shuddered. At once the shadows flooded forward, filling his vision with grey. He looked down and saw a violent darkness surging around his hand. Samaran said something holy-sounding to Blaze and moved along to the next man. It was time. Release it. Split her chest so no man could mend it. Use his blood to spill her own. She shuffled along. Blaze glanced at him from the corner of his eyes. Dante licked his lips. The high collar of a priest brushed his nose, and he jolted back and nearly blasted the man with the shadows he intended for her. Heads craned and waggled between his and hers now. He thought he could feel the weight of her presence, the deep substance that bulged beneath her skin. Release it. Strike her down. His fingernails bit into his palm. Blazer's elbow nudged his hip. He shook his head, paralyzed but quivering. She was well into the crowd now, hidden by the upraised chins of those she'd passed, by the bulky shoulders of monks and men-at-arms. Dante let the shadows fade, felt them burn along his hand as they dispersed back to the cracks of the earth. I couldn't, he whispered. I know, Blaze said softly, but Dante saw the doubt in his eyes. Dante closed his own. Laughter and chatter battered his ears. I was waiting for the moment, but when it came, I couldn't get a hold on it. We can find another, Blaze said. We know where she keeps herself. They threaded their way from the square. Dante didn't reply to Blaze's simple stabs at jokes, and after a while of walking, Blaze began humming a hopeful tune he'd sounded along the river beyond the mountains. Dante let out a long breath. His feet ticked over the cobbles. He rubbed dried blood from his hand. Blaze led the way. He gave no thought to their path or the city around them, and was mildly surprised some blank time later to find themselves back at the house they called theirs. She had meant to take his life. She tried it on four separate occasions— Yet he couldn't end her own. I wonder if she always travels with so many guards, Blaze said. He shut the door behind them and gazed at its iron handle. I expect so, Dante said, the first words he could remember saying since the square. The priests, could you tell? They were all swole up with the same power you've got. Some of them. There's a stillness around the ones who do. A heaviness. Maybe it was for the best, then, Blaze said. They probably could have told it was you. Probably, Dante said, and wasn't consoled. They burned a week, walking endless circles through the dead city, scouting the sealed citadel for ways inside, waiting for open gates, searching for tricks of passage. Every time the doors opened and the grill raised, Forty armed men watched the entry of the man they had parted the gates for. Wagons were searched before they were allowed through. They saw nothing more of Samarand, heard of no other sermons or appearances. They could bribe their way in, perhaps, 
or try to scale the towering walls by cover of night. But the keep was a city to itself. And even if they stood inside the courtyard, they'd have no way to find the woman priest within its alien lairs. Every measure seemed too desperate, its hopes far too trivial to risk their lives for. They killed the rest of their long hours, sifting through the rubble in the outer regions of the city, kicking around the trash of houses for anything they could use or sell. It was a tedious business, dirty and exhausting, and they did it in their rough old clothes. At four hours a day, they found more to sell than they spent on food, enough to keep themselves alive. Dante rose each day feeling hollowed out, torn open. He'd missed his chance, and as time raced on, time that surely saw the spread of unrest and death in their homes in the South, he saw no way to amend this mistake. His weakness. It had been a single moment, but it had confirmed every fear and close-held hate for himself he'd ever felt. He thought of nothing else knew his life from now till death would be defined by the single minute when he'd thought himself strong, but found himself wanting. Whatever else he'd done well, or done right, meant nothing. Blazer's attachment to him was hollow. His skill with the nether, a talent he'd once allowed himself to think would one day enshrine him in immortal glory, that was a sham, a delusion. There was only his failure, that non-act that loomed cyclopean from his memory, sharper and more crippling than any wound to his body. He began to wish he'd never existed. He daydreamed of standing at the foot of a hill and being consumed by the damp, cool dirt, leaving no trace of himself on the stupid earth. By night he found some small comfort losing himself in his books, dense works dripping with intricate thought and elevating efforts of logic. It was a week before he finished the three he'd found in that abandoned temple on their first day within Narashtovic. The day he finished the last of the tomes, he and Blaze walked the roads between the two sets of walls until they found another edifice bearing the marks of a rawn, and none of recent use. Dante combed its floors and shelves for more books with which to salve his mind. And there, among the rubble and the ruin, at last he found the answer. This audiobook has been broken into multiple parts to make the download faster. You have reached the end of a part, but not the end of the complete audiobook so please check your library for the next part of this audiobook. Audible hopes you have enjoyed this program.